This is Heisenberg. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. The Great Courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by the teaching company and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. These lectures are titled, The Vikings, Part 1. The lecturer is Professor Kenneth W. Harrell. Dr. Harrell is a professor of classical and Byzantine history at Tulane University in New Orleans, where he has been teaching since 1978. He earned his bachelor's degree from Trinity College and went on to earn his master's and PhD from Yale University. Dr. Harl specializes in the Mediterranean civilizations of Greece, Rome, Egypt, and Byzantium, and in the ancient Near East. The author of two books and numerous essays, he is also a veteran field researcher who has served on the editorial boards of the American Journal of Archaeology and, currently, the American Journal of Numismatics. Dr. Harl's skill and dedication as an instructor are attested by the many teaching honors he has won. Nine times he has earned Tulane's annual student award for excellence in teaching. He is also the recipient of Baylor University's nationwide Robert Foster Cherry Award for great teachers. Professor Harl prepared the course guide that comes with these lectures. The course guide includes a detailed outline of each lecture, a glossary, timeline, biographical notes, maps, and an annotated bibliography. To get the most out of this course, you may find it useful to follow along with the outlines or review them before or after each lecture. Lecture 1, The Vikings in Medieval History My name is Kenneth Harl, and I teach ancient and Byzantine and early medieval history at Tulane University in New Orleans. And I'll be guiding you through a 36-lecture course on the Vikings. And this course is really an excellent way to introduce the uh, early Middle Ages as well as medieval Scandinavia, because the Vikings have a very far-ranging impact on early medieval history. And in some instances, medieval history is almost inconceivable without them. But before we get into that and the structure of this class, I think it's useful to think about some of the stereotypes about Vikings, which most of us are familiar with. And they usually are stereotypes that are popularized in novel and film, and they're with us, and I think they're going to endure a long time. Uh, Viking is usually used to designate one's worst nightmare of a Nordic warrior, uh, sporting a horned helmet, slashing with the two-headed axe, uh, two axe. Uh, descending upon unsuspecting monks and peasants from longships. And believe me, we'll have a fair amount of uh, Viking pillage and attacks in Western Europe and in Russia. Uh, but this is a stereotype, and it's important to stress that even the Scandinavians in the Middle Ages used the term Viking for a very specific occupation. Uh, the best explanation is that the word comes from Norse Vic meaning a cove or a small fjord. It would be a place where pirates would lurk and they could prey upon merchant ships 
And so to go a Viking or to go out Viking was essentially a way of saying I was going out on a pirate raid. Um, the term then gets extended to cover any Scandinavians between roughly 790 and 1100 who uh, either go on raids or are trading or conquering overseas kingdoms uh, or even engaged in settlements such as Iceland, which is, uh, uh, we speak of the Viking Age settlement. So it's fair to say that Scandinavia from 790 to 1100 experienced what we call the Viking Age, and you can talk of Scandinavian civilization in the Viking Age. On the other hand, the term Viking really should be used to designate Scandinavians overseas, especially as raiders, attackers of uh, Christian kingdoms, and then later as merchants as well as colonizers and eventually as kings, uh, such as King Canute of Denmark, who conquers England uh, in 1014-1016. Uh, so we, we need to keep that designation in mind. The other important thing we have to keep in mind is that Scandinavians were known by a number of names overseas. Viking was just one of several. Uh, Frankish chronicles, that is the monks who would be writing today in what is Western Europe, France, the Lowlands, West Germany, often just vaguely referred to them as Northmen or Normani from which we get the word Normans. And uh, that is well known in the prayers that are uh, repeated in the ninth century, O Lord, deliver us from the fury of the Northmen, a uh, common prayer as a result of Viking raids. In England, where Danes were prominent, usually the Vikings are simply referred to as Danes. Uh, the term, uh, term Norman is used for those Scandinavians who settle in Normandy and northern France. Uh, those Scandinavians from, Russia, uh, from Sweden who operated in Russia are very often known as the Rus, a uh, word of obscure origin, there's several explanations for it, or Varingians, uh, which means men of the pledge. Um, that's a term used to designate especially Swedes and other Scandinavians who come to serve in the Byzantine armies. Uh, that is, they're men who take an oath and fight as a retinue to the Byzantine emperor. But all of these terms are referring to the same people. They are the Scandinavians uh, from this period in the early Middle Ages who are popularly known as the Vikings. Uh, now, we have an enormous amount of information about the Vikings. Unfortunately, most of it comes, at least in the early phases, from their opponents. So we're constantly filtering these monastic chronicles and hostile reports of their victims, and we're balancing that against archaeology and then what the Scandinavians tell about themselves in later generations when they've converted to Christianity. So part of the theme of this course is going to be looking at really three very different sets of evidence. The contemporary literary records, which are written by largely Christians, some Muslim accounts, who see the Vikings as hostile, uh, as their worst nightmare, that stereotypical barbarian. And in the case of the Western Europeans, they're drawing on a very, very old Roman tradition of seeing northern barbarians that way. Then we're looking at all of the uh, work that's been done in archaeology, recovery of uh, ships, for instance, Viking settlements, uh, fortifications. There's really been some significant work that's been done in, uh, say, Iceland on the early settlement patterns. And then finally, we'll be looking a great deal at the sagas and the poetry written in Norse, uh, most of these from manuscripts of the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, but reporting events going back into the 9th century and earlier. And those present some of their own problems as well. So we have these three very distinct set of sources. As for the stereotypes, I think it's important to, um, to dwell on them for a moment because they really do color our, our notions about the Vikings. And I've taught courses at Tulane with the Vikings uh, prominently figured there. 
And many of uh, my students always think of, uh, I think there's this commercial of a Visa card where someone doesn't pay and all of these barbarians come surging in. Uh, most people identify them as Vikings. I think they're actually Huns, but uh, they're, that's slightly flashed. And many of my students come up to me and say, well, that does, is that what happened to an English king in the ninth century when he didn't pay his debts? He was descended upon by a group of Vikings. And I assure them, well, it didn't quite work that way. But that stereotype is there and it's very powerful. It leads to cartoons. It leads to uh, various heroic sagas, novels, um, other types of uh, genres. It was extremely powerful in the 19th century, and the 19th century fixed a number of our notions about the Vikings. Uh, Richard Wagner's Cycle of the Ring, for instance, is based on the Norse version of the legend of the Volsungs, and we'll be talking about the Volsungs uh, later in this course, which is the earliest set of uh, heroes known in Scandinavian literature. And there's a later German version of it in the Nibelungenlied, but Wagner went to the Norse tradition, uh, even though he himself was a German, and really immortalized uh, this conception of the gods, their final destruction in uh, Norse, that would be Ragnarok, in German, Gotadamerung, and, and created this very heroic image. Uh, it was also captured in contemporary paintings, and anyone who's gone to some of the palaces of Mad Ludwig of Bavaria can get a very good idea of the types of very heroic and idealized painting of uh, the Valkyries and, uh, and Sigurd who slayed the dragon, all of these notions of um, almost the primeval barbarian uh, who's untouched by civilization. And these notions are also very old. They go back to the Reformation when um, Scandinavians and Germans were shaking off the control of the Roman Catholic Church and very often pointed to the Vikings and the Scandinavians as their original ancestors. And so you have this very, very powerful, heroic uh, notion that is uh, really capsulized in the 19th century music and literature. It then unfortunately gets matched up with some um, uh, German political ideology at the end of the 19th century, and presto, you have your Aryan ideology of the 20th century, the Second World War, in which some of these myths and legends were invoked by the Nazi regime in ways that I think would really stun uh, most Viking kings and, and, and warriors of the Middle Ages. I couldn't imagine how these images would get misused. Modern scholarship since the Second World War has really taken a new look at the Vikings. And there has been a great deal of work done on not only the archaeology, but understanding the sources, both the Scandinavian as well as the Western European sources. There has been a tendency among some scholars to revise our opinion. Uh, some of these notions have gone a bit extreme. Professor Peter Sawyer has pioneered some of these arguments in a really seminal work that came out about 30 years ago on the age of the Vikings. And he tends to downgrade the importance of the raids, the size of the raids, the amount of money that might have been, might have been taken in plunder or dangled, which is essentially a Viking, you know, it's a payoff. Uh, the Vikings essentially find the Frankish king uh, in silver, and that's called dangal, payment of money to the Danes. It's also paid in England. Uh, and these numbers have been reassessed. Uh, this has led to revisions about the importance and impact of the Vikings, uh, how much of an, uh, a destructive uh, impact they had. Uh, it's often noted that Western Europe at the time of the 8th and 9th centuries was a pretty violent place, and the Vikings were just, you know, part of the general landscape of mayhem uh, that characterized most of medieval Europe. Uh, there has also been a tendency in the revisionist uh, scholarship uh, to stress the um, continuity between the Viking Age and the earlier periods as well as the later periods. For instance, agricultural change is 
almost non-existent. The pattern of agriculture you saw in Scandinavia in the Viking Age is very much the same you would have seen 700 years earlier. And this has also led to uh, an effort to stress the continuity, the fact that many people in Scandinavia were not engaged in the Viking raids. Several very, very good studies have stressed the importance of trade. Uh, you really can't have piracy without trade. And one of the notions would be that the Vikings, or the Scandinavians to be more accurate, uh, were probably more often engaged in trade rather than in raiding or attacking. And again, you have to qualify what the monastic chronicles tell you. So there has been an effort to understand the Scandinavians within their own archaeological context as well as uh, their own material culture that we can reconstruct. Now some of these opinions have gone a bit too far in my opinion. Uh, they've tended to downgrade the importance of the Scandinavian impact in medieval Europe and that is because you are stressing uh, social and economic patterns, the more ordinary developments, and you tend to put on the sidelines matters such as military and political, which by definition are always extraordinary. And so one of our efforts in this course will be to balance those two perspectives, to try to bring in what all the new archaeology tells us, uh, the new understanding of what uh, life was like in Scandinavia in the Viking Age against the record of the Viking attacks, uh, Take into account that many of these are, again, from hostile sources, but nonetheless, these attacks were of a major order and had a very, very significant impact uh, throughout most of Western Europe, particularly in the 9th and 10th centuries. And that is uh, part of our uh, task to balance that. And that gets us to the organization of this course and what I plan to do. Uh, because of the nature of the sources and what I wish to achieve in this class, we're going to take a somewhat broader perspective than m one might think of the age of the Vikings. The first third of this class, we're going to look at three related subjects. Uh, one is the importance of people, geography, and early culture in Scandinavia, going back into the Bronze Age, particularly the period between 1550 and 1100 BC, very often known as the Northern Bronze Age, where really many of the cultural foundations of later Viking Age Scandinavia are laid. And what is extraordinary is to understand the continuity and the ancient quality of Scandinavian civilization at the time of the Viking Age. It was by no means new, and the Scandinavian gods have been worshipped in one form or another for uh, well over a thousand years uh, before the Viking Age began. Also in this first part, I want to stress very much the importance of the ancient Scandinavian religion, as well as its heroic ethos. This requires us to look at what the Scandinavians themselves thought about it. We have in Scandinavia the best evidence for a pre-Christian religion anywhere in medieval Europe. Uh, that is because of the extraordinary survival of manuscripts in Iceland. Uh, above all, uh, two works uh, I'll refer to repeatedly. One, the Poetic Edda, uh, which is a series of manuscripts that collects poems, which may go back to the 9th and 10th century. It is disputed. And these are poems. Uh, some of them are gnomic poems. There's the, uh, the wonderful Velospa, which is the uh, poem of Cirrus, a uh, prophetess uh, of Volva in Old Norse, who tells of the origins of the world and its destruction. And these poems give us an insight into the heroes and gods of the pagan past. And only in Iceland and Scandinavia have these, uh, this type of information has survived. And it's because of the peculiar nature of the conversion of Scandinavia to Christianity, particularly the conversion of Iceland, which was by an effect, uh, by an act of parliament. 
and was not accompanied by the kind of zealous destruction that you would get in other parts of medieval Europe. The second important work is a work uh, in prose by uh, Snorri Sturluson, who lived between 1179 and 1242, uh, an Icelandic chieftain of um, you know, rather dubious reputation. Uh, he gets assassinated in these really bizarre politics of the early 13th century, but he was a prolific writer, an incredibly witty author, and he wrote a work called The Prose Edda, which is a um, comes in three parts, and the first part in particular uh, which is really set as a conversation between a legendary king of Sweden and these three mysterious figures, uh, records many of the myths that were apparently well-known in Scandinavia. Now, this literature, to be sure, at the end of the Viking Age and just after the Viking Age, has to be qualified. It's written by Scandinavians who were Christians. It's written in the, al the Latin alphabet. Uh, nonetheless, it gives us a window into the gods and the religion of these people, and it corresponds extraordinarily well with what we're told in classical sources, um, that is Greek, Greek sources, Roman sources of the Roman Empire, as well as what medieval sources tell us and as well as what the archaeology tells us. So we have an, we're in an exceptional position to look at the importance of these pagan cults and how they shaped the Scandinavians in the Viking Age. And finally, the breakthroughs in shipbuilding and warfare are part of that Scandinavian background. So that is what we will look at in the first third of this course. The, the cultural background, the geography, landscape, the religion, and the achievements in shipbuilding and warfare that made the Viking Age possible. Then the second third of this course, we're going to shift and look at the Viking impact on the wider medieval world. And here we will um, really range quite widely, and if nothing else, the scope of Viking activities is nothing short of staggering. Their impact on the Carolingian Empire, arguably essentially Western, Christ really Western Christendom in the ninth century was essentially the Carolingian Empire, uh, was uh, extremely profound. It would reveal the weaknesses of the Empire of Charlemagne. It would lead to the emergence of feudal states. Um, most of the feudal states of Northern Europe uh, actually, the states that went on crusade in the 11th and 12th century uh, can be traced back to lords who emerged during the Viking Age who could uh, fight off Viking attacks, consolidate their area uh, where the monarchy had failed. And so the Viking attacks really have a very important role in propelling the development of what we would call feudal Europe. They also had a profound impact on England. We'll be spending two lectures there, uh, especially um, uh, the attacks of the Great Army from 865 to 878. And the movements of that Viking army, which were primarily Danes, uh, really uh, force us to reevaluate our notions about them being mindless barbarians who simply attack and plunder. The scale of movements, the logistics, their understanding of the political situation in England, which they exploit very, very adroitly. They are able to play off the competing English kingdoms. Within a matter of 15 years, they overthrow three English kingdoms and virtually bring King Alfred to his knees. It really is an extraordinary story in and of itself. And so the Viking impact in England really does make the Kingdom of England possible. Uh, the settlement of Danes in England is on a very large scale. We'll be looking at that as well. Uh, we'll also be examining their impact on Ireland and Russia, that is in the east and the west, the far ends of Viking activity. And remarkably, those two experiences, uh, one of Norwegians in Ireland and Swedes in Russia, are really quite comparable in many ways. And we will see that the results will be quite different 
In Ireland, it does not lead to any political unity. In Russia, it leads to the creation of this orthodox kingdom around Kiev, which becomes the basis of the Russian state. But in their initial stages, Norwegians and Swedes were essentially after the same thing. They were engaged in the slave trade. They were engaged in raiding. They set up important ports, or in the case of Russia, uh, fortified market towns on rivers uh, to develop trade routes. And so that uh, both in Russia and Ireland, you'll see a very, very similar pattern in the way the Scandinavians operated overseas. And finally, in this second third of the course, we must look at perhaps the most daunting and impressive of all of the Viking achievements, and that is their tackling of the North Atlantic. These are the first people who sail outside of the site of land. And the discovery of the North Atlantic islands, the Shetlands, the Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, and ultimately their brief venture into Vinland really has fired everyone's imagination. Most Americans, at least, immediately recognize the names Eric the Red, uh, really responsible for what I always think the first land fraud in Western European history. I mean, he settled Greenland by giving it the name Greenland. And why the Icelanders followed him, well, they were really desperate for free land, the ones that went along with him. And his son Leif the, uh, the, the Lucky, who's credited with the finding, uh, discovery of North America. Um, this is really an extraordinary venture. In the overall scheme of things, uh, Greenland was a pretty remote settlement, and the Scandinavians had a very vague notion of what Vinland is. Uh, it's essentially Newfoundland. They, they didn't really understand they had found a new continent. But the settlement of Iceland is a remarkable achievement. Uh, Iceland, just below the Arctic Circle, is settled largely by Norwegians between 870 and 930. And in Iceland, and to some extent you would have seen this in Greenland and Vinland also, is really the first European colonial settlement or the first frontier society that Europeans set up outside of the core of, of European civilization. And Iceland is extremely well illuminated for us by its family sagas and its other documents. And it is also important to us because Iceland is where most of this literature will survive. And it is one of the great achievements of the Viking Age that Iceland was settled uh, the way it was. Uh, the last third of this course is then going to shift back to the Scandinavian homeland and try to assess what that experience in the second third of the course meant for the homeland. And there we'll look at two very important themes. And these themes will actually take us a bit beyond our usual date. The Viking Age is usually thought to end around 1100, and, uh, and that will get us to look at the creation of the classic Scandinavian kingdoms. At the start of the Viking Age, there was no Norway, Denmark, or Sweden as we understand them today. And in the course of these lectures, I will refer to these areas, but they must really be looked upon very tentatively as geographic regions. For instance, Denmark uh, in the Middle Ages is twice the size than the modern kingdom is today. It included the entire peninsula of Jutland, or Jutland as we would say uh, in its anglicized version, uh, all of the Danish islands, and the southern provinces of Sweden, uh, particularly Holland and Skane, uh, which are now part of Sweden. They've been part of Sweden since 1658, but in the Viking Age would have been cut off by forests, so they were virtually islands, and they're really attached to the Danish kingdom. Norway was at least four or five distinct areas. No one knew whether this would ever come together as a kingdom or not. 
And in Sweden, you're dealing not only with the Swedes, the, the Sveaar, that is the, the Swedes proper living around Lake Maleron, which is where Stockholm is today, but also people known as the Gotar or Gietas in Old English, the Goths in what are now the Swedish provinces of Vastergotland and Östergotland. And these were an independent Scandinavian people who had their own rulers through most of the Middle Ages. And so you're looking at an extremely diversified and politically divided area. By the end of the Viking Age, the kingdoms that we know as Norway, Denmark, and Sweden have come into existence. And they are a direct outcome of that Viking experience for two reasons. One, the overseas ventures, uh, especially in the 9th and 10th centuries, netted enormous amount of booty and wealth. And it also led to the creation of ever more professional armies, uh, warriors who were really must be accounted as among some of the best soldiers of the Middle Ages, and increasingly better ships. The classic longship or the great dragon ships are really from the late 10th and 11th centuries. And with these types of fleets, with this wealth, with these professional warriors, sea kings, that is Scandinavian monarchs who had made their reputations by raiding and battling overseas, could use this military power to impose their control over areas and set up territorial kingdoms. We see this first in Norway with King Harald Feinherr operating somewhere around 880 to 930, who gives the first definition to Norway, and it's sea power that enables him to do this. In fact, it's the only way you could ever run Norway is by the sea. Uh, less than a generation later, the same is achieved in Denmark uh, with a figure by the name of Gorm the Old, who creates uh, a kingdom in Jutland, and eventually that comes to encompass the Danish kingdom of the Middle Ages I just described. It's later in Sweden. The Swedish kingdom is really almost a composite between those two groups, the Swedes and the Goths, or the Gotar. But even by 1100, there clearly is going to be a Swedish kingdom. It's a question of what family is going to rule and what of the two groups is going to have the, uh, the major say in this. But there is a capital, the kings have converted to Christianity, and there will be a Swedish kingdom. And that's an important point to stress, because today in Europe, among the various political structures that exist today, with the exception of England, the three Scandinavian kingdoms can quite legitimately trace their descent back to the kings and the institutions that were set up in the Viking Age. Now, only England has that same claim, that it has a continuous monarchy. Well, you know, there's a slight interruption with Cromwell uh, that goes back into the Middle Ages as well. And that is an extraordinary achievement coming out of the Viking Age that these kingdoms were forged. Now, the emergence of those territorial kingdoms uh, go hand in hand with another important development and a development that helps end the Viking Age, and that is the reception of Christianity. And we will spend a fair amount of time on that issue. Not only the question of conversion, that is Scandinavians embracing uh, usually Christ as a legitimate God, but also the Christianizing of the society whereby slowly, and this takes, this takes 300 years, uh, it's in some ways not completed until the 12th century, until after the Viking Age, but it, it sees the substitution of the uh, ancient martial ethos that I'll be talking about in the first third, the, the old heroes, with the Christian vision, uh, with the acceptance of a, um, um, the Christian doctrines of a transcendent God, uh, with the notions of heaven and hell, 
and the setting up of institutions of Christianity. And I often make the distinction between conversion and institutional Christianity. Institutional Christianity would be bishops, uh, the churches, the whole structure of the medieval Western church, which those territorial kings, those sea kings, will impose. And very often, the imposition of Christianity is closely linked with successful Viking sea kings who often convert to Christianity while serving overseas. They come into contact with the great cathedrals, the monarchies of England and France, and as any monarch, uh, and especially any aspiring monarch, loves to have bishops because bishops do neat things for you. They give you coronations, you great, great ceremonies, you build neat churches, and it makes you look like a big league power. And many of these early Christian kings, King Canute of uh, Denmark, Norway, and England at one point, St. Olaf of Norway, later kings of Sweden, such as um, uh, Olaf and his son, um, uh, Arnold Jakob, all of them want the ceremony, the legitimacy, the high services associated with bishops in Episcopal structure, and therefore their monarchies are often very closely promoted at the same time that institutional Christianity is imposed, um, setting up bishops' benefices and the like. And so in the last third of the course, we are really looking at two themes. One is the political transformation of Scandinavia into these kingdoms, which is a direct result of the Viking Age. And the second is the reception of Christianity and its adaption, um, its assimilation into a Scandinavian civilization. And that too is part of the Viking heritage. Those first missionaries got to Scandinavia because of the trade routes and the attacks of the Viking Age. Uh, starting very early in the ninth century. One of the ways of halting Viking raids came to Louis the Pious, probably one of the most original thoughts, well, probably the only original thought Louis ever had, uh, which is try to convert the Northmen, make them fellow Christians so they'll stop attacking us. And this is carried out over the course of the ninth and 10th century with little, little success. And we'll, we'll go into that, why it's difficult for the first missionaries to have any impact on the Scandinavians. But once we get into the late 10th and early 11th centuries, where we have these powerful sea kings after 250 years of Viking uh, activity, they're able to give the backing uh, to the bishops and the missionaries to make Christianity not only a religion of victory, but the religion of a monarchy and acceptable to the Scandinavian populations. And that conversion to Christianity and that Christianizing society uh, of Scandinavian society is one of the reasons why the Viking Age eventually passes. The Scandinavians are essentially uh, brought into the wider European community. And I'll close with a few thoughts on what that meant for Scandinavia. Above all, for the early Christian kings uh, coming after 1100, uh, what they did with that martial ethos is essentially reinvent it as a crusading activity. And the final two lectures will look at Scandinavia in the immediate aftermath of the Viking Age and how these Christian kingdoms redefined themselves and how uh, particularly Denmark and Sweden attempted to direct their energies in crusading activities in the Baltic regions, particularly uh, the eastern and southern shores of the Baltic, hoping to carve out larger Christian kingdoms. In the case of both Scandinavian kingdoms, uh, Sweden and Denmark, in the long run it didn't, it didn't succeed. But it is an important way of measuring uh, how civilization had changed and really why the Viking Age eventually comes to pass. And with that, uh, we will close uh, with this course.
Lecture 2, Land and People of Medieval Scandinavia. In this lecture, I plan to introduce the lands and peoples of Scandinavia, and this is an uh, opportunity to stress some of the um, major features in the Scandinavian landscape, and that will notably be the northern climate, uh, the forests and the seas, that will dictate Scandinavian history really from the start of agriculture in what we call the Neolithic period, starting somewhere in 4000 BC, through the entire of our course, uh, through the end of the Viking Age and 1100 AD, and even beyond. I also want to introduce the ancestors of the Scandinavians, the people who eventually gave rise to the Danes, Swedes, Norwegians, the people of the Viking Age. And again, there will be uh, uh, some important points to stress that this population of Scandinavians or their ancestors going back at least into the Bronze Age were a relatively homogeneous group of people. And the Scandinavians of the Viking Age were therefore the heirs of a very, very long uh, cultural continuity, a continuity in settlement, uh, which is going to be an important feature about Viking Age civilization. Well, first I should start with the term Scandinavia. Uh, the term is used geographically to define the peninsula that is shared by Norway and Sweden. And in that restricted sense, it's correct to speak of the Scandinavian peninsula. And that peninsula is really rather deceptive because it doesn't imply the unity that most maps would tend to give the viewer. Uh, a map is a two-dimensional reproduction of a three-dimensional reality. Norway is cut off from Sweden by a really impressive mountain range, the uh, Kjolen or the Kiel, which essentially uh, breaks off the two kingdoms, the two future kingdoms. So Norway faces to the North Sea and the Atlantic, where Sweden orients east on the Baltic. And so when Scandinavia is used in this course, it's more than just that geographic term. It refers to the Scandinavian peoples. It has much more a cultural sense. And there we have to include Denmark. Uh, and Denmark, I noted in the first lecture, uh, politically is much larger than the modern kingdom. It's over twice the size. Uh, but Scandinavia includes the peninsula of Jutland, or, or uh, Jutland as, as it's often anglicized, which is partially German territory today. Uh, most of Schleswig is now in German territory. Uh, it would have been part of Denmark in the Middle Ages. It includes the Danish islands, uh, notably the great island of Zeeland, or Zeeland as we say in English, uh, Finn or Funen as it's sometimes rendered, uh, Lalland and, and Falster, which are the four big islands. It includes the islands in the Baltic, Bornholm, now part of the Danish kingdom, and the islands of Oland and Gotland, which are attached to the Swedish kingdom. And Gotland will play an extremely important role in commercial activities, well, really from the very start of the Bronze Age and running through the Viking Age and beyond. Uh, Finland. Notably, the islands between Sweden and Finland today, the Åland Islands, which are really inhabited by uh, Swedish speakers, but are now part of Finland. They were awarded to, awarded to Finland uh, by the old League of Nations. And Finland, notably its uh, southwestern and southern shores, are culturally very closely linked to Sweden and therefore to Scandinavia. And even today, uh, Finland is often included in Scandinavia in that cultural sense because the Finns came under very, very close, uh, very, very um, profound influence from Scandinavian civilization. We will find that actually Finns team up with Swedes 
to form part of the Rus, the Vikings who operate in Russia from the 8th through the 11th centuries. And so Finland, while inhabited by peoples who speak a completely different language, uh, Finnish is a um, agglutinative uh, language with its own structure, very, very different from the Germanic languages of Scandinavia. Nonetheless, culturally, Finland is part of this world. Uh, and finally, Iceland, uh, the Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic, these are colonies that are established in the Viking Age. They, too, are part of that Scandinavian cultural uh, unit today. Well, with that definition, let's look at some of the key features that will influence Scandinavian history. And the landscape will shape very much human activity and the culture that emerges in Scandinavia by the Viking Age. Well, first and foremost, the northern climates. Uh, this is something that most viewers are familiar with. Scandinavia immediately denotes a cold place, and understandably so. The winters can be brutal, especially in Norway and Sweden. Uh, Denmark is more uh, favored because it's much farther south, and it receives many of the benefits of the warmer climate uh, being generated by the North Atlantic drift or the Gulf Stream as we call it. But even Norway benefits from that Gulf Stream so that habitation and certain types of farming and stock raising is possible in Norway all the way up along the northern shores of Norway, uh, Hologaland, uh, that is areas that are just below the Arctic Circle, just beyond the Arctic Circle. Uh, it's extraordinary how far north uh, the Norwegians will be able to plant uh, their settled life. Nonetheless, the winters are harsh. Uh, sailing conditions are often obstructed. Oh, sailing perhaps five months a year, six months of the year is the best you can get. The icebergs in the North Atlantic would uh, pose a, uh, a very, very serious threat to any early vessel. And so it always must be remembered, as we lecture in the Viking Age, that the harsh winters, uh, these conditions are just a, a given fact in Scandinavian history. And they're easy to forget although the Scandinavians themselves make reference to it all the time in the literature of the Viking Age, especially in the Icelandic sagas that we'll draw upon uh, to discuss much of what we know of Viking Age history. The earliest explanation of some of these conditions comes from a Greek writer, a fellow named Pythias of Massilia. Uh, Massilia is the ancient city, uh, city which is uh, now represented by Marseille in southern France, and Pythias uh, traveled north following the rivers of Gaul, today France, took passage over to Britain, and sailed across the North Sea somehow, and landed in a place called Thule, or Tulle, as it's sometimes called, or Thule Ultima, which to him was the edge of the world. And by best guess, this is the northern coast of Norway. Uh, it could have been somewhere around Trondelag, or more likely Hologaland, up by the Arctic Circle. He is the first southerner, actually the first writer of anywhere, who observes the fact that the natives in this area, and he seems to be describing the ancestors of the Norwegians, can grow barley and vegetables. And they're able to do this because of the, um, even though the, the growing season is short, in those high latitudes, you have uh, long hours of sunlight or twilight. This is the land of the midnight, midnight sun, and Pythias is the first person to describe it. And this allows you to cultivate crops that otherwise would have been impossible. He also makes a number of important astro uh, observations of astronomy on the latitudes and longitudes of the Earth. And it was all eventually published in a book on the oceans. And um, later, classical authors uh, cited Pythias's work about the northern peoples. And it was premised on a, a, um, 
the earth is a globe uh, until the 6th century where Pythias comes into criticism by Christian authors who are convinced that the earth is flat and Pythias suffers a decline in reputation in the Middle Ages. He's, he's usually called a fool. Uh, and it turns out that Pythias was right, the earth is a globe, but you know, so much for publishing and perishing uh, if you make the wrong conclusion. Furthermore, you're in those northern climates, again we get this from Pythias, that uh, the spectacular emissions of light, the so-called aurora borealis, which the later Scandinavians of the Viking Age assume were the Valkyries of Odin, uh, the great war god, that is his warrior princesses riding across the skies, it is really quite a spectacular landscape. And furthermore, Scandinavians very early learned to adjust to this landscape and exploit its possibilities even in the winters. Uh, for one, a great deal of trapping and hunting could occur in the winter, as well as a fair amount of local and regional trade. From an early date, uh, the Scandinavians, and, and before them, the Laps, the people now known as the Sami, who are in the extreme sections of Scandinavia and Finland and northern Russia, learned to travel at winter by the um, creation of skis and of sleighs and um, uh, skates. There's a considerable amount of travel that can go overland uh, on frozen rivers. And there are occasions when the Sund or the Urisund of uh, that, that narrow strait between the Danish island of uh, Zeeland and uh, southern Sweden, Skane, will freeze and you can actually move people and goods across the ice. Um, and so the winters in some ways uh, turn out to be a way of transportation. Furthermore, the long winters uh, preconditioned a lot of social habits and attitudes we'll see in Scandinavia. Um, it was wrong to deny hospitality to travelers, particularly in wintertime. Uh, and in later Scandinavian legends and, and myth, those could be gods. Uh, and if you turned aside, it could be the god Thor and Loki traveling in disguise. You certainly don't want to turn away strangers for that. Poets, bards, men who were expert in the recitation of the great poems and legends would always find a welcome in the great halls of kings and jarls, and jarls is the Scandinavian equivalent of an earl, whenever they came knocking in the long wintertime. Uh, in the early spring, before you could do the planting and the sailing. The great halls were generally the centers of all sorts of festivities, uh, boasts, uh, religious activities. And so from the start, the northern climate will precondition or, or influence a lot of the social and even religious attitudes of Scandinavians. And I mentioned two in passing. And one is the fact that in the Scandinavian conception of the afterlife, the worst conditions one can come up with is cold and the blue color of death, and hence Niflheim, the underworld of the Scandinavians, is a cold place. And I often wondered what early pagan Vikings must have made of Christian missionaries talking about hell as a place of, of fiery torment. That made no sense to Norwegians and Swedes. Um, this is the image of the fire in the garden being imported from the Near East. And even the depiction of the devil in later European art, starting from the 14th and 15th centuries, where he's depicted as blue, that comes out of an old Germanic tradition of the, uh, the blue color of death. Uh, Hell, the daughter of Loki, who presides over the underworld, is actually described as bluish in color or half bluish in color. And so the physical reality of Scandinavia will influence not only their social and, and economic conditions, but even their religious outlook. Another important feature in Scandinavian history will be the great forests. And here we have to really precondition, we really have to remove our preconceptions of what Northern Europe in general looks like uh, in antiquity and the Middle Ages. 
the farms and the, and the neat uh, villages and towns with their beautiful churches and steeples, uh, the very carefully ma uh, manicured landscape of Western and Northern Europe today is something that has evolved over the centuries. In the Viking Age and before, uh, Scandinavia was covered with dense forests. And Scandinavia was largely cut off from the rest of Europe by those forests. The only overland access into Scandinavia was a, um, uh, a track later turned into what is known as a corduroy or wooden road. It's essentially laying logs down. This is known as the Harvek uh, in uh, Scandinavian accounts. It means the army way. And that was a route that uh, traveled from Germany across Jutland uh, to the northern end of Jutland. It dead-ended uh, at the northern shore of Jutland. And it was a pretty narrow track. And it was this, essentially the only route for transportation uh, into the Danish peninsula. And then at, uh, from there, you would have to take passage by sea. And so Denmark was largely cut off from outside influence in the 9th and 10th century. There was no real threat of an invasion. And this is also true of Norway and Sweden much more. There was never an external threat. And throughout the entire of the Viking Age, the Vikings could raid their opponents with, uh, at will, not only because they had the ships, but there's no need to maintain armies, the fortifications, the necessary defenses and institutions that would be uh, essential if you shared a common border with an opponent. Furthermore, those forests turned out to be an important resource to uh, most of the Scandinavians. Uh, Denmark, uh, which included parts of southern Sweden today, uh, the areas of Skane, uh, Halland, and Blekingling, those regions which only passed to Sweden in 1658, uh, parts of um, southern Norway, the area around the uh, city of Oslo today, the so-called Viken, that's the great fjord that cuts deep into southern Norway, and the regions especially, uh, especially around Lake Maloran in central Sweden. There you had uh, des deciduous forests, especially oak, extremely important for building material, especially for shipbuilding, uh, for fuel. Uh, pine trees covered most of northern Scandinavia. By one estimate, Sweden may have been covered by anywhere from perhaps two-thirds to 75% of Sweden was covered with forests in the Viking Age. Uh, lumber was one of the biggest commodities the Swedes had, and it only was over uh, time, especially after 1100, after the Viking Age, when they really began to clear the forests and put area onto cultivation. So the forests are a major feature throughout Scandinavia. In Norway, the conditions are even more extreme. Uh, the best estimate today is about 3 to 5% of Norway is really arable, and that's located in the sheltered fjords along the west and in the area around Oslo and its hinterland, the uplands. 70% um, of Norway is mountain above the tree line. Uh, perhaps close to 25% of it is pine forest. So the forest proved to be a barrier in some ways, and the other, on the other hand, it is also a major resource, and it's no accident that Scandinavians excel in shipbuilding, in wood carving, uh, all types of timbered construction, and really never develop masonry architecture. I mean, the material is not there. You're not in the Mediterranean world. We have just lots of limestone and, and marble hanging around the way the Greeks and Romans can work it. The third feature that I mentioned at the start of this lecture was the sea. And the sea has to be stressed constantly throughout Scandinavian history. It is perhaps the common experience that binds all the Scandinavians together, certainly in the Viking Age, but even in these earlier periods. It is the fastest way to move around. 
And uh, there are some very, very good figures on this from the later Middle Ages, uh, provided by the account of Adam of Bremen, who wrote the history of the archbishops of Hamburg, Bremen, uh, that is the German archbishop who claimed authority over Scandinavia. And he gives us some very telling uh, distances. For instance, in uh, Roskilde, which is on the island of Zealand, the capital of Denmark, if you tried to travel to Sweden, uh, which would be central Sweden today, to Uppsala, the great sanctuary of the gods, uh, it would take four to six weeks under the best conditions during the summer uh, to travel by land. You had to go through some major forest zones. On the other hand, if you took passage by ship, you could be in Uppsala perhaps within three days, certainly within five days. Sailing distances are likewise given for uh, along the shores of the Baltic. Uh, to reach uh, Hedeby on the um, eastern shore of, of uh, Jutland in, in southern Denmark, to any of the ports of um, the various Baltic peoples, which today would be Latvia or Lithuania, you're talking of a sailing time of anywhere from four to six, oh, a travel time of four to six weeks by land, maybe two months in some instances, whereas at most it's a week by sea and depending on what type of vessel you take and the sailing conditions. To be sure, you could only sail in certain times of the year. But the sea is the key link. And in the case of Norway, it's all essential. Travel in Norway is always by sea. The unification of Norway will be by sea power, starting with Harold Finehair at the end of the ninth century. And here again, we have very good information on the traveling conditions in the uh, Viking Age. We are told in this important document uh, created at the, uh, written at the court of King Alfred the Great in the ninth century, a, uh, a Norwegian merchant prince whose name is uh, Otter, who hunts walrus and trades with the Laps up near the Arctic Circle, explains that it is a month travel from the distant reaches of Norway to the south to Kalpang, the, uh, the main market town, which is in general vicinity of Oslo. And he's traveling on a slow cargo-moving vessel, which is trading along the way. And he says it's about a month's travel. It's well known. And you have to remember, that is a remarkable achievement. Uh, Norway is over a thousand miles of coastline, and Norway is essentially half the length of Europe. So these daunting distances uh, can be traversed by the sea. And that is very, very well captured in Norse mythology, where arduous travel is always through dense forests and mountains. Whereas in the legends and the myths, traveling by sea is quick, it's speedy. Actually, you get changes of, of scenery uh, and of action in Norse um, uh, myths and uh, saga by simply saying, well, they took passage and now they're at the next court. This occurs very illogically in the Volsung saga where uh, Gunnar and, uh, and some of his friends traveled to the court of Attila the Hun by sea. You know, things happen to be located in Central Europe, but we won't get into the details of geography and legend. Therefore, uh, Scandinavia will always uh, depend on seaborne commerce, and here the Scandinavians had several other advantages. For one, the um, Scandinavia is essentially washed by two different seas, or, or big bodies of water. One is the Baltic, and the other is the North Sea and the Atlantic. Does anyone's guess where the North Sea ends and the Atlantic begins? The Baltic is an enclosed sea, and sometimes it's compared to the Mediterranean, that is the northern version of the Mediterranean. It is an almost freshwater lake, um, that is, it was created uh, with the retreat of the glaciers after 8000 BC. 
it receives enormous amount of fresh water from the great river systems of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the Oder, the Vistula, uh, the Dvina, the Niemen, all these great rivers that drain what are now parts of Russia and Poland and dump water into the Baltic, as well as the different rivers, the lesser rivers of Sweden and Finland. And so uh, the Baltic is a sea that can be navigated fairly easily. It's teeming with certain types of fish, uh, especially at the Sund or Iresund, as it's often called, that narrow strait between uh, Zeeland and southern Sweden. Uh, that's a prime herring area. It becomes an important fishing zone for commercial fishing in the later Middle Ages. Furthermore, the Baltic's uh, patterns of currents and winds favor travel, uh, favors travel from west to east. And therefore, the Danish ports, especially Hedeby in Jutland or ports in Zeeland, uh, the Swedish island of Gotland, and above all, the Swedish market towns on Lake Maloran. And Lake Maloran is virtually this arm of the Baltic that cuts deep into Sweden. Those are prime ports for sailing. That is where most of the uh, sailing goes. It goes from west to east. So the Scandinavians from the start have an advantage over the other peoples of the Baltic because it's much easier for them to navigate. The winds and currents go clockwise. Furthermore, Lake Maloran offers uh, sheltered ports. Uh, and you can move your, your ships into places like Helgo or Berka, important ports in the Age of Migrations and the Viking Age, respectively, uh, uh, load up with lots of goodies and then take off for points east. The Baltic is not an easy sea to navigate in many ways. It's subject to sudden squalls, uh, storms, and above all, mists. And mists are perhaps the most dangerous conditions for sailing in the Baltic and are always seen as ill omen. And immediately, if your ship is encased in mist, you know, someone, some sorcerer is throwing a spell over you, and you, you better invoke Thor pretty quickly to dispel it, um, that he, who is the god of the skies and the god of rain. And um, the advantage that the Scandinavians gained, starting with um, uh, the first efforts at shipbuilding in the Neolithic Age, the first effort at sailing, uh, gives the Scandinavians of the Viking Age certain critical advantages in navigational skill and experience. They become very accustomed to sailing in the Baltic, memorizing landmarks, uh, experimenting with shipbuilding. And the argument is that the Scandinavians were able to experiment with shipbuilding and navigation in the enclosed waters of the Baltic and then take that, those skills and expertise and apply them to tackling the North Atlantic uh, and the North Sea, uh, which were far more daunting oceans, bodies of water, uh, to tackle. Uh, and there's a great deal of truth to this uh, observation. We, we can't prove it archaeologically logically, but it makes sense. Um, even in Western Europe, uh, that is the linking of Norway and Denmark to Western Europe, again, currents and waves, um, uh, currents and um, winds uh, favored the sailing from Scandinavia to England and northern France. And the Scandinavians, uh, with all of their expertise gained in the Baltic, could apply those uh, skills in um, sailing to England, sailing to the North Atlantic Islands, eventually to Iceland. And so uh, Scandinavia had this position where it faced west uh, towards Western Europe and it faced east into Russia. And the key connection was, of course, travel by sea, the fastest and most economical way of moving people and goods around. The um, final point I would like to make and, uh, and close with is um, what we know of the peoples uh, living in Scandinavia in earliest times and through the Viking Age. 
And in this case, our, our evidence isn't particularly good. Uh, we actually lack skeletal remains. Uh, there's relatively limited number of skeletons that can be studied from any period of prehistory and really even in Viking Age history. So we're depending on literary descriptions of Scandinavians penned at later times. These include descriptions by Roman authors starting with Julius Caesar in the first century BC and running through Ammianus Marcellinus in the fourth century AD, Christian writers of the medieval period, uh, Arab geographers, uh, particularly a fellow named um, uh, Ibn Fadlan, who will keep reappearing in this course, who met many Swedes in Russia on the lower Volga uh, in 921-922. And they uniformly give us an impression that these people are tall, uh, that they are fair in complexion, uh, hair color is generally blonde or reddish, uh, a lot of red-haired types, uh, light eyes, and by the standards of the Mediterranean world and the West European world, these people are big. Part of that is diet. Uh, given the conditions in Scandinavia, stock raising is often preferred over farming. Farming is extremely difficult, particularly of grains. Barley and wheat are the earliest grains used. Uh, cattle are prized in early Germanic society, uh, so the diet comprises a lot of uh, meat, uh, beef, pork, uh, and above all, dairy products. That influences the size of population. That can be demonstrated, and the Roman author Ammianus Marcellinus made that observation back in the fourth century. The reason they're so tall is their diet. There also may be genetic reasons behind it. Certainly one thing is true. This population is hardy. All of those southern sources, that is from the Arabic world, the medieval west, and from the classical world, agree that you're dealing with the population that was inured to cold. Often the, um, the generalization is they, um, they, can handle, uh, they can handle cold and uh, lack of food far better than the lack of water and heat, an observation that's repeated uh, century after century. The Scandinavians themselves, when we get their records about them, are not really conscious of any kind of major um, racial distinctions as the modern world would think. And, and this is probably very, must have been very disappointing to Nazi ideologues when they went back into the records. Uh, there is a very, very peculiar poem which is the closest thing we have to any kind of racial consciousness of these people. It's known as the Rigsthula. It's probably composed in the 9th or 10th century, and it refers to the creation of the races, not even the race, the classes of Scandinavia, the aristocrats, the farmers, or as they're known as a bondi, and the thralls, the slaves. And the god uh, Hemadal, who's the benevolent god to mankind, he guards the bridge of Bifrost, uh, the rainbow bridge that links Asgard to the Middle-earth where mortals dwell and later will slay Loki in the final battle uh, of Ragnarok. Uh, Himedal in the disguise of Rig, which means king, um, travels the world and he fathers uh, the different mortals. The aristocrats who are depicted as the Nordic hero, um, the farmers who in their description are very much like Thor. They're reddish-haired, uh, barrel-chested, strong and healthy, with a big hearty appetite. And then he he fathers the lowest class, the so-called thralls. They're described as dark-haired and swarthy. Uh, some have tried to look into this as some kind of racial connotation. And really, if you look at the descriptions of those three classes, and it's an etiological myth, it's a creation myth, the thralls are really described like dwarves or elves. 
uh, the people who, who inhabit Elfheim in Scandinavian mythology, guys living under the earth, really clever, making lots of things, working away. Um, their, their most famous product is the uh, cord that's used to bind the wolf uh, Fenair, uh, the, um, the child of Loki in the, the famous myth of the uh, binding of Fenair. And the uh, Bondi, uh, the Carls, as they're sometimes translated as the farmers, the yeomen, uh, they're described as Thor with the red beard. Uh, I always think Thor's red beard is taken from, you know, the color of the sky, you know, the old, the old Boy Scout, what is it? Um, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky at morning, uh, sailor take warning. I mean, that is probably an adaptation of the physical reality to the description of the god of the skies and the rains. And the uh, most farmers and sailors worship Thor, and so they're effectively described as Thor in the myth. And then, likewise, uh, the aristocratic heroes are probably taking on the qualities of Odin. Other than this very, very peculiar poem, which some uh, scholars now put down to a 13th or 14th century creation, and I don't think that's right, but that argument has been made, uh, there's no indication that the Scandinavians had anything uh, like a kind of racial prejudice, that hair color, size, actually denoted people's status or ethnicity. Uh, there's lots of reports of people being fair-haired, dark-haired. And furthermore, we know that overseas, the Vikings were more than willing to intermarry with local populations. In Ireland, we will see this, where they intermarry with the Celtic populations, gives rise to a very, uh, really a unique Hiberno-Norse culture. They intermix with Slavic peoples in the East. In Western Europe, English, Franks, Frisians, these people, you know, physically look very much like the Vikings. And uh, um, as far as we can tell, what really matters, uh, what will count, will be whether you speak the Norse language, you worship the ancestral gods, whether you're part of that uh, Norse community that is very, very much shaped by the landscape. That is, the real test is culture and language. And in the next lecture, we're going to deal with the origins of that culture and language. Lecture 3, Scandinavian Society in the Bronze Age. In this lecture, I plan to discuss the earliest of civilizations and cultures in Scandinavia, starting in what is known as the Neolithic Age, uh, which technically means the New Stone Age. Uh, and this is a fairly sophisticated level of human development where um, there's great expertise in making flint and obsidian stones, uh, uh, weapons and tools. And also it is a period that sees the advent of agriculture and domestication of animals. And we're going to carry the story through what is known as the Bronze Age. And in Scandinavia, the Bronze Age lasts a particularly long time, starting around 2300 BC and ending around 450 BC. Uh, this is a great deal of history to cover, but again, we have no really written sources on this. We depend very heavily on archaeology and anthropology to uncover what these people were like, and we're looking at their material remains. Even so, taking the material remains in tandem with what we know of the historical geography of Scandinavia, as well as what we know of later Scandinavian civilization, it is clear that uh, developments in these periods set many of the basic um, uh, fundamentals in Scandinavian civilization in place, and that the Viking Age uh, drew upon these traditions, these cultural traditions, perhaps the conception of the gods, 
uh, as well as burial practices, uh, the importance of uh, shipbuilding already detected in the rock carvings of this period. And so when we turn to the Viking Age, it's very useful to remember that the Scandinavians are the heirs of a very, very long tradition in their homeland. Well, with that said, let's turn to these um, earliest cultures that we can recover from archaeology. I noted in a previous lecture that human habitation in Scandinavia is relatively late that the area was covered with uh, glaciers uh, from the last ice age and it is only about from 8000 BC on that humans could actually move into the area. Uh, until then it was just uh, impossible. It was, it was a vast glacier and snowfield. And the earliest inhabitants uh, of Scandinavia were the usual hunter-gatherers that we call um, uh, peoples of the Paleolithic, the so-called Old Stone Age. Uh, and again, by the time these people arrive in Northern Europe, uh, they are descendants of uh, people who have perfected hunting skills going back deep into the Stone Age. Uh, they are uh, probably represented by the, uh, the later Laps, or the Sami as they prefer to call themselves, who ultimately evolve into the Arctic nomads, uh, people who domesticate the reindeer and become absolutely expert in traveling uh, the Arctic wastes, exploiting uh, the hunting opportunities among the various uh, uh, seabirds and sea creatures, especially sea mammals, um, uh, uh, seals, and uh, even be uh, able to get uh, whales and cut them up. And therefore, your earliest residents would have been in what are often called the hunter food gathering stage of, of human history. They are, are particularly well concentrated also in the regions I keep referring to as the core lands of early Scandinavia. And that would be what is today uh, Denmark, or more accurately, the medieval kingdom of Denmark. That is the Jutland Peninsula, the Danish islands, often known as the belts, since they act as a belt that connects Jutland to the Scandinavian peninsula, southern Sweden, notably the region of, uh, of Skane that is associated with Denmark, uh, the Baltic islands of Bornholm, Oland, and Gotland, uh, the region around Lake Malaren, um, that is the core of Sweden today where Stockholm is located, and the southern shores of Norway, especially the regions which are around the Oslo Fjord and the Vestfold area. There the conditions were ideal. You're, you had deciduous forests, you were teeming with game and fish, uh, you had easy access to the sea, and a great deal of our knowledge of the earliest uh, people in this area is based on studying their campsites, their tools, and also their refuse, particularly uh, what are known as the kitchen minin middens, as the, the discarded, um, mostly sea creatures and shells uh, that were just stocked up uh, as the garbage heaps for these early communities. Well, by 4000 BC, there is a significant change in Scandinavia, and that comes with the advent of agriculture and domesticated animals. Now, this knowledge was brought into Scandinavia from the outside. The domestication of animals, notably goats, uh, sheep, and pig, are, these are creatures of the Near East, especially the Levantine regions, and barley and wheat, uh, those two grasses which have been uh, domesticated into the cultivated grains, those arrive somewhere around 4000 BC and that allows for the cultivation of cereals and stock raising. That is an extremely important change. Um, contrary to what most people would think today about Scandinavia, uh, rye and, uh, and also oats, by the way, are not introduced until after 1100 AD, that is after the Viking Age. Those, those are part of the benefits of uh, becoming Christianized and getting linked up with Western, European, uh, yes, Western Europeans and learning their superior agriculture. So in any case, villages begin to appear. Uh, these villages are rather small, certainly far smaller uh, 
in comparison to those that have been detected in uh, Central and Western Europe, and certainly far smaller than what we know of in the Near East, uh, where the origins of agriculture are to be found. One important aspect already of these communities seems to be a, uh, more of a stress on stock raising than on agriculture, and particularly the raising of cattle. And again, this is a surmise that is based on physical evidence. We really are speculating here. But it is a feature of Scandinavian and early Germanic society in general that cattle were regarded as the prime wealth. We're told this much later in classical sources, starting with Julius Caesar, also with the uh, Roman historian Tacitus, who penned this work known as the Germania, written around 98 AD, where he describes the customs of the Germans. And from the start, the Germanic peoples, by which Roman authors meant Central Europe and Scandinavia, uh, preferred cattle over farming. That cattle was the mark of, of rank and was to be preferred over farming, which is often treated as a more despised uh, occupation, or, or at least not as noble an occupation. It's something you had to do. The contact with Central Europe and ultimate, ultimately the Near East, it wasn't Near Easterners who suddenly arrived and brought all this change. It obviously passed through different hands before it reached uh, Scandinavia. Uh, also brought important innovations in uh, weapons and tools. They're superior tools for agriculture. Carts begin to appear. These are usually documented on rock carvings. And uh, in contrast, however, to Western Europe, these people who are part of a wider, what is known as megalithic, um, big stone, that late Neolithic culture, uh, the Scandinavians just don't have the populations and resources to raise the great kind of stone monuments one associates uh, in this period with, say, Stonehenge in England, uh, where you have um, much more uh, successful, uh, economically anyway, society where you have the population to raise these great monuments. There isn't any effort at megalithic monuments beyond, you know, you raise some dolmens, you know, circle of stones. Fundamentally, your population in Scandinavia is considerably smaller than Central and Western Europe, and that will be a fact uh, through the whole of Scandinavian history. Older hunting patterns, of course, were important, held on, especially in the areas of Finland and the northern reaches of Scandinavia, where speakers of the Finno-Ugorian languages, these are agglutinative languages that are related to Turkish and Mongolian languages. They are not related to the Indo-European languages, the Germanic family or the Romance, the Greek, the Celtic languages, uh, the Iranian language, the Indian languages, a whole different uh, language structure. Uh, those people eventually give rise to the Finns or Suami, uh, the Laps, the Sami, and the Karelians, who are the cousins of the Finns dwelling in what is now uh, Russia. They're immediately to the east of Finland. And these people were expert hunters, and among them uh, come the Arctic nomads who uh, tame the northern climates, um, or exploit the northern climates uh, for the uh, Arctic goods. In the uh, Neolithic age, there's already indications that there is trade with Western Europe. Uh, going across the river systems, um, notably the Elba, the great river that bisects Germany, uh, the Oda, uh, which is now essentially part of the border between Germany and, and Poland, and those two river systems lead from the Baltic to the upper basin of the Danube and ultimately to ports on the Mediterranean. And uh, a good deal of influence comes from the Mediterranean over these river systems into the Baltic. Well, there's a significant change that occurs uh, uh, somewhere around 2300 BC and it's usually associated with the arrival of newcomers. There is a surmise that there must have been a migration. And again, we largely depend on physical remains. Now, starting in the Bronze Age, the period from 2300 BC on, we do get graves. 
Uh, and since the burial is inhumation, that is, uh, in the ground rather than cremation, there are some skeletal remains to study, and they're still in the preliminary you know, stages of understanding what this means. Um, but before then, we have very, very little in the way of skeletal evidence. We have no written records. But the, uh, the argument that at least is made now that is that in 2300 BC, people arrived speaking a language destined eventually to evolve into the Germanic languages from which the Scandinavian languages are descended and other Germanic languages such as modern German, Dutch, and English. And there's a long way to go before that evolution takes place. So we believe there was a major infusion of a new population. That doesn't mean the older population was simply eliminated. Uh, the best guess is that there was intermarriage and assimilation and it ran a bit both ways. This is borne out by the fact that Germanic languages uh, in contrast to other Indo-European languages, have an unusual amount of words of unknown origin for basic items. Uh, the most common example cited by linguistics is dog, a word that is not represented among other Indo-European languages. That word is hound, hund in German, canis in Latin, um, uh, kuan in Greek. Um, dog is of some unknown origin, and it's suspected a number of basic words were taken over by the ancestors of the Scandinavians, the Germanic-speaking people, from the existing population there. Some of these people may have been related to the Finns, the Laps, we just don't know who they are. Uh, what is important is the populations coalesced into more or less a single group, which we can study from their physical remains. Uh, the Bronze Age is of importance uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the new technology, the bringing in of bronze, enabled the manufacture of weapons and tools that were far more efficient than those of stone. The uh, bronze for a long time is, of course, kept more for weapons than tools. But the advent of metallurgy, and with it ceramics, is a major improvement in material culture. Ceramics allow you, for instance, to, uh, especially ceramics made on a potter's wheel, uh, to turn out uh, storage vessels for grain. That protects you against rats. Essentially, pottery is recreated as a rat-proof device. The, um, the skills in metallurgy lead you to fashion all sorts of objects that you couldn't do in stone. For instance, swords you can make uh, out of metal in a way you can't with stones. A sword is essentially an elongated knife. Uh, different types of axes and hand axes can be made, and above all, jewelry and personal ornamentation, which becomes an extremely important feature throughout Scandinavian history. One of the ways that Scandinavians express their artistic genius is in the decorative arts, particularly in metalwork. Uh, not in monumental architecture or sculpture, but rather in metalwork, and that is already seen in many of the objects coming out of the finds in the Bronze Age graves. And these are very rich grave goods that we find. Uh, and I always like to speculate, one of the most remarkable are these enormous horns that have to be held with essentially two hands. And what their purposes are, we don't know. Uh, in textbooks, you read that they're for cultic purpose, which means essentially we don't know what they are. We assume they're used in ceremonies. And I always like to think that that horn is the origin of the great uh, Gyalar horn of Hemadal, uh, the watchman of the gods who will sound uh, the final days of Ragnarok. But there's no way to prove it, but I would like to think it's true. Also, uh, the need for metals, uh, especially tin and copper, to create the bronze weapons meant that you had to have long-distance trade uh, on a scale that you did not have in the Neolithic age. Uh, there are no tin sources in Scandinavia. You have to bring the tin in, and copper is in pretty short supply as well. And that meant the core lands of Scandinavia, southern Scandinavia, which are going to eventually turn out to be the heartland of early Germanic civilization, had to get those metals from somewhere. That meant trade routes into Central Europe 
and ultimately to the centers of the Eastern Mediterranean, the area of the Aegean, that is the Greek world, and above Lowell, the Near East, where you had great urban civilizations in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Well, what did the Scandinavians, or these ancestors of the Scandinavians, have to trade? Well, there are a number of important products. First and foremost were the products of the Arctic climate. This would include skins, furs, all sorts of neat items, always in high demand, prime furs. Often these had to be obtained by trading with the Arctic nomads, that is the Laps. Um, this is a feature running throughout a Scandinavian economic history that the Germanic speakers, the speakers of Norse, traded with the, uh, the Laps of the North. They would get all sorts of uh, products, walrus ivory, whale, whale bone, skins, seal skins, furs. In return, they would swap finished goods, such as metal goods or well-worked wooden goods, which the Laps themselves could not produce. And this symbiosis goes back certainly to the Bronze Age, uh, if not earlier, and will continue through the entire of the Viking Age, and we have some really excellent information on how the later Norse uh, continued this trade on a wider scale with the descendants of these earlier laps. There was also uh, timber products, uh, honey, wood, flax, various items, and above all, amber. Uh, amber is essentially prehistoric uh, <laughs> a sap or gook, even, that has hardened into the quality of a stone, and it was in high demand in the Mediterranean world from the Bronze Age, well, right through the Roman period. It was regarded as a precious stone. Uh, much of the best of the amber was washed up on the shores of Denmark, the Danish islands, and this was a high commodity product. You could trade this item and get an awful lot of tin and uh, copper for it, as well as gold and silver, which you then could bring back to Scandinavia and work into all those marvelous objects that we find in the graves. And finally, there was undoubtedly a slave trade. Distressing to us, but through most of history, the slave trade, labor, in one form or another, was one of the biggest commodities. And the easiest way to obtain slaves was to essentially raid and enslave your neighbors. Uh, who may be people very closely related to you, uh, but since you're dealing with a society that is probably very localized and ties are very much based on family and kinship, um, there's no problem in enslaving your neighbors, particularly if you have a limited uh, supply of, um, of uh, goods. And from the merchant's viewpoint, it was really rather cost-effective. You simply uh, have the slaves carry all your skins and amber down to the Mediterranean world, and then you just sell everything and then go back north. Uh, rather distressing to us, but, you know, I'm sure many of the goods transported out of Scandinavia to the Mediterranean world were being carried by slaves who would then be sold at the other end. It's a common feature of slave trade through much of history. So what happens is that the um, long-distance trade allows, um, by 1550, villages of fairly substantial size uh, to be sustained, and it also allows enough concentration of power into the hands of local bigwigs, usually called chieftains in anthropological models, uh, that you have families of great wealth and rank who could afford to deposit all those grave goods in the inhumation graves of the Bronze Age. And that is an index of the amount of wealth as well as the importance of long-distance trade. And so uh, this is another feature I, I, I must stress uh, that we see in the Bronze Age, and that is the ties of Scandinavia to those civilizations of the Mediterranean and Western Europe. They're always there. Ultimately, Scandinavia is economically and in, in some ways culturally tied to those other worlds through trade, uh, material goods, and uh, eventually uh, political institutions and religions as well will pass over those trade routes, starting certainly in the Celtic Age and running through the Middle Ages. 
And so the question in Scandinavian history is not that there are these links or these contacts, but what did the Scandinavians receive and what did they do with what they took from these other cultures? And again, in the Bronze Age, from what we can see, it was a matter of adapting uh, the imports to a Scandinavian context. And while, uh, yes, uh, uh, these ancestors of the Scandinavians depended on long-distance trade, they did create a uniquely Scandinavian civilization. So much so that the years about 1550 to 1100 BC is usually called the Northern Bronze Age. A very, very distinct period, a distinct material culture that implies a certain amount of opulence and success and invites comparison to the more successful and better known Bronze Age of Greece and the Near East, with what we call the so-called Late Bronze Age. That is the area, era of Imperial Egypt, the great palaces of Mycenae, uh, the Hittite Empire in Asia Minor. And these, these great political orders were linked to Scandinavia through these trade routes across Central Europe. As a result, population must have risen, the villages are expanded, and um, agriculture does not change very significantly, really, uh, uh, in terms of animals and crops uh, from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age. Most agriculture is pursued by what is known as a slash and burn technique, and this technique is going to be used really up until almost 1100. Um, certainly it's used in, in the Iron Age, that is the period after about 450 BC, and um, Scandinavia must be remembered as really a land of scattered settlements, farmsteads, villages. There aren't any real towns or cities. These do not emerge until the very end of the Viking Age. And in this early period, especially in the Stone Age and the Bronze Age, there is a fair shifting of population. And this is a result of soil exhaustion. That is, you clear an area, you burn it down by um, um, burning the trunks of the trees, you try to destroy the roots, you cut them down, you plant your barley or wheat. Uh, for the first generation, you get a lot of success, and eventually the soil exhausts. You move to a new area, you carve out a new village, the old village falls out of use, the area fills up uh, as forest land, and um, there's a lot of very good study going on on how the population moves essentially from village to village. And so there is a certain amount of migration or movement um, stretched over generations uh, still going on, and in that way um, our agriculture remains in this state really until major improvements in the later Middle Ages. Well, the success of this Northern Bronze Age civilization uh, depended a great deal on long-distance trade, uh, and it brought in the metals and the raw materials uh, to work those goods. And again, uh, we don't have written sources, and we're depending very, very much on the physical evidence, but that physical evidence is very suggestive. In one area, we can make some speculations. We don't know what these people are speaking. We assume it's an early form of Germanic, or Indo-European at least. But we have a number of objects coming out of the graves, as well as rock paintings, that suggest that already the conception of the gods, as they're known to us in the Viking Age, are taking place. The most spectacular of these is a gilt bronze chariot that was found um, in Denmark at Trundholm uh, in um, Zeeland, that is the great island of Denmark, dated generally around 1200 BC. Only one of the horses survived. The original had a pair. And uh, it's remarkable that you got a chariot anyway. That's a pretty sophisticated item that's invented fairly late in the Near East. This is uh, one of our earliest examples of a chariot in Northern Europe. And uh, the iconography of it, um, the great bronze uh, symbol that looks like the sun, suggests that what you're dealing with 
is uh, essentially the chariot described in Snorri Strulson's prose Edda, uh, pulled by the two horses, horses Aravak and Alvzin. And in uh, Norse mythology, uh, and this is a very, very famous mythological handbook written around 1220 by this, oh, absolutely witty um, Icelandic author known as Snorri, Snorri Sturlson, he's the son of the Sturl, uh, names in Scandinavian are essentially, patron essentially patronymics, you're simply named as the son of or the daughter of your father, you know, not last names in the modern sense. So Snorri, which is what his real name is, uh, Snorri writes about this myth in which uh, these two horses pull the chariot uh, carrying the sun each day and the sun is uh, being pursued by this enormous wolf that wants to swallow it and bring on Ragnarok which in Norse mythology is the end of days and uh, there's also a, um, a similar chariot uh, carrying the moon with another nasty wolf after it and uh, this object apparently is a representation of this notion that that is already evident in the Bronze Age uh, there are other representations in the rock carvings and in the objects found in graves that are suggestive. Clearly there's a god associated with an axe or a hammer, and that gives rise to the primary god of the Viking Age, for at least, at least for most Scandinavians, who was Thor, uh, the great red-bearded, barrel-chested, heroic god, uh, a little dim-witted, but a good guy generally, and easy to appease, and he is the lord of the skies. I've mentioned earlier that he may get his red hair from the, the color of the skies uh, uh, at night in the morning, whether there's going to be rain or not. Uh, he also drives a goat chariot, which is a very, very primitive cart, and a cart that goes back to the Bronze Age, and it's suggestive already that Thor in some fashion is being worshipped. And the goat-drawn cart is regarded as a symbol of um, royalty, sacred royalty, among all the Germanic peoples. In Gaul, in the 5th and 6th century, the, uh, the uh, Franks, the Germanic peoples who moved into the former Roman province and took it over, uh, and whose kings are known as the Merovingians, this is the family of Clovis, they were paraded around in a cart drawn by goats, which is a very, very old notion going back deep into Scandinavian and Germanic mythology. Uh, there's also representations of what are clearly fertility gods. Uh, these would be known later as the Vanir, um, that is the gods of prosperity. They're associated also uh, with the ancient um, uh, animal of the boar, that is the undomesticated pig, uh, and that is a common feature that'll come through Scandinavian art, that is the boar as a heroic creature associated uh, especially with the god Njord uh, and his two children Frey and Freya uh, who are the gods of prosperity and worship throughout Scandinavia. Um, there's um, very little indication of the, the classic war god of the Viking Age, uh, that is Odin, as he's known in English, Woden, and as we'll see later on, that god in many ways is a creation, not a creation, but Odin doesn't acquire his importance as the primary god in Asgard, that is the uh, Norse Olympus, uh, perhaps until the Roman age, 2nd or 3rd century AD, and really becomes uh, the quintessential god of the Viking Age. It is the Scandinavians who will endow Odin with all of his powers and his really inimical powers and, and uh, his changeable nature, starting from the 8th and 9th centuries. On uh, the other hand, uh, another uh, aspect of religious life that can be detected uh, in the Bronze Age is the importance of burials. Uh, I mentioned that you must have elite families that can uh, afford to put all of these displays of goods 
uh, into the um, uh, inhumation graves, and eventually they start building very large barrows uh, for multiple um, generational burials, that is, various members of the family over time are, are buried in the same spot. And there has to be, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a surmise, there has to be repeated family rites around these graves, around these barrows, uh, where the family comes and venerates the ancestors. And this is a feature of Scandinavian worship through the Viking Age. One of the most uh, powerful indications of the fact that you're dealing with Vikings or Norse overseas is if you have Scandinavian type burials and these are burials they could be cremation or inhumation but they include all sorts of grave goods and some kind of monument erected where rites continue to the ancestors that they continue to be venerated and in many ways and we know this from Icelandic saga if you don't the dead will rise up and walk the earth and do all sorts of nasty things to you. And the Scandinavians don't have, unlike the Mediterranean peoples, uh, the afterlife isn't some sort of intangible spiritual world, the way Homer describes it in the Odyssey. Um, the dead physically get up and do nasty things, and especially if they're sorcerers from the Hebrides, it can be a real problem. So from the start, in the Bronze Age, we see this feature that becomes a major feature of Scandinavian life and will a climax in the very, very rich burials of the Vendel Age in Sweden and 4th through 6th centuries and the great Scandinavian ship burials that will be found uh, in the Oslo area in the 9th and 10th centuries. Well, ultimately the Bronze Age did depend on long-distance trade for its great success. And sometime after 1100, this trade seems to break down. There are fewer grave goods, uh, there is a shift after 1000 from inhumation to cremation and that starts to restrict our record because we just don't know as much when you're burning everything up and you're dealing with the remains of a cremation burial and so part of our impression of the succeeding generations down to about 450 BC that it's a it's a period of relative poverty is simply a fact that we don't have the rich burials that gave us the physical evidence to surmise aspects about this society yet we do know from good historical records that in the Near East, starting from about 1200 or 1220s on, the great political orders of the late Bronze Age do collapse. Imperial Egypt, the Hittite Empire, and that there is a general decline of organized literate civilization in the Near East, and with that, a fall of markets, a fall of demand for the northern goods, the amber, all of those products of the Arctic, and as a result, our repercussions are felt across Central Europe and ultimately to Scandinavia of the Bronze Age, and there just isn't the same demand. And so some families must have gotten poorer, uh, the grave goods get poorer, and therefore our physical evidence does reflect a certain important economic change. And for several centuries, our information on Scandinavia is rather limited. Uh, nonetheless, uh, starting probably in the 5th century BC, that begins to change. Uh, trade revives, and it revives not so much because of the revival of civilizations in the Near East, but the emergence of a new civilization in Central Europe. This is the Latien, the Iron Age civilization of the Celts, and that civilization will open up a new chapter in Scandinavian history. Lecture 4, 
Scandinavia in the Celtic and Roman Ages. In this lecture, I wish to deal with Scandinavia in what is often called the Celtic Age and then the succeeding Roman Age. And these are a bit deceptive terms because they give the impression that Scandinavia is part of a wider Celtic or Roman civilization, and that's not really the case. The terms are really used to indicate the um, chronological uh, distinction. That is, this is Scandinavia contemporary with Celtic and Roman civilization. And again, there's a great deal of trade and exchange that goes on, but in neither uh, instance, either in the Celtic or in the Roman age, uh, should we think of Scandinavia as somehow being assimilated into those other civilizations or as an adjunct or, uh, or a peripheral part of it. Uh, the ties are close, but again, as I've stressed in a previous lecture, the Scandinavians pick and choose what they want and in many ways retain many of their cultural distinctions and heritage going back to the Bronze Age. So with that provision in mind, let us use these terms Celtic and Roman Age uh, that way. The Celtic civilization that exercised such an important influence over Scandinavia was actually what we call the Latien civilization. Uh, this was a later stage uh, centering especially on eastern France, uh, the, or what the Romans would call Gaul. It emerged about 450 BC. Its heartland uh, was the Rhine and the rivers of eastern France, which uh, drew the Celts up to the North Sea, to the British Isles, and by trade routes into Scandinavia. Uh, this is the last of a series of civilizations in Central Europe. It's really the climax of uh, tremendous skill in metal, uh, metallurgy. Furthermore, Celtic Europe, which would be Gaul, southern Germany, the lowlands, sees a emergence of towns. Uh, the Romans called them opida. Uh, these are large enclosures, uh, including many acres with specialized areas for manufacturing, uh, areas enclosed for agricultural purposes. And uh, they really are the urban basis for the success of Roman provincial civilization in Britain, Gaul, and the lands of the Danube, uh, starting in the first century AD and running through the fifth century AD. Uh, so, when you're dealing with the Latin civilization in Celtic Europe, you're dealing with an extremely sophisticated, almost certainly town, if not urban style civilization. And being towns with large populations, specializing in metallurgy, uh, mining, all sorts of activities, there is an enormous appetite for labor, uh, for luxury goods, and for foodstuffs. And so Scandinavia all of a sudden springs into prominence again as one of those areas where Celtic merchants can tap in for raw materials and luxury goods. And these would be the same goods we saw in the Bronze Age. That is the products of the Arctic, uh, the slaves who would be sold off to supply labor in the Celtic world. Uh, amber is a product in high demand uh, or a commodity in high demand. They actually, uh, the Celts will work it into their own jewelry techniques. And above all, apparently a fair amount of timber and uh, products of the forest uh, begin to also arrive. So uh, Scandinavia prospers a great deal with the emergence of Celtic towns in Central Europe. Uh, it can be illustrated by a couple of examples on how life was so enriched. Uh, the most obvious is the uh, acquiring of expert metallurgy and ironwork. 
uh, starting from 450 or 400 BC, uh, Scandinavians either imported Celtic smiths or they learned or were trained by Celtic smiths are beginning to turn out some quality iron work. Still in limited supply, uh, they depend a great deal on imports, uh, but this is a significant difference from the experimentation in iron work that went on in Sweden around 800 or 700 BC. Uh, another important area where they gain in technology is in carts and even in ships. Uh, these are two areas where the Celts excelled. Uh, one is in carts and harnessing. Uh, this is seen in, for instance, uh, the Latin language. Romans uh, were the first to admit that the Celts were first rate in wheeled vehicles, and many of the words for various types of carts in Latin are actually Celtic loanwords. That is, the Romans had borrowed them from the Gauls. We suspect the same was going on in Scandinavia, where we begin to get uh, first-rate carts and harnessing systems, complements of the Celts. And um, it's, it's an interesting aspect of Celtic civilization. Uh, the burials in the Latin always, uh, you know when you're dealing with a Celtic burial, because there's a cart there usually, and the Celts always think going to the other world is by cart, whereas the Scandinavians and the people of the Mediterranean always think it's by water. So uh, Scandinavian burials always have ship imagery, just as you very often get in the Mediterranean world, and the Celts in between, of course, have the carts. In any case, uh, shipbuilding was also effective, uh, affected by uh, Celtic trade. Our first paddle boat, if you want to call it that, is the Hjortspring ship, which is excavated from a Danish island around 200 or 300 BC, and it is the first effort to create a coastal vessel propelled by, I think, uh, 20 men uh, using paddles rather than oars. Uh, but it's a wooden construction, and it shows some of the features of um, Celtic construction, which is using ribs and skin boats, only you're applying it to wooden construction. And uh, this boat seems to be based on Celtic experimentations, and it will be the first in a line of archaeological finds that lead us from this uh, first effort at a coastal vessel and will climax in the great ships of the Viking Age. So that is a very, very important gift coming from the Celtic world, that is, superior skills in shipbuilding as well as carts. Also, Celtic civilization enriched and transformed the aesthetics and the arts of early Scandinavia in this age. Again, this doesn't mean that Scandinavia became part of the Celtic world per se, but many fine prestige objects arrived in trade, by which I mean jewelry, uh, plate. Uh, later with the Romans, you get glassware and, and other types of objects which the noble classes could afford. Uh, the most remarkable of these is known as the Gundestrup cauldron, uh, which is a beautiful silver repoussé work. It's again coming from Denmark, and it's in a find of a, a grave good. And what it is is a Celtic object that depicts heads. Uh, the Celts were big on head-taking, so there's always worship of heads. And also what are clearly marching warriors and sacrificial scenes, uh, human sacrificial scenes, Again, we have reports of this uh, with Druids and Celtic traditions, and God-wearing antlers and other gods that could easily be associated with Scandinavian divinities, the Vanir of the Viking Age. And what we have here is a Celtic object, a, re a religious object, which could be very easily applied to a Scandinavian religious context. And there must have been many instances of this, where the Scandinavian gods or the ancient Germanic gods, if you will, because the Germanic peoples who emigrate from Scandinavia worship these same gods, that in many ways they are enriched uh, with the iconography and uh, the rituals of the Celtic world. They're still Germanic gods, but they have been elevated and ennobled 
by being associated with the rights and the objects of the superior civilization to the south. And this is a feature that is common in many ancient religions where you have this type of exchange. Doesn't necessarily mean that the ancestral gods have been abandoned. They've simply been articulated and enriched in their um, conception by contact with other peoples. This explains, for instance, why Tacitus, a Roman historian writing around 100 AD uh, in his Germania, uh, mentions that the Danish tribes move uh, the cult statue of a goddess, he calls her Nerthus, which seems to be a feminine form of the later Scandinavian god Njord, around in a sacred cart, probably a ritual that came from the Celtic world, which by Tacitus's day is quintessentially Scandinavian, that is some three or four hundred years later. One could even argue that perhaps the Germanic gods were rather abstract figures until they came into contact with the Celts and they became more humanized and more myths created about. We're, we're not sure, but clearly the gods were conceived uh, differently as a result of this exchange in contact with the Celtic world. On the other hand, it's important to keep in mind that all of this influence does not necessarily mean Scandinavia was part of the Celtic world. Far from it. I said the irony is we're using this term chronologically, and it is in this period from, say, 450 or 500 BC on, that several important features are clearly noticeable about Scandinavia. One is, at this point, philologists' best guess is we have the early Germanic language being spoken. This language in its structure and vocabulary is very, very distinct from Celtic, from Latin and its related Italic languages, from Greek, which are all Indo-European languages being spoken in Europe at the time. There's others as well. The Germanic language has a distinct verb system, a whole different set of nouns as a result of consonantal shifts. There's significant changes in Germanic pronunciation from other Indo-European languages. By 500 BC or 400 BC, those Germanic languages have emerged in the core areas of Scandinavia, and all the Germanic languages ultimately descend from that earlier Germanic language. They are not part of the uh, Celtic world linguistically. Burial practices. Scandinavians never adopt uh, using carts and burials. They very much adhere to the uh, ship uh, imagery, which goes back very early in Scandinavian tradition. They are also uh, switchovers to burying of male deceased with weapons, notably spears and shield, a tradition that will continue uh, long into the Viking Age. The Scandinavians never adopt towns. Uh, despite all the trade and activity with Central Europe and the fact that maybe some of these Scandinavians may have seen a Celtic opidum, there is no movement to the sort of town life that we see in Central Europe. Scandinavia still remains largely a land of villages sustained by this long-distance trade, which allows expansion of villages more arable, perhaps being brought under control, improved tools, carts, harnessing, but still the pattern of life essentially the same it was in the Bronze Age. You are living in relatively scattered communities. And this is a feature of early Germanic civilization that lasts well into the Roman Age also. Uh, Roman authors can distinguish very carefully and accurately between Celtic populations who live in towns as opposed to Germanic peoples who live in villages. And from the Romans, it's always from the military viewpoint. The Celts are so convenient to fight because they run into towns and the Romans can bring up their artillery and batter them senseless and capture the towns. There's a military objective. And the Germans are nasty because they run out of their villages into the swamps and bogs and you never can find them. Uh, so the Romans are extremely annoyed with the Germans. They don't play fair.
But that distinction is clearly made in Julius Caesar. It's also made later on in Tacitus that there is a difference in the social pattern in economic life, especially the Germans putting stock, raising especially cattle, above agriculture. The Romans also noticed a difference in religious practices between Celts and Germans, and these are not just stereotypes. Uh, one aspect about this contact between the Celtic and uh, Scandinavian world is uh, the Scandinavians never seem to adopt a priestly caste. There is nothing equivalent to the Druids, uh, subject to a lot of myth and rumor and modern recreations of the 19th century, but there is not the kind of religious caste of Druids that you have in Celtic Gaul ever appearing in the Germanic world whether in the Roman age or even later in the Viking age. And that is the worship of the divinities are uh, not organized into some sort of overall hierarchy. And furthermore, sacrificial rites in Scandinavia are particularly Scandinavian. The Toland man, who is uh, a poor fellow who was excavated from a Danish bog, uh, was probably strangled or hanged as a sacrifice to an early form of Odin and the sacrificial rites of human sacrifice in Scandinavia that we can detect in the Celtic and Roman age are completely consistent with what's later on described in the Viking age. So for all of its contact, in many ways, the contact of that Celtic world precipitated the formation of a very, very distinct Scandinavian Germanic uh, civilization. And that civilization had a chance to expand, unexpectedly, complements of the Romans. And uh, many a German scholar of mine and friend, his colleague, is, is always a bit annoyed whenever I make the point that the reason Germany exists is because the Romans created it. Uh, Julius Caesar, between 58 and 50 BC, conquered Gaul and began the Roman conquest of Central Europe up to the Danube. His successor, adopted son Augustus, completed it. And what the Roman conquest did within less than a generation was to shatter the Celtic world, to incorporate most of it into the Roman Empire, and leave Central Europe open for migration by Germanic peoples. And somewhere between maybe 100 BC, there was already Germanic movement into Central Europe. But with the Roman conquest of Gaul and the Upper Danube regions and their incorporation into the Roman Empire, the Germanic tribes spread out of the Scandinavian heartland and essentially filled up the lands between the Rhine and the Vistula and north of the Danube. And this is the region that the Romans called Germania, by which they meant Central Europe and Scandinavia, which was predominantly, but not exclusively, Germanic-speaking peoples. All of these Germanic-speaking peoples, uh, the West Germanic people, who later became the Franks, uh, the Saxons, the Angles and Utes, who eventually moved to England, uh, the East Germanic peoples, the Goths, who invaded the Roman Empire in the 3rd, 4th, and even 5th century AD. All of these peoples ultimately traced at least part of their ancestry back to that Scandinavian heartland. So that the Roman conquest of the Celtic world had a major impact on Scandinavia. The second important impact was that the scale of trade and contact between the Celtic age and the Roman age was, the difference was, was geometric, um, not arithmetic at all. The Romans, the Romans had enormous demands for goods. And the Romans, for instance, stationed 150,000 soldiers on the Rhine. These men had to be fed. Most of the cattle industry 
of Western Germany and Denmark was feeding the Roman army on the Rhine. That has now been de that's now been demonstrated archaeologically. That is, there was an enormous art market for Germanic and Scandinavian beef. There was also an enormous market in labor, uh, slave trade, uh, obvious, but also the Romans needed just day laborers. They needed auxiliaries, that is, warriors. They recruited into their auxiliary army. There were large numbers of German tribes that moved in under Roman arrangements to settle as agriculturalists. And so what happens is the Roman world becomes part of a safety valve, at least demographically, where the Scandinavians and their kinsmen in Germania, Central Europe, can export their excess population into the Roman Empire. And as a result, there's still no cities in Germania or Scandinavia. The volume of imported goods uh, from the Roman world into southern Scandinavia is truly extraordinary. The Danish Isles and southern Sweden, uh, Skane, which would have been part of the later Danish kingdom, show a range of goods that indicates that at least for the upper classes, their material life had significantly changed with that Roman contact. Fine tableware, including glass, uh, silver, all sorts of fine Roman ceramics. Uh, we believe at this point that the Germans are accustomed to drinking wine. Uh, Tacitus writing his Germania, which is a highly romanticized version of the Germans, it's actually, it's hard to describe Tacitus. I always think of him as a cynic who does history as a sideline. And he writes his Germania largely as a way of saying, see how noble the Germans are and how depraved and decadent the Romans are. And yet Tacitus is clearly not running off to live in Scandinavia. He wants to live in Rome. Uh, but in any case, uh, one of the points Tacitus says, well, we're, we're unnerving those, those Germans because we give them wine and they gamble their freedom away in order to get vintages. Uh, archaeological evidence uh, does bear out that uh, Scandinavians and Germans become accustomed to drinking wine as a prestige item. This notion survives through the Middle Ages. Uh, there's references to uh, consumption of wine by the great heroes in the Volsung saga, uh, later the early Danish heroes of the 6th and 7th century AD. These are not anachronisms. Uh, there's enough testing of residue to indicate that the import of wine was a very important commodity to the upper classes in Scandinavia in the Roman age. Besides wine, ceramics, and jewelry, there's other items that get to Scandinavia, which is a little bit more alarming to the Roman government. Uh, this includes really good weapons and armor. Our earliest chain mail armor comes from Danish deposits. Uh, these are dedications probably to an early form of Tyr or Odin. One is from Vimros in um, Denmark. Uh, it's a chain mail or brinja, as you say in Norse. It's a big hunk of chain mail that's been thrown in as a dedication, which meant you had the money to throw armor away, which indicates there's a fair level of trade going on despite imperial regulations not to export weapons and arms. Uh, we also find a number of finely wrought swords, and in the Roman age, swords become the weapon of choice and are remembered as the weapon in heroic legend, the weapon of Odin that he gives out to his favorite heroes. That is one of the benefits of Roman trade, that is superior weapons, armor, uh, helmets, all sorts of equipment, uh, very often recovered from deposits from, say, 200 to 400 AD. And this is understandable. Uh, the Romans appreciate the skills of the Germanic peoples. Many Germanic uh, tribes have been served in Roman armies. Uh, some of it is coming through the um, uh, simple fact that the veterans being discharged are returning home carrying their weapons, and in other cases it's through trade goods. So Roman impact on Scandinavia is dramatic and substantial. 
Another uh, feature of this Roman trade, and uh, again, this is one of the reasons why one makes the argument he does in the, or I do, in the, in the Bronze Age, is the trade goods coming into Scandinavia, again, allowed consolidation of power around petty kings or dynasts. The Roman historians assure us in the first century AD that the Germans are extremely disorganized, and they're very happy about this. They're always inciting tribes to fight each other. But from 100 AD on, and this starts with the description of Tacitus, into the 4th century AD, as Germans begin to move into the Roman Empire, steadily the Germanic peoples of Central Europe and Scandinavia become more organized. And there's several reasons for this. Uh, one is that the trade enables people to amass wealth in Scandinavia or Central Europe and make themselves kings, reges as the Romans would call them. We're told that some of these kings keep uh, around them retainers, a comitatus is how Tacitus tells them. These are professional warriors who are devoted to their lord. They have taken service with their lord. They're expected to fight and serve them. And the description that Tacitus gives of these warriors is quite consistent with the description you get in Norse literature later on of the berserkers. That is, the great warriors who work themselves up into a frenzy and charge into battle, bear shirts as it means, that they're impervious to weapons. They have been inspired by Odin, the god of ecstasy and warfare, to fight for their lord. Well, Tacitus is already describing these groups around warlords around the year 100 AD. And this is probably a change emerging as a result of the arrival of more arms um, and prosperity, which allows some of these petty dynasts to set up great halls uh, served by these warriors. And you already have in embryo those military societies so important uh, in the Viking Age. Another feature about those warriors is they become increasingly better at fighting. Tacitus and later Roman authors mention the Germans uh, forming up what is called a wedge in Latin, cuneus, that is a shield wall is the term that's often used in the Norse sources, fighting as dense infantry formations with a great yell and charge. Uh, the baratus in Latin is what they call it. And in Scandinavian legend and myth, the wedge, the secret of the wedge, that is the dense infantry formation that can be defensive or offensive, is the gift of Odin to his favorite heroes like Rolf Kroki or uh, Harold Wartooth or Ivar the Farreacher, all these great figures of, of the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries. And again, this is because the Germanic peoples are taking their political and military hierarchy from the Roman army by close association. And by the year 200 to 300, in that third century, as Germans and uh, raid the Roman Empire more frequently, as this is a result of Roman civil wars and other obligations, they get increasingly better at organizing themselves politically and militarily. And this is a feature of Germanic life that's, that's common across most of Germania and Scandinavia. The emergence of what you would call incipient kingships is how some, some scholars would call that. By 260 AD in Central Europe, for instance, already major confederations around kings have emerged. Franks, Saxons, Alemanni, the Goths, who are apparently emigrants from Sweden who arrive on the eastern frontiers of uh, the European province of the Roman Empire in the 250s and 260s. So that organization is one of the gifts that comes to Scandinavia, more political organization, as a result of that contact with the Roman world. Another important benefit, which is still being debated 
quite a bit because people don't really associate ships with the Roman world. Uh, and that's largely because of the Roman conceit. And that is, uh, there are two important ship burials. One is at Nidum in Denmark, about 350 AD. And the other is the impression of a ship burial in England, in East Anglia, called, uh, it's really a cenotaph. It's a, an empty tomb. And we don't have the ship, but we have the impression in the sand. And it's at uh, a site called Sutton Ho, about 625 AD. These two ships are very, very controversial. They're both funerary uh, burials, and there are various grave goods that are put in the center of the ship. Uh, but enough of the construction has been recovered to indicate that the commercial contact with the Roman world, the Scandinavians and the German peoples uh, dwelling on the uh, shores of the North Sea, particularly the Frisians and the Saxons, who play such an important role in the early Middle Ages, that all of these people are probably becoming familiar of using sails with ships, which is a feature of Roman ships. And if we are to believe the extent of Germanic raids on the Roman Empire in the third and fourth century, these raids must be conducted by ships that are propelled by sails. One of our best authors, uh, Ammianus Marcellinus, the last great uh, imperial historian of Rome, tells us that these Germans sail their ships, not, not row. Uh, navigare is the Latin word. He means they are sailing. Now, the two ships that have survived in the archaeological record do not preserve sails, and often it's argued, well, you know, Ammianus got it wrong. Anyway, he's from Beirut, and what does he know? Actually, Ammianus has served in the Rhineland. He knew northern Europe quite well. And both of those burials are funerary vessels, and the best guess is that the mast that was there was removed because that's where your funeral goods were put. So you're not really looking at a complete vessel, you're looking at a burial vessel, and it's perfectly likely that by 350 AD, the uh, Scandinavians and, and Germanic peoples figured out how to put sails on their ships, which is a very important innovation that leads us to our Viking ships. Finally, if that's the case. Those vessels that were constructed by the fourth century were extremely important for launching not only Viking-style raids on the Roman Empire in the third and fourth century, but in propelling the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, that is the ancestors of the English, from Denmark to Britain uh, when the Roman Empire begins to break up uh, in the fifth century AD. And the argument is that enough Germanic-speaking peoples got over to England from what is Denmark and northwestern Germany that they linguistically and culturally changed Britain into England. And if you have sailing vessels, your ability to move large numbers of people increases dramatically rather than open rowboats. Uh, the second important point is that the Goths, if they did indeed come from Sweden, they probably crossed the Baltic, followed the amber routes, and it ended up in the Roman Empire, and that migration of a large number of Gothic people out of Sweden would have again been facilitated in the late second and third century by the improved shipbuilding. So there's every reason to believe that the contact with the Roman world probably resulted in superior ships for the Scandinavians and was an important step on the way leading to the Viking ships that emerged at the end of the eighth century. So as a result of the contact with the Roman world, Scandinavia benefited enormously with its trade goods. The trade acted as a demographic safety valve. 
uh, the importation of all sorts of weapons, ship technology that allowed for the consolidation of petty kings around halls, served by retinues of warriors uh, who in many ways had no sense of nationality. The, the loyalty was personal, uh, it was to their lord, it was to the war god, which you have already in many ways is the embryo of that Viking civilization that is described in the legends and sagas that will be coming up very soon. However, the drawback to this is that in the 5th century, the Roman Empire, at least in the West, collapsed. The barriers were breached, uh, Germanic people settled in Britain, in Gaul, and with the collapse of that Roman political order also went all the trade benefits. And the succeeding centuries from 400 to 600 AD, known as the Age of Migrations, was a very mixed benefit to Scandinavia. In some ways, it benefited because all these excess tribes had left. But in other ways, it had broken down old trade routes, had realigned the peoples of Western Europe, and would open a new chapter in the development of Scandinavian civilization. Lecture 5, The Age of Migrations. In this lecture, I plan to deal with three important developments during the period from about 400 to 600 AD, and this is often known as the period of the Age of Migrations. And it refers to the fact that many Germanic tribes from Scandinavia and what is now West Germany migrated into the former Roman Empire. These would be notably Franks in what the Romans called Gaul and is destined to become France, various people who move into the Low Countries, notably the Frisians, uh, Germanic tribes that come from Denmark and northwest uh, Germany that move into Britain and turn Britain into England. And that repeopling of uh, the northwestern provinces of the Roman Empire had important demographic changes in Scandinavia as well. So this period is really in reference to a group of folk or ethnic migrations that uh, essentially spreads Germanic civilization deep into the former Roman Empire and has major consequences for the Scandinavian heartland, those core areas where Germanic civilization had emerged. So those migrations form the first part of this particular lecture. Uh, then what I would like to look at is the bonds that linked the Scandinavian homeland with those uh, Germanic societies now transplanted to the Roman world. And those ties were very important because it not only formed part of a general Germanic culture or koine, if you want to use the Greek term, a common culture, but it also led to the transmission of very important uh, legendary material from the uh, Germanic kinsmen of the Scandinavians to Scandinavia. Uh, these include the heroes of the Volsung saga, which is one way of documenting these, this contact. And that led to the development of importance, uh, Germanic poetry, epic poetry, and a whole martial ethos, a, a set of common values that were shared by all the Germanic peoples and became quintessentially Scandinavian in the Viking Age. And then the third part of this lecture, I want to talk about how that common Germanic culture that existed, say, around 600, 625 AD, began to part in different directions. 
that is the Germanic peoples of what are Gaul and Britain, the former Roman provinces, evolve into English and Franks, uh, the people in the Low Countries, uh, predominantly the Frisians and Holland, uh, likewise evolve into a separate distinct Germanic people and how changes in Scandinavia will remove the Scandinavians from those German kinsmen so that by 790 or 800 at the opening of the Viking Age those Germanic peoples of Western Europe have evolved into Christian Europeans whereas the Scandinavians have evolved into a very distinct Germanic pagan culture and it explains a great deal of the animosity and differences between these two groups uh, at the opening of the Viking Age. The Scandinavians came to regard these people as potential foes, victim, victims for their raids. Uh, there were no longer those close ties that you had seen, say, back in the 5th or 6th century AD. So there's three major issues, three very important issues, and it also opens up a discussion of epic poetry and pagan beliefs and the heroic uh, ethos, which is so important to the Scandinavian people in the Viking Age, because it's being clearly, if not necessarily formed, but certainly defined and shaped by the legends that emerged at this particular time. Well, let's look first at some of the uh, uh, important ethnic changes in the uh, political and um, linguistic landscape of Northwestern Europe. Uh, the Age of Migrations led to three major groups that removed themselves from that Germanic heartland uh, into the former Roman world. Uh, the most uh, important group that Americans would uh, be familiar with are the Anglo-Saxons, which is really a term that no one ever used in the Middle Ages. Uh, the English themselves called themselves the English, or they might call themselves Saxons if they came from Wessex, that is, they are uh, related to the people of northwestern Germany. There were also people known as Utes. But the Germanic migrations uh, between approximately 450 and maybe about 650 A.D. or 600 A.D., came from various parts of Scandinavia. We know uh, the southwestern areas of Norway. Uh, there were people who migrated from the uh, famous fjords of Rogaland and, and uh, Hordaland. These were later dens of Vikings. Uh, they settled in northern England, particularly in the region known as Bernicia, which is the northern half of the later kingdom of Northumbria. Uh, numerous tribes moved out of Jutland. Uh, there is archaeological evidence to document that there was a significant drop of population in Denmark. Many Germanic peoples removed themselves to England. These include Angles, Utes, but other lesser tribes whose names are unknown to us. So that uh, Scandinavia had a constant outpouring of people uh, from Jutland, southwestern Norway, into England, but also along the northern shores of France, Gaul, uh, the future areas of, say, Normandy, where large numbers of Saxons uh, settled, and classical authors, notably Procopius, who wrote, uh, who wrote the rather uh, strange history of the Emperor Justinian, a classic history of uh, writing about great achievements and not crediting the man who performed them, uh, talks of these migrations. He's very, very familiar uh, with northern Europe and the relationships among these Germanic peoples. Uh, that led to the creation of a Germanic-speaking civilization in England, uh, the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And in this period of the Age of Migration, those uh, people were very conscious of their Scandinavian origins. Uh, foremost expressed in the Epic of Beowulf, uh, well known to students of English literature. Uh, this epic is composed somewhere between maybe 675 and 700 A.D., perhaps in the Midlands of England, Mercia, the central kingdom, or perhaps in Northumbria, by a cleric, a man of noble class, 
in Anglo-Saxon, that is Germanic alliterative verse, and yet this epic talks not about English heroes, but about Beowulf, who is a uh, Geat, Geatos is the plural, or Gotor or Gautar, that is Goths of southern Scandinavia, probably dwelling um, along the western shores of Sweden today. Uh, pretty close to lakes Vatran and, uh, and Vanar, that is, they're in the southwest of Sweden, and areas that were actually historically linked to Norway in the Viking Age. And that epic was brought by English settlers from Scandinavia who remembered these figures and give us a great deal of detail about rulers of uh, largely the 6th century AD in what became uh, parts of Norway and the Danish Kingdom. There are also references to the kings of Sweden at Uppsala. And these connections were also borne out by archaeology, particularly the so-called Sutton Hoo treasure. Uh, that is the objects found in the great ship burial, uh, dated about 625 AD. It's an empty tomb. It's thought to be a tomb of um, a king of East Anglia, um, which is Suffolk and Norfolk of um, uh, southeastern England. And uh, it's a pagan burial tradition uh, to a king who may have been nominally Christian, so it's, it's technically a, a cenotaph. And the helmet that comes out there uh, of the excavation, the, there's uh, marvelous objects from all over the Mediterranean world, including some coins from uh, Merovingian Gaul, objects from the Byzantine world. But other objects show very, very close connections to contemporary burials in Sweden particularly burials at Vendel, uh, where uh, similar types of helmets, particularly uh, figures sporting boar helmets. The boar was the sacred animal of the Vanner, uh, that is the brother, sister, uh, Frey and Freya, who were important uh, divinities in the uh, Germanic tradition. Uh, so the ties are very close uh, between these English people and the Scandinavians. Likewise, the ties are very close to those Germanic peoples who moved into Gaul, uh, primarily the Franks. And the Frankish kings under Clovis, who converted to Christianity uh, sometime around 490 AD, and his conversion is very indicative of conversions of many Germanic peoples, and we'll re-encounter this uh, with the Scandinavian kings. Essentially, he prayed to the Christian God who gave him victory in battle. Uh, he remembered that one of his wives was Christian, and he tried Christ, and it worked. And uh, Christ, as the Lord of hosts, uh, was understandable. Uh, Clovis immediately became baptized. Now, that didn't mean uh, conversion led to a Christian life. The Frankish kings were very, very similar in their habits to their contemporaries in Scandinavia. And one could read the pages of Gregory of Tours, who's a Christian author who's of uh, Gallo-Roman descent, and he writes in Latin about these Frankish kings. And if you read the lives of these Frankish kings, the lurid politics, the murders, the assassinations, they sound remarkably similar to what's going on in the great Scandinavian halls as described in Beowulf or the Volsung saga, which is the saga that talks about the early great heroes, or the saga of Rolf Kraki, so that the great halls of the Frankish kings in Gaul were not too different from the great halls in Denmark and in Sweden, uh, described by the legends um, written down in Iceland uh, centuries later. Furthermore, the Franks were the most successful people in Western Europe. Uh, the Frankish kings went on to forge a very, very effective kingdom and gave some kind of political unity to the former Western Empire. And whatever the trade connections had been between Scandinavia and Rome, they had been disrupted in the 5th century. And economic conditions had changed with this large migration of people 
out of the Scandinavian area. But certainly by 500 AD, uh, trade connections renewed. And in many ways, the Danes particularly were Frankish wannabes. Uh, most Danish monarchs, from what we can tell from the uh, burial goods, or Swedish monarchs, especially from Vendel, would very much have liked to have had uh, the material culture of their Frankish contemporaries. And uh, there's a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests that uh, swords were imported uh, from the Frankish world. They had the best manufacturer in the Rhineland. This goes on through the Viking Age. Uh, many of the uh, jewelry objects are similar, which you would find in a Frankish burial is also common in Scandinavian burials. So that the ties between the Franks and the Scandinavian world were very close. And Frankish kings, while they were nominally Christian, were not very good Christians. Uh, Frankish kings kept multiple wives. The Christian authors usually called them concubines, but they were just multiple wives, as most Germanic kings uh, married a number of wives for political purposes. And it wasn't really until after about 625 when the Frankish kings began to become really Christian kings. And that was owed to the fact that Irish monks showed up and started to explain to them what their Christianity meant. Uh, the third important people who moved into Western Europe and are extremely important throughout this period of uh, the Age of Migrations in the early Viking Age are the Frisians. Uh, the Frisians spoke a Germanic language, which to this day is the closest related language to English. Uh, they had dwelled along the islands uh, on the shores of Holland and Germany. They moved into sections of the Low Country. They dwelled along, among the rivers of the Lower Rhine, and they were the people who developed the trade networks uh, between Western Europe and Scandinavia. They are the premier merchants, uh, usually operating under the protection of the Frankish kings. They remained pagan for a very long time. They are not really converted until the 7th and 8th centuries. Their primary market town will be Duristad, uh, which emerges around 675, and that will be the nexus of the trade routes going into Jutland, into southern Sweden, and those trade routes are actually the routes that the Vikings followed in reverse. And there is a reference in Beowulf to the, uh, the Gotar, or the Gautar, that is the, the Gothic king, the Gietas in Beowulf, a Heislik, of as raiding Frisia, uh, Holland, about 523 AD. It's a reference in the poem, which is also picked up in the Chronicles, and he's killed in a Viking-style raid. It almost looks like a preview of the Viking Age. So those three groups are all important in establishing uh, new kingdoms and eventually new societies in Western Europe. There were also uh, distant relatives of the Scandinavians, uh, well, geographically distant, but linguistically very close, Goths, people who had migrated from Sweden, I mentioned last time, and they ended up in the Mediterranean world in Spain and Italy. And up until that departure into the Mediterranean world in the fifth century, most of Eastern Europe was under some sort of nominal Gothic control or later under the kings of the Huns, particularly Attila the Hun, and the Huns very much depended on their Gothic subjects. And so Scandinavia was tied to Eastern Europe through various trade routes uh, across the great rivers of Central and Eastern Europe, the old amber trade routes. And the Gothic language is very, very close to the Scandinavian languages in some ways. And at the same time, there's contacts in terms of common jewelry and memories. The Goths remembered they had come from Sweden. Again, our classical sources tell us that while some moved into the Mediterranean world, some of those Goths went back to the Scandinavian homeland. And that's borne out again by the archaeology, where large numbers of Roman gold coins 
of the, um, largely of the 5th century, uh, some from the early 6th century, show up in Sweden, particularly at Gotland and in the areas around Stockholm today, that is the Lake Malloran area, and the best guess is they're being carried back to the old Gothic homeland by those Goths who remember those origins and trek back to Scandinavia some 200 years after their ancestors had departed. And so you could see that Scandinavia was really part of a very, very wide Germanic world where these migrations had led to the settling of Germanic peoples across large portions of the Roman world. Well, that is most dramatically documented in the literary traditions. And these literary traditions, traditions to which I will return, uh, survive in Scandinavia largely from manuscripts composed in Iceland. Uh, these are prose sagas, which are based on earlier poetry. And the poetry is a German alliterative verse, a type of verse in which the crucial elements in each line of poetry were the stressed syllables. And Germanic poetry is based on what is known as a, a qualitative rather than a quantitative uh, verse form. Uh, classical verse, which goes back to Greek models, is essentially a mathematical equation. So many longs and so many shorts have to equal out. Whereas in Germanic verse, which is close to the cadence of the spoken language, the key is not so much the number of syllables in a verse, but the number of stressed syllables, and particularly those syllables that are stressed should alliterate so that you combine these two half lines in different patterns uh, by the alliteration on the crucial words. And that's the type of verse that's used in the uh, Epic of Beowulf and the type of verse that is innovated uh, in the Viking Age in Norse and is represented on the Icelandic manuscripts. Uh, this type of composition is for oral recitation. That is, poets uh, did not use writing. The runic uh, inscriptions, which we'll talk about in an upcoming lecture, uh, were really used for communication with the gods, not for composing poetry. So it's recitation of the great heroes and the gods that counted, not composing literary epics that people actually read. And that is uh, very, very indicative of that common Germanic uh, heroic culture that existed in all these areas. And that is the rulers maintain great halls which also functioned in some ways as the ceremonial and religious centers of the community. And you can imagine you spend a great deal of time indoors anyway during the winter, so the, the halls of a great prince would obviously be the center of social activities. And this is captured in the poems and in Beowulf as well. And the poets would recite stories for entertainment. And most of these poems probably ran somewhere between the order of, say, 300 and 500 lines of verse and they were based on traditional heroes who were well known to the audience and the poet really did exploit anticipation over surprise as a dramatic technique. Well, what's really significant in this period of migrations is that the Scandinavians being part of this wider Germanic culture shared in the same oral poetry. And what is a remarkable point about a heroic poetry in Scandinavia is the first heroes who are based on historical figures, celebrated by Scandinavians, were not Scandinavians. Rather, they were Germanic heroes of those various peoples to whom they were related who had moved into the Roman world. These included heroes from a Gothic tradition from the early fourth century. It also included Franks and Burgundians, that is people who removed themselves to Gaul. And above all, it included Attila the Hun, known as Atli in Norse, uh, who is regarded as just, well, 
another Germanic ruler. Uh, they really didn't make much of a distinction between the Huns and the Germans. He was just a great figure. The legends know nothing of the Roman world. They don't tell us anything about the economic and social breakup of the Roman Empire. Rather, they focused on great deeds and figures and heroes who got linked to the ancient gods, uh, legendary and mythological traditions. And so what developed was a cycle of three poems. They're not really a single poem, but they're, they're a cycle of episodes and tales in which any poet could recite episodes in a particular hall in a particular night, and the whole story was pretty much well known by the audience. Uh, the most famous, the central story, uh, concerned these Burgundian heroes, particularly uh, the King Gunnar and his um, half-brother Hogni and their sister uh, Gudrum. They were historical figures of the Burgundian kingdom who were destroyed by the Huns in 437 AD. Uh, Hun army showed up and wiped them out on Roman orders. Uh, in Norse and Germanic legend, these people lived on as a, um, a heroic a group of kings on the Rhineland. They became associated with the treasure of the Niflungs or the Niblungs in the German tradition, this cursed treasure, and they were lured to the great hall of Attila the Hun, Atli in the Norse tradition, uh, where they were killed in a great heroic battle at the hall and avenged by their sister, Gudrum, who had reluctantly been married off to Atli. She kills Atli, uh, burns the hall down in retribution for the death of her brothers. Well, that cycle, which was an independent cycle, was also linked to another cycle of Frankish heroes. Uh, these included the famous uh, Brynhild, or Brunhilde, she's known in the Wagnerian opera, and Sigurd, or Siegfried, as he's known in uh, Wagner as well. That's the uh, West Germanic version. And these, uh, this pair were apparently a group of Frankish rulers from the late 6th, uh, early 7th century with some really wild and woolly stories told about them in, in Gregory of Tours. And they, uh, they captured the imagination because of all their deeds and misdeeds. And in the uh, Norse tradition, Sigurd won Brunhild after he had slain the dragon Fafner. And uh, this is depicted on a famous runestone in Sweden. Uh, he was uh, one of the favorite of Odin, the war god. Uh, he slew the dragon by, um, uh, by artifice, uh, seized the golden horde the dragon had brooded over. This was a horde that had been cursed because of Loki, who had killed the brother of the dragon, known as Otter or an Otter. And then um, Sigurd took the horde, uh, got a, um, a famous horse, Grom, and a sword from Odin, rode off, won Brynhild as his bride. Uh, she was a Valkyrie who was asleep. Uh, because she had offended Odin, she awakens, teaches Sigurd all the secrets of the runes, and then in the original tradition they got married and lived as berserker and Valkyrie as, as heroes of Odin. The Scandinavians took those two traditions apparently and put them together. And in the Scandinavian tradition, what happened is Sigurd doesn't marry Brynhild, but goes off and ends up marrying Gudrum, the sister of Gunnar in the Burgundian tradition. And that changes the entire action of the story, and it's very, very Norse, because the primary figures become the two queens. Uh, Brynhild had been promised to um, Sigurd, but she ends up marrying uh, the brother-in-law, the lesser Gunnar, and this res results in a tension 
uh, between the two queens, and Brynhild eventually arranges for the death of Sigurd, uh, claiming, I will not suffer two men in one hall. She had been first taken by Sigurd, who then went off and was magically induced to marry Gudrum. And when Brynhild understands that she had married a lesser man, that she uh, eggs on her relatives, that is, uh, the younger son of a uh, brother of Gunnar, uh, to slay Sigurd treacherously. And then the whole story ends up uh, with the destruction at the Hall of Atli. Brynhild dies. Uh, she joins Sigurd on his funeral pyre, and in death they're united in the way they were not in life. And they then go off to Valhalla. Uh, Gudrum ends up avenging her brothers at the Hall of Atli, but that's a whole story that has to be reworked. Um, uh, she has a, you know, a spell is cast over her and she forgets uh, the fact that her husband had been done in by her brothers. Uh, that tradition, which becomes the basis of the Volsung cycle, is transmitted from the West Germanic peoples to the Scandinavians. And the Scandinavians take these heroes, particularly Sigurd, who slew the dragon, who won the famous Valkyrie and was done in by treachery because he married the wrong woman, uh, the powerful Brynhild, who's a Valkari of Odin, uh, Gunnar, who, um, while he treacherously slays, has his brother-in-law Sigurd uh, slain, dies heroically fighting against Otli, is thrown into a snake pit where he, um, he, he plucks the strings with his toes until um, he gets all the snakes asleep, but one of them comes and gets him, but he dies heroically. All of this material becomes the grist for the mill of uh, turning out new legends about Scandinavian heroes in the generations later, in the 6th and 7th century. Uh, and these West Germanic heroes become quintessentially Scandinavian heroes. Uh, the names Sigurd, Gudrum, Gunnar keep reappearing in the Scandinavian uh, nomenclature. They embrace these West Germanic heroes as their own. However, by 625, their kinsmen, the people who gave rise to these legends, are forgetting these heroes. They have converted to Christianity. They are coming under the influence of the Latin literary culture. And between 650 and 700 AD, new Christian cultures emerge in England, in the Frankish world, and eventually in Frisia. And that leads to a parting of the ways between the Scandinavian heartland of Germanic civilization and these new states that have emerged on the Foreman Roman Empire. And you can trace the fact that starting around 625, 650 AD, there aren't any more heroes coming out of the West Germanic peoples. The heroes being celebrated are now Scandinavian heroes based on the figures of the Volsung saga. There's also another important linguistic change that occurs at the same time. And that is starting around 700 or a little earlier, the Scandinavian language goes through a major morphological change. And you have to keep in mind that these are not written languages in a modern sense. That is, there's not a standard literary form. These are various dialects of Norse, various dialects of English, Frankish, Frisian. Now, the West Germanic peoples are beginning to write their languages down in literary form. Beowulf, for instance, is the first major literary monument we have in English. And it leads to a development of a literary language in English. The Scandinavians, on the other hand, because of the use of language, uh, you speak it, it changes, it gets mutilated in common speech. We are all familiar with the spoken vernacular as opposed to the written. Well, that gives rise to a series of changes in which the Scandinavian languages are transformed into quite a different set of dialects so that they're mutually unintelligible 
to the West Germanic peoples by, say, 800 A.D. That is, in 450 A.D., someone from Denmark could probably talk to someone in England. By 800 A.D., that's no longer possible. There are several fancy linguistic reasons for it. The general term is known as syncope. There's a general shortening of words in Scandinavian. Uh, you can find this uh, very easily illustrated when you look at the names of heroes in Beowulf and you look at their Scandinavian equivalents. Uh, very often, the Scandinavian name is two or three syllables. The Old English name is three or four syllables. Rothagar, the host of Beowulf, becomes uh, Rorar, just two syllables in Old Norse. And there are also changes in verb forms. Uh, the dropping of certain consonantal forms. The result is the languages really go in two very different directions. And they're at the point where you could recognize that Norse is related to English or Frisian or Germanic Frankish, but understanding a complicated sentence is very difficult when you're dealing with any kind of sophisticated ideas. It can be illustrated by two very short examples. One is a runic inscription, one of the rare ones we have from this period, dating around 400 AD on one of the great horns from uh, Gelhus in Denmark. These gold horns, uh, actually only known through reproductions, they were destroyed in 1802. Uh, there's a very early runic inscription, which is in a West Germanic dialect, probably close to English, which, when translated, reads, I, Helvaskter of Holt, made this horn. It runs 13 syllables. Rendered in Norse of about 800 AD and later, it's ek lesker hilting horn tatha. It's reduced to eight. This can also see, be seen in the way the languages diverge. The Scandinavian languages drop final consonants. So the German word farin, to carry or bear, uh, becomes simply fara. Many words in Norse end in vowels, which makes the language ideally suited for poetry. The shortening of many of the Norse words also make the Norse language very uh, well suited for poetry. There are enormous changes in vowel sounds, especially when you take the basic root word and you, in effect, uh, turn it into what are known as the oblique cases, that is, you turn it into an accusative, a genitive, or uh, a possessive. Those familiar with Latin know that what you're in effect doing are conjugating nouns the way one would conjugate verbs. And again, a very simple illustration will show the difference. Uh, skjoldar is shield in Old Norse. Schild is shield in English, Old English. Pretty close. You can recognize them. Skjoldar, shield. But when you start putting it in the oblique cases, when you want to use it as an uh, object or as a possessive, you see that the English stays pretty much the same. Shield, shield, shieldis of a shield. Shielda, shieldas, plural. Shieldas as an objective plural. Shielda as a genitive plural. Shieldum for uh, you use with uh, prepositions. But in Norse, there's all sorts of internal vowel changes that occur in that basic conjugation. So it goes skjold, skjold, skjaldar, skjildir, skjoldu, skjalda, skjoldum. That is, there's so many vowel changes that if you encounter that basic root word in a sentence, you're not going to know what it is. So in a complicated sentence, 
a Norse and an Englishman, they might recognize the basic word, but any kind of sophisticated communication is not possible. And that change in the Norse language is indicative of a whole bunch of other cultural changes that is redefining the language in along new ways and is one of the best baselines we have for the emergence of a Scandinavian identity by 800 AD, and that is the Scandinavian identity of the Viking Age. Lecture 6, The Norse Gods. In this lecture, I want to emphasize and develop the themes of um, and, uh, the evolution of an independent Scandinavian civilization, uh, starting the Age of Migrations and running into the Viking period. And one of the great common bonds among the Scandinavians was their devotion to the ancient Germanic gods. They were not Christianized until really the end of the Viking Age, and even into the period after the Viking Age, uh, in the case of Sweden, uh, many were still worshiping the old gods, probably at the opening of the 12th century. And the devotion to those ancient Germanic gods is understandable, as we'll see in this talk. Uh, we're going to stress the literary image of these gods that have come down to us uh, from Norse uh, poetry and saga, but also there's an enormous amount of archaeological evidence and classical sources that indicate that these divinities were worshipped for a very long time in Scandinavia. Uh, they were also very closely associated with the veneration of the ancestors and in burial practices, particularly well represented in ship burials. These are either symbolic ship burials, there are many instances where you have a model ship in the uh, grave or the stones are arranged in a ship pattern to give you the impression of a ship and the goods are put into that grave site. Uh, this is common not only in Scandinavia but also in Scandinavian colonies in the Viking Age. They've been excavated on the Isle of Man in the Shetlands and Orkney Islands. And finally the full classic ship burial where the the deceased is of great rank and is usually uh, put on that ship with various grave goods. Uh, usually one of the wives uh, accompanies him uh, a little reluctantly. She's usually strangled and put on the ship with the warrior or the prince. And we have descriptions of these types of ship burials. One from the poem of Beowulf, where the legendary ancestor of the um, Danish kings known as Skjold in um, Old Norse, is sent out to sea on a ship burial, or the very spectacular one described on the Volga by an Arab observer in 921, 922, when the ship is actually burned at the river bank. So the gods are associated with very, very important social customs, conventions, veneration of ancestors, perpetuation of family traditions, and the burial of the dead. This adherence to those ancient gods is one of the hallmarks of defining Viking Age Scandinavian civilization and one of the great distinctions uh, between the Scandinavians and their Germanic kinsmen in Western Europe as well as other peoples with whom they come into contact. What we know about this uh, ancient Germanic religion, and as I've mentioned in previous lectures, uh, we know a great deal in comparison to other pagan cults in Europe prior to the conversion of Christianity, uh, depends a great deal on literary traditions. Uh, these have come under considerable question in recent years, 
How much can we trust uh, literary accounts written largely in Iceland, uh, most of our manuscripts surviving from the 13th and 14th century, really the application of writing may be dating to the 11th or 12th century in many instances, so the manuscripts are even later versions of earlier uh, recording of these legends. Uh, nonetheless, if we throw the literature out, we're, we're really pretty much in the dark in understanding our archaeological evidence. And the literary sources, granted they are stereotyped, they are sometimes misunderstanding earlier practices, uh, nonetheless uh, do very much illuminate and work in tandem with the other sources. And with that proviso, I do believe that the poems uh, which survive in the so-called Poetic Edda. That is a collection of poems made in Iceland, and some of these poems going back to originals of the 9th and 10th century based on oral poetic traditions, as well as the uh, prose narratives that have come down to us, uh, foremost the prose handbook known as the Prose Edda, uh, written by Snorri Strulson uh, around 1220 AD. Uh, these two literary works in particular are our main sources for the vision of the gods, the myths of the Norse gods who really come out as uh, marvelously witty, creative figures, uh, often foils to human figures, and undoubtedly reflect traditions and notions about the gods going back into the Viking Age and before. And using this literature, especially in tandem with archaeological and art historical material, and a lot of reports that come to us from Roman authors and later Christian authors, give us some kind of picture of what Scandinavian paganism was, and particularly the values of that paganism, its importance in motivating society, and particularly its close links to the heroic ethos associated especially with the cult of Odin, uh, the supreme god and the god of war in the Norse tradition, which is fundamental to understanding the Viking Age. And therefore, I think it's very important uh, to spend some time on these poems and this conception of the gods as it comes down to us, because otherwise the Viking Age is extremely difficult to, under to understand on its own terms. The Prose Edda in particular is a marvelous work. Uh, it is clearly one of the great literary masterpieces produced in um, the aftermath of the Viking Age. And Snorri wrote that poem, uh, that uh, handbook, it's not a poem, it's in prose, in three parts. And it really is a way of instructing aspiring Icelandic poets how to use ancient uh, Norse mythology and poetic techniques in order to get patronage at one of the courts of either the King of Denmark or the King of Norway, where the old poems were recited. And if you couldn't get the royal court, well, then you would head for a Jarl, that is an Earl, a prominent man who was interested in being celebrated in the old tradition. The other important point about Snorri's work is that Snorri very, very cleverly recasts the Norse gods as heroes of old who came to be viewed as gods by later generations. This was a very important literary conceit that uh, Snorri puts in his preface because many Christian authors saw the gods as demons, as ancient powers, part of the army of Satan. And in Anglo-Saxon England, in Frankish Gaul, among the Frisians of the Low Countries, in Saxony and West Germany, almost nothing of those dramatic gods survives except very, very brief references because the old gods were rooted out as demons. They were cast down, they were destroyed. Uh, their names survive, for instance, in the days of the week. Uh, in English, this would be Tuesday, Tyr, 
Wednesday, Woden, the equivalent of Odin. Um, they would survive in certain place names uh, and a couple of other instances. But on the whole, the old Germanic religion was simply erased and Christianity was brought in. This was not the case in Scandinavia, particularly in Iceland. And Snorri's account therefore allows us to see the gods in operation as literary figures. Uh, Snorri actually poses uh, most of the mythological material in the form of a dialogue between a disguised king of Sweden talking to three mysterious figures. He goes by the assumed name of, of Gangleri, which means the wanderer, and he's being instructed, the Swedish king, about the lore of old. Uh, and in that account comes a coherent view of the cosmology, the world order, as apparently the Scandinavians conceived of it in the Viking Age. And this prose account of Snorri is based very closely on one of the oldest poems and the first poem in the Poetic Edda, the so-called Velospa, uh, which is cited by a prophetess, a vulva, who has gone into some type of trance in really a very, very archaic form of Icelandic in a very powerful alliterative verse where she talks of the creation of the world, uh, the progress of the gods, the great halls, and ultimately the day of destruction, Ragnarok, the day when the gods will fight the giants and the forces of chaos will triumph and uh, the sun will sink into the sea and the land will fall away. But there is also a vision of a rebirth, apparently under the god of Baldar, uh, which is alluded to at the end of the poem. So Snorri is drawing on this poetic tradition, and this poetic tradition is a very, very early oral verse going back uh, uh, deep into the Viking Age. So what I wish to do is to give you some sense of what this worldview was and how it corresponded uh, to the Norse's own physical world, and then to discuss some of the key divinities who are so important for uh, the Norse society of the Viking Age. In the Velospa, she sings of the beginning of creation, uh, which is conceived as a, a primeval frozen land, which is obvious to Scandinavians living in the har uh, homeland that they do. There, a great primeval giant, Ymir, dwelled. And he was, uh, we have no information of who his origin, it's simply a poetic uh, depiction. Uh, he lived in this great ice-bound cabin, uh, chasm, this, uh, this gap. He was fed by a great primeval cow, and that cow, by licking the ice blocks, uh, eventually uncovered an imprisoned god, Buri, who in turn had offspring, and three offspring of that original god, Odin, along with Vili and Ve, his brothers, slay the giant Ymir and use the body to create the world. Uh, and the world that is created is conceived as essentially a huge sacred tree, Yggdrasil, which uh, has uh, various worlds in its branches. Now, this sort of conception really corresponds very well with the reality of Scandinavia in the Viking Age, divided up among the various forests. And furthermore, the distance between these worlds, particularly Midgarth, the middle world where the, where the mortals dwell, and Asgarth, uh, the world of the gods, or Elfheim, the world of the elves, these are great distances that have to be traveled. Uh, and in the poems the, and in the myths and the, and the accounts that come through Snorri, there's always this great travel, there's deception, there's dangers. Uh, you go through forests and over great mountains. Uh, the god Thor is always being deceived. And, and so this concept of the world is very much in, in line with what the Scandinavians' own uh, physical reality was all about. 
the gods create uh, humanity. They breathe life into these formless creatures, um, Ask and Embla, who are representing actually primeval trees. Odin gives them uh, life and being. Uh, another aspect about this cosmology is that there are different halls where the deceased go. The greatest go to the hall of Odin, Valhalla, as we call it in English, or Valhul in its proper Norse nominative form. Uh, and those are the great heroes who, who have fallen in combat. But other halls are available to you, and your, uh, your station in the afterlife was very much dependent on your own activities in life. Uh, women who die in childbearing, that's a noble death. Uh, they go to the hall of Frigg, who is the wife of Odin. Those who die of old age and sickness are seen as despised. They go down to Niflheim, that is the lower levels, presided over by Hel, the daughter of the trickster god Loki, where the English word Hel comes from. And while that is a rather grim and gloomy area, it's not necessarily associated with the punishment of a Christian Hel. And in a very odd way, and but very significant way, one's social rank and one's deeds in life actually dictated the type of hall you went to in the afterlife. And the tree was obviously the sacred symbol uh, in which all these worlds uh, were encased. And that uh, sacred tree is usually the centerpiece of many um, uh, dramatic rituals and worship. Most great halls, we're told this in the legends, are built around a sacred tree. Uh, Germanic peoples usually associated an oak tree. Uh, it's, it's some version of Yggdrasil of, of Norse mythology. Uh, when Charlemagne conquers the Saxons in the 8th century who are worshipping the Germanic gods, the first thing he has to do is run around and, and chop down sacred trees because that's where the uh, Saxon pagans go to worship. The tree is uh, constantly under attack by uh, dragons and serpents. It's uh, constantly renewing itself. It has three great roots where the Norns, past, future, and present, who represent uh, destiny, reside. Uh, there's a great wisdom well where the god Odin goes and gives up an eye in order to have a drink, in order to get inspiration. And so this world tree is the central focus of many of the early legends and myths associated with Odin in finding knowledge. Odin actually hangs himself on the world tree uh, nine days, as he says in the Havamal, a sacrifice, a gift unto myself in order to release the power of the runes. And this gets us to uh, the final days of that cosmology. That is, the Norse never quite seemed to conceive that it was possible to have an eternal order given their conditions. And at some point, as Odin often says in, in poetry and, and myth, uh, the wolf is watching the hall. At some point, the forces of chaos, the great giants, uh, the wolf of Frenair, uh, the um, Fenrir, the, uh, the uh, offspring of Loki, who will devour Odin in the final battle, they will be released and there will be a great destruction often known as Ragnarok. And that too is recorded in the Velospa, not only the creation, but the ultimate destiny, the destruction of the world. And Odin's task is to populate Valhalla with great warriors for the final battle. Now, the gods that the Norse conceived, these ancient Germanic gods, as I said, probably date from the Bronze Age. They were articulated uh, increasingly in the Celtic and Roman periods. And as they come down to us in the Viking Age, they are a very, very different set of divine forces than any Christian would recognize. To be sure, Christian warriors had a very powerful ethos. And most Christian knights, you know, well into the Crusades, were very, very good on worshiping Christ and weak on the Ten Commandments. And they loved the Old Testament with the God of hosts. But nonetheless, this Christian 
perception of the vine was really quite a contrast from that of their Germanic ancestors. The supreme god was Odin, uh, known as Wotan in German or Woden in English. He had become the premier god by the time of the Viking Age. In Germanic tradition, before the Viking Age, he probably wasn't all that important. But in the Viking Age and in the Icelandic saga and poetry, he's the lord of warriors, of poets. He's associated with ecstasy in all of its aspects. He is the god who inspires warriors, the great berserkers, into battle. And yet he is the god who inspires poetry. And that might seem a little odd to us, but to the Scandinavian, that was perfectly logical because poetry was essentially celebrating great deeds. It was an ecstatic state, just as battle was. The great frenzies that led berserkers into battle was the sort of inspiration that gave a poet the ability to record those great deeds to act as examples to future generations. And so these two powers were closely associated with Odin, and one invoked Odin if only one had aspirations of, of being a great hero. Uh, he was a god driven in order to obtain wisdom in all of its aspects. The power of the runes. And the runes are a alphabet, probably going back to about 200 BC, devised on North Italic scripts that came in as one of the benefits of trade in the Celtic Age. And those runes were essentially uh, letters used to, um, to show possession of, of weapons or jewelry. They had powers of magic, one carved runes on weapons so that the weapon would work well to cast spells against the enemy. And again, this was associated with the power of Odin. The casting of runes was a powerful form of prophecy and magic which gave you victory in battle and a way of communicating with the gods rather than an alphabetic script for recording mundane documents as, as, as we would imagine. Uh, Odin is remembered in the myths as handing out swords and horses to his warriors. Sigurd in the Volsung Saga is one of his greatest heroes. And then the heroes that follow in the 6th and 7th century in the Scandinavian tradition, Rolf Kraki particularly, the, the great king of Denmark, uh, who held a hall at Lydar built around a sacred tree, probably close to the modern town of Roskilde today, the old uh, Danish capital. Uh, he too was a great warrior, remembered for being devoted to Odin. And one does not invoke Odin and take service with Odin lightly. Odin is a whimsical god, a god who could be summoned up with great power, but also a god in the end who is extremely jealous of his followers and is going to collect them at the appropriate time so they could populate the great hall of Valhalla for the final battle. In the case of Rolf Kraki, the great Danish king of whom I'll speak of later, the legendary king who has this ride to Uppsala and takes on a challenge with his Swedish rival, Adils, uh, in a great contest of, of heroes. On his return, he's greeted by this farmer by the name of Rani, who offers him hospitality. And uh, Rani is a man with a hood uh, over his head, and he has one eye. Remember, Odin gave up an eye in order to drink at the Wisdom Well, and he greets Rolf Kroki and you know the virtues of his his victory over the the, the king of the Swedes and and Rolf Kroki is quite impressed with all his heroes and Odin says and I give you some weapons to take with you he says oh farmer no not necessary we'll go on we don't need you and he rides on and then realizes those weapons had been offered not by a farmer but Odin in the disguise of a farmer he had offended the great god and his doom is 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 upon him you do not turn down gifts of the great god Odin, those ennoble the giver 
even as uh, even more than the person receiving. So Odin is without a doubt the god of the Viking Age, the god of poets, of warriors, of sea kings who would launch out on those great raids. And this god of Odin is already uh, being celebrated in verse in the Age of Migrations in the generations before the Viking Age. In fact, one of the best descriptions of him is by Adam of Bremen, who is writing in around 1170, uh, 1070 AD, and he says, Odin, Odin is fury, fury in all of its aspects, writing in Latin. Uh, there were other powerful gods of the Viking Age, extremely important in, um, in reflecting the conditions of that age. Uh, foremost and best known to us is Thor. Uh, Thor is regarded in mythology as the son of Odin, a powerful, red-haired, barrel-chested, a good-natured god, uh, quick to arouse, to wrath, but just as easy to appease, who rides across the skies in his goat chariot, hurling his primitive hammer uh, as his prime weapon, Mjolnir, which he throws and returns to his hand every time. And Thor, in some ways, is uh, something of a parody of Odin. Uh, there are numerous myths told about him, most of them quite good-natured, and really reflects the very marvelous, witty side of, of Scandinavian storytelling. The stories of Thor, both in the Poetic Edda and in Snorri's handbook, are, are eternal. They're just marvelous accounts to, to read uh, and have ensured the memory of that god long after he's uh, the worship has disappeared. Uh, his exploits are, are, are famous. He is battling the various giants that threaten order and, and will bring on chaos. And these giants are always trying to carry off Asgard or make off with one of the goddesses like Freya or Sif or Ithun, one of them. Uh, and Thor is always there for the rescue. Uh, Thor's a good guy. He, he sometimes always doesn't quite get it right. you know. He, and half the time he gets frustrated because it gets too complicated and he takes out his hammer and starts clobbering giants. Um, but he's certainly a god who was invoked by most Scandinavians. He's associated with the skies and especially in sailing conditions. Uh, Helgi the Lean, who's one of the early settlers of Iceland uh, and had acquired some Christianity probably in Ireland or Scotland before he arrived and was sort of a Christian. He said, on land I worship Christ. When I'm out to sea, I worship Thor. He's the only one who makes sure that the weather is, is, is good for me. Uh, Thor was also matched up with one of the most delightful mythological figures from all uh, religions, uh, the god Loki, who is the trickster god and really represents the Scandinavian delight in cleverness and deceit. Uh, Loki is sometimes, I think, um, Odin in reverse. He's constantly duplicitous. He's coming up with all sorts of schemes. He usually gets caught in his own schemes. And many times he accompanies Thor in mythology on various travels and acts as the, uh, the clever fo foil to Thor. Uh, the most famous is the travel to the legendary realm of Utgard Loki, where everything is, is illusion and Thor is trying to carry out great tests of strength, but he's being deceived by the giant there. Thor himself was, um, uh, by most Scandinavians, invoked uh, as the primary god uh, against the Christian god later on. Uh, there's a famous story told of an old Icelandic lady who said to a Christian missionary, Thor has challenged Christ to a duel. And he hasn't shown up yet. And this is typical in mythology. Christ is always, uh, Thor is always fighting giants. And the Christian missionary said, well, Christ has just uh, been very polite about this because if he showed up, Thor would simply be incinerated. Uh, that didn't probably convince the Icelandic lady. Well, no show means you lose in Icelandic law. It sort of reflects the attitudes of both sides. Um, foremost, Thor is associated with his attempts to 
destroy the Midgarth serpent, the great serpent that encircles the world. And again, these myths, uh, just as the uh, myths of uh, Ragnarok, where uh, um, Odin is being swallowed by the wolf, uh, Thor fishing for the Midgarth serpent, the great dragon that encompasses the earth, these are depicted in artwork. Uh, both in Scandinavia as well as artwork in the British Isles, uh, often in contexts where you have both Norse and Christian traditions. So they are not just stories of myth. They were powerful stories used to educate and explain the gods. They are not the same as necessarily worship. Uh, worship of the gods was far more than just the myths, but nonetheless, these myths are uh, current uh, with the Viking Age and the Age of Migrations. And finally, the important divinities of the Vanner. Uh, this is Njord and his um, uh, uh, son and daughter, Frey and Freya, which simply mean lord and lady. These were important fertility gods who were associated also uh, uh, not only with prosperity but, but veneration of the ancestors. The early kings of Sweden, uh, the Yinglinga kings or the Yinglingar kings, uh, who took the name Ying or Ing, in Old English, uh, is one of the titles of Frey, and we think those early Swedish kings at Uppsala were seen as human avatars of uh, the ancient gods. What is remarkable about the ancient gods of Scandinavia is that in comparison to other um, uh, uh, pagan cults, perhaps uh, through the whole Viking Age, this is still under debate, they do not have the kind of institutional organization we would associate with Greco-Roman paganism or with Christianity. There are very few temples that have been excavated. There are reports of such temples, uh, one at Uppsala by Adam of Bremen, and now excavations in Iceland have revealed what we think were small temples attached to farmsteads. There's at least several examples of that. Most rites seem to have been held in the open air, uh, the great halls of kings and princes functioned as essentially religious centers, particularly in the spring festivals where before the sailing season, the campaigning season, great boasts were made and, and toasts and the handing out of gifts. These would be associated with Odin, but also rites to the Vanar. Um, there is no priestly caste that we can discern in the Scandinavian traditions. There are seeresses, that is a vulva, a, a woman who's dedicated to Odin and Freya, uh, the goddess of the Vanner, who are able to communicate with the other world. They can cast the runes. But there is not the kind of centralized hierarchy. There are individual cults. There are numerous divinities that all Scandinavians worship. There's a great deal of personal choice what divinities you choose to worship. But nonetheless, uh, the kind of institutionalized religion that would be associated with medieval Christianity, it just isn't there. And there isn't even anything close to the so-called Druid caste, apparently, in the early Celtic religion. Nonetheless, in the face-to-face -face society of Scandinavia, these gods were well known. The stories of the myths and the legends, and you have to remember, large amount of the year was spent indoors. Uh, during the winter and the autumn. Uh, and the retelling of these myths meant that everyone knew who the gods were, uh, that the morality and the religious rites were very well understood by everyone. It was very much a communal and family religion. It was particularly very well associated with the veneration of the ancestors, uh, the funerary rites to which I alluded to, uh, for the great ones, that is the noblest members of society, approached the funerary rites that would be expected of the great heroes of the god Odin himself, the great ship burials, or the piling up of great war gifts 
uh, this would be associated with people of rank. But even in the lower levels of society, there is a good deal of information that returning to the barrows, the sites where your ancestors were, uh, celebrating with the festival in memory of the ancestors, even if not individually, at least collectively, was an important obligation of all Scandinavians. And that the ancestors, uh, as far as we can tell from Icelandic literature, they didn't go so much into a spiritual afterlife. If you didn't propitiate them, they actually physically came up and walked the world and did nasty things. And there's all sorts of ways of getting rid of these types of guys in Iceland, uh, if you, uh, especially wizard types. Uh, from the Hebrides, they're a real problem in Iceland. They always, they, they never die quietly. And if and they if they come up and walk the earth, you have to get the body and burn it. Uh, and there's various ways to take precautions uh, if they haven't been properly propitiated. And so, uh, appeasing those ancestors is an, a very important obligation. It's associated with the burial and funeral rites, and associated with the worship of the ancient gods. And these gods had been worshipped in these sites, in these locales, for centuries. And on the eve of the Viking Age, they are one of the key cultural and, and, and spiritual values that tie all the Scandinavians together and make them distinct for the rest of the world. And perhaps one of the best ways to understand the power of these cults is a, um, it's not actually a Scandinavian example. It comes from a Frisian chieftain. Uh, and the Frisians, as I mentioned, uh, were the people dwelling on the shores of Holland uh, who were Germanic people in close association with Scandinavia. They were merchants and remained devoted to the ancient gods well into the 8th century. And one of the English saints who showed up and tried to convert the Frisians uh, and explained to him the value of baptism almost had this Frisian chieftain, it's about 700 AD is when the incident takes place, on the verge of baptizing. And he asked the question, well, if I accept this new powerful God, Christ, what happens to my ancestors? And this is where the saint blew it. And he said, uh, this is St. Willibrode of Anglo-Saxon England. And he said, well, you know, your ancestors were not Christians, so they're, they're dwelling in hell. And the chieftain looked at him and said, no, I prefer to spend eternity with my ancestors. And if that doesn't capture the power and value of those uh, ancient cults of the dramatic tradition, no other incident is, is better in my mind. Lecture 7, Runes, Poetry, and Visual Arts. In this lecture, I wish to follow up on some of the themes I've talked about in the evolution of a distinct Scandinavian civilization in the Age of Migrations. And I want to particularly concentrate on the runes, that is the... Um, Scandinavian form of writing uh, that had arrived uh, to the northern lands perhaps um, as early as 200 BC, as well as some um, uh, information on the decorative arts, uh, particularly jewelry, wood carving, other objects that are some of our best information for the period of migrations as well as for the Viking Age, and then conclude with uh, the importance of poetry, particularly oral composition, which I've mentioned briefly in a previous lecture, 
and why that was so important in the lives of Scandinavians and how that technique actually worked and how the Scandinavians also uh, innovated on the basic dramatic verse so that by the 9th and 10th century the varieties of verse patterns and the means of expression uh, were many times greater in um, the Scandinavian world than it ever had probably been in that earlier Germanic period when these legends are first recited and transmitted to the North. Uh, Norse poetry evolves in a very distinct and beautiful way with, with all sorts of possibilities in its verse patterns and that in part is a legacy of the Viking Age. They become more and more adept about celebrating great heroes who are emulating the deeds of the past. And so these three themes, the the runes, the visual arts, the poetry are all avenues into understanding how that Scandinavian society of the Viking Age emerged. Well, the runes have excited a lot of popular imagination and one could go on the internet and find many examples of popular books of how to cast your runes. Uh, usually these involve either your love life or less likely to do in your rival in business. And in a way, that's not a bad use of the runes in the modern age or abuse, whatever, uh, because the runes as a, uh, were an alphabetic system and they come in two versions. Uh, there is a earlier alphabet of 24 letters known as the Long Futhark. Uh, the Futhark is their word for alphabet. It's taken from letters that are put together to indicate the writing system. And then there is a later version used in the Viking Age of 16 runes. That is the short Futhark, and that's the type of inscriptions one encounters uh, starting from about, oh, 790, 800 on. And I think the shortening of that alphabet from the long system used by all the Germanic peoples to the short system of the Viking Age is one of the changes uh, associated with the evolution of Scandinavian languages, the reducing of syllables, and all the changes in uh, pronunciation I discussed in an earlier lecture. Well, the runes are apparently devised on a North Italic alphabet, that is an alphabet that would have been used by Etruscans or Italic people, and that alphabet had been transmitted north of the Alps to the Celtic peoples, who in turn had carried it to Scandinavia probably somewhere between 200 and 100 BC. Uh, we do not have inscriptions from that date. Our earliest inscriptions may be from 2 or 300 AD. Uh, one of the earliest I uh, read in an earlier lecture is inscribed on a very famous golden horn. Um, uh, that is um, a horn. There's actually a, a pair of gold horns that were found in Denmark and eventually stolen out of the Danish Museum and melted down, we fear, from 1802. But they're known from reproductions and drawings and the runes were very faithfully inscribed in those reproductions and we were able to read them and that dates from about 350 AD. That's one of our earliest runic inscriptions. Based on the letter forms we can give a pretty good guess of when these inscriptions were first made. The runic letters were never applied to, as far as we can tell, writing of documentary information. It did not lead to a literate society and that's an important point to stress. Uh, because most of the poetry as it comes down to us in written form on manuscripts from Iceland are based on what are known as oral techniques of poetry. That is, poetry that is recited to an audience that is not going to follow with any written text. There is no written text. Most uh, understanding of law and knowledge is going to be by memorization, by reciting, uh, either verse or chanting, and that prose, uh, continuous prose, narrative documents, legal documents, historical records, etc., 
are not going to be used in uh, Scandinavian civilization. That is something that the Scandinavians learn when they convert to Christianity and acquire uh, the literate civilization based on Roman literature. On the other hand, uh, the runes were extremely important. Uh, they were regarded as the power of Odin. They were a way of communicating with the gods, and in many ways, it's best to look upon the runes as a version of drawing, uh, a magical version of drawing. Uh, those uh, runes that have uh, survived are usually found on objects, and they have two aspects to them. One is to denote ownership. They give the name of the owner of an object. This could be jewelry and particularly weapons. And I mentioned very often these are swords or uh, sometimes spears. They're given names like tester or the cutter, whatever. But also we get many indications of the runes being um, simply uh, the same letter repeated many times. And the best guess is that the runes also had mathematical qualities, that each letter represented a number or a power. So by multiplying the numbers of the letter, thorn, the TH symbol, which actually is used in Anglo-Saxon as well as um, Old Norse, uh, would be a way of augmenting the power of the sword or the object involved. Uh, runes were seen as uh, ways of casting magical spells. There's runes uh, that are reported uh, to protect you from poisoning. Uh, in the Volsung saga, for instance, uh, the reason why Sigmund, uh, the father of Sigurd, the great hero who slays Fafner the dragon and wins um, uh, Brynhild, uh, does not die from poison, he has the power of runes. And one of uh, Sigmund's sons who doesn't, you know, drinks poison and properly dies. Uh, he has the power to, to prove himself against this. Runes are also seen as a way, uh, there's a ceremony of casting the runes, usually associated with a vulva, who's a prophetess, who is dedicated to the goddess Freya, or Frey, Freya, the, uh, the sister of Frey, uh, the goddess of fertility, who has many of the same powers of Odin. She has magical powers. She's conceived as a goddess who can fly as uh, a falcon or a, a bird, that she can go to the other world. Odin also assumes uh, the guises of, of birds to fly off and understand the other world, the upper regions. And this, um, this ceremony is an ability to cast the runes to try to understand what the future has to tell. And there are reports of this ceremony as early as the time of Julius Caesar. Uh, very often runes are cast to determine who among the prisoners is going to be sacrificed to Odin, which is usually done by hanging. Hanging is a, a, um, a ritual uh, to Odin. It's a, the sacrifice of one of the powerful foes you've captured, and, uh, and this practice goes on quite frequently in the Viking Age. Uh, the most famous that comes to mind is in 845 AD when the Vikings capture uh, part of a Frankish army, 111 of them were told, and hang them on one side of the Seine River and then um, uh, Charles the Bald and his army sees it and panics and runs away and the Vikings occupied Paris, but we'll get to that. Any event, those hanging ceremonies, those sacrificial rites are also associated with the casting of the runes. And they, uh, they finally, as I said, as, as part of a, um, a form of drawing, they are finally used also in commemoration of the dead. And that, again, is in communicating with the ancestors. Large numbers of rune stones were erected in central Sweden, uh, particularly from the 10th and 11th century. Uh, these were put up by warriors and merchant princes, as I would prefer to call them, uh, men who made their reputations very often in Russia, uh, in the slave trade, serving in Byzantine armies, and in a fair number of them who actually uh, fought for King Canute in Denmark. 
and they erected these rune stones, or their relatives did, to honor them. Uh, sometimes these rune stones were also associated with drawing. I mentioned uh, the famous rune stone that shows episodes from the Volsung saga, in which the dragon Fafnir is this sinuous creature upon which the runic inscription is carved, and then you have figures showing incidents uh, uh, from the legend. Well, that type of artwork is very, very common on rune stones, and these rune stones are often dated based on the decorative motifs, the various types of animal style designs that are also found in wood carving and especially in jewelry. And we have a great deal of jewelry from the Age of Migrations and the Viking Age. And very often the runes are lined up with decorative motifs, which puts them pretty much in close with jewelry. And that's one reason why I always think of the runes as sort of a, a form of drawing. And the, um, the runes are therefore uh, extremely important and associated with the cults of Odin, uh, with the commemoration of the dead, uh, communication with the gods, and reinforcing all of those values, those heroic uh, values associated with the cult of Odin. The uh, Scandinavians are also heirs to a very ancient decorative uh, arts, uh, a tradition of decorative arts uh, that were common among all Germanic peoples. And I've made mention of two in particular. Uh, one are the Anglo-Saxon objects that have come out of the Sutton Ho treasure, the distinctly English objects. These include some marvelous jewelry, a great helmet that's been uh, almost intact, uh, as well as the decorations on a uh, shield boss. All of these in what are known as animal style or geometric techniques are very, very close to contemporary styles that are usually often called Vendel style in Sweden where again, weapons, jewelry, uh, personal ornaments are done in very, very elaborate um, uh, geometric patterns or animals, usually have an animal swallowing something, uh, serpents, um, uh, fantastic animals. Uh, very often, some of these uh, forms of jewelry are depicting what I think are some version of the Midgarth serpent, the dragon. And the genius of um, our artistic traditions in the dramatic world were really put on personal ornamentation. And you can trace the development of these uh, ornamental styles very, very well, starting from the Vendel Age and running really into the early Christian period. And somewhere from approximately 500 AD to 1200 AD, uh, Scandinavian craftsmen, jewelers, uh, woodworkers and rune masters, people carving the rune stones, um, devise an exquisite uh, succession of different uh, stylistic designs. Uh, the earliest of them, the so-called Bore style, which is in the early Viking Age, is a rather stocky and um, thick style. Uh, it is pretty close to the dramatic styles you would have seen in Sutton Ho or Gothic arts, I mentioned, uh, from the 4th and 5th century. But from it, you evolve into far more uh, sinuous figures, uh, more fantastic creatures come in, especially in the 10th and 11th century with the Mammon style, which is based on a famous inlaid axe. Uh, you get uh, very, very imaginative depictions, and the Scandinavians are often borrowing from Western Europe, for instance, floral designs are taken in from Carolingian art. Uh, there are certain influences of geometric patterns from later Islamic art. All of this is taken by the, um, the Scandinavian craftsmen and really turned into a marvelous uh, native style decoration. And it climaxes, especially in the 11th and 12th century, in, of all things, the door panels of early Christian churches, the so-called stave churches, in which not only are the ancient myths depicted, uh, particularly the tales of um, the Volsung saga, 
uh, Sigurd slaying the dragon or Gunnar in the snake pit uh, where he's trying to play the harp to lure the serpents asleep and the one adder is, is piercing him. Uh, Regan the smith, who's the treacherous smith who makes the sword of Sigurd uh, and then is going to do in Sigurd, but Sigurd learns of this uh, and slays Regan. Um, all of these incidents out of the Volsung saga appear on um, uh, in one famous set of church doors from Norway, done in what are known as the Ernest style. That is, the, the last of these great decorative styles that came out of the Viking Age. It's almost Baroque in its fussiness and is a very, very distinct, really uniquely a Scandinavian form of artwork. And it's important to stress these visual arts, just as it is the literary traditions. This is a very, very powerful way in which these people identified themselves. Scandinavian society did not have freestanding masonry architecture. They did not build great monumental buildings the way the Romans did and the way early Christians eventually did with their great cathedrals in the Middle Ages. Nor did they have a tradition of sculpture. Now, part of it was simply materials. They don't have all the limestone and marble hanging around the way you do in the Mediterranean world. Also, their major building material was wood. And in wood, the Scandinavians really expressed their genius in wood carving. Unfortunately, much of this wood carving does not survive. We have some coming out of ship burials, notably uh, the ship burial of Asseberg that dates around 834 AD. Probably to the Norwegian queen, Asa, who is the grandma, um, the paternal grandmother of King Harald uh, Finehair, who's the first king of Norway, or something kind of resembling Norway. And that includes some absolutely stunning uh, examples of uh, wood carving, uh, including uh, uh, two dragon head uh, posts, uh, one of them the most famous, the so-called academician style, very, very close to the jewelry style, the bore style, close to some of the styles you see on the runestones. It also uh, has a cart, which is probably a ceremonial cart, very similar to the carts used to move the cult statues around in festivals uh, to the goddesses, uh, the Vanar goddesses. Furthermore, there are ordinary objects that are decorated both in metal and wood with human heads. These seem to be totems that either represent the gods or the ancestors. And we have numerous reports of this veneration of the ancestors, particularly a quite a spectacular report by one of the Arab geographers who explains how Swedes on the Volga in the 10th century, Swedish merchants, set up posts with heads or totems to their divinities or their protective spirits. They may be the ancestors. Uh, whom they invoked for uh, good market. So there's this very, very powerful tradition of wood carving, decorative arts, textiles, certainly tapestries. There's lots of references to tapestries and the weaving of runes and tapestries. Uh, Brynhild in the um, Volsung saga at one point is visited uh, by her rival uh, Gudrum and what is she doing? She's weaving a tapestry of heroic deeds and runes uh, at the time and this was undoubtedly a common form of decoration. These decorative arts uh, repeated the myths and the legends of poetry. Uh, they emphasized the deeds of the current heroes. And they were also extremely important ways of marking out rank within Viking society. And as the Viking Age progresses, it is no accident that the numbers of jewelry styles proliferate, that the amount of jewelry found in graves increases significantly, and that uh, there is also evidence of importation of silk and fabrics. 
and that one way in which the Vikings identified themselves was very, very much in their personal ornamentation. That is where their artistic genius was, and they were a distinct people both in their dress and decoration. This would be everything from ordinary objects such as belt buckles to elaborately engraved hilts, and that is an extremely important component in the Viking Age personal display, putting your wealth in that way of projecting your rank, projecting your association with your ancestors, with the gods, and with the great heroes. And therefore, the visual arts become a very, very important way of, in effect, uh, testing what we were told in the myths and the legends, and they correspond generally fairly well. As I said, there are certain myths, such as the uh, fishing for the uh, Midgarth serpent that actually appears on jewelry themes and on runestones. Perhaps the best idea of how this must have um, impressed all Scandinavians, these constant visual representations of the myths and legends, come from some um, statuettes that have come down to us, which probably represent cult statues. There's a very, very famous one of Thor uh, standing over his hammer. There's another one of uh, the god Frey. These are often reproduced in most uh, textbooks. And these types of statuettes and cult statues, uh, rare in archaeological finds, must have been extremely common. And it reminds me very much of a passage in, um, in the Loxdala saga, uh, written probably around 1240 or thereabouts, uh, in Iceland. And it's, it's really one of the finest romantic sagas, probably the best romantic saga of all of Iceland. And, and in that, one of my favorite characters, uh, Olaf the Peacock, um, and he's, he's really incredibly lavishly dressed, even by Viking standards, and that's how he got the name Peacock. And uh, Olaf the Peacock, who was actually illegitimate, his father Huskold supposedly had an Irish princess that he picked up in Norway on the slave market. But in any event, Olaf the Peacock uh, makes a journey to Norway, gets prime timber, goes back, and builds his own farmstead, which is an Icelandic version of the Great Hall that you encounter in, in the legends and myths. And we're told in Loxdala Saga that he commissioned the best craftsmen he could find to decorate the hall's interior uh, with marvelous wood carvings of all the stories of old. And we're told these are the stories of the Volsungs, of the, uh, coming up in the next lecture, uh, Rolf Kraki uh, and his contest with, with Adels, the king of Uppsala, uh, the myths of Thor, uh, the elements of the cosmology that would be repeated in the Vol uh, Voluspa, and that the figures were so marvelously done that when Olaf threw his lavish feast, and he really was regarded as one of the top uh, Gothi or chieftains uh, who settled legal disputes in Iceland and you went to his feast and you have to imagine the tapestries there that the figures in the um, the illumination of the great hearth seemed to come alive and dance and almost you know played out the myths before you this must have been extremely common in most Scandinavian halls and so when we look at this material we have to really exercise our imagination to see how it fits in with the daily lives of these people and how it plugs in very much with their uh, religious belief and their social values that are so fundamental to the Viking Age. And this brings us back finally to that third point I want to make in this lecture, and that is besides the runes and the visual arts, uh, once again the poetry. 
And I mentioned the power of the poetry, especially in transmitting legendary figures from the West Germanic peoples to the Scandinavians, indicating there was this common uh, Germanic culture that begins to break up in the 7th century as the Scandinavians uh, articulate and elaborate their Germanic civilization into Viking Age Scandinavia, and their kinsmen evolve into Western European Christians. Well, that poetry, that poetic tradition, and I mentioned briefly, is based on a poetry that was devised for recitation. And oral poetry is not an act of memory. It is not a case where the poet sits down and memorizes 2,000 lines. Uh, you have people today who will proudly tell you, I can you know, recite in ancient Greek um, six books of the Iliad, I can, I can recite in Anglo-Saxon uh, Beowulf or you know, the Norse poem. That is not how poetic composition occurs in an oral society. The written versions we have of those poems are at the end of a very long tradition. What this poetry involved was training a poet to understand how meters worked. And in Germanic meter, that was a half line. That was usually four or five syllables with two stressed syllables followed by another half line with at least one important stressed syllable. And the idea was to make sure those stressed syllables alliterated. They had the same initial sound to it. And that then tied the line together. Those half lines could be arranged in various types of patterns. You could have two following. You could put together a group of eight as a single couplet where each line is syntactically related. You could break them up into a full line, into two or three short lines. So there were an infinite set of patterns of arranging this verse, and the poet thought in terms of half lines. Uh, he also, um, since you're dealing with a poetry that wasn't so concerned about the number of syllables as opposed to the number of stress syllables, it followed very much the cadence of spoken language. And so most poets compose with a harp. We're told this in Beowulf, we're told this in the Norse poems. That harp allows you to keep time. And so what the poet had was an ability to think in these half lines, and you have to remember, he has no writing. It's just that Oh, uh, Garm bays loudly, Borgip in a cave, breaks his fetters and freely runs. The fates I fathom, yet father I see you, the mighty gods, the engulfing doom, which is a very good rendition of one of the refrains in the Velospa. Um, the, the power of the poetry almost carries itself along with that alliteration if, if you have the style. Furthermore, the poet had a lot of extra techniques to help him out. This included what most uh, linguists and philologists, people who study language and literature, call formula. That is, there were phrases worked out which identified figures for you. Uh, and uh, these, these could be metaphorical expressions. Norse poetry, in contrast to the earlier Germanic poetry that's represented in Beowulf and uh, some of the other continental versions which are um, well, they're not really oral poetry. They're based on oral traditions. They're really literary epics. But Norse poetry had uh, a metaphorical expressions called kennings, which I'll speak about uh, later on in terms of skaldic poetry. And these were metaphorical phrases that were worked out referring to mythological uh, situations. So, so Granny's burden, which fills a whole half line, means gold. Granny is the horse of 
uh, Sigurd in the Volsung saga, he carries off the horde of the Niflungs, the poisoned horde, which had been cursed by Loki, in effect, and gets, you know, Gunnar eventually gets a handle it. And so it's both a learned illusion, and at the same time, it fits very nicely a half line. And the poet would memorize a number of these kennings and phrases, which metrically worked for half lines. So as he's composing, he not only has a structure, a verse that he knows, follows the cadence of the language. He knows he needs so many alliterative, uh, alliterating syllables in a line. He knows that he could think in half lines, he could boom, uh, one could, you know, two together is a sentence, or one is a short sentence, a refrain. He also has these phrases he can use. Each composition is independent. He's reciting a story well known, in a poetic form of recitation well known, and as a result, when he stands in the hall and accompanies himself with his harp, each poetic recitation is an independent creation. The best analogy I think I can give on that would be to think in terms of the kind of very, very uh, structured form of a Bach fugue. And anyone familiar with organs know that there, there is a very, very set standard for a fugue. On the other hand, within that formula, there is infinite variation. And the same would actually apply to jazz musicians who have their own sort of techniques of composition. And many jazz musicians really don't read music, but they know the form very well. And within that form, there's infinite variation. And this is the genius of Norse poetry, this infinite variation in oral recitation of stories extremely well known and exploiting the dramatic technique of surprise over expectation. So when the poems are recited, uh, the audience already is anticipating what's going to happen. The poet has all of these marvelous techniques to retell the story, and he can slow it down or speed it up depending on how his audience is reacting. And they could elaborate. For instance, in some of these Norse poems, all of a sudden, you know, the action goes along, it slows down. We're going to describe the shield of Ragnar and what everything was on it. And there's this delight in explaining all the various images on it. And then he will return to the action and really get to the punchline when Ragnar's captured and thrown into the snake pit of Aiella. And along the way, there's all sorts of marvelous illusions. This is, uh, this is in a famous poem known as um, uh, Ragnar's Drop, uh, which is probably composed in the early 9th century by Bragi the Old. And uh, there's this uh, marvelous ability to adapt the poetry, the stories, the legends to whatever setting is necessary. Now, the reciting of these poems and the knowledge of all of these um, stories and myths and legends, taking them in conjunction to what we know of its visual arts, what we know of the runes, these were powerful bonds of society. The poetry, even though in its fragmentary form it, it survives in late, um, late examples from, um, or late manuscripts from Iceland, uh, the poetry is the main means of communicating and educating uh, within the Viking world. The launching of the great Viking raids in the 9th and 10th century actually was a great stimulus for a whole new wave of poetry, for improvisation and innovation on traditional meters. Viking heroes such as Ragnar Lodbrok, and I mentioned it briefly with his poem, The Shield of Ragnar, uh, the uh, Ragnarstrapna, uh, Vikings of the 9th and 10th centuries are known to us not only from the um, literary accounts of um, Western Europeans who see them as foes, but some of them are known from references to poetry where they are immediately cast into poetry 
and immediately compared to the heroes of old. And the poems become a marvelous way of perpetuating not only the memory of the past, but incorporating all these heroes of the present and linking them to those memories in the past so that for many Vikings and many Scandinavians in the 9th and 10th century, they were just the emulators and continuators of the great heroes that stretched all the way back to Sigurd and Gunnar. And there was this almost timeless quality of heroic ethos that was perpetuated in the poetry and in the, uh, the various legends of the great figures of the past. And, uh, and that is a very good point to, to stop at this lecture, this, this creation of a poetic medium for transmitting these traditions. And in the upcoming lectures, we're going to look at what some of these traditions were, particularly of the early Scandinavian heroes of the 6th and 7th century, who in many ways are going to be presented in this poetic form as the precursors of the Vikings. Lecture 8, Legendary Kings and Heroes. In this lecture, I plan to conclude the discussion of the cultural and religious uh, background of Scandinavia in the Viking Age. In this particular lecture, I want to concentrate on the earliest heroes of Scandinavia who are celebrated in the traditional verse uh, I spoke of, about in the previous two lectures. These would be heroes associated with uh, eventually the kingdoms of Denmark and Sweden. And this lecture is an important transition into the Viking Age for several reasons. Uh, the heroes uh, date from the 6th and 7th century AD, and in many ways they were not only examples to emulate, such as the legendary figures Gunnar and Sigurd from the Volsung saga, or the great gods Thor and Odin, uh, who were told in the myths. Uh, these were figures who were historical characters. They were actually kings who ruled in what later came to be Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. And so these figures had a dual influence on the later Viking Age. One is, yes, they were great heroes, they were someone you would emulate, uh, and they in turn were probably emulating the heroes before them. But on the other hand, they also became associated with the great halls at Lydor or Herat, which is on the island of Zeeland, or Zealand as we say in English, uh, which is the largest Danish island, and therefore acted as a, a model for the later kings of Denmark, who came to unite the kingdom of Denmark, and in many ways saw themselves as the heirs to these, these uh, not only to the courage and the deeds, but also to the political legacy of these early kings of Denmark. Uh, the same is true with a group of heroes and kings who are known from the area of central Sweden, uh, who are associated at Uppsala, uh, which continued to be a great sanctuary through the Viking Age and probably was still operating as a pagan sanctuary into the early 12th century AD. Uh, that was associated with another line of kings, uh, the Yinglinga or the Yingling kings, who claimed to be associated with the god Frey, uh, the god of prosperity, the god of the um, uh, the other life associated with boars, and there was a great hall there, especially remembered with the rather avaricious and nasty king um, um, Adels, who's the opponent of Rolf Kraki, the great king in Denmark, 
who's at the hall at LIDAR. And finally, there is a memory of heroes who would become associated with eventually what became uh, the basis of the Kingdom of Norway, even though today that area is part of Sweden. And these would be the so-called West uh, Gotor or Gautar, the Gietes of the Old English poem uh, Beowulf. Uh, and the hero Beowulf, who's while not really remembered in the Scandinavian tradition, is part of yet another political legacy that fed into the creation of the Kingdom of Norway. So what the legends uh, give us, um, and these would be legends covering events from uh, roughly about 490 A.D. to maybe 700 A.D., is not only another version and insight into this heroic mar uh, ethos, but also a window into some of the political geography that is beginning to take place in Scandinavia on the eve of the Viking Age, uh, as well as uh, the types of sea kings, and I, I prefer to call them sea kings uh, rather than chiefs, who would launch the great Viking attacks. Now what these figures don't have in the 6th and 7th century are the ships that will be capable of conducting those Viking raids. And we will discuss the ship technology in an upcoming lecture. And that ship technology is going to essentially be revolutionary in its military and political implications and eventually even in its economic implications. These uh, legendary figures in Scandinavia in the 6th and 7th century, uh, the earliest Scandinavian heroes to be celebrated in poem and later in saga, are still dwelling in a world where ships have not yet progressed to the sleek long ships of the Viking Age. And a good deal of the trade, as far as we can tell, uh, from the surviving archaeological evidence is really in the hands of Frisians, that is, uh, the West Germanic peoples uh, settled along the islands of Holland who are under the protection of the Frankish kings and carrying out most of the carrying trade between the Frankish world and England and Scandinavia in this period. Well, how do we know about these uh, legendary figures of uh, the 6th and 7th century who came to be regarded in some ways as the first kings of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway? Well, we have uh, some rather unusual sources on this. One is that Old English uh, epic of Beowulf, which I mentioned in another context. Uh, Beowulf is a very peculiar poem. It is based on oral poetic techniques, that is, it goes back to the early dramatic poetry, but it was created as a literary masterpiece. It was written by a man probably living in a monastery of noble birth. Uh, it's an anonymous composition. It uses the Old English techniques, but it was written as a single epic in which he took uh, really probably three or four stories and combined them using probably the Aeneid of Virgil, the great Roman epic, as his model. It is also imbued with various Christian ideas. Beowulf is um, set in pagan Scandinavia, but this uh, English author being a Christian, probably his family had been Christians at this point for maybe one or two generations, has updated it religiously so that references to the ancient gods are removed, although the action and the ethos in the poem is very, very pagan indeed in many ways. Uh, that epic, which was perhaps composed in its current form uh, somewhere around 675, uh, 725 A.D., uh, survives on a single manuscript that goes back to the Cotton Library, which is a very important library established in the early modern age. And uh, the poem does reflect events in Scandinavia in some ways more faithfully than the later Norse traditions. Uh, the ancestors of the English who carried these traditions over to England 
came from a Scandinavia that had not yet coalesced into anything remotely looking like the kingdoms of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And therefore, they remember the Gietas, or the Gotar, as an independent group, uh, dwelling on what is now the western shore of Sweden, which historically was associated with Norway and only become part of Sweden under a treaty in 1658. And that is the homeland of Beowulf, which is often referred to as West Gauterland, uh, the Western Goths. It's pretty much around, uh, it's just north of the modern river Gotha that feeds into Lake Vanarin and hooks around towards the Oslo Fjord. Uh, so that Beowulf's uh, kingdom, where he lived in, the, uh, in, say, 500 AD, that of his lord Heislik, was really in some ways the, the eventual political basis for the Norwegian kingdom that grew up around the Oslo Fjord and the Uplands. Uh, they also remember the fact that the Swedes, the, uh, the Sviar, um, Swede actually is an Anglo-Saxon uh, rendition of the Norse name of these people, uh, dwelled around Uppsala, uh, that they lived around Lake Malaron, and that much of what is now Sweden was divided up into independent tribes and peoples. And there was great distance separating the Swedes from the Danes, who are primarily located on the island of Zeeland. Uh, Jutland, the peninsula that most people associate with Denmark at this point, was probably home to a whole bunch of different tribes that had very little to do with the Danes. The information that comes from the Norse sources is much later. It comes from Icelandic tradition. Uh, there were a number of poems uh, associated with the heroes of this period, but these poems are usually quoted within uh, prose narrative sagas. Uh, the most famous of them is the saga of Rolf Kraki. Uh, written in the 13th century AD. And the saga of Ralph Crocky talks about the same figures that you have in Beowulf. There are two significant differences between these accounts. Beowulf is talking about figures among the Danes and the Swedes probably from the first half of the 6th century AD. The saga of Ralph Crocky concentrates on the generation after, uh, on the King Ralph Crocky uh, who ruled at Hlidar, the Great Hall of Zealand, who was obviously the favorite of Odin, uh, who was um, in many ways the model king for later Danish kings that would like to think of themselves as descendants of this king in Zealand one way or the other, or at least to his political legacy. Nonetheless, he is only a tangential figure in Beowulf's account. He isn't very important in the poem of Beowulf. He's only mentioned in passing uh, because Beowulf is really more interested in the, the, uh, the Gautish hero, the Gauter hero, the Gothic hero from, uh, from what is now, you know, what the Scandinavians would have called Norway, as well as the Danes of that, that generation. There are a number of chronicles that have come down to us in Latin, written by Danish authors and, uh, and legendary histories. And the most important one that I'll mention quite frequently in this course, which is a major source, not only for this period, but running through the whole Viking Age, is a chronicle written by an ecclesiastical historian by the name of Saxo Grammaticus, a Danish cleric writing in the age of uh, Valdemar I, who was a uh, Christian king of Denmark from 1157 to 1182, and in many ways made the Danish medieval kingdom uh, a great kingdom in the 12th century. And Valdemar uh, presided over a very important literary revival in, in Denmark in which there was a great deal of composition in Latin in which these Danish Christian kings are trying to project themselves as the Christian heirs of the kings going back to Rolf Kraki and earlier, the so-called Skjoldingar or the Skjolding kings of Denmark, that is of the family of Rolf Kraki. Well, that means that the Norse accounts 
are written without the same benefit of political geography of Beowulf. Beowulf is actually much closer to the very, very uh, broken and fragmented political geography that must have existed in Scandinavia before the Viking Age, where Denmark, Norway, and Sweden at best were an embryo. Whereas the Norse accounts writing of these heroes have cast these heroes already into, well, this is the king of Denmark, Rolf Kraki. This is going to be the king of Norway. They are thinking already in the classic three kingdoms, which are really a result of the Viking Age rather than a, a, a cause. The realm of Beowulf, which is along the western shores of Sweden today, north of the so-called Gotha River, and uh, bordering on the shore, is also borne out in the archaeology as a royal center. There are a number of important and impressive barrows, uh, some early rune stones from the area. It clearly was the center of royal power. Beowulf himself is never really remembered in the Norse tradition. Um, the best guess is that he is represented as Bothfar Bjarki, who is a um, hero at the court of Rolf Kraki, who is said to be a Norwegian. Uh, by the time the Norse authors wrote, the region which was Gautlan in Beowulf's time in the 6th century had long passed under the control of largely Norway, some of it under Sweden. And so Beowulf is remembered as a berserker at the court of Rolf Kraki or a part of this legendary figure who fights in the form of a great bear. He, um, um, uh, he has actually two brothers who are part animals as well. It's a really wild and rather woolly group that comes out of Norway to serve the Danish king. What we can tell is that already uh, in the 6th century on the island of Zeeland, both the Anglo-Saxon and the Norse sources really agree there was a powerful kingdom uh, ruled on that island from kings at this great hall, which in many ways was probably seen as the equivalent of Valhalla. It's called Herat in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, or Hlaidar in the Danish tradition. And in many ways, it is the predecessor of the latest Christ later Christian capital of Roskilde. At the time, the legendary kings ruling there, the so-called Skjoldingar, or the Skjolding kings, uh, the kings of the shield, uh, traced their descent back to an eponymous hero who was supposed to be perhaps descended from Odin. Um, furthermore, these Danish rulers had very little control outside of the main island of Denmark. They may have exercised control in Skane. There's very little evidence that they ruled in Jutland. Their contemporaries and rivals were the Yingle kings of Sweden, who claimed descent from the god Frey and were remembered in the epics as great opponents. And again, uh, archaeology does uh, verify the fact that there is dense population settlements and graves around the Uppsala Lake Mollerin area on the island of Zealand, as well as I've mentioned, the apparent heartland of Beowulf. So those three regions all end up becoming, interesting and significantly enough, the nucleus for the later Scandinavian kingdoms. In Beowulf, the legend and ac the action of the, of, of the poem is really concentrated on this uh, hero uh, who travels to Denmark to rid the Danish hall, Herat, uh, of the horrid creature, Grendel. And to the English poet, uh, Scandinavia is a remote, misty land of, uh, populated uh, with Grendel, who's a monster who's never really very well described. Uh, there's been several suggestions of what his name means. It might be related to a Norse word of the blowing wind. Uh, there's another one where he's essentially translates as a bottom figure, uh, bottom feeder. He's some creature from the depth. But in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, Beowulf fights Grendel, then Grendel's mother in these fantastic combats. He goes back to rule over his kingdom 
once his lord Hyjalik is killed in a raid in Frisia and dies fighting a dragon, and a dragon that comes right out of Germanic mythology, as in all dragons, why do dragons get angry, is someone stumbled into the lair and stole some of the gold treasure, so the dragon lashes out and Beowulf uh, combats and fights this monster. So, in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, while they do remember the names quite accurately in some ways in the kingdoms, this is all a fantastic legend. It's, it's associated uh, with uh, great creatures and beasts uh, from a primeval past. In the Norse tradition, the legends are quite different. Uh, concentration is on human action, on great kings like Rolf Kraki, who's the generation after Beowulf, or his rival in Sweden. There's conflicts between personalities. Uh, the kings attack each other and are trying to strive for um, uh, gaining control of the great heroes of the Northland. Now, some of these elements are also in Beowulf, but they're not the primary action. And so the Norse saw these kingdoms in some ways as the prototypes for their, or I should say the Norse writers of the 12th and 13th century saw these kingdoms as sort of the prototypes uh, for the kingdoms of their own days, the foundations of these later states. Rolf Kroki, without a doubt, must have been a remarkable figure. Uh, he gave rise to uh, a legendary figure remembered not only in Scandinavian tradition, but also in the Viking, uh, in uh, Anglo-Saxon tradition, but also in the Scandinavian tradition. He probably lived somewhere between 550 and 575 AD, and he was remembered in the tradition as one of the favorite of Odin. His great court was built around a oak tree, symbolic of Yg Yggdrasil. He was, in turn, the son of a, um, uh, of a great figure who had been a, uh, a Viking chief and a, and a rather minor figure in the Beowulf poem. Uh, he's actually the result of an incestuous union uh, between his father and uh, his sister, Yursa. Uh, the father marries the daughter uh, in a rather complicated uh, etiological myth. His, his father's name is Helgi, who is um, remembered also in the Anglo-Saxon tradition. What's important about Rolf Kroki is he is the epitome of what not only a king of the Age of Migrations is, but also a king of the Viking Age. It is by his charisma, it is by his gift-giving, it is by his favor of Odin that he collects around him the greatest heroes of the Northland. And they come from different places, such as Bjarki from what is now Norway, uh, Hjalti, Svipdag, a famous Swedish hero. Much of the traditions about Haralf Kraki, and there, was, there would have been a very, very extensive poetic cycle in which poems would be recited, really concerned his heroes. And in many ways, Rolf Kroki presided over his hall the way Odin presides over Valhalla. Uh, that is, Odin's hall is populated with all the great heroes of the past. He is waiting for the final day of doom, Ragnarok, and he keeps adding these heroes into his hall. And so Rolf Kroki, in some ways, is presiding in Denmark uh, in the way Odin presides in Asgard. So the result is numerous heroes and figures, many of them probably unrelated to Rolf Kroki, uh, and even that period, get incorporated into this Danish legend, uh, legendary king, and become part of the great group of retainers. In the era of the 6th and 7th century, and in the Viking era, these men were probably known as berserkers. That is, the frenzied warriors who understood the power of runes and could work themselves up into battle rages where they charged into battle without any regard for themselves. And the, the, the word still survives in English, to go berserk. 
that is to go into a rage. And uh, by the time you get to the 13th and 14th century where uh, Scandinavians are Christians, they kind of are a little standoffish on berserkers. This isn't really what you want to recommend. Uh, you're thinking more in terms of chivalrous knights, and berserkers don't really work out very well as, as chivalrous knights. And so in the prose accounts of the traditions of Rolf Crocky, uh, the berserkers become these crazy hero, uh, these crazy warriors uh, that the heroes like Rolf Crocky or Bjarki actually defeat. And so they become sort of a class of um, uh, strange uh, opponents. Uh, and the berserkers of Rolf Crocky's court then become heroes who are, you know, a little more respectable in Christian eyes. Uh, but they all probably were in this class of uh, berserkers that are discussed in classical and medieval accounts of the professional warriors. Rolf Crocky, uh, remembered as a valiant king, uh, clashed with his contemporary in Sweden, and that is a fellow by the name of Adels, who in the legend ends up marrying Rolf Crocky's uh, mother, Yersa, uh, who is actually also his half-sister in, in the myth. And there was a recollection in the myth, uh, in, in the legend, that Rolf Crocky had made a famous ride to Uppsala, that he left his court at Clydar crossed over to what is now Sweden, Skane, and with his heroes galloped up to challenge the king of Uppsala. And they, the cause of this attack is a little obscure. It involves treasure, it involves honor, it involves some sort of dynastic issue. And, and this is what always sets the heroes off. Somehow their honor has been in one way or another sullied, and they have to assert it by going off and somehow besting their opponent in contests. In the saga of uh, Rolf Crocky, Rolf travels through the forests of Sweden, and as I mentioned, that is probably a journey of at least a month to six weeks to ride from uh, Denmark, you know, up to Uppsala. Uh, along the way, he meets Odin, uh, disguised as the, as the farmer Rani, and Odin tests Rolf Crocky's warriors on various occasions. And when Rolf Crocky started out on this ride. He had his 12 champions. He had a bunch of berserkers and a hundred other men. In the course of meeting Ronnie on several occasions, Ronnie keeps reappearing at new locations, which should have tipped Rolf Crocky off that this guy is not just an ordinary farmer, but you know, it's a legend. We won't go into the details too much. And in each case, uh, everyone fails but the 12 companions. And so the lesser men are dismissed and sent back to Denmark. And while when Rolf Crocky uh, emerges at Uppsala, he's only accompanied by his 12 warriors. And you're certainly not going to get much political history out of this, but you're certainly going to get a great deal of uh, the social ethos and the warrior ethos uh, in this tale. When they arrive in Uppsala, which would have been a great hall comparable to the one in Denmark, what Rolf Krake and his men do is they move into this hall and take over. Rolf Krake presides over the hall. Uh, there's Swedish warriors waiting to trap them. They slay them. Behind, they're hiding behind the tapestries. Uh, the Swedish king, Adels, has to run away. Um, Rolf's mother comes out, presides over the hall. And what, what is established there is Rolf Krake is a greater king. He's moved into the hall of his rival. He's taken it over. He presides over with his warriors. He starts giving gifts. He takes over the treasure of the Swedish king, who's known to be a miserly king, a man who doesn't win much loyalty to him. And as a result, he's usurped that position in Uppsala. Well, eventually, the Swedes come back. You know, Adels goes off and raises a huge army, and Rolf and his companions uh, ride off to escape. In the course of their escape, 
They throw the gold they've captured across the fields of Uppsala. They sold the gold on Freisveller Plain, as it's called, and the Swedes jump down and fight over the gold, and the Danes gallop away. Well, it's an odd story to us who think in terms of kingdoms and nation-states, perhaps, and we would think, well, this raid represented an attempt to assert the hegemony of the Danish, and there's all sorts of speculation about it. What it was was a test of valor and the test of who was a greater king. It wasn't a question of taking territory. A great king was a man who attracted to him great warriors, who showed an example of generosity to those warriors who could assure them of riches, and those riches were given out as gifts that honored not only the giver, but those who received. That is what makes Rolf Kroki a great hero. And the fact that he could move into the Swedish court and take over and preside in Sweden, just as he did in Denmark, is an indication that everyone agrees he is the greatest king of the Northlands. And yes, he does retreat. He does not stay in, uh, in Uppsala. But the act of throwing the gold, uh, in which the Swedes you know, jump off their horses to fight the gold rather than pursue the Danes, is yet another indication to the Scandinavians who delighted in this story is Rolf Kroki has just bought the retainers of his rival Adels, who are now his retainers as much as they had been of the Swedish king. And that really captures the sense of what politically was important in the age of migration. Great kings who could go out on careers, gain riches, gain fame, build a great hall, attract the warriors to them. Kingship was something that you acquired due to your personal reputation and charisma. It was useful that you were descended from other kings, that you understood the profession of arms, that you had the favor of Odin. But kingship was only effective if it was made effective and exercised by that ruler. And that is an important point to stress because the Viking Age will give many men the possibilities to become sea kings and gain riches and powers and therefore establish their own kingdoms, whether overseas or later in Scandinavia. That notion is already evident probably in the clashes that you see among those incipient kingdoms in Scandinavia in the 6th century. It's that same world is captured very vividly in Beowulf in the boasting that goes on at the great halls because Halls, as I mentioned, were not only political centers where a king ruled, but there were also places where religious ceremonies took place, especially in the uh, spring and early summer before the campaigning season, before sinking, sea kings would launch out on raids, before you would go attack uh, the hall of your rival king to search your valor. You would have great ceremonies. There would be feasting. A lot of mead would pass around and probably wine imported from the Carolingian world, and their boasts were made. And those boasts were extremely important. You, you raised your toast, uh, you claimed what you were going to do, and when you made those claims, you swore it on rings, uh, rings which would be associated with Odin, and then you had to deliver. And this, this sort of fellowship goes on in the, in the Epic of Beowulf, it goes on in the, uh, the sagas of, of Rolf Kroki, and it continues as a theme even into early Christian times among Scandinavian kings. The most famous of them, we'll mention later, occurs somewhere shortly after 986, when these professional Vikings, the Yom's Vikings, show up at the Danish court and boast, well, we're going to punish Jarl or Earl Haken of Norway because we're being hosted by our great king Sven Fjorkbeard. They swear all of these oaths and boasts 
in the great hall in this in this religious political ceremony and then the next morning when everyone sobers up and the Joms Vikings are thinking well we must have had a great time I can't remember what I said uh, Sven Forkbeet immediately reminds don't you remember you swore on the rings uh, you know the Odin's rings and you said you're gonna sail to Norway and beat up King Hacken for me and they say oh yeah I guess we did and sure enough off and running into one of the great naval disasters of Danish history um, so these traditions are extremely powerful to the Scandinavians. When you're looking at these early legends of Beowulf and Rolf Kroki, you're seeing the way politics are played out in the Viking Age. They're extremely personal. They're tied to great kings. Great kings make their reputation by going out raiding, by warring, uh, uh, great deeds as warriors. They acquire the wealth, the women, uh, the warriors that allow them to establish a hall, and from that hall they rule as monarch over an area that is really rather vaguely defined. These are not kingdoms in any kind of Roman sense or medieval sense. They are very, very much personal monarchies, and they are personal monarchs who are very much motivated by issues of a personal honor, revenge, pride, all of those motives. And so the legends in the epic of Beowulf capture this aspect of political life far more effectively than any kind of modern analysis of what motivated these rulers. But what was the point in the importance of these, um, these legendary figures to the Viking Age? To some extent, they were added into that great hall of heroes going back to the Volsungs. They were seen as uh, prototypes of what a king could be in Scandinavia. And they also reveal a very important point which is now being debated among scholars. I mentioned there's a revisionist scholarship that has taken the position that the Vikings in some ways have been greatly exaggerated that uh, they're essentially pirates, they're rather marginal to the development of Western Europe. Most of our information we have about them has been written by monks who are usually the victims of Viking raids, and these guys are generally rather hysterical, and they all, they're, they're bound to exaggerate five Viking ships into 50 ships. It is also pointed out that Western Europeans in both Anglo-Saxon England and Carolingian Europe were hardly models of Christian piety, that the warrior caste was pretty brutal. There are records of monasteries being sacked or damaged in battles among Christian warriors. And there's a great deal of truth to this, and there is a reason to accept some of these uh, caveats. On the other hand, when you look at the legends and the myths, and particularly the legends associated with Rolf Kroki, the epic of Beowulf, the Scandinavians who launched out several generations later from when these epics are placed in time were not burdened with any notion of just war. To be sure, monasteries were sacked in Europe, but that was an outrageous crime and the exception and not the rule. The Western Europeans were in no way prepared for the types of warriors that would descend upon them in those longships. They are dealing with Scandinavians who see themselves as the emulators of these great heroes, who not only exceed all expectations in battle, they revel in battle. They go into battle with ecstatic joy. Whether they win or lose doesn't matter because they, they join the great hall of Odin. And honor, riches, entrance into Valhalla, this is what is going to motivate the Vikings more than anything else over the next 300 years. And battle, and in battle, success goes to those who have the will and determination to prevail. And with figures such as Odin, Sigurd, Ralph Kroki, the Norse had in these heroes traditions which gave them the will to dominate battlefields, sweep away better and more numerous opponents, and the Western Europeans were really completely unprepared for the type of invasions they're about to experience.
Lecture 9, A Revolution in Shipbuilding. In this lecture, I plan to look at the developments in Scandinavian shipbuilding from really prehistoric times up through the end of the Viking Age. And this is really a central lecture in understanding the Viking Age because without certain breakthroughs in shipbuilding that were achieved at the very end of the um, uh, 8th century AD and then innovations that occurred in the 10th century, uh, really the Viking Age would be impossible. I've alluded to the fact that for all of the cultural continuity between the Age of Migrations and the Viking Age, the real difference was the fact that the kings and jarls, uh, that would be nobles or earls in English, uh, gained uh, ships that gave them a military advantage for over 300 years. And between about 790 and 1100, the Scandinavians will dominate the northern uh, waters of Europe. And that not only includes the seas and oceans, the Atlantic Ocean, uh, but also the river systems of Western Europe and of Russia because they constructed really spectacular ships, uh, warships uh, popularly known as the longship, although many scholars would reserve the term longship for warships later in the Viking Age from the late 10th century, and also uh, cargo vessels, uh, uh, the Canar, these are ocean-going cargo vessels that could carry settlers to Iceland or the British Isles, and then a whole variety of other ships that we have, including ferries, uh, coastal vessels, uh, fishing ships, and the like. So the development in Scandinavian shipbuilding is all important. And I like to look at essentially three issues in this lecture. The first is going to be the evolution of shipbuilding, uh, why the Scandinavians achieved these breakthroughs. And once again, we'll see that there are influences from other shipbuilding traditions. Uh, notably the Celts of Western Europe as well as the Romans. But again, the Scandinavians applied their own genius to create ships that no one else would have built. Uh, I'd then like to go into a bit about the actual construction of ships in the Viking Age. And there are significant points about that because it had major economic and social consequences for Scandinavian communities. And I should stress that the act of building ships, which was an important capital investment in any Norse community, and the uh, sailing of these ships was a common experience as important as the ancient dramatic gods they worshipped, the, uh, the common Norse language, the poetry, the legends. The, um, the culture of the sea and of uh, going out and uh, either raiding or trading by sea uh, was one of the uh, quintessential elements of Scandinavian civilization. And finally, I'd like to close with a brief example of what this meant in terms of military advantages. And we'll use an example coming from uh, the early Viking Age, uh, one of the great raids on France, uh, as an example of the performance of these Viking warships. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the evolution. The Viking Age uh, ships, the longships, warships and cargo ships, represent a climax to a very long evolution in shipbuilding. Uh, this certainly goes back to the prehistoric age. There are a number of remarkable rock carvings, uh, essentially carvings or painted carvings. Sometimes they're just painted, sometimes they're carved with painted highlights. Uh, going back to the prehistoric age, the Neolithic age, uh, between 4000 and 2300 BC, and then there's others coming from the Bronze Age, they show that the Scandinavians, the ancestors of the Scandinavians, the first people in that area, were familiar with constructing ships. 
Uh, these are extremely schematic, and it's difficult to know the precise construction without an archaeological find. Nonetheless, they're familiar with building ships that can at least negotiate the coasts. Uh, they seem to have been propelled by paddles rather than by actual oars. There are no sails, but from the very start, the only way people and goods could have been moved around the core areas of Scandinavia was some type of vessel that could negotiate the rather treacherous seas, the, uh, such as the Sund, that is the narrow strait of water that separates Zeeland or Zealand from southern Sweden. You had to have a fairly sophisticated ship in order to do that. Now, the first major ship that we know of comes from about 300 to 200 BC, and as becomes evident in this lecture, most of our information is based on ships that we've recovered in archaeological excavation. These are usually burials, that is, ships that have been put in the ground as a funerary monument. It's often been modified in order to carry out the burial. Often sails have been removed. Large numbers of goods are in there. Uh, they are either to honor the dead or they might be a votive gift. They might have been given to the gods in recognition for some favor. Uh, but nonetheless, these are not working vessels necessarily. They are ships that have been, in some cases, constructed specifically either for funeral purposes or have been modified for that. Uh, the great exception is the uh, wonderful find of ships made uh, which were sunk in the channel of the Roskilde Fjord uh, probably in the early 11th century. And there we actually have working Viking ships, which we'll get to in this lecture. In any case, our earliest uh, one is a, a ship known as the uh, Hjortspring ship that comes from Als, uh, an island of Denmark. And it's been uncovered in excavation, and it shows some very important features already. As I mentioned, it's propelled by paddles. It certainly confirms what we suspected from the rock uh, carvings. Uh, it's uh, a fairly lengthy vessel. It's about 40 feet in length. Uh, would have had 20 men on the side propelling it. And there are some important provisions on it. One is there's no evidence there was a sail and there's, it's doubtful it ever had a sail. It seems to be largely a vessel for moving um, people along coastal waters uh, into the estuaries of rivers. Uh, it's, um, it's um, you know, not quite like a flat boat or ferry, but it's, it's something more or less in that class. It's certainly not a ship that could go out and handle the North Sea, and certainly not the Atlantic. It does not have a keel. But it does show certain important innovations, and part of that is the adaptation of Celtic building styles of ships that we know from Roman descriptions, primarily Julius Caesar, as well as the long Celtic tradition of building uh, skin boats. That is essentially putting down a skeleton construction of ribs uh, and then covering it with skins and caulking the skins. Uh, these are known as curogs. They're used uh, in the British Isles particularly, but also on the... Um, are the shores of northern France, and those skin boats are really quite impressive. Some of them can attain sizes as much as uh, 40 or 50 feet. Uh, they are without keels, and riding those things is like bouncing around on the, on the waters. But nonetheless, they're really quite durable for doing um, uh, shipping in rather quiet, enclosed waters, such as, say, the Baltic Sea, or in the case of the British Isles, the Irish Sea. This um, undecked early shipped of about 40 to 50 feet in length, was also tied together with planks. And so it, it shows a mixture of um, uh, building styles. Uh, part of it is this so-called overlapping clinker or skeleton style. And uh, that is a method that's pioneered in Northern Europe. The other method of shipbuilding is often called shell construction. And that is building your ship so that the, um, uh, the wood fits together 
airtight. You know, it's, it's essentially the equivalent of building a, a fine piece of furniture. And Viking vessels actually show a combination of these building techniques. The shell construction is usually associated with the Mediterranean, the skeleton construction with the Celtic Northwest. Both of these constructions will be represented in Viking ships and are indicative of the type of influences getting up to Scandinavia. Uh, remarkably, the Scandinavians start building their first successful warships and cargo ships probably due to the influence of Roman uh, ship designs. And again, it's often thought in the popular imagination, what do the Romans know about ships? The Roman attitude to the Mediterranean world was to conquer it over land, corner it, and call it our sea. Uh, but the Romans in the High Empire, uh, in, a, in a sense, inherited this whole Celtic shipbuilding tradition, and the Romans had real reason to tap into the trade routes into Northern Europe. And so in the first, second, third century AD, large numbers of commercial vessels arrived from the Roman world, sailed by largely provincials who were mostly Celtic origin, some of Germanic origin, and so the Scandinavians had a chance to see these ships. One of the most important innovations was a sail, and it is still a highly debatable point among scholars when did sails get put on Scandinavian ships. Some regard the addition of the sail as extremely late, just on the eve of the Viking Age somewhere between maybe 750 and 790, at most a generation before the first raids. Others would argue that the sale is already being used in the third and fourth century based on comments by Roman authors, and also based on the two primary ships we have that we can examine, which are clearly the ancestors of Viking ships. Uh, one of those I referred to earlier, and that is the Nidem ship, uh, again, a burial ship coming from Denmark, tentatively dated to around 350 or 400 AD. It's quite a large vessel. It's almost 80 feet in uh, uh, length. And it, again, is debated whether there was a sail in it. It was a burial ship. And therefore, if it did have a sail, uh, a mast, uh, and something to hold it in place, it may have been removed because the grave goods are found in the middle of the ship. The Nidin ship shows a combination of building styles. It shows very much the clinker style of uh, construction. Uh, the Scandinavians have now perfected building larger warships. It's still debated whether it was decked or not, but it is propelled by oars, not by paddles. And based on several reconstructions, this ship certainly could negotiate uh, coastal waters of the North Sea very easily and could move a lot of people and goods around. Uh, the Sutton Ho ship, to which I referred, that uh, ship in Anglo-Saxon England, about 625 AD is not so useful. That the ship itself doesn't survive. It's really an impression in the clay. And we have a, a couple of similar such burials uh, from Norway. One is the um, Klavsund uh, ship, which is about 700. And, and again, it's, it's also um, uh, difficult to make sense out of it because we really don't have that much of the timbered construction. But all three of these vessels, starting with the Nidem ship and ending with this Norwegian ship of about 700, show uh, improved construction uh, of the vessels, especially the side strakes, which are the levels of planking that one constructs. And by the time of 700, somewhere in the early 8th century, uh, the Scandinavians figure out how to put down a keel. And somewhere in the uh, 8th century, keels, uh, that is a backbone to a ship, becomes a major uh, feature in Scandinavian ship construction. And that is the first important breakthrough, putting in a keel. Uh, that keel allows the Scandinavians to uh, begin to construct ships that could really negotiate uh, the sea and the open waters. And once you have a keel, you can set in a foundation on that 
keel, uh, keelson as it's often called, this huge base where you can uh, attach a large mast uh, which will give you an enormous area for a sail, and that will give you pr uh, propulsion, especially out at sea, uh, that previous vessels could not have. And these breakthroughs are made sometime in the 8th century, sometime between 700 and 800, and allow the Scandinavians to build uh, the classic longships and cargo vessels of the Viking Age. Again, much of this information about these vessels comes from uh, archaeological excavation. And there are several excavations that are absolutely important in uh, telling us um, how these ships were constructed. Two of them are Norwegian burials, to which I've referred earlier. One is the Osberg ship. Uh, that burial is dated to about 834, based on dendro dendrochronology. Uh, the vessel itself is probably the equivalent of a royal yacht, rather than an actual working warship. And it shows all of the classic features of a, um, a Viking Age ship. It has a keel. It has a sail set back about, about a third back from the um, bow of the ship. It also um, shows uh, a very, very sophisticated construction in which you're building up by levels of strakes on that, um, on that keel, which is the backbone, and then you put in the, the ribbing afterwards. Uh, the other important vessel is the Gokstad ship, which is dated to about 900. It's again a burial ship. Uh, it's very closely found in the same area of Vestfold. That is a warship and is probably pretty close to the class of warships used in the 9th and 10th century on the first raids. Uh, the Gokstad ship for the longest time, uh, and this was a ship that was excavated in the, early, uh, the end of the 19th century, was one of our major sources of information. And uh, the ship itself is something like uh, 75 feet long and certainly had a um, keel and keelsome capable of carrying a huge mass close to 45 feet in height. And there's various reconstructions of the sail and depending on you know, how much height you suspect the ship carried, it could be anywhere from 750 to 825 square feet of sail that would give you an enormous amount of propulsion. It is absolutely a brilliant piece of work in combining strength and flexibility because in all of these Viking Age ships, they are built to essentially ride the waters rather than to fight the waves. Uh, if they tried to have build, built ships that were more in the Mediterranean or Roman tradition, those ships probably would have just broken up in the waters. They would have been too brittle. But Viking Age ships essentially are able to ride the waves. There's also a third set of ships that we've uh, excavated, uh, and this was state-of-the-art excavation starting in 1962 and are now on display in the Roskilde um, Ship Museum. And those were s really six vessels. There's really essentially five they brought up. Two of them are warships that they're making a composite out of. Uh, but these were ships that were sunk probably to block the bay uh, may have been done in the 11th century by Sven Estrison, it's anyone's guess, um, to uh, block the bay so warships couldn't come in and attack the Danish capital of Roskilde, and they think it's perhaps directed against someone like Harald Hattari or, or Magnus, uh, uh, the king of Norway, who are talking, attacking Denmark at this point. So these were working vessels that were sunk to block up a channel. They were able to pump the water out, state-of-the-art archaeology, and uh, anyone in Denmark must make a pilgrimage to that ship museum and see it. Uh, in any event, the ships that have been recovered there are usually known as the uh, Skuldelev uh, ships. Skuldelev is the 
little town near where the ships were found. And they uh, include two important warships, which are clearly longships in the classic sense, perhaps built somewhere between 975 and 1000. Uh, an important vessel, a canar, our first really good ocean-going vessel, the type of vessel used to settle Iceland. And then there are uh, some smaller vessels, including a coastal uh, vessel, a ship that might have been a fishing ship. All of these ships together uh, show us the essentially the culmination of Scandinavian shipbuilding. Uh, the warship is about 92 feet in length, uh, a breadth of 14 to 15 feet. It is the type of ship that would have been used by King Canute's armies to invade England. Uh, there's a somewhat smaller warship that is a class just below it, but quite impressive as well. Uh, the Canar is a ship that could carry somewhere between 30 and 40 tons worth of cargo, and it also uh, confirms what we're told in the Icelandic sagas of the type of cargo ships that were regularly used in trade between Norway and Iceland, and it's very, very reassuring to have an actual such vessel in the archaeological record. All of the ships were clearly working ships. That can be demonstrated in part by the fact that they were repaired, uh, particularly on the bottoms, quite frequently uh, because uh, Viking ships were beached. So by 790, the Scandinavians have created a remarkable set of war and cargo vessels that no one else has. And these ships uh, could be constructed rather readily from the materials at hand and did not require the same kind of specialized uh, labor and facilities as, say, Mediterranean shipbuilding. And this is an extremely important point to stress. Uh, we can easily follow in the archaeological record the increasing experimentation and sophistication. And one shudders to think how some of these were actually discovered. Uh, you wonder how uh, maybe a Norwegian town launched a vessel with one, you know, one type of early keel, and they never came back, and then they eventually concluded, well, that didn't work, and then let's try something else. This is all done by trial and error. There are no written manuals, and the shipwrights who constructed these vessels worked largely from memory and experience and would adjust and modify based on the building materials they had at the time. And so there are undoubtedly variations in, in say, caulking material, uh, the distance, uh, the, uh, the proportion of length to breadth of a ship. All of that could be uh, handled based on the, wood, uh, on the uh, materials you had. Uh, whether you had a long ship or canar, these things could be built very, very quickly and easily in a Norse community. You can build them close to the shore. Most of them were probably constructed underneath very simple temporary structures to protect them. Um, since Viking ships rode so low in the water, there is very, very low um, uh, draft to them, they could be beached anywhere. And that's one of the great tactical advantages both for Viking cargo vessels and warships. You don't need deep water ports. These Viking ships can go up rivers very, very far. They are very easy to pick up from rivers and carry from river to river, that is to make a portage, to go from one river system to another. You see this frequently done in France, it's done in England, and particularly in Russia, where in effect you can move uh, from one river system to another overland rather easily and then go in a totally different direction. That's actually how the Vikings end up on the Volga and then the Caspian Sea. Uh, the other important feature about these ships is that they were built from the uh, existing hardwoods uh, in Scandinavia, particularly oak. That's one reason why Denmark was so important in the Viking Age. Denmark had some of the prime oak forests, and, uh, and the oak was ideal for mast uh, keels, ribs, and planks. 
In order to construct this ship, the, what the Norse had learned to do as a result of trial and error going back into that early, you know, all the way back, to, certainly to that Nidum ship, once you had a keel as the basis of your ship to give it the strength to handle ocean conditions, it also was the basis of constructing. The first thing you laid down was a keel. You found an ideal oak tree of the right length, could be 90 feet, 60 feet, whatever, and you cut that tree down and that basic trunk became your keel. And then the large branches were often used as the ribs and the cross sections and very often uh, the lumber, uh, they, they use the grain and the natural curvature of the uh, lumber to build various sections of the ship. They were very, very cleverly adapting the materials to the construction of the ship. They also built these ships from rather green and unseasoned timber. And that was, again, to retain the flexibility so that Viking vessels uh, almost bent with the waves. And there's reports of this by um, uh, several reconstructions that have been done. Uh, the earliest and most famous is the one done by the Norwegians in 1893, where a replica of the Gokstad ship was constructed and sailed from Bergen to Newfoundland. I think it was about 28 days to do it. And the reports very much were the ship you know, rode the waves, and there, there was a certain amount of bending of the ship with the waves. It was very, very flexible. So the oak, your first thing you do is you put down your keel, uh, and then you start building up your strakes, that is, your levels of planking. And once you get those attached uh, uh, to your keel, you put in the various ribbing and cross beams to reinforce it. And this is a very, very clever, there's a combination of both shell and clinker construction to build this ship. You caulk it as you go along the way. The uh, boards are, are nailed into place and uh, with washers, um, you know, iron nails, and then you bend them over with a washer. There is a minimum amount of metal used in this construction. And furthermore, the ships are remarkably um, thin in their construction. Now, these are not as heavy and ponderous as you think. For instance, the, uh, uh, the bottom planking of a Viking vessel is essentially one inch thick. You start with a, a three-inch oak board and then you plane it down to essentially one inch. That's, that's just one inch separating you from the Atlantic Ocean. It's a rather terrifying thought. And um, uh, they're, um, they're fitted into place. Uh, we believe that the decks were always movable because there's always the danger of, of water seeping in and you have to bail. And so once you've got your strakes built up, you then put in your keelsome, that is this, this construction to hold the mast, then the mast comes in, and the mast would be another oak tree of appropriate length, which has been chopped down and put in place. Uh, you can use uh, birch and pine for a lot of the lesser construction. And finally, you cut the slots for the oars. You put in the oars. The oars should be prime oak if you can get it. And presto, you've got a Viking ship. Now, the amount of technical skill is extremely high. That is, the shipwrights directing it really have to understand proportions, which they've all learned through experimentation. But a lot of the work can be done very, very quickly by people who are skilled in wood building. That is, planing the boards, following the grain of the wood, and adapting the material that you need. The result is a ship of remarkable flexibility and speed, uh, whether it be a cargo or a uh, warship. And um, it is a considerable amount of effort to build one of these ships. Uh, to put together a, a vessel of the Gokstad class, which was um, you know, a Viking, say, warship about 75 to 80 feet in length, uh, you need a oak tree just to do the 
keel, and then you need another oak tree for the mast, and you need somewhere between 12 and 13 fully fledged oak trees just to get your basic wood. So the construction of these ships involved a great deal of labor in cutting down and preparing the wood. But again, you're dealing with a population that is skilled in woodwork. That is the main construction they do. And most Scandinavian communities can do this. They also have now the superior iron uh, tools and nails and clamps necessary to do the construction. So you had to have a lot of developments before you got one of these Scandinavian ships. Now, these vessels are built for speed and efficiency of moving people and goods. They are definitely not built for comfort. And sailing one of these uh, vessels across the North Atlantic is a daunting task in and of itself. Uh, you essentially lived on uh, salted and boiled foods. Uh, you drank a horrible curdled milk or, uh, or to pass the time away, a low-grade low meat or beer probably to pass the time. You didn't build fires. Uh, you were open to the elements. You could build a temporary structure, perhaps. That's, there's references to that in Icelandic uh, cargo vessels. But you made sure to bring a lot of skins and woolens along with you because you essentially slept on the deck. And the conditions were harsh. And you had to be fit in order to handle a ship like this. And that is one reason why the Vikings are such excellent warriors. Uh, they are constantly involved in building ships and enduring the conditions necessary to sail these vessels. The performance of these ships uh, can be deduced by building reconstructions. And again, there's a certain amount of debate of how many men would be to an oar. Uh, we know how many oars might be in a vessel. Most of these vessels probably could put two or three men to an oar, which would mean a standard long ship of the 9th century carried a crew of at least 50. When you get into the late 10th and 11th century, crews of 100 or even 200 in the great dragon ships is not unusual. So you have a lot of muscle power to move those vessels. And, um, but in any event, based on these, um, these reconstructions, a Viking vessel of the Gokstad ship, a warship, sailing an eight-hour day could easily average between three and four knots. And if it's running with the wind and it's got its sail up, there's arguments that it could make, make anywhere from eight to 12 knots. Now, uh, what does this mean in practical application? And you can, you know, average sailing day is 40 to 65 nautical miles. A statute mile is about 85% of a nautical mile. Um, well, that means that these vessels gave the Vikings a, remarkably, a remarkable tactical advantage. And I want to close with the third part of this lecture with just a, some indication of what this meant. And it should explain a great deal of part three, the success of the Viking raids in Western Europe and across Russia. Um, I take as an example a documented case that we know quite well. On March 28th, Easter Sunday, a large Danish army occupied the city of Paris in 845. The fleet is reputedly 120 vessels, according to some of the accounts. Most of these vessels are apparently arriving from Denmark and southwestern Norway, and they are, according to some sources, commanded by the legendary hero Ragnar Lodbrok. Now, if you work out the times and distances and when they would have set sail, which would have been maybe at the earliest, March 1st, and you take the sailing distances that are deduced from these replica ships, that is, easily three to four knots, especially if you have the currents going with you along the North Sea, they could cover somewhere on the order of about 900 statute miles from Scandinavia to the mouth of the Seine within about three weeks. They would then sail up the Seine, which is about 150 miles from Paris, and if they were rowing in shifts, uh, and even though they were going against the current and dealing with the um, the curves of the river, they could probably reach Paris certainly within a week, certainly within three to four days. 
In the process of going to Paris, they ran into two Frankish armies commanded by Charles the Bald. They defeated the smaller one on one side of the Seine. That's where they, they hanged the 111 prisoners, which panicked the other army, which fled, and that's how they occupied Paris without resistance. And so based on what we know of our sailing distances and based on what we know of this particular campaign, they're quite consistent that a Viking fleet of this size could raid out of Scandinavia, hit a city like Paris within a month, and then get out very quickly. In comparison to the speed of these ships, which could cover easily going up river, you know, they're selling up a river 150 miles, they could do it in four or five days. Most medieval armies by land, assuming they had anything resembling a Roman road, could on average only make 12 or 15 miles a day. Cavalry forces pushing those horses really hard, an elite force, might make 20 miles. That is, Viking fleets, which could negotiate along any coast of Europe and could go extremely deep up river systems, could move three, four, five times faster than any opponent on land. And given the fact that the Scandinavians come to have a monopoly of sea power, it is no surprise that the Vikings can raid and attack at will before most of their opponents can even get their forces in the field. And this strategic advantage is held by the Vikings for the next 300 years. No one will attempt to contest Scandinavian sea power in Northern Europe. And the only major naval battles fought in the Viking Age is Vikings fighting Vikings. And that is one of the most important points that comes out of this lecture, is that by 790, these Scandinavians, propelled with that martial ethos and propelled with that culture to the war gods, now have ships that can get them to go anywhere in Western Europe. Lecture 10. Warfare and Society in the Viking Age. In this lecture, I want to discuss the importance of warfare in the Viking Age and particularly look at a number of issues, that is weapons, uh, training, tactics, and the performance of Vikings as uh, warriors. And this is uh, an obvious uh, matchup with the lecture dealing with shipbuilding and the nautical skills of the Scandinavians. And very often in popular literature, uh, these would be novels, uh, film, um, the notion is that the Vikings were a group of um, savage warriors, homicidal maniacs, had marvelous ships uh, come dashing into towns, uh, cutting and slashing everything in their path. And it leads, uh, leads to all sorts of stereotypes. Uh, one of the most common is, uh, what is his name, Hagar the Horrible, the comic strip figure running around with a horned helmet. And I'm sorry to disappoint a lot of uh, people, but um, the Vikings did not wear horned helmets. Uh, the only horned helmets we have come from the early Bronze Age, and they may well have been ceremonial helmets. If you think about it for a moment, they're really not very practical in battle. It gives your opponent something to hang on to and yank it off. In any event, that image of the horned helmet has not yet died in the popular perception and is going to be long with us. In any event, I think it's important first to look at the types of weapons and armament available to the Vikings. And these were pretty similar to the armaments that would have been used by many of their opponents, especially in Western Europe 
and to a lesser extent in the eastern lands, especially the Byzantine Empire. Many of these weapons come out of a common Roman and Germanic tradition, and the Vikings, in terms of their physical size and overall look, are not too different from most Northwestern Europeans. Their opponents, the Franks, the, uh, the English, Germanic peoples, or the Celts of the British Isles, and a lot of the same weapons would have been used on both sides, or variations of them. Uh, foremost, it's important to um, note that the primary um, weapon of attack was going to be the steel sword. And these swords that were used in the Viking Age were extremely long broadswords, as you would tell them. They come out of a, a Roman spatha, a saber. Uh, they're anywhere from two and a half to uh, three feet in length. They're considerably longer than the classic Roman um, jabbing weapon, the gladius. Very often, uh, swords uh, were required to, uh, you, well, you needed two hands to wield some of the larger ones, but these swords required a great deal of space and skill and training and strength to use. And uh, in the Icelandic sagas, for instance, the ability of men to wield swords is extremely well known, and they're very, very precise on the skills and the types of blows that can be delivered. Uh, someone like um, Gunnar in Njal's saga, one of the major figures, is reported to have been one of the most skilled swordsmen, and he could wield that sword so quickly that it looked like three swords at once in the air, and that really gives you some idea of, of how uh, agile these guys were in, in using these weapons. And it also required people to be trained in this type of weapon uh, from a very young age. So you were going to be trained to use a sword, to, to handle a shield, spear, uh, whatever the weapons were. Uh, every free Scandinavian, that is a Scandinavian was not a thrall or a, um, a slave, uh, had familiarity in handling uh, these edged weapons. Uh, by the Viking Age, uh, the, uh, the Scandinavians were quite adept in forging iron and steel weapons. Uh, the sword was the main weapon of attack. Actually, the best swords that were used in the Viking Age were a Frankish manufacture, especially in the Rhineland, where the best weapons were forged uh, at Cologne. Uh, that was a major weapon center. And uh, we are often told, especially by Arab and Western European sources, that the Scandinavians preferred to get Frankish weapons and modified their swords based on Frankish designs. Large numbers of Frankish weapons have been found in Scandinavia and the depressing fact is that uh, from the Frankish viewpoint is the Carolingian kings starting with Charlemagne keep banning the export of weapons to Scandinavia and yet they keep appearing in Scandinavian graves. No one is paying attention uh, to regulations which is probably true of the arms market of all eras. Uh, I think there's 79 major 79 swords from Denmark and uh, Sweden from one Frankish manufacturer alone so from the ninth century so so much for uh, government regulation so uh, the sword was the primary weapon the Scandinavians also used uh, the axe as a serious fighting weapon in much of Western Europe at the time, the axe had essentially gone out of fashion. There were various types of throwing axes. Uh, these could have ranges of maybe up to 40 feet. Uh, Scandinavians were extremely deadly in hurling this weapon. Uh, usually went about three or four gyrations before it hit its opponent. Uh, later in the 10th century, they developed a two, uh, an axe, a uh, long axe um, that requires two hands perhaps based on models from the Byzantine and Islamic world. Uh, and these are the classic axes that are used by the professional warriors in, say, the armies of Canute. They're actually hired uh, warriors in the Varingian Guard in Constantinople, or even the English kings. Uh, they're depicted on the Bayeux Tapestry, by the way. Um, those are essentially Danish 
or Anglo-Danish warriors fighting in the center of the English army for King Harold II against William the Conqueror. And so uh, the axe was retained as a serious weapon, both as a throwing weapon and then as a primary weapon for close combat. Also, the spear always remained important. Scandinavian spears were particularly long, two and a half, four feet, fit it with an iron head, and they're very, very good in catching their opponent on the shield and ripping a shield off his arm or unbalancing an opponent. There are a number of descriptions of individual combats in Icelandic saga, and these are usually uh, two families who are feuding with each other. Uh, but the audience is extremely keen to know how were the weapons used, how were they wielded, how effectively was a spear used. And we have very, very precise information on how these weapons were, ha uh, were used in combat. And the audience un understood and appreciated all of this uh, and expected to be entertained by it. Uh, they also had pretty good defensive armor. Again, contrary to popular perceptions where they're clad in all these furs and running around in various stages on dress in, in different movies like uh, the Vikings and the Longships, uh, most Scandinavians took the effort to acquire body armor. Uh, they were acquiring their first significant amounts of body armor in the Roman Age, and as the Viking Age progressed, and the Vikings raided widely and traded widely, many Scandinavian forces, certainly by the late century, were sporting chain mail. It's not the body armor familiar with many um, readers, such as uh, what you'd have in the year of the Crusades. Uh, chain mail is a set of interlocking iron links or steel links. It takes about 35,000 or 40,000 to make a suit, and it would cover most of the vital parts of the body. Usually it was a short sleeve, leaving the, um, the arms free. Uh, the legs were not actually covered. Those were so you could move quickly. But it covered most of your vital parts. Uh, you would wear it over a linen padding. And you would also equip yourself with a helmet. And these are helmets that are based on a late Roman design. They're usually known as uh, Spengelhelm from the German version of it. And they're conical helmets. Uh, usually they're multiple parts, although they're some single-made ones. And these helmets would sit on... Um, your head and you'd be protected with the nose guard and your eyes were open and there's parts of your necks that are exposed but it pretty much protected you from most of the types of blows you would receive on the head which would be overhead blows and usually these helmets were good enough to deflect most sword blows you had to have a pretty sharp weapon to get through it and it might take two or three blows to damage the helmet so it essentially fell off and then your victim was exposed to an attack. And there's lots of comments made in all accounts of some king who didn't wear his helmet in combat, ergo he got killed. So the body armor that Vikings protected themselves uh, with was pretty comparable to their opponents, uh, shield, chainmail, helmet. Uh, they didn't use too much the so-called uh, lamellar armor that's more common in the Byzantine world. Those are interlocking um, scales rather than chain, chain mail. But they carried perhaps somewhere between, you know, 30 and 40 pounds worth of armor, shield, and helmet for protection, which is about the weight that an infantryman today goes into battle with when you count all of his equipment that he's carrying around. And this body armor was uh, articulated, so it, uh, the weight was distributed over your body. And you're dealing with men who are used to hard labor, who are in prime condition from rowing uh, ships who are skilled in hunting and therefore wearing this armor in combat is not as arduous as it seems and it really does give protection. Uh, mo the most exposed areas are the arms and the legs, the lower legs, and there you might sustain wounds from arrows or from a well-timed blow. But in close order fighting, 
with a large round shield, a chainmail armor, and one of these Spengel helm helmets on, you could go into that combat with pretty confident sense that most, unless you really fouled up, that uh, you're not going to get too badly damaged. It was a matter of your skill in using the weapon against your opponent. In terms of missile weapons, uh, which uh, would be javelins and bows and arrows, these had rather limited range. The bow was about four feet in length, and it's essentially an adapted hunting weapon. The Scandinavians are very good at shooting arrows. Uh, someone like Harald Hattery, who is the, uh, um, the great Christian Viking warrior, I think if there's, a, if there's a Christian Valhalla, certainly Harald is presiding over it. And he's one of the great figures of the 11th century, um, who ruled Norway from about uh, 1047 to 1066. He dies at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in England. And uh, Harald Hattery was just a superb bowman, and he could hit his enemies, but it required real skill and aim. And it was extremely uh, effective in ship combat, where two ships come close together, and it's essentially boarding tactics. So you can really see your opponent, and you can aim that arrow at someone who's forgot to put on his helmet, or you can try to get him in the neck or an exposed arm, and, uh, and then incapacitate him and then board over and finish him off. Uh, javelins, likewise, uh, relatively limited range, maybe effectively 40 yards. And again, these weapons were extremely deadly when used by Scandinavians, and especially ship combat, which was essentially ships coming together and fighting these deadly boarding tactics. And whoever captures, clears the ship of another opponent, uh, takes that ship and wins the battle. Uh, we're told that Norwegians were so good at javelins that they could actually catch a javelin thrown at them, uh, sort of deflect it and catch it, and then turn around and throw it back at their opponent. And there's a number of references to this in Icelandic sagas, particularly in the, the Himskrilinga uh, saga, which is the history of the kings of Norway, which is one of the many works written by Snorri Strulson. And we have a number of important combats of, of great sea battles fought between Norwegians and Danes. And these, these incidents are reported quite frequently and can't really be discounted as literary um, creations. So in terms of weapons and armament, when the Vikings launch out on their attacks in 790, they have comparable equipment to, say, the Carolingian armies of northwestern Europe, their Anglo-Saxon opponents. They are certainly much better armed than the Celtic peoples of Ireland and northern Britain, who do not have nearly the same amount of weapons and equipment, and they are better armed than the Slavic tribes in eastern Europe. Uh, the only people who are going to be superior in armament might be Byzantine armies or armies of the Caliphate, which were really on the fringes of the Scandinavian world anyway. Furthermore, Vikings as soldiers always appreciated mobility just as they did at sea. And we are told in sagas and legends that all, uh, certainly Viking heroes, that is people who would be Jarls, the nobles, or sea kings, or anyone of substance. Um, the Norwegian term later on would be a man who's a, le a member of the Lendermen, that is the, the magnates, the squires. They all knew how to ride horses. And in any important Viking raid, the first thing that was done if they were going to penetrate inland in the ninth century is gather horses, and they would use horses as a form of transportation. That is, they'd ride to the battlefield, but they would dismount and fight essentially as infantry. And part of the speed of Viking armies operating in Western Europe was their ability to hit areas, acquire horses, move rapidly, uh, dismount and fight. Um, 
Unlike many infantry formations of the Middle Ages, Scandinavians were more than determined to meet cavalry charges, particularly in the later 10th and 11th century. And um, we'll discuss one of those, the Battle of Hastings in 1066, which is essentially pitting a feudal cavalry army of knights against the uh, Anglo-Saxon army, which is really a Scandinavian army in many ways, uh, the, sh the shield wall. And... Um, the, uh, the English army always wins. Uh, it's only at the end of the day that it's finally broken by cavalry charges. Most of the time, Western European armies up until the early 11th century were fighting as infantry. They had a very small cavalry component. And an argument is made that cavalry increased in importance in the later 10th and 11th century in continental Europe, in large part, to counter Viking raids. And there's a legitimate argument to be made for that. Uh, by fighting so many diverse foes, the Vikings gained invaluable lessons in mobility, weapons, tactics. They're constantly innovating. And if their weapons and armament were not too dissimilar from most of their opponents, well, what gave them the edge in battle? And there are certain aspects of fighting that come into this that do not deal with just necessarily the weapons and tactics. One was the incredible bonds of cohesion within these Viking groups. Some scholars have tried to compare the Vikings, for instance, to the pirates of the early modern age, say the Spanish main. A brilliant book on that subject is by Redeker, Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, where he really analyzes the different European pirates of the 16th, 17th century as outsiders and, and uh, even the privateers. Um, this is not what Viking armies were like. They were not a group of pirate outsiders. They were commanded by sea kings and jarls. They comprised lendermen, that is, squires, plus the free members of community. Most Viking fleets comprised anywhere from three to ten ships. They came from a single area, a community. They had built the ships themselves. Certainly in the ninth and early 10th century, many of them expected to go back home. And so they brought with them the kind of social cohesion that you would expect in a society where all men of free rank know how to use weapons. They're all engaged in hunting, and they have the common bond of rowing these ships and being an absolutely prime fit condition uh, as a result of that. So you're dealing with a far more coherent group of, of warriors than, say, a pirate band. Furthermore, in rowing those ships and in living the conditions of Scandinavia, the Vikings had several advantages over their opponents. One, they were incredibly agile, especially in leaping and jumping. You have to be in order to do the boarding tactics described in the sagas. And you, you can almost think of the Vikings as, you know, communities of a whole bunch of crew rowers that you would have in a college team. These, this, this is an extremely fit society going out to war. Uh, they also lived in harsh conditions and had to learn to get through Scandinavian winters. Scandinavians were extremely good in determining logistics. What were the food requirements? In foraging and above all in campaigning in winter. Uh, much of the transportation in Scandinavia in the wintertime is done by skis. Uh, it's done over frozen rivers uh, and by sleds. Um, Campaigning uh, in winter in a place like France and England was a cakewalk for most of these people. And repeatedly, English armies get caught short because the Scandinavians show up in a winter campaign. That's how they surprised Alfred the Great in 878. They hit him at his winter court in January. There wasn't any English army anyway, and all of a sudden the Danes decide to do a winter campaign. Um, they're very good at seizing stocks of grain and supplies. 
generally just after the harvest, and then they stock up and they know exactly how much they need to do to do one of these lightning winter combats. So in terms of logistics, in terms of morale, in terms of the, uh, the bonds of cohesion, uh, in terms of their skill in uh, determining logistics, these people are superb warriors. Uh, they are not the stereotypes of a bunch of armed homicidal maniacs. They wage war violently and effectively. And they have enormous numbers of advantages besides just their weapons and those ships. And this is a very important point to stress. The Scandinavians of free rank, and there are not very many slaves in Scandinavian society compared to the overall population, these free men were all familiar in the use of arms from childhood, as well as many of them were expert in hunting. And this is in strong contrast to what had evolved in Western Europe from, say, about 500 on. Most Western European societies were built around a warrior caste, and so the warrior caste, that is the nobility of the Carolingian Empire, their equivalents in Anglo-Saxon England. These men were very, very skilled in weapons, but the majority of the population actually had come to see military service as a burden. Large numbers of forces were nothing more than essentially militia forces that were called out for immediate service, defense of the immediate area. Uh, in English, that would be the so-called third. And these soldiers lacked that kind of coherence and experience. They could be very, very easily ambushed by Viking columns. There's reports of that. But above all, they were very often easily induced to make reckless attacks on a Viking shield wall. Uh, that attack would be broken, and then the Vikings would counterattack and mop them up. And so um, while the Western European armies uh, did have very fine warriors indeed, and some of them were mounted, on the whole, you have to keep in mind that the majority of Western European population just didn't know how to use edge weapons. And when you're fighting in close combat with edge weapons, it's determination and skill and strength that counts. And the Scandinavians had it. Uh, most of the Viking free males knew how to use these weapons very, uh, very efficiently and in a very deadly fashion. Uh, there were some differences when you were dealing with, say, the Celtic populations of Ireland and Scotland, which are much simpler societies, more hunting societies. But there, uh, they didn't have the same level of weapons. Uh, they were very good at stealth and ambush, but they couldn't stand up to the Vikings in, say, a set-piece battle, at least in the ninth century. Uh, Irish weapons and equipment would, of course, in improve over time. Now, with that notion in mind, the exact numbers of these Viking forces are difficult to calculate. And there is a tendency by some scholars to minimize the size of Viking armies and fleets. But whatever the numbers are, even if you say a Viking force is only 1,000 or 2,000 strong, uh, and I think those numbers are too low, nonetheless, those 1,000 or 2,000 men have the courage and determination to defeat a foe several times their size if they're made up primarily of militia. According to my reckoning, and if I uh, and I follow a uh, a school that is reacting against this revisionist tendency to downdate, in the ninth century, especially from 840 on, the size and scale of Viking attacks go up significantly, and certainly by the end of the ninth century, these small contingents of Vikings who might represent fleets of 10, 15, 20 ships can very easily assemble into larger groups of 100 vessels, 120 vessels, and all of a sudden you have 5,000 or 10,000 very seasoned and well-trained warriors. And this is the only way to account for the remarkable success the Vikings had in England, particularly between 865 and 878, 
or the kinds of attacks they can wage in the Carolingian Empire where they can put Paris under siege uh, and, and really bring the Carolingian monarchy uh, to uh, its, uh, its knees. One other point that's often overlooked in this, and besides having all these skills in actual fighting, most Scandinavians, as I mentioned, are very, very skilled in wood building, uh, woodwork. And the Vikings applied this very skillfully to warfare. Uh, contrary, again, to popular imagination, any Viking force that was going to operate in an area for some length of time, that is, it was not a, just a hit-and-run attack, as some of the initial raids were, were going to fortify their bases. And they are extremely good at building fortifications. These are simple earthen ramparts with stockade. And our best evidence for the type of work they can do uh, comes from Denmark. And there are two uh, remarkable sets of constructions which most people wouldn't at first associate with Vikings. Uh, one of them is the Danverka, which is a set of fortifications that essentially seals off Jutland from Central Europe. Uh, its earliest construction based on dendrochronology, which is a method of, of uh, dating constructions by tree rings, uh, is, is dated around 739-740, and it runs from the Idair River to the town of Hedeby, which is at the base of the Danish peninsula, and what it does is act as a barrier for any invading army. Uh, there are several later building phases, one in the early 9th century, another in the, in the mid-10th century, clearly to be associated with the kings Gorm the Old and Harold Bluetooth. And the full, full system by the, say, about 960 AD is a very, very impressive set of fortifications uh, with an earthen wall about 30 feet wide uh, with a stockade anywhere from six to eight feet high depending how you reconstruct it. There is a huge moat in front of it. It is a pretty effective barrier for keeping out an invading army. At the same time of this last building phase of these defensive works, we have uh, excavated four uh, Viking camps that could house anywhere from two to 4,000 warriors. Uh, the most famous one is on the island of Zeeland, that's uh, Trelleborg, uh, which is one of the largest ones. And these are fortified camps, circular camps, almost built to Roman specification. And again, they are fortifications to be associated uh, with Harold Bluetooth, uh, who's, who rules from 958 to 987. And Harold Bluetooth is probably responsible for the construction of these fortifications. His son Sven actually, I think, abandoned them. And, uh, and these construction, therefore, date from, say, the 960s and 970s. And uh, the camps were clearly used to house professional warriors that were used for securing the Kingdom of Denmark uh, by uh, Harold Bluetooth. So that in terms of waging wars overseas, you're dealing with a population of warriors who understood essentially positional warfare, taking fortifying bases for their ships, and Viking camps were difficult to assault. We have a report of one assault on one of them, the so-called Battle of the Dial in 891, where a German army moved up. These uh, would be a Frankish army from what is now Germany, led by Arnulf the Bastard, who's um, a rather colorful figure, and uh, he orders his army to dismount and assault the camp, and though they do carry the camp, they get over the walls, uh, the fortifications are such that the Vikings are able to get to their ships and essentially escape and then head off to England where they have a happy time plundering England for the next three or four years. So uh, the building of bases was, uh, was just assumed in any of these campaigns. 
Well, to get some sense of the effectiveness of Viking warfare, uh, let me close with an example, uh, and we'll return to this uh, campaign when we're discussing the uh, Scandinavian impact in England. And this is the campaign that stretches over uh, pr approximately the years 865 to 878. And in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, which is the main record we have, uh, it actually survives in seven different accounts. Uh, but the main accounts are covering the 9th and 10th century, which are a record of the deeds of the kings of Wessex, the West Saxons. This is the family of Alfred the Great that eventually unifies England. Um, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we have a very detailed account of what they call in Anglo-Saxon, uh, Mika Herre, the Great Army. And this is an army of Danes and some Norwegians, many of them fighting for 10 to 15 years in the Carolingian Empire, who in 865 come together in a great force, probably because they've ransacked the Carolingian Empire so much that they're not getting any more booty out of it, so they decide to relocate to England. And this, this army shows a lot of the qualities of the fighting abilities of the, of the Vikings I've just discussed. Uh, the army arrives in the autumn of 865 in East Anglia, and they literally intimidate the local East Anglian king uh, to allow them to build a base uh, in East Anglia, where they gather provisions and horses. Uh, then in the fall of 866, a little, about a year later, they carry out a lightning advance about 180 miles north and seize the city of York, which is the largest city in northern England and the capital of the kingdom of Northumbria. Uh, Northumbria at this point is happily for the Vikings in the middle of a civil war. Uh, the Vikings occupy the Roman city, fortify it. They actually rebuild part of the Roman walls. Uh, the two Anglo-Saxon kings decide maybe it's a good idea to take out these invaders. They join arms and attack uh, in early 867. And it's a classic example of the Norse setting themselves up in a defensive position with their shield wall, they drive back the English levies in disorder and then counterattack and mop them up. Uh, both kings are killed. Uh, Ayala is actually, well, he's supposedly blood-eagled. We'll get into that later on. And then the, Nor the uh, Vikings, mostly Danes, and the English tend to refer to them as Danes, move into Mercia in the Midlands of England, set up another base at Nottingham, and eventually raid that kingdom and force to be paid off, relocate back to East Anglia. Uh, King Edmund gets a backbone and decides to oppose them. The Vikings wipe them out. They actually martyr King Ed Edmund by uh, uh, tying him into a tree and shooting with arrows, probably to dedicate them to Odin. And then they turn back on Mercia uh, and, uh, and the southern kingdom, Wessex, by seizing control of the Thames Valley and waging these um, essentially positional wars from fortified bases that essentially knocks out Mercia, the kingdom of the Midlands, and almost brings Wessex to collapse. Wessex is only saved. Uh, because King Alfred takes over in 871 from his brother and rallies the English army and fights determined battles and eventually wins a victory where he's able to negotiate a treaty in 878. But the Viking army withdraws into uh, the Midlands in northern England. It's not really defeated. It, it withdraws. It's a standoff. That is a stunning piece of campaigning. Within 15 years, this Danish army, which could have 
number between five and 10,000 veteran warriors, and it, it composition changes as some of them move off to raid Ireland and newcomers in from Scandinavia. But this Danish army showed a remarkable knowledge of logistics, the political situation, fortified bases, winter campaigns, seizing, um, uh, seizing towns, uh, setting up uh, defensive positions, forcing ill-trained levies to make these attacks, counterattacking, all the advantages of Viking warfare is seen in this campaign in, micro, uh, in microcosm. And it shows the type of determined and violent foes the Vikings could be. And in the end, the only reason they pull out of Wessex is that Alfred is able to make it just costly enough and pay them off with Dangal that they move into England. But in 15 years, they had destroyed three English kingdoms and almost had destroyed a fourth and they had conquered an area which took 150 years for the Anglo-Saxons to master. No army has done this in Britain since the Roman age. Chapter 11, Merchants and Commerce in the Viking Age. In this talk, I wish to deal with an important activity of the Viking Age, and that is the importance of trade, especially seaborne trade, commerce, conducted by Scandinavians, but also by other peoples from the 8th through the, um, you know, early, well, middle of the uh, 12th century even. And this is an important point to keep in mind that uh, the Vikings, the Scandinavians of the Viking Age, to be more accurate, uh, were just as much engaged in trade as they were in raiding, attacking, as well as settling overseas. And the advantages in shipbuilding, so important for their success in war, were also the advantages that translated into their success in commerce. And it's too often forgotten that many a Scandinavian was far more a merchant in his career than he was a Viking although there are many individuals who combined both activities and there are individuals who actually switched their activities in the course of their uh, voyages. They're, sometimes they might raid and other times they might trade, depending on circumstance. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the direction of trade, the volume of trade, uh, the types of goods that were exchanged, all of this changes significantly in the Viking Age. And many economic historians actually speak of the Vikings as developing what is known as the Northern Trade Arc, which eventually comes to extend from Dublin in Ireland. And, and Dublin is essentially a Viking settlement for the period we're discussing, and terminates at the, uh, the city of Attil, which is the capital of the Khazar Khaganate, at the, uh, the mouth of the Volga, where the Volga River uh, flows into the Caspian Sea, or to the shores of the Black Sea that lead the so-called Rus, that is the Swedes operating in Russia, to the city of Constantinople, today Istanbul. So that you have this wide trade arc cutting right across Scandinavia in which all sorts of slaves and goods are exchanged and the Scandinavians become the primary merchants involved in the carrion trade as well in uh, supplying markets with various goods. Well, that important feature of the Viking Age, which is easily lost in the uh, annals of campaigns and attacks and raids, uh, really uh, must be stressed because it is a very, very important aspect. It is, it's actually probably almost as important as the raids. It's, it's, there's certainly 
uh, could be argued that trade might have transformed Scandinavian society in some ways more than the raids and overseas settlement did. But in any case, it's important to look at the role of trade in the whole of the Viking Age. So in this lecture, I plan to look at two aspects of the problem. One is the forces that were driving uh, trade and commerce in the medieval world, in the period we're studying, uh, roughly from, say, 700 to 1100, even almost up to 1200 in some cases. And then the second part of this lecture is to concentrate on the role of Scandinavians in directing this trade, uh, in uh, amplifying it, and extending the range of different types of goods and transactions. And that's a, that's a pretty impressive order because, as we'll see, the, the Scandinavians really play an extremely important role in many parts of the medieval world in expanding and even developing trade routes. Well, first, uh, the Viking raids would not have occurred if there hadn't been prosperity. Uh, you, you don't really attack neighbors who don't have much, of, you know, much in the way of plunder. And when the Vikings began to attack Western Europe in 790, they hit a series of well-established trade routes, as well as kingdoms in England and the great Carolingian Empire that was constructed by Charlemagne, uh, who ruled from 768 to 814, who creates the, essentially the political order, the basis of the political order of medieval Europe. These areas had been under economic recovery for well over a century. In fact, some historians like to speak of what is a period known as the long 8th century, extending from essentially uh, 675, 675 to about 840 AD. In this long period of 150 or 175 years, however you want to cut up the period, uh, that sees significant developments in Western Europe in trade and commerce, the development of towns, uh, monasteries as major economic cent uh, centers, uh, that marks a great level, a great leap up from where the European economy had been at the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century AD. And there were several important forces that were driving this economic development and prosperity. One was that by the uh, middle of the 7th century, say about 650 AD, there was a certain amount of political order that was being imposed in Western Europe. That is, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms simplified into the four great kingdoms the Vikings attacked. Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, well, that's more of a courtesy for East Anglia, and Wessex. Uh, it also saw the uh, unification of Western Europe under the Frankish kings, first the Merovingians, and then, starting in 751-754, uh, the Carolingian family that took over, the family of Charlemagne. And the imposition of that political order is extremely important. That allowed for commerce to proceed, it gave you the stability and the predictability that is necessary for all types of economic transactions to take place. There were also important currency reforms issued by Charlemagne and Charlemagne's dad, uh, Pepin the Short, uh, which introduced a new type of silver coin, the so-called hammered denier. Uh, that type of coin was adopted in England. And so in at least uh, Christian Europe, there was pretty much a standard currency that was used in sophisticated transactions in towns and cities. Uh, that type of political stability, that return of some kind of ordered law, was important for the expansion of trade routes in this so-called long 8th century. And in this period, the Frisians excelled. They had always played an important intermediary role between Western Europe and Scandinavia in the late Roman age and in the age of migrations. And starting from 675 AD on, the Frisians really emerged as the major merchants in the North Sea and beyond. 
They had their own shipbuilding tradition, and they did not make the sort of breakthrough the Scandinavians did. They were content to depend on what are known as hulks and cogs, and these are uh, large cargo vessels, not warships, capable of moving um, large amounts of goods and people. Uh, the hulk was essentially a coastal vessel. The cog was a vessel that really operated more on uh, river systems. Uh, nonetheless, the Frisians had the type of ships necessary to move bulk goods, especially from Scandinavia, timber, slaves, uh, furs, Arctic products uh, that would be obtained into Western Europe, and vice versa to bring the ceramics, the wine, uh, weapons, especially iron swords, steel swords, uh, from the Carolingian world into Scandinavia. And this trade was in progress at least 100 years before the Viking Age. And so when the Vikings attacked Western Europe, they were following very well-known well trade routes that had been already pioneered by the Frisians. Uh, in Frisia emerged a major market town called Duristat. And Duristat was the most important market town in northern Europe. It stands at the base of the Rhine River system. It's on one of its tributaries. And therefore, it's linked to Cologne, which is the largest city north of the Alps in the Middle Ages up until, really up until the 12th century. Uh, and from Cologne across the Alps to Venice, uh, which is the prime port for the export of Mediterranean goods. And the Carolingian Empire really led to the reestablishment of trade routes in Western Europe to the Mediterranean ports where various goods were exported out to the Byzantine world, that is, the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire in Asia Minor and Greece, or to the Islamic world, which was in Spain, North Africa, and today the Middle East. These were the great cities of the Middle Ages. These were the great markets. And what the Carolingian Empire did, uh, complements of the Frisians, is link the northern lands to the Carolingian Empire. The goods were taken over the river systems of Europe to the port towns in the Mediterranean where the products were exported south and east. And this trade network is extremely important, and Durisad was at the, the center of all this northern trade. It also, uh, Duristad also had important trading partners. One was called Quintavik, which is essentially uh, the predecessor of the modern city of Boulogne, and a port in England, which is known in Anglo-Saxon as Hamwick, uh, the future city of Southampton. And so England, uh, Scandinavia, uh, Northern Europe was now linked into this uh, trade route. In Scandinavia, the trade routes help stimulate the development of market towns already in the 8th century on the eve of the Viking Age. Uh, one of them is at Hedeby, uh, which is today uh, just across the, uh, it's on the southern side of the Schley Fjord, uh, which uh, Schley or Schleswig uh, is the modern German city. Uh, so Hedeby is actually the predecessor of Schleswig. It's a Danish town and it's where most of the trade goods I've mentioned before come from uh, Western Europe. They cross the Danish peninsula, they go to Hedeby, and they're exported out to the Baltic, particularly to Berka in Sweden or even to ports up in Norway. So the Frisian merchants actually stimulated the first steps to developing these market towns in two generations before the Viking Age. And therefore sailing along these areas and transporting goods had become quite routine. Now, the revival of long-distance trade routes was really 
very important to the success of the early medieval economy. And, and economic historians of the Middle Ages are deeply divided over whether the European economy in general, including Scandinavia, in the time of the Viking Age was underdeveloped, is one term that's often used, uh, that it was essentially nothing more than a souped-up subsistence economy, and trade, particularly long-distance trade, played a rather minor role for a society that was essentially a subsistence society. And that is a minimalist view that's taken often in ancient and economic economies, and I must be quite frank, uh, I tend to err on the other side. I believe that these economies are more sophisticated than just subsistence, and that trade and commerce played an extremely important role in medieval life. Not only for the Carolingian kings, but also for the Vikings or the Scandinavians of the Viking Age, trade for one point, uh, one important point, generated lots of income in hard cash. Uh, in the terms of tolls and, uh, and taxes you could levy on trade, and that would be collected in silver, in hard money, and that was always appreciated by any mar uh, monarch, Carolingian king or Scandinavian sea king, uh, as opposed to taking rents and commodities and agricultural products or labor services. So, in my estimation, uh, this long-distance trade is extremely important in the revival of prosperity in the Carolingian Empire, the ability of Charlemagne and his successors to tax or to collect money from their subjects and so sustain royal institutions. Well, what's driving this trade and really ultimately driving this economic development is a point that might seem a bit odd to us at first, and it's the cities of the Islamic world. It is important to keep in mind that not only Scandinavia, but Christian Western Europe were economically quite undeveloped in comparison to the lands of the Mediterranean world, that is the old heartland of the Roman Empire, the southern and eastern portions of which were now part of the Islamic Empire. Uh, the empire that had been conquered by the successors of Muhammad, and at the start of the Viking Age, an empire that was ruled by the caliphs of Baghdad, the so-called Abbasid caliphs, who had established the great city of Baghdad as the capital of Islam. Well, the cities of the Islamic world, and these were true cities, these are cities, Baghdad is a city that gets up to a million strong. The cities of the Islamic world, Baghdad, the great cities, the caravan centers of Iran, the cities of Central Asia, Damascus in Syria, Cairo that emerges in this period in Egypt, Tunis, uh, and Cordova in Spain, the seat of an independent Islamic dynasty there, they had an enormous appetite for labor, consumables, raw materials. And this was fed by the European markets. And in the generation just before the Viking Age, say about 750 to 800, the prime commodity being exported from Western Europe were slaves. Many of them obtained from the peoples of Central Europe who spoke various Slavic languages. And these were Slavic tribes that had moved into Central Europe starting in the 7th century uh, who spoke related dialects. That doesn't imply they had any sort of cultural or political unity, but they had a series of related dialects. And they moved in the lands between essentially the Pripyat marshes today in Russia and the Elba, which used to be essentially the boundary line between East and West Germany and becomes, in effect, the boundary line of the Carolingian Empire Charlemagne. These numerous tribes that moved in there and spoke languages quite distinct from the Germanic tribes who had migrated into the Roman Empire, they became the prime targets for slave raiding for two reasons. Once, uh, one is that the, the bishops said it wasn't a good idea to enslave Christians and that kind of cut down on slaving, you know, enslaving your fellow English and Frankish neighbors. 
But second is that as agriculture develops in both England and the Frankish Empire, you shift over to turning your laborers into serfs. And serfs, while they are tied to the land, have all sorts of rights. And no landlord wants to sell his serfs off. He needs labor services. So for both economic and religious reasons, the slave market in Western Europe was drying up. You didn't have large numbers of captives. And so what happened is you had extensive raiding in Eastern and Central Europe. And those slaves were then shipped to Venice and other ports and exported to the Islamic world. And it's a significant point. By 800, the word slave or esclave, say, in French, or slavus in medieval Latin, is essentially the word slav being used to designate a captive who's destined for the slave markets, and that means the Islamic world. Now, there's been some very, very clever study done by Michael McCormick recently on this, uh, a really monumental work on the early European economy, and the best guess is that slaves yield the highest return on any product exported either from Scandinavia or Western Europe to the Islamic world. They were the commodity most in demand. And this meant demand for laborers on plantations, the usual girls that populate the harems, slaves that are uh, enrolled into the slave units of the Islamic world. There is an appetite for labor to sustain these huge cities of the Islamic world for two reasons. One is cities consume people. The disease rate, the destruction in cities, you always need to replenish population. And second, the Islamic world and the Carolingian Empire were recovering from a demographic collapse that had started in the mid-6th century when a plague had swept across Europe in the Middle East, which was probably on the same order of the Black Death in the 14th century and had major economic and demographic consequences. So as a result, when the Vikings launched out on their raids, they found in place well-established trade routes, uh, slave markets in the Islamic world, in Spain, in Baghdad, the Middle East. They encountered a network of trade routes in, in Western Europe that were moving bulk goods of the, um, the Arctic and the uh, timber products of the forest to the Mediterranean world and to points south. Most of this trade was in the hands of the Frisians. As a result of the Viking raids, as a result of the superior uh, Scandinavian ships, by 840, the Scandinavians captured the carrion trade and developed that northern arc of which I spoke at the start of, the, of, of this lecture. And starting from about 840, the Scandinavians take over many of the trading activities going on in northern Europe, and all those trading activities eventually going to lead to markets in the Islamic or Byzantine world, and here is where they develop this so-called northern trade arc. And there are several reasons why the Scandinavians succeeded in this regard. One is those ships, the Canar, the cargo ships. Um, they have built ocean-going cargo vessels that could move products in a way that none of those Frisian vessels could. Second, Scandinavian ships, both warships and cargo ships, can move up rivers and be, can, can be carried from portage to portage in a fashion that no other vessel could do. And that gave the Swedes particularly the advantage to develop the river routes of Russia. And we'll discuss uh, several lectures about the long-term implications of that. But in economic terms, starting from 750, the Swedes move into trading posts in Russia. The most important one is at Holmgard, that is the future Novgorod. And they develop two trade routes eventually, one down the Volga to the Caspian Sea, and the other through various river systems that pick up 
the Dnieper, which flows into the Black Sea, and these trade routes become major trade routes in the Middle Ages. Uh, this is a Scandinavian contribution to it, and the biggest commodity is slaves. The Scandinavians are raiding the Slavic populations of Eastern Europe and selling them to the Islamic world. And this results in the development of a number of fortified market towns, which become the future Russian cities. It results in um, very, very sophisticated trading arrangements with the Turkmen Khans, who have consolidated kingdoms on the middle and lower Volga, and who are the middlemen between Northern Europe and the Islamic world. And the Swedes become very, very accustomed to going down the Volga and trading with the so-called Bulgars. These are a, a Turkish-speaking tribe. And the Khazars, uh, another Turkmen tribe or Turkish-speaking tribe, who have uh, cities that are connected uh, across the Caspian Sea to the great centers of Baghdad and of Iran, such as Hamadan. And so what happens is the Scandinavians bring in large numbers of uh, slaves captured from the Slavic population, furs, timber, Frankish swords. Uh, there are at least two independent Arab reports that indicate the Muslims are really impressed by Frankish weapons and the Scandinavians have them, they're buying them, they're being shipped to Baghdad. And in return, the Swedes are acquiring enormous amount of silver. Uh, a lot of this is in the form of Muslim coins issued in Baghdad and Iran. They're known as a dirham. These are a very heavyweight coin, originally struck at a theoretical weight of 2.97 grams. And they are these flat hammered silver coins with Islamic script. There are at least 80,000 of them that have been found in hordes and um, uh, grave deposits in Sweden, primarily around Lake Maleron and in Gotland. There are also thousands of them found on the Volga trade routes leading from the Caspian Sea. And the, the volume of silver that moved up to Sweden is, is really quite extraordinary. And uh, in addition, there are fragments of silk, which seems to be one of the most important commodity. Uh, silk production is one of the big features of Baghdad and Iran starting in the 8th century. And some of these silks seem to be from Central Asia or the Islamic world. We have fragments from Berka, fragments from Hedeby, one of the market towns in Denmark. Uh, this is another commodity that's moving north. Um, various furnished goods, aromatic spices are all moving into Scandinavia to enrich their lives, uh, including scales so that apparently Scandinavians are used to weighing coins and using coins as coins rather than just as bullion or jewelry. And one of the most remarkable objects comes from the town of, of Helgo, which was found in excavation, uh, and that is this uh, statue of a Buddha from the Gandaharan period, I think, or like the first or second century AD. And I, I just have a vision that some uh, a Swedish merchant on the Volga was negotiating with one of the Turks and said, you know, here's my Slavic slaves and here's the furs. What am I going to get? And he said, well, I'm a little short. Wouldn't you like a statue from? You know, what is it? I don't know. It's a novelty. And it appears in Helgo. It's one of these curious trade goods that shows up in the type of exchange and the volume of exchange that's going on on the eastern trade route. Uh, the Scandinavians also pioneer a, a western extension of that arc, and that terminates at the cities of York in England and Dublin in Ireland, both of which are essentially Scandinavian trading towns through this whole period. And Dublin in, in particular becomes the most important market for the export of slaves from Western Europe. These would be Irish captives, English captives, Frankish captives, people taken in Viking raids. And in the case of the Irish, it's usually the Irish are enslaving each other and selling them to the Vikings. And the Vikings are arming the Irish with better weapons to incite them to do this. And this slave trade
trade is essentially destined to Muslim Spain. And by one estimate, somewhere between 50% and two-thirds of the slaves arriving into the Islamic world for a period of 250 years is by Scandinavian merchants and, and carrying trade. They are supplying the bulk of the labor demanded by the Islamic world, which is an interesting point to reflect on. The movement of labor is essentially from Europe to the Islamic world, whereas in our day, it's essentially in the reverse. Europe is drawing labor in from the Mediterranean and Islamic world. And that's, that's a very important point to keep in mind. Well, besides all the products coming into Scandinavia that enriched their life, um, including the curious Buddha, but also uh, silks, which are clearly worn by all the upper classes in Scandinavia by the 10th century, there's references to them all the time in the Icelandic saga, uh, wine as a commodity that everyone is used to consuming. Um, the trade also led to the development for the first time of market towns. Uh, that is concentrations of populations that we have not seen before in Scandinavian history. There are three of them that are extremely well known by archaeology as well as a curious document prepared for King Alfred the Great, probably dating about a little before 895. It's a Anglo-Saxon translation of the Spanish Bishop Erosius in the fifth century who wrote this world history to justify Christianity, see how wonderful Christianity is because life was miserable before Christianity, and he recites every disaster known in classical history, and now things are better. Well, he didn't encounter the Viking Age. He died at 414. Um, in any case, that is updated in Anglo-Saxon tradition, and then appended to it are two voyages, one by a man who is uh, identified as, uh, as Othahere, uh, or Otar in probably a Norwegian. Otar is his Norwegian name. Um, Othere is his Anglo-Saxon name. And he reports a voyage going from the Arctic Circle along the coast of Norway to a town we believe is the archaeological site of Kalpong today uh, in Vestfold, which was a major market town of over 100 acres, which is clearly the processing center of all the Arctic goods coming in, the timber, which is then being exported east and west, and where silver and other commodities are coming in. And this account is really remarkable. He gives us a very detailed account of how trade is carried out with the laps. And Atar himself is a merchant prince who's made a fortune in trading in sealskins, whalebone. And at the court of King Alfred, he's clearly, he's clearly treated as a nobleman of very high rank. And he essentially made his fortune in merchandising. There's no evidence that he was a Viking. Uh, the other voyage is by a fellow named Wolfstein, uh, by Anglo-Saxon name, and may well have been an Englishman. We're not sure whether he was Dane. And he gives us an account of the voyage from Hedeby in southern Denmark along the southern shores of the Baltic and the trade involved there. That includes slave trade as well. And he names several important ports there. Uh, one of them is a port that's been excavated Volen or Wolen, which may be the site of the later Jomsborg, the uh, Viking encampment. Another one may have been at the mouth of the Vistula. Uh, it's called um, uh, Truso. We're not sure exactly where it is. Um, one, one guess it's the predecessor of Danzig or Gdansk. But what it shows is the extension of Scandinavian-style market towns at the mouths of all the great rivers of the Baltic, uh, certainly by the end of the ninth century. 
Hedeby has been excavated, Burke has been excavated. Both of these towns uh, in Denmark and Sweden, respectively, emerge as major market towns, covering maybe 60 acres. They have, um, together, along with Kalpang in Norway, several important similarities. One is there was probably a resident population of over a thousand people. Uh, there were specialized areas for manufacturing. The number of imported goods from these towns is impressive. Ceramics, glassware from the Rhine, silks from the um, Near East, perhaps some of them originating from central China. Some would even claim from Chinese workshops or inspired from Chinese workshops. All of this is the wealth pouring into these towns as a result of the commerce, as well as the marketing of plunder and slaves. And most of these slaves are taken as captives and raids. Second, the towns clearly are also home to foreigners who are resident there, Frisians, Saxons, English, Slavs. That is, they have a certain international quality. They're nothing on the order of later medieval towns, and they're not even incipient cities. Nonetheless, they play an economic role in Scandinavia that is all out of proportion uh, to their size. In these towns is where Scandinavians come into contact with other civilizations. It is here that they learn all sorts of products and skills and make money in a fashion they have never done before. It's through these towns, for instance, that the artistic styles of the Middle East were transmitted to the Scandinavians and inspired some of the later jewelry styles. It's in these towns where the first coins are minted in Scandinavia, again, on a limited number. Furthermore, these towns are important economic centers, which means any aspiring king in Scandinavia is going to want to control them. And it's no accident that the three classic Scandinavian monarchies that emerge at the end of the 10th and in the 11th century are all going to center around one of these towns. The Norwegian kingdom is based on Kalpang and its associated towns in the area around Oslo, especially on the western shore of the Viken Vestfold. Uh, King Harald Finehair and his successors need those towns. It produces revenue. At Berka, uh, in Lake Maloran. That city is the nexus of trade routes up to about 975, 980, when the, um, the receding uh, lake, the Lake Maloran, causes Berka to leave its, lose its port. And what happens is the merchants simply relocate north of Berka on an estuary of, um, uh, that connects them to Uppsala, and a new town, Sigtuna, is founded, and Sigtuna simply takes over where Berka had once been. And Sigtuna is not only the new market town connected to the eastern trade, it also doubles as the capital and the mint of the first Swedish kings. And Hedeby is perhaps the most important market town in the north. It is clearly the fiscal means whereby the first kings of Denmark, Gorm the Old, Harold Bluetooth, Sven Forkbeard, gained the revenues to build the impressive camps of which I spoke, uh, the Danvirker, the various um, of fortification systems, and it is also the town where, again, the first coins in Denmark were probably minted. So that the monarchies that emerge and become eventually the territorial monarchies of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden very, very much depend on the development of trade and of these new market towns. And finally, the most important thing of these point about these market towns, it is here where the first Christian missionaries will arrive, starting with St. Angster in the ninth century. And it's through these towns that Christianity is really transmitted uh, to the northern peoples.
Lecture 12, Christendom on the Eve of the Viking Age. In this lecture, I plan to introduce the wider medieval world in order to give an understanding of the extent and range of the Viking impact. And this lecture acts as something of a transition from the first third of the course to the second third of the course. We uh, might take a bit of time to think of where we've been and where we're going. Uh, we've looked at developments in Scandinavia going back into the Bronze Age, the influences of outside civilizations, the evolution of a uniquely Scandinavian civilization expressed in its decorative arts and its cults, uh, in its martial ethos, the achievements in warfare and shipbuilding that made the Viking Age possible, and also the rather undervalued and underplayed importance of Scandinavians in uh, medieval commerce. And starting with this lecture, we're going to expand our view and look at the Scandinavian impact on the wider medieval world in the Viking Age from 790 to 1100. Um, these are the lectures that I believe earned my course at Tulane the name um, History 315, better known as Pillage and Plunder 315. Uh, we're going to look at the range of Viking attacks uh, and settlements overseas, the, and in some cases even the creation of kingdoms overseas, uh, from Ireland all the way through Russia. And in the process, uh, the Scandinavians come into contact with three distinct civilizations. Uh, which are all um, civilizations that emerge out of essentially the late Roman world. And so I, th I think it's important for us to look at those three different civilizations and to try to get an understanding of how the Scandinavians would have viewed them and perhaps uh, also uh, pose some questions, even if we really can't answer them, how did the Scandinavians view these worlds and the people who populated them, who come to be in many cases, uh, at least in the early stages, uh, foes and captives, and eventually in many cases uh, become neighbors as they settle among them, and even in some cases become assimilated into these civilizations. Well, the first uh, one we shall look at will be Western Europe. And it's better to use the term Latin Christendom. Uh, that is uh, the kingdoms uh, in Western Europe that acknowledge the spiritual supremacy of the Pope in Rome and will eventually evolve into modern Western Europe of today. Uh, the second uh, civilization we'll discuss is the uh, Byzantine world uh, centered on the city of Constantinople, uh, Istanbul and Turkey today, uh, the capital of a great bureaucratic state which is really uh, right in line with the Roman traditions. It, uh, Constantinople rules over uh, the Aegean world, the lands around the Aegean Sea, primarily the modern land of Greece, uh, and also the great peninsula of Asia Minor or Anatolia, uh, which is the Asiatic heartland of Turkey today. And finally, we'll look at also that Islamic world, and there we'll be a little briefer on it because uh, Scandinavians did not really travel much to the Islamic world. And this is a world that stretches from Spain across North Africa to the heartland in the Middle East uh, through Iran into Central Asia, clearly the most uh, impressive political and cultural order at the time. Uh, the only rival being Tang China at the other end of uh, the Eurasian landmass. Uh, anyone looking at the medieval world in, in the years, say, 800 at the start of the Viking raids would clearly see uh, the Islamic Empire uh, centered at Baghdad and the great Chinese empires, the two greatest civilized orders on the globe. 
So the Scandinavians come into contact with all three of these civilizations, and in, to different degrees, they influence and interact with them. Uh, the greatest interaction is, is in Western Europe, and our greatest information is about Western Europe. Uh, they do have a very, very profound influence in Eastern Europe. It isn't as well documented, although archaeology now is constantly amplifying uh, that picture. And the Islamic world is much more a case of uh, providing commodities, particularly slaves, to the Islamic world and gaining uh, great wealth. And few Scandinavians ever entered the great cities of Islam. Uh, there are some very important Danish and Norwegian raids into Spain in the 840s uh, and 850s. Uh, they actually uh, captured the city of Seville very briefly. And, uh, and Spain at this point is ruled by an independent uh, Muslim ruler, the Emir of Cordova. And these raids, however, never really amount uh, to any kind of significant conquest. And they're pretty much sideshows to the more important attacks going on in the Carolingian Empire. They are quite spectacular in their daring and, uh, and certainly scare the Muslims, uh, actually cause them to send missions off to find out who these strange people are coming from the north. Uh, but in the long run, they don't have nearly the kind of impact that Scandinavian attacks and settlements do have in both uh, Western Europe, Latin Christendom, or in Eastern Europe. Well, let's look at uh, Western Europe, Latin Christendom, at the onset of the Viking Age in the 8th century. Clearly to most Scandinavians, the Carolingian Empire, and this is the empire that stretches from the Pyrenees across uh, Western Europe to the Elba, um, that is the great river that bisects Germany today, and also across most of northern and central Italy. Uh, Rome is included within the domains of the Carolingian Empire. It is the seat of the papacy and the popes rule over their own domains, the so-called Donation of Pepin, which were lands granted to the papacy by the Carolingian king Pepin the Short and the future papal states. So when you speak of the Carolingian Empire, you're essentially talking about most of the core areas of Europe that became the original uh, common market, which eventually evolved into the now European Union. That is the Low Countries, Western Germany, um, most of Italy, except for the far south, France, parts of northern Spain. And that constituted most of Latin Christendom. Uh, there was a small uh, Spanish kingdom in the northwest, uh, Asturias, which battled the Muslims of Spain, and there were the British Isles, which were part of this Christian civilization. But the Carolingian Empire constituted most of Latin Christendom at the start of the Viking Age. And certainly by the standards of the Scandinavians, it was an impressive order. Uh, several important changes, however, had occurred since the last uh, significant contact of Scandinavians uh, with the Frankish world. I discussed it in the, um, the period of the Age of Migrations, and that is there was a major change of dynasty in the mid-8th century when a new family, the Carolingians, took over ruling the Frankish heartland, which had previously been ruled by the Merovingian kings, that is, the descendants of Clovis. And in 751 or 754, you can date it either way, Pepin the Short, who had previously been the major domo, that is the, um, the manager, the mayor of the palace of the Merovingian kings, takes the crown for himself. He's eventually recognized as king of the Franks by the papacy. That's in 754 when he's given a, a papal coronation. And he establishes a new line of kings, uh, the Carolingians. The son of uh, Pepin will be Charlemagne. And these Carolingian kings really do forge medieval Europe. In some ways, the Carolingian order is precocious. 
It is the first synthesis of Roman Christian and Germanic institutions into a major political order uh, since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. In many ways, uh, Pepin and Charlemagne saw themselves as the heirs of the Roman tradition. For Charlemagne, this would climax on Christmas Day of 800 when he was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, or Emperor of the West, and henceforth Carolingian monarchs and their descendants in Western Europe ruled as Roman emperors. Uh, the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople, who had a claim to that, didn't quite agree with this. But it's an important point to stress that the Carolingian emperors saw themselves in many ways the heirs to the Roman legacy. And they did inherit a significant number of those Roman institutions that enabled them to build this political order. And the fact that the Carolingians and to a lesser degree the English kings had those Roman style institutions in part explains why they were more successful in fending off Viking attacks than other areas that did not have Roman institutions. That is, there were towns, there was some sort of fiscal basis, there was population. Uh, eventually, once you had intelligent leadership, uh, to organize resistance to Scandinavian attacks. Charlemagne also greatly extended uh, the range of Frankish political control. He conquered Central Europe. And from the Scandinavian viewpoint, this was kind of frightening. Uh, starting in 772 and really extending through a series of campaigns, not ending to about 802 or 804, Charlemagne campaigned repeatedly in northwestern Europe and conquered the region known as Saxony, which is northwest Germany, a region that the Romans had never brought under control, and a region inhabited by Germanic-speaking peoples who worshipped the ancient gods and were in close contact with the Danes. The conquest of Saxony was also accompanied by a forced conversion. There are several reports of massacres of Saxons uh, in if refusing to uh, submit to Christianity. Uh, there are reports of cutting down the sacred trees. Uh, these efforts to convert the Saxons and incorporate them into the Frankish Empire uh, resulted in many Saxons fleeing to Denmark. Uh, there is a famous uh, resistance leader, his name is Wudekind. Uh, he carries out a series of rebellions in the 770s and 780s, and he is supported by kings in Denmark. And so when Saxony was finally brought under Frankish control, the Adair River, that river that cuts Jutland off from Central Europe, became the northeastern boundary of the Carolingian Empire. And the Danish kings, and there were many kings in Denmark, but no king of Denmark, uh, the Danish kings saw the Franks as an aggressive, threatening Christian power. Uh, one argument could be made that many of the early raids conducted against the Frankish Empire particularly the first significant attack on Duristad, which occurred in 810, by a very large Danish fleet, um, commanded by a royal figure who's known as Godfrid in the Frankish sources, and probably his Norse name is Guthfrith. Um, this attack was probably in retaliation for Frankish uh, violations along the border or, the, or threatening moves by Charlemagne. So uh, the Carolingian Empire was politically very impressive. Without a doubt, it fielded the most impressive army in Western Europe, an army that was extremely large, and at the time of the start of the Viking Age, a very well-seasoned army that had a tradition of victory behind it with Charlemagne. Although, as I stressed in an earlier lecture, fighting was essentially increasingly becoming the monopoly of the warrior caste, and many of the subjects of Charlemagne really knew very little about military service. Uh, the other important feature I should stress about the Carolingian Empire, it is the basis for our understanding of the association of political and ecclesiastical institutions in the medieval world. It is with the Carolingian kings that the prelates of Europe, that is the bishops, the archbishops, the great 
figures of the Latin Western Church are essentially also secular princes. That they administer royal revenues, properties, they dispense royal justice, they are members of the same military warrior caste as the nobility. And in the course of um, the development of Latin Christendom, it is this Carolingian vision of the episcopacy, that is, or the prelates, that is the senior officials, that comes to triumph. So that Christianity, as in its institutional organization, uh, in its hierarchy of the higher clergy, is closely associated with the political order of the monarchy. These are two aspects of a single political order, and it is this Carolingian vision that is eventually carried to England and eventually carried across Western Europe. It's transplanted in the Crusader states. Now, there will be a debate over authority between Pope and Emperor as to the relationship of the Pope and the Emperor, but no one would disagree that cooperation between the church and the monarchy is, is expected. Bishops and kings operate an alliance. This is the type of political organization that Scandinavians will learn as a result of the Viking raids and will use to establish the kingdoms of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Finally, as impressive as Charlemagne's uh, empire was, from the Scandinavian viewpoint, it was extremely wealthy. It was a wonderful target if you could get to it. And fortunately for the Scandinavians after 814, uh, that became uh, much easier. Uh, Charlemagne was succeeded by his son, Louis the Pious, and as I always mention to my students in class, whenever you encounter a medieval monarch named the Pious, that is an immediate signal to watch out. Uh, he's received the title from monks who like him very much because he's endowed a lot of property to the church, but they're generally politically very ineffective, and in the case of Louis, you know, he sets new standards on low uh, performance and leadership. Uh, especially paying attention to his second wife, Judith of Bavaria, which was a mistake to marry her in the first place. But in any case, uh, Louis succeeds to the Carolingian Empire, and always within the Germanic tradition of kingship, whether it be Christian or pagan, uh, there's a question, is the kingship a, a, a matter of personal property? That's certainly what Scandinavian sea kings think, that any king in Scandinavia who succeeds to a great hall and has three sons, well, each son has to build his own hall, or is the monarchy a unitary state in the Roman sense? And this is an issue that will dominate Western political thought through the whole Middle Ages, and eventually the Roman notion will win. That is, the monarchy is essential, uh, a single institution, and succession should go not only within a family, but to a sole member of the family. And this is what immediately comes at issue under the reign of Louis the Pious. He tries to transmit power to his oldest son, Lothar, to follow his emperor. His other three sons at the time contest this. And starting very early in the reign, from the 820s on, there are civil wars that plague the Carolingian Empire over this issue. Is it a single empire or should kingdoms be provided for all of the members of the royal family? And in this case, it is the partition, the notion of partition that wins. In 843, the first significant partition is carried out by the three surviving sons of Louis the Pious. Lothar receives the so-called Middle Kingdom, stretching from the North Sea to Italy with the capitals of Aachen and Rome, and the imperial title. And that would essentially be represented today by the lands of the Low Countries, Alsace, Lorraine, Switzerland, and Northern and Central Italy. What will evolve into the Kingdom of France goes to Charles the Bald. And what will evolve into Germany, the East Frankish lands, goes to another son, Louis the German. 
Well, this partition and these civil wars are an ideal entree for the Viking attacks of Western Europe. And it's important to stress that many of these Viking raids, which started off as raids in the time of Charlemagne and really couldn't do much because Charlemagne had built naval defenses, there is no effort to maintain the naval defenses after Charlemagne's death. The Frankish nobility is too involved in fighting civil wars. And these candidates for the throne, the sons of Louis the Pious, at times even hire Vikings as allies and mercenaries to war against an opponent. And the failure, especially of Charles the Bald, the son who receives the western portion of the uh, Carolingian Empire, to halt Viking attacks, will bankrupt the Carolingian monarchy, end with the demise of that dynasty, and will really end with the kingdom in the west, which will be divided up into feudal states. The Viking attacks have an immediate and dramatic political impact on what is to become uh, France and the core of feudal civilization. The other element in Western Europe were the various kingdoms and, um, in some cases, Iron Age chiefdoms in the British Isles. And here we had a mix of populations, Celtic-speaking and Germanic-speaking, that is the future speakers of English, and there was no political unity here at all. The only common bond was the fact that they were all members of the Christian Church. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, uh, and these are the kingdoms created by the descendants of the Germanic uh, peoples who had moved from Scandinavia and northwest Germany in the Age of Migrations, by 800 AD, linguistically and culturally, were many ways part of Western Europe. They used Latin as their literary language. They also used Anglo-Saxon, that is a form of, you know, Old English, perhaps is more accurate, which was now heavily influenced by the Latin literary tradition. Uh, they were members of the Christian, um, wider Christian community, and very, very much embraced the monastic life and the arts of Western Europe. And it's important to stress that while the bishops became, in effect, administrators and, and uh, advisors to the crown, uh, those who were really engaged in spiritual and cultural activities went into the monastic institutions, which is a separate outfit, going back to the traditions of asceticism of the late Roman world. Britain, England particularly, and Ireland, their monastic institutions flourished, and Irish and Anglo-Saxon uh, scholars and um, monks, they're almost all monks, are regarded as some of the finest in Western Europe. Uh, many of the monasteries in Ireland and in, on the English shores were important economic centers, as they were in the Carolingian world, and they were totally undefended. Uh, the site Lindisfarne, the, the greatest monastery in England, beautiful view of the North Sea and an absolute ideal target for Viking attacks. Second, England had politically simplified itself by the time of the Viking Age. There were four leading kingdoms I've mentioned earlier, uh, Mercia and the Midlands, which looked like the leading kingdom of England. Uh, it was ruled by a king named Offa, who at least attempted to style himself as the English equivalent of Charlemagne. He imposed his authority over the English kingdoms south of the Humber, which essentially divides England into two zones. Uh, he ruled Mercia, he controlled London and Canterbury, which are the commercial and the religious centers of uh, England. He had subjected the kings of East Anglia and Wessex to his hegemony. Uh, north of the Humber was the kingdom of Northumbria, and Northumbria was the center of most of the important monastic and cultural life associated with early Anglo-Saxon England. Northumbria on the eve of the Viking Age was in trouble. It essentially consisted of two kingdoms. 
one uh, north of the Tees, the so-called Bernicia, the old core, centering on a port at Bamberg and embracing what eventually became the Scottish lowlands in northern England. And the southern portion of the kingdom, uh, Adira, centered around York and the Yorkshire regions. And these two regions were never really particularly well integrated. And when the Vikings started to raid England in the 780s and 790s, not only did they find undefended monasteries along the shores, they really found very, very little organized political and military opposition. Northumbria was in the throes of constant civil war. Uh, there were some serious economic problems with the kingdom. And in an argument which will come up later on in um, another lecture, another three or four lectures from now, will explain how the Vikings in some way revived Northern England economically once they settled there after they had uh, trashed the place. And um, the Southern Kingdoms, it was by no means sure that Mercia was going to end up being the winner. Uh, the kings of Mercia were challenged by the kings of Wessex, that's in the southwest of England. So Wessex and Mercia were often fighting among each other uh, while the Vikings started their raids. As for the rest of the British Isles, those were really not organized in any fashion as states. Uh, Wales, uh, Cornwall, and the region known as Cumbria, um, uh, today uh, uh, northwestern England and parts of lowland Scotland, often referred to as Strathclyde, uh, their Britons, the descendants of the original inhabitants, inhabitants of, of Britain who had been under Roman rule, there they survived. They had been pushed out of England by the Germanic invaders and became the Welsh, the Cornishmen, and the so-called Strathclyde Britons who had memories of once ruling you know, over England. This is where the legends of King Arthur emerge, among the Welsh particularly, uh, this ancient ancestral battle against the English. And there's always a bitter irony to me that their name, Welsh, and often the English refer to the North Welsh, the Welsh of the South, meaning Cornwells, the West Welsh, the real Welsh. Um, and Welsh in Anglo-Saxon means foreigner, and only the English can turn people into foreigners in their own homeland. I just think a significant point in Anglo-Saxon history. Uh, to the North were various peoples dwelling in what would become Scotland. And the Scots were Irish immigrants, Gaelic speakers, who had arrived in northwestern Scotland during the time of the Age of Migrations. And the Viking attacks on Britain will not only make the Kingdom of England, but they will also determine that the Scots are going to end up uniting northern Britain into the Scottish Kingdom. And politically, these Viking raids are going to be extremely important in precipitating the consolidation of both Scotland and England. Both of those kingdoms would not have emerged in the way they do without the Viking attacks. Ireland was a collection of different tribes, uh, regional kings. Um, monastic life was the key cultural element to Ireland, and the monasteries in Ireland not only were cultural centers, but they were also important economic centers. Uh, politically, Ireland was divided into essentially Iron Age uh, warlords. Uh, the population uh, subsisted on stock raising and hunting. And contrary to many popular notions, there was no Ireland in any sense other than in a geographic expression. We're not even sure of the different types of dialects that were spoken there. And when the Norwegians begin to attack Ireland at the end of the 8th century and the beginning of the 9th century, they find very, very little organized resistance. And most of the 9th century and a good deal of the 10th century, the Scandinavians will just politically and militarily dominate Ireland 
with very little difficulty. They find in Ireland actually a society in some ways they can understand and respect because it is a warrior society and in time there is a great deal of intermarriage between Irish and Scandinavians and you create a rather distinct Hiberno-Norse or Irish-Norse civilization in Ireland. Uh, but at the start, there really isn't anything like an organized state of Ireland. There's a series of competing chieftains for the title of High King of Ireland. And one of the reasons for that is Ireland never had a Roman conquest and doesn't have the cities, the roads, and the institutions to build a kingdom the way you do in England and the Carolingian Empire. Finally, I should mention briefly the other two civilizations. Let's take a look briefly at the Islamic world. Um, Without a doubt, I mentioned in a previous lecture, this is the greatest civilization and it is the main economic force driving trade and economic development in the early Middle Ages. And this is true up to about 1100, about to the time of the Crusades. And the Crusades actually marks a decisive shift in many ways, and one is in, in economic domination on the Eurasian, Eurasian landmass, which is shifting increasingly to Western Europe. Few Scandinavians ever encountered the cities of Islam. They did encounter Islam on the banks of the Volga. Uh, they trade with various Turkmen tribes who were essentially the peripheral uh, marcher lords of the Islamic Empire, the Bulgars, the Khazars. But that trade route diminishes after 975, and that can be documented archaeologically as Muslim coins and products cease to come up the Volga to Sweden, and the trade route will shift to the Dnieper, to a western trade route, a trade route that had never really been very important before the Scandinavians, and that will lead the Scandinavians into that third civilization, the Byzantine Empire. In Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire, the Scandinavians encountered a great bureaucratic state. And in contrast to the Islamic world, they actually saw it and visited it. Um, based on the city of Kiev, which is about 500 miles up the Dnieper from the Black Sea, the Swedish Rus, the Scandinavians who operated in uh, Eastern Europe, managed to bring those ships down the Dnieper and cross some really treacherous rapids and dodge the Turkmen horse archers, who are some of the nastiest people you'd ever want to encounter, uh, notably the Pecheneks, delightful figures. They're organized into nine hordes. That's their basic social institution. Um, and get to the Black Sea and eventually sail to Constantinople. Constantinople at the time is without a doubt the greatest city in the Christian world, Western Europe or in Eastern Europe. Uh, it may have been a population of close to a million. Perhaps it was 500,000. But it's, it's on an order of magnitude between five and ten times greater than the largest cities in Western Europe, which is Cologne, which is about 50,000. In Constantinople, Scandinavians encountered a empire uh, that was heir to the Roman political and military traditions, that had an organized trade system, and was also the fount of silks, gold, and spices that they were acquiring through middlemen on the Volga. And one of the reasons why in the ninth century they shifted their activity to Constantinople is they could get directly to the access of all those goodies they wanted on the northern trade arc. They could get to Constantinople and trade in the great city. It is difficult to really uh, exaggerate the impact of that experience of Scandinavians entering really the, the, the one city they saw in the Middle Ages. And as I mentioned, in Norse uh, texts, it's often known as Mikligard, that is great city. You know, you say the great city or the city, they, they mean Constantinople. 
many Scandinavians, not only from Sweden, but from Norway, Denmark, from distant, distant Iceland, will take the road to Byzantium or Constantinople. Byzantium is the early Greek name for the city. And in there will take service as mercenaries. They will make fortunes as merchants. Some will settle in the Byzantine Empire. And it is in Constantinople they encounter it at the time under the great Macedonian emperors who are responsible for the political revival of the Byzantine world. And they also encounter an Orthodox Christianity that is very rich in its iconography, its icons, and its traditions, and is a religion now associated with victory, uh, with the victory of the Macedonian emperors. Uh, quite in contrast to the way Christianity was doing in Western Europe. The Viking attacks on Western Europe in the 9th and 10th century, in my opinion, probably led many Scandinavians to consider Christianity, you know, a religion of slaves and the defeated. In Constantinople, it was quite different and some of the earliest conversions occur uh, among Scandinavians who've been in Constantinople, uh, particularly Queen Olga, or as she's known in her um, Swedish name, Helga, who is reported to have attended a church service at Hagia Sophia and converted on the spot. God's got to dwell in a church like this. Anyone who can build something 17 stories high with a great dome has got to have God on their side. So the, um, the contact uh, with the Byzantine world will have a very, very profound influence. It will lead to the adoption of Orthodox Christianity by the Scandinavians in Russia, who will then go on to create Orthodox Russia. Uh, it also has an important influence in state formation in both Sweden and Denmark. Uh, both the kings of Denmark and Sweden looked east. They looked to uh, the Principality of Kiev and ultimately to Constantinople as models for their own uh, political organization of kingdoms as well as to Western Europe. So um, this is the world as it was seen from Scandinavian eyes, uh, Western Europe, uh, the Islamic world, and the Byzantine Empire. And this is the world that is uh, soon to be attacked uh, in the upcoming lectures uh, by the Scandinavians. And in all of these regions, they will have a very profound and immediate impact. These lectures are titled, The Vikings, Part 2. Lecture 13, Viking Raids on the Carolingian Empire. In this lecture, I plan to look at the Viking attacks on the Carolingian Empire, and this uh, lecture can be understood essentially in three parts. We'll first look at the initial raids and really... Uh, uh, political clashes between uh, the Scandinavians and the Frankish kings Charlemagne and his son Louis the Pious. And this is the initial stage where uh, Viking attacks were of two kinds. They're either sort of pirate raids. Uh, for instance, a very brief raid on the monastery of Noirmoutier at the mouth of the Loire where apparently a group of Norwegians showed up and, and sacked the monastery and scurried away with the goods. Uh, as well as clashes between the kings in Denmark, and I keep stressing that there are kings in Denmark, but not of Denmark, and uh, Charlemagne and Louis the Pious over the common frontier, and that has wider political ramifications. There are these rulers in Jutland uh, who control the market town of Hedeby who are clashing with the Frankish king over various issues like borders and tolls. 
the second phase of the uh, Viking assault on the Carolingian Empire is when the raids really intensify from the 830s on. Uh, when the Carolingian Empire goes into a period of civil war, the struggle among the various sons of Louis the Pious, uh, that is the grandsons of Charlemagne, and this really climaxes with attacks on the Seine, the Loire, the Somme, all the critical river systems that lead into the heartland of France, as well as the coastal regions stretching from the Seine all the way up to the Elba, uh, that is the North Shore coasts, where the important cities and markets of the Carolingian Empire are located. And this is really the height of Viking attacks, and it, it um, corresponds largely with the reign of the King Charles the Bald, and it really marks the failure of the Carolingian kings to control these attacks. There's a period of uh, relative inactivity that starts around 865, and that's because most of the Vikings relocate to England, and that's in an upcoming lecture. And then the third part of this lecture will look at the renewal of Viking attacks, and in many instances these are fresh arrivals from Scandinavia, they represent a new generation, uh, and to some extent uh, men with new aspirations, and they also represent veterans who are coming out of England are uh, returning to uh, continental Europe in search of plunder and lands. And in the later phase, uh, there's an increasing interest on some of these Viking sea kings to acquire land as well as booty. And that's a good point to close this lecture because the attacks of the ninth century will undermine the Frankish monarchy, the Carolingian monarchy in many ways, and set up uh, the conditions for the emergence of feudal states in the 10th century, and particularly the most important feudal state that is founded by Vikings themselves, that is Normandy, uh, but we'll reserve that for a later lecture. So this lecture comes in three parts. Another important uh, point that should be stressed, uh, throughout the entire period of these attacks, and we'll be going into them in some detail, it should be noted that not only does the character of the attacks change with regard to the Carolingian Empire, that is, they become more intense, they go from raids to political demonstrations to serious attacks and plundering and eventually to efforts uh, of settling in, in the Carolingian Empire, this will also affect the Vikings themselves and the Scandinavians who are conducting these attacks. So the, the changes are going both ways. And in the course of the ninth century, certainly by the 840s and 850s, by the middle of the century, as the attacks intensify, um, increasingly Scandinavians are not carrying out seasonal raids from their homeland, such as the great attack on Paris in 845, where apparently they left Denmark and southwestern uh, Norway. They sailed to the mouth of the Seine and then up the Seine to occupy Paris on Easter Sunday. Uh, instead, the Vikings begin to stay in the immediate vicinity, usually operating off um, the river systems at the mouths of important rivers. Uh, they fortify camps and bases. They start to set up relationships with towns within the Carolingian Empire where they market captives and booty and even sell many of their victims off to Christian merchants as slaves and those fellows then take them and sell them in the markets of Muslim Spain. And so what happens in the course of the mid-9th century and later is the emergence of these uh, veteran Viking companies, let's call them, and you have cases of men who will serve together for 5, 10, 15 years under a powerful sea king such as um, uh, Bjorn Ironside or um, Halfdan, the sons of Ragnar Lodbrok uh, and others, 
lawyers, and they uh, acquire a real sense of identity as professional warriors. And uh, this starts a tradition that will continue into the 10th and 11th century. It's celebrated in the um, uh, the great Icelandic uh, saga called the Saga of the Joms uh, uh, Vikings. And the Joms Vikings are actually located in the Baltic, and they are a legendary professional warrior group. And those groups go back into the ninth century and come out of these Viking raids. And eventually those companies will be the basis of the royal armies of the late 10th and 11th century, which are used by the kings of Denmark and Norway to consolidate territorial states in Scandinavia. So that you have, uh, in the course of these attacks on the Carolingian Empire, uh, very, very significant changes as well going on among the Scandinavians, as well as the repercussions for the Carolingian Empire. So with that perspective, let's take a look at the initial phase of Viking attacks, and that is during the time of Charlemagne and his son, Louis the Pious. Um, the earliest Viking attack in the Carolingian Empire was a pirate raid at the mouth of the Loire River. I mentioned um, the uh, monastery of Noirmoutier, which was sacked, and it's repeatedly sacked uh, during the 9th century. And the Vikings get very good at pillaging monasteries, uh, and they figure out very quickly that uh, not only are there the precious objects as well as the uh, peasants that you can carry off, uh, and you have to remember monasteries are major economic centers in the Carolingian world, uh, in England and in Ireland. So it's just not attacking a group of buildings. There's villages attached to there with specialists, craftsmen, peasants, uh, their whole families. And these people can be carried off and ransomed or sold into slavery or taken back to Scandinavia with expert skills if they're smiths, whatever. Um, but they also learn that uh, they very quickly can ransom certain captives, particularly abbots and Christian relics, uh, for which the Vikings have very little interest. And they probably are rather astonished that Christians will pay so much money to get abbots back and these strange relics like, you know, bits of the true cross and the like. And uh, they're more than willing to market this stuff back after they take it. You could think of some of these, you, you wonder why some of these monasteries in Ireland and the Carolingian Empire repeatedly sacked, and I, my suspicion is, and I can't prove it, is that they figured, well, we can carry out our usual blackmail routine, it's time to raise some money, let's go get some relics and, and blackmail the Christians for them. So in any event, you had some of these pirate raids occurring in uh, 799 in the early 800s. Uh, there is that clash I described in a previous lecture between uh, Charlemagne and a king of Denmark who is usually referred to by um, uh, the Frankish name Godfred. It's probably Guthrith in, um, in Old Norse. And he was probably the king who controlled Hedeby and may have been responsible for some of the construction of the Danvirka, the um, uh, fortifications along the southern uh, borders of Denmark on the Eider River, and he carried out a massive naval demonstration off the shores of Frisia, uh, exacting tribute, according to one account, 200 pounds of silver. He threatened the um, uh, town of Duristad, that important Frisian town on the Scheldt, on one of the lower uh, tributaries of the Rhine, which was the premier market city of northern Europe and clearly the jewel in the economic system of the Carolingian Empire. No Frankish king could afford to see that city threatened. And Charlemagne countered with a, a threatened invasion of Denmark. Uh, Godfred got murdered by one of his rivals, Hemming, the treaty was patched up. But those attacks and that clash convinced Charlemagne that something had to be done to protect 
the ports stretching from the Seine River, the mouth of the Seine River, up to the mouth of the Rhine River. And the Rhine, as you recall, uh, essentially, uh, as, as geographers like to say, surrenders its identity and name into a series of tributaries that flow across Holland. And um, on the Lower Rhine uh, was Duristad and uh, other uh, important ports. And the Rhine offered access up to the city of Cologne, uh, uh, by the Mosul Valley to Trier, farther up to Mainz. These were the most important cities and manufacturing centers of the Carolingian Empire, some of the most densest, densely populated areas of Western Europe. And again, they would have to be protected. And so Charlemagne sets up a series of naval defenses. It's significant he does not build a navy. He makes no effort to counter Viking ships. No one really does. But he does set up signal towers, uh, fortified posts. These would be probably stockades uh, and rampart constructions. They're not stone castles. Uh, militia forces are conscripted. Uh, roads are built. And there's a series of forts to defend the area and particularly to give early warning of uh, Viking attacks. And he's able to maintain them. Uh, as is his son, Louis the Pious, in the first years of his reign. And uh, they act pretty effectively as a barrier against significant Viking attack. They can't control all of it. And as I mentioned earlier, the great advantage that the Scandinavians had in their ships is not only could they penetrate up rivers because of the low draft of um, Viking ships, but also they could beach these ships anywhere. They did not require deep water ports. And it was very common for Vikings to beach their ships on a quiet cove, uh, perhaps set up a fortified camp, and then move in and ravage an area or attack a town or a monastery and retreat to their ships and their base. And very often what happened after a raid is then there was a big market where they sorted out booty and captives. People were ransomed. Uh, locals would show up to ransom the abbots, and then they would decide what to keep and what to sell off. Uh, so it was very, very hard to stop these raids uniformly. There would always be a certain amount of raids, but at least Charlemagne could protect the main ports from sneak attack. Well, Louis the Pious, as I mentioned, is not a inspiring monarch by Carolingian standards. And actually his name is one of the best names that any Carolingian monarch has because his descendants get such names as the fat, the simple, the, the bald. And the Carolingians have a delightful sense of naming their uh, rulers after their weaknesses rather than their virtues. It's a sort of a characteristic of the family. Uh, in any case, uh, starting in the 820s, Lewis has two major problems. One is his sons are competing for control of the empire. They want to carve up the Carolingian empire into independent states. They do not like Lewis's notion that the eldest son, Lothar, should get the whole thing and rule as emperor. The second problem he has is Viking attacks. As the um, various vassals of the Carolingian Empire line up among the sons of Lewis and fight it out for who's going to get what good, uh, the naval defenses are neglected, royal interests and finances cannot be put into defensive purposes, and furthermore, the competing sons of Lewis are more than happy in some circumstances to hire Vikings as their allies or mercenaries in some of these struggles. So starting in the 830s, the raids begin to mount up. And it is immediately indicated by the fact that Danish companies, commanded by sea kings we, we know nothing about, we're not told who they are in the Chronicles, uh, between 834 and 837, every year show up and sack Duristad. Now we're not sure what that means. Did they burn to the town to the ground? Probably not. 
but they certainly exacted booty. They got into the town. Maybe it was a massive blackmailing. And these attacks repeatedly occur at the mouth of the Rhine River, its tributaries, and it disrupts trade very, very dramatically and very quickly. And these attacks on Duristad continue through the 840s. Eventually, the town is abandoned. Uh, by the 840s, it has lost its primacy in the North Sea trade, which is beginning to shift to the uh, Scandinavian market towns, Hedeby and Berka. And that is a direct result of these Viking raids. And the second point is that um, uh, the best guess from archaeologists is that the uh, course of the river shifts and Duristad loses part of its port, so it, it starts to silt up. And it's finally abandoned in the 860s. To defend the area around Duristad and Frisia, what Lewis does is um, hand out a fief to a Danish sea king by the name of Harald Klock, and he is allowed to rule Frisia as the vassal of uh, Lewis if he will control the raids. Uh, Harald does a reasonable job, but it's clear that he also gives a lot of information, navigators, uh, to Viking uh, raiders. He cooperates and very often provides a very convenient market to sell off the booty and plunder. And all that does is essentially direct Viking raids farther down the coast to the Somme, uh, to the uh, Seine, uh, the Loire River, and eventually even the Garonne, that is the river that goes right into southern France, into the Aquitaine. All of these areas begin to be raided uh, extensively in the 830s and 840s. And when Louis the Pious dies in 840, there's a second round of civil wars, and the three surviving sons, Louis had four, but only three survived his death, uh, the three surviving sons divide off the Frankish Empire at the Treaty of Verdun in 843. The Western Third, which pretty much looks like France today, it's essentially the French Kingdom, Western Francia, as it would be called, goes to Charles the Bald. And the door prize for getting the Western Francia is the bulk of the fighting against the Vikings. And Charles the Bald, for all of his efforts, and I can understand his problems, um, in the end really failed to do the job. For part, he lacked the manpower and the money. He was operating with a much smaller kingdom than his father and grandfather, but furthermore, uh, he had to spend a good deal of his time countering the ambitions of his brothers and then his brother's descendants, that is, his nephews. The Vikings also had acquired uh, a knowledge of the Frankish Empire and superb skill in negotiating the river systems, understanding the political divisions within the Frankish Empire. So as the second phase opens up in the 830s and 840s, uh, they are very, very adept at going up the rivers deep into the Frankish kingdom, attacking towns and extorting ransom or tribute. And it really does, it, the, the fancy word we use today is dang, dangeld payment to the Danes. It's a term that comes really out of, uh, more properly out of English documents, but what it refers to is payments in silver, hard cash, to the Danes not to attack. Charles the Bald becomes extremely good at making these payments. That's one of his claims to fame. He pays off large amounts of Dangald. And between the reign of Charles the Bald and his final descendant, Charles the Simple, who's at the early 10th century, comes to the throne in 897, uh, we know from the literary sources at least 45,000 pounds of silver was paid out. And by best guess, these are only partial you know, records of what went on. Um, this is probably on about a third of the, the specie that was carried out. About 120,000 pounds of silver uh, was carried out. Uh, so 
This will begin to put the Frankish monarchy really behind the eight ball fiscally. By the 860s and 870s, the Frankish kings are having serious difficulties in meeting their bills. And that's one of the reasons why you move over uh, to a feudal system of handing over lands to vassals to, to take care of the defense because the kings themselves just cannot control these Viking attacks. Um, the second important point about Charles's reign is he suffers some very embarrassing attacks. In 843, on June 24th at the Festival of St. John, a group of Norwegians sail up the Loire and enter the city of Nantes, a major city. Uh, it's actually the commercial center of Brittany and of central France, and sack the town. They burn it to the ground. They take off prisoners. Uh, the rumor is the local count was actually assisting the Vikings and shared in the plunder. Attacks continue in the next reign, up the, uh, uh, the next year, up the uh, Garonne on the Seine. And the most embarrassing of all of the attacks is in 845, and I discussed that earlier in a lecture dealing with uh, shipbuilding, when a large fleet, about 120 ships, show up from Denmark and Norway under the legendary figure Ragnar Lodbrok, which means in Old Norse, he who wears the shaggy breeches. Apparently he has these trousers that are fringed with some sort of leather fringe or fur, and it was a rather remarkable costume he wore. And he's regarded as the quintessential Viking sea king and gets celebrated in skaldic poetry and compared to the heroes of old. Uh, this fleet sails up the Seine, encounters an army of Charles the Bald, which Charles foolishly divides into two halves. One is on the left bank, one is on the right bank. Ragnar hangs 111 prisoners, which panics Charles the Bald, who flees, and the Vikings are free to occupy Paris unopposed. And I think Ragnar, um, I wonder what he did with this. He, he carried off the, uh, the keys and the lock of the gate of Paris and took it back with him to Scandinavia to show he actually made it to Paris. Uh, in any case, this raid um, uh, climaxed not so much with the plundering of Paris, but Charles paid the Vikings 7,000 pounds of silver if they would just get out of the Seine. This payment becomes a precedent and an inducement for other Viking groups to attack. And Charles finds most of his reign trying to counter a multitude of Viking attacks coming in on four different river systems, the Somme, the Rhine, uh, the Somme, the Seine, uh, the Loire, the Garonne. Most of the time, his vassals have to take action themselves. The royal army is too late in arriving. Uh, in one instance, Charles comes up with the idea of hiring one group of Vikings to destroy another. Uh, the Vikings operating at the mouth of the Seine, commanded by a guy called Bjorn Ironside, um, Charles goes to another Viking company, and this is, this is indication that they're staying around and becoming professional groups, uh, commanded by a fellow named Weiland, or Weyland, and uh, probably in Old Norse his name is actually Voland, but uh, he um, induces Weyland's group to attack and wipe out Bjorn's group, and he pays him a large sum of money, several thousand pounds of silver, and Weyland shows up, puts the same Vikings under you know, siege at their base, Bjorn contacts Weyland and says, look, We'll be glad to pay you X amount of money if you let us go. Wayland says, no problem. And those Vikings take off and, uh, and go uh, raiding in the Mediterranean. They actually, they actually end up sacking the city of Luna, 
uh, which is on the northern shores of Italy, which used to be the center of the marble trade in the Roman age and was sort of a de decayed city in the ninth century. And they saw the city from the distance, from the uh, uh, Mediterranean shores of uh, Italy, and thought, this must be Rome. It looks really big. They sacked it. They found out it wasn't Rome. They were kind of depressed, but they got a pretty good haul and eventually got back into the Atlantic. It was, you know, sort of uh, a three-year Mediterranean cruise for that outfit. And by the time they returned, Wieland had been killed by one of his um, followers in a duel, and they could go back into business raiding the Frankish Empire. So the idea of trying to hire Vikings to eliminate Vikings really didn't work very well. And um, Charles, um, in a sense, admitted the fact that his reign was a failure when in 864 he summoned the various nobility of his kingdom and issued a series of capitularies or laws in the tradition of his uh, grandfather Charlemagne and these are known as the Edicts of Petra and Petra was a bridge system there's an important bridge over the um, Seine there and it defended the approaches to Paris if you could hold Petra you could prevent someone from sailing a fleet up Paris and uh, at there are some very, very interesting and really telling provisions uh, in those laws. Uh, one of the points Charles uh, states is that towns and cities should be fortified. There's also a series of rules that the nobility should not be requisitioning horses and men and labor services in the name of fighting the Vikings. By the 860s, a number of prominent vassals in the Frankish Empire are using the Viking attacks as a means to consolidate regional control in their areas. Uh, one such figure is Robert the Strong, who establishes himself as the strongman at Paris, uh, Baldwin of Flanders. Many of the feudal states that emerge in the 10th century uh, have their origins in these vassals who are actually exploiting the Viking attacks to carve out their own fiefs. Uh, there's also rules about don't sell arms to the Vikings. No one pays attention to these. Uh, the bridges at the Seine should be fortified. That's never done. Uh, most of them are really at least an affirmation on the part of Charles of what he would like to do. Fortunately, Charles gets a respite from Viking attacks in the next year, and it has nothing to do with Charles's success, or really lack of success, his payment of Dangald, or any law he ever issued. In 865, most of these professional Viking companies came to the conclusion that they had, a, had been sacking the Frankish Empire for 15 or 20 years, and they decided to move across and attack England. And the only reason they have a res respite in the Carolingian Empire for the next 15 years is most of the Viking focus goes on England, which we'll deal with in another lecture. When they have satisfied their aspirations in England by 878, 879, many of those same companies, as well as fresh arrivals from Scandinavia, return, in effect, a new wave of Viking attacks. And these start in 879, when a large Viking force that had been fighting in England crosses the channel and seizes the city of Ghent, fortifies it as a base, and proceeds to ravage the regions of today, Holland and parts of Western Germany. That is, the areas that I mentioned earlier were the guts of the Frankish Empire. These included the cities of the Mosul and Rhine Valley. Trier and Cologne are both sacked. This is an extremely dangerous attack. Uh, this is more than just a humiliation on the, for the Frankish kings that they got this deep into the empire. Uh, one of the Viking columns is intercepted and destroyed by the king of the Western Franks, Louis III. Uh, he is the grandson of Charles the Bald. Uh, it's a small force destroyed at uh, Sancourt. Uh, it is the first victory won by a Carolingian king over the Vikings, either on land or sea. It is celebrated in one of the earliest 
German epics we have, uh, a form of High German, um, Old High German as it's called. It's called the Ludwigslied, and it's a, it's a highly exaggerated account of Lewis uh, intercepting and destroying these Viking raiders. In eight, uh, and this, this occurred in 881. In 881, there was another significant change beside this victory. Uh, a man by the name of Charles the Fat, the um, ruler of the Eastern Frankish Kingdom, came to the throne, and in the next several years, he reunites, uh, with the consent of the nobility, the old Carolingian Empire. That is, the empire that had been divided in 843 is united under Charles the Fat. Uh, he's crowned emperor in Rome, and he holds this position until 888 when he's deposed. And the reason why the nobility agreed to this is because of the renewed Viking attacks. They had become so serious, especially in the lowlands and along the Seine, that they agreed, we need a single Carolingian ruler. And this was a major concession on the part of the nobility, who for the last 30 years have been more than delighted to play off various monarchs to carve their, out their own positions. And Charles the Fat instantly proves that he's just not up to the job. He enfiefs Frisia to a Viking a sea king, a guy by the name of Godfred or Guthrid, who proceeds to turn Frisia into his own base. That doesn't work. Eventually, they have to get rid of this Viking vassal in Frisia because he's essentially using it as a way to assist other Vikings. But the real bankruptcy of this reign is shown in the Great Siege of Paris. In uh, 884, 885, large Viking forces descend on the Seine River. And in the spring of 885, they sail up the Seine under a commander named Sigurd. Siegfried is the name they use in the um, Western Chronicles. He's carrying the same name as the hero of the Volsung Saga, and Paris is put under siege. Uh, it holds out for almost some 18 or 19 months, uh, defended by Odo, the Count, uh, who later is the, um, he's the ancestor of the Capetian kings of France. Charles the Fat rushes to the rescue, rages a huge army, and instead of fighting Sigurd and the Vikings, he pays them off. He pays them in a dangled payment of, again, 7,000 pounds of silver, plus carte blanche to plunder Burgundy and pick up all the good wine you would want while the payment is being collected. Well, this is pretty much an indictment of the Carolingian dynasty. Uh, Sigurd and the Vikings had a great time, eventually left. The Frankish nobility in disgust deposed Charles the Fat and dumped him in a monastery where Charles could contemplate his sins and his failures, which were many, and proceeded to elect new kings uh, in the eastern Frankish kingdom, a man named Arnulf the Bastard, who was a descendant of the Carolingians, and in the western Frankish king, uh, none other than uh, the Capetian Count of Paris, Odo, the first Capetian king, the hero of Paris, who's supposed to run the Western Frankish kingdom. Now, both of these kings uh, have modest success in coping with the Vikings. Arnulf the Bastard actually attacks a Viking camp at the base of the Rhine on the Dial River. Uh, he storms the camp, but the Vikings are able to withdraw back into England. Uh, Odo uh, does not face any really serious Viking attacks during his reign, and um, when he dies in 897, the situation looks more or less stable. But by the year 900, somewhere between 895 and 900, a new generation of Viking warriors come out of Scandinavia, and one band is led by a uh, Danish fellow named Rolf or Rollo, and they come with the intention of essentially starting a third wave of attacks. 
first one in the 830s and 40s, then again in the 870s and 80s. And essentially, you know, these, these periods represent different generations. Now, the situation changes dramatically. By the time Rollo, or that's what he's called in his Latin version of the name, Rolf, uh, the same name as the legendary Danish king is his Old Norse name. And as I mentioned, there's sometimes difficulty in distinguishing who these people are because uh, Norse names are very difficult to render into Latin and um, vernacular West European languages. By the time he arrives, he encounters a Frankish empire that is now politically very divided, fragmented, and also a Frankish empire that is bankrupt. Uh, the monarchs no longer have the money to raise the forces or even to pay the Dangal, which was common earlier in the ninth century. And so what happens with Rolf eventually is that he and his Viking company, who operate off the Seine River, threaten Paris, just as Sigurd's group had done in 885, had Ragnar had done in 845, doesn't get a payoff, doesn't fight a major battle, but instead is invested with land. And it is the decision of the Frankish king Charles the Simple, descendant of Charles the Bald, uh, to hand over a fief in Normandy uh, to give land to a, uh, a uh, Viking sea king and attempt to turn him into a Frankish vassal. And this time the deal works. And that has major implications for halting Viking attacks into the Carolingian Empire, as well as the evolution of feudal states in the former Frank, uh, Carolingian Empire. And that will be the subject of the upcoming lecture. Lecture 14, The Duchy of Normandy. In this lecture, I'm going to concentrate on the creation of the what eventually became the Duchy of Normandy. It was actually originally a county, often referred to as the County of Rouen, the major city in Normandy, until it was elevated to a duchy in 996. And Normandy, the founding of Normandy, is an event of major European importance. It not only closes uh, the period of Viking attacks into the Carolingian Empire, but it also represents an important change in the development of feudal Europe. And the Normans will come to play a very, very significant role in European history from the 10th, really up until the 12th and 13th centuries. Uh, their descendants will be found across Europe, in England, in France, uh, in Spain, Crusader states, and southern Italy. And the Normans are descendant of Vikings who acquired land uh, in northern France as a result of this uh, act of enfiefment by Charles the Simple. So it's important for us to understand why Charles did this, uh, what were his motives, uh, also why the Viking sea king, Rolf, or as he's known usually in the Latin chronicles uh, as Rollo, uh, why he accepted this land and why he proved so successful in turning Normandy into, in many ways, the premier feudal state of Europe and turning his Viking uh, warriors into the finest knights of Western Europe. Uh, 
powerful fighters, restless adventurers, uh, devoted to Christ, as I always note, a little thin on the Ten Commandments, but devoted to Christ. And uh, uh, the greatest nobles and knights of Western Europe, not only capable of conquering, but also ruling distant areas by adapting local institutions. This is really quite a success story to come out of the Viking Age. And uh, so let us first look at both Charles the Simple and uh, Rolf in the original deal back in 911. Well, Charles the Simple, when he came to the throne in uh, 897, was in a particularly weak position. Uh, he was a, a descendant of um, Charlemagne, and he had twice been passed over as king, as, as too young. And in 897, a Capetian king, that is the former Count of Paris, who had been elected King of France, had died. And the Western Frankish nobility finally went with Charles. Uh, he was a descendant of the Carolingian house. Uh, Charles was in a very, very difficult position. By the time he became uh, king of Western France, or Western Francia, we may as well start calling it France, uh, he, was in a, he was fiscally bankrupt. He faced very, very powerful vassals. He was in a very, very weak position politically. If he had to endure a third Viking siege of Paris, he knew he would not survive. And when this large Viking company showed up at the base of the Seine, uh, commanded by Rolf, uh, somewhere between 895 and 897, that is in the very final years of, of King Odo, uh, Charles knew he had to do something about this. There were a series of raids and attacks up the Seine. There were uh, negotiations. Uh, several important abbeys got sacked in the process. But finally, in 911, uh, Rolf and Charles the Simple came to agreement, and Charles agreed to invest Rolf with a fief. Uh, the area originally involved was the, the lower sections of the Seine uh, around the city of Rouen. It was called in the Latin text Terra Normanorum, that is, land of the Normans, land of the Northmen. And as I mentioned in previous lectures, the Franks were generally pretty vague about who these Vikings were. They, they called them Normani or Northmani, meaning northern men. They referred to both Danes and Norwegians by that name. We have good reason to believe that Rolf's group were largely Danes. And in any event, this uh, fief was uh, uh, relatively small from the later Duchy of Normandy, but it included the important cathedral city of Rouen, uh, a major city in northern France, as well as the strategic bridges around uh, Pitre. That is, uh, it guarded the approaches to Paris. And it was on the Seine River, one of the premier river systems into France. Both sides had good reason to accept it. Uh, simply for Charles, he didn't have any money to pay. In my opinion, there is no Frankish currency to speak of. The royal, monarch, the, the royal currency by 9-11 was gone. Most of the abbots, bishops, and uh, secular vassals of France had usurped the right to coin money to collect what we would call tolls and the profits of justice. And the Frankish monarchy had essentially lost control over its finances. And this is directly uh, uh, accountable to those payments of Dangald, especially by Charles the Bald, where Frankish subjects would become increasingly reluctant to hand over money uh, to the Frankish king. And that meant plate, uh, that meant religious objects, that meant old coins, uh, which were melted down, uh, minted in coins, and paid off to the Vikings. You know, Charles just didn't have the money. Uh, Charles also was very, very keen on defending the approaches to Paris, and the earlier measures done by his ancestors, uh, especially Charles the Bald, had not worked. So what do you do? You turn these Vikings 
into your vassals and give them the land and the means to establish their own fief, and hopefully they will def uh, do the job for you. And in this case, Charles the Simple chose the right man. Rolf had several reasons to accept this. I mentioned in the previous lecture that the three major periods of attacks uh, by Viking uh, raiders in the Carolingian Empire, to some extent, reflected generations. That is, the attacks of the 830s and 40s was one group associated with Ragnar Lodbrok, that legendary figure who becomes very important in skaldic poetry. Then you had a second phase coming in, uh, especially in the 870s, 880s, a new group coming in from Scandinavia. And what Rolf's group represented in 9-11 was, was, was probably the third generation of these professional warrior groups. And you have to look at Rolf's position and why he would accept the land. For one thing, these Viking companies were not armies in the modern sense. They were collections of different contingents of fleets, anywhere from 5 to 15 in size. Many of these men came from the same community. So within a Viking fleet of 100 ships, which maybe is what Rolf commanded, he had a number of subgroups. These subgroups reflected distinct communities where there was a leader, a jarl, uh, which is related to the English word earl, a lord, who had around him his friends, his relatives, the members of his community who fought with him. So the Viking fleets were generally made up of much smaller units. They had been operating with Rolf from some 10 to 15 years. Many of these men went to sea at about age 15 to 20. Uh, many a famous uh, Norwegian king started his military political career at 15 or 16. And after raiding 10 or 15 years, this group gets up into the ages between 35 and, say, 50, 55. And in the course of a successful Viking career, they've acquired money, they've acquired horses, weapons, wives, concubines. And these, these Viking fleets become a whole roadshow. They're like their own little city moving around. And Rolf really had to satisfy them now. Uh, many of them were now at a point where they had done 10 or 15 years of raiding, and they were keenly interested in acquiring land. And Rolf was able to deliver it, and in so doing, would satisfy their aspirations, keep control over that group, and turn himself into a respectable territorial lord. And after all, that's essentially what many a Viking sea king wanted. Following the traditions of the great legends of Scandinavia, you think of Rolf Kraki, the legendary Danish king after whom this sea king is uh, named, Rolf or Rollo in his Latin version. Uh, that's exactly what Rolf did in legend. He, Rolf Kraki, raided widely, built a great hall in Denmark, and retired as a great king. And uh, the only difference is, is this Rolf, Rollo, is going to build his kingdom in France rather than in Denmark. So both sides had reasons to come to this agreement. Uh, the act of homage actually um, took place at St. Clair uh, on the Seine, and we have several chronicle reports on it. And the reports are, well, the chroniclers are hostile to Charles the Simple. I mean, the name Charles the Simple alone tips you off. They're not particularly impressed by their monarch. But furthermore, they delighted in telling the scene because um, in the, um, the scene of homage, uh, Rolf had to do two things. If he was going to become a vassal of the Frankish king, he had to convert to Christianity. And he's more, more than willing to do that. That's not a problem. Uh, Christian God is powerful and is the God of that land, and he accepts baptism. And, and most Viking sea kings, after a while, kind of like the idea of baptism. You know, you have a big ceremony with bishops, and it's really impressive. It impresses your warriors. But the second part of the ceremony was the act of homage. 
And that included an act whereby uh, Rolf, Rollo, would have to bend down and kiss the foot of his new lord, Charles the Simple. And when he was asked to perform this, Rolf just looked like, you've got to be kidding. And he turned to one of his warriors and said, uh, look, you kiss the foot for me. And one of these hulking Viking warriors went up to Charles the Simple, who probably stood about 5'4", and you have to think of a, a Dane of about 5'9", or 5'11", and he said, okay, and he picked the king's foot up, threw the king on his back, and kissed the foot. Well, if that doesn't, if that is not an omen of the relationship of the future Dukes of Normandy to the kings of France, nothing else is. Uh, from the start, I think Charles the Simple had a lot of second, second thoughts about giving this, this feudal uh, principality over to Rolf, who turned out to be far more energetic and far more successful than the king probably really wanted. And the uh, late Carolingian kings uh, repeatedly try to curb the powers of Rolf and his descendants, and the counts and then eventually dukes of Normandy learn that defiance was probably the best way to go in dealing with Carolingian kings. You could always extort more concessions from them. The success of Rolf's duchy can also be appreciated and underscored by looking at another possible Viking duchy that was founded about the same time, and that would have been a group of Norwegians and Danes who simultaneously, a couple of years later, probably around 916, 917, settled on the uh, mouth of the Loire around the city of Nantes and in some ways looked like they were going to carve out a second Viking principality in the Carolingian Empire. And it's worth a moment comparing the two situations just to get a sense of Rolf's success. Well, this group was very similar to the group that got the fief in, in Normandy. They'd been operating on the Loire for about a 10 or 15 year period. They knew the city of Nantes very well, just as Rolf's group knew the city of Rouen. Both cities had in some ways prospered from Viking raids because uh, Vikings uh, often uh, showed up, sold plunder, and what is even more embarrassing to the monks, sold their captives, and many of these captives end up being sold into the Muslim world by, by Christian merchants, uh, no questions asked. Their leader was a fellow by the name of uh, Rangvald, and he uh, was again a charismatic sea king. Uh, the difference, however, is significant on two points. These group of Vikings who settled in Nantes and had aspirations to rule the lower Loire and the region of Brittany today, that, that vast peninsula, uh, and Nantes is essentially the natural capital of that area, uh, there were two significant differences in this group. They first never received permission from any Frankish king. There was never any kind of act of vassalage, homage, and that was important. Even though the counts and dukes of Normandy usually honored their feudal ties in the breach rather than in the performance, they still had the legitimacy to rule that area and gain the cooperation of the clergy as well as the other local people in order to run an effective feudal state. Uh, the uh, Vikings and Nantes never had that. The second point is that this group never really had the same kind of control by their leader. They never really made the switch from being raiders and plunderers or brigands or whatever term you want to use from the chronicles uh, to, in effect, uh, landlords and knights. And what happened is Nantes, in effect, became a base for the next 20 years for this group to wade, uh, raid widely over Brittany. And while they enjoyed considerable success, eventually it annoyed the local population. And the, um, uh, the Count of uh, Brittany, a fellow by the name of Alain, uh, Alan uh, Barbatort, or the Twisted Beard, he had this bizarre twisted beard as his 
prominent feature, in 936 nailed this Viking group in a major battle in northern Brittany and then marched on Nantes, captured the city and sacked it and scattered these Vikings. And the difference between the group settling in Brittany and around Nantes and a Rolf's group is, is really quite significant. That Viking group never made the transition from raiders into landlords and knights, whereas Rolf's group, from the start, understood what they had. They had one of the premier uh, areas of northern France, superb farmland, and these Viking warriors, within a matter of a couple of years, turned themselves from uh, sailors and warriors into landlords and began to learn how to fight as mounted cavalry. And so the Vikings who settled in Normandy quickly become the military caste of Normandy. There is very thick Viking settlement in and around the area of Rouen and the Lower Seine. As the Duchy of Normandy was expanded by other additions, large areas were brought in where there was very little Viking settlement, where the local population was there. Uh, these areas were given out as fiefs to followers of, of Rolf and his descendants. Uh, there was some more settlement in the region around, um, in the peninsula of, of uh, Contien today. Uh, there were a group of Vikings that relocated from Ireland uh, into Normandy. But most of the settlement was down in and around the immediate area of Rouen. They came in fairly significant numbers. It's difficult to estimate how many of them there were. Um, but from the start, you have Vikings who probably had local women. Some of them were bilinguals. And within a generation, they've given up their Norse tongue, uh, their worship of the ancestral gods, and they've become French speakers and Christians. And that is a very rapid and significant change. And it contrasts very much with the settlement that we shall see soon in England, where Danes came in much greater numbers and where the Danes probably retained their ancestral language much longer than the Normans in France, and furthermore, where those Danes actually had a very, very powerful influence on the modern English language as well as uh, English legal institutions. In Normandy, the number of Norse words that passed into modern French were very limited. They're very specialized. They're terms of navigation, um, words for oyster, stuff like, you know, the sort of thing you would expect to get from Scandinavians from the sea. These were just a limited set of technical loan words. Otherwise, the language of the court at Rouen from the start was French. Even more significant, uh, Rolf marries the daughter of the Count of Maine. Uh, that is Papa, that is a French-speaking lady. Uh, and their son, uh, who succeeds as the second Count, uh, he carries a perfectly legitimate Frankish name. He is... Um, uh, uh, Count William, uh, and, and all of the later uh, Norman rulers carry names such as uh, Richard, Roger, Robert. These are, these are Western European uh, Frankish names. They do not use Norse names anymore. Uh, the Dukes of Normandy, uh, they become the Dukes of Normandy after 996, and before that they're the Counts of Rouen. But this uh, family of Norman rulers, as I said, understood that they probably could gain more uh, by exploiting the weakest weakness of the Carolingian monarchs than obeying their ties of vassalage. And Charles the Simple and his successors had some real doubts about why, you know, whether they should have given so much over to these Normans. Uh, there are several efforts in the 930s and the 940s to move in and repossess the fief, that is to oust uh, the Norman ruling family and take the area back under the French crown. Uh, these fail. 
Um, there's a um, uh, there's one right after the death of Rolf where there uh, where his son is still a minor. Uh, there is a brief pagan reaction in Normandy at one point. The Frankish kings try to exploit that. But in all instances, the Normans prove themselves more than equal to handling any royal army that come in to their area because they very, very quickly learn to use the heavy cavalry and to build the moat and bailey castles that one associates with the Normans in later medieval history. And these are rather simple structures of uh, essentially building a mound and a stockade on top of it with a trench around it. And uh, it's nothing like the castles that excite your imagination from the 13th century on, these imposing masonry structures. These are essentially stockades. Nonetheless, when constructed at, at, at strong points and controlling roads and manned by a determined group of heavy cavalry, can pretty much dominate the countryside. And the Normans, in effect, take over the military techniques which will inhibit future Viking raids and also beat back Frankish kings who want to take the, uh, the duchy back. Uh, one of the most significant points that comes out of this uh, uh, is that the Norman rulers align themselves with the counts of France, that is the counts around Paris. Uh, and that is the Capetian family. Uh, those are the descendants of Count Odo, who was briefly king uh, and had been the defender of Paris against the second siege of the Vikings. And what in effect happens is an alliance between the Normans and the Capetians to get rid of the Carolingian monarchs of France. And this ends in 987 in the proclamation of Hugh Capet as king of France Eucope establishes the royal family, the Capetian family, and that is the family in one way or another that will rule France down to the French Revolution. That alliance between Hugh Capet and uh, the Normans, particularly uh, Duke um, uh, uh, Richard II, is cemented by a marriage relationship, there's marriage alliances, and in 996 Richard II is made Duke of Normandy. And that is a major achievement. As Duke of Normandy, uh, Richard II becomes one of the peers of France. That is, one of the great seven vassals who come to serve the King of France, who is now the Cabatian monarch who lives in Paris. And from that point onward, uh, the Norman dukes are established not only as one of the great peers of France, but one of the great secular rulers of Western Europe. And it will be these rulers, um, William the Conqueror, who will conquer England, and it will be vassals of these rulers who migrate into southern Italy and establish the Norman kingdom of southern Italy and, and Sicily, um, who are such prominent, important figures in later medieval history. In fact, it is inconceivable to think of medieval history after 1000 without the role of the Normans. They become absolutely all important. Why did they succeed so, so much as opposed to that other group in Brittany? In part, a lot of this success goes back to Rolf himself. When that original settlement went through, Rolf set the pattern which proved successful for all his successors. First, not only did he very quickly adopt French and Frankish style institutions, he also learned to forge an alliance with the clergy within Normandy, particularly the bishops of Rouen and particularly the great monasteries. And from the start, the Norman rulers, first as counts, then as dukes, pursue a very, very close alliance with both the prelates as well as the monastic institutions. That is a significant shift from their Viking ancestors who saw monasteries essentially as targets. 
And it is also a testimony to any aspiring king later on in Scandinavia who wants to create a kingdom in Scandinavia. If you want a successful kingdom, you need to work with the elites of the Christian church. Uh, in the case of the prelates, that is the great bishops and clergy who ran the, uh, who are the lay clergy who run the, ba the institutions of the church, these men quickly turned out to be nothing more than relatives of the norming ruling elite. That is, Rolf and his descendants did what the Carolingian kings is appoint members of the nobility to run the church. Uh, the greatest example of that in Norman history is the half-brother of William the Conqueror. His name was uh, Odo, Bishop of Bayou, uh, who commissioned the Bayou Tapestry. And while he was a bishop, he was also a nobleman and warrior. And um, to Odo's credit, uh, he did have some conscience as a churchman. Uh, his preferred weapon in battle was a mace. He would never use a sword or an axe because that would cut people. He would just give you a concussion so he wouldn't technically shed any blood, you know. Nonetheless, he was a valiant warrior and right there at the Battle of Hastings with his half-brother. So part of the success of the Normans is this ability to co-opt those Christian institutions. They also were extremely good about patronizing monasteries, especially the monastic reforms emanating from Cluny, imposing the truce of God, and that's a, an effort by churchmen to limit the destruction and the time of fighting. Um, uh, among feudal lords, that you're not supposed to fight battles during high holidays, you're supposed to ransom prisoners. Uh, one of the rules was to ban the use of the crossbow because it, could, it, it wasn't a gentlemanly weapon. No one paid attention to that one. But in any case, uh, again, the Norman rulers were very good uh, in that regard as well. Above all, he could keep his vassals in line. Rolf, right down to William the Conqueror, really kept tight control over their vassals. They were able to tap into their military power. And they also were very, very good at stopping Viking attacks. By 925, 930, there are no more significant Viking attacks occurring on the northern shores of France. And that's a result of several reasons. Uh, one is that Viking activities shift to the British Isles. Uh, there's intensive colonization of Iceland. Uh, there's a lot of activity in Ireland. Others are going east. So Scandinavian interests in part shift. By 925, 950, I also think that enough people have left Scandinavia in that first century of Viking activity that the population is stabilized, that some of the population pressure driving those Viking attacks uh, has diminished. But the third reason is that Rolf and his successors were extremely good at and aggressive at patrolling the Norman coast. And as descendants of Vikings themselves, they were more than willing to bring in colonists. There's a significant settlement of Vikings in Normandy in nine, uh, 942, for instance, in the Contian Peninsula. There is reports of others showing up from England, receiving fiefs. They had no objections of taking in Scandinavians, but they weren't going to tolerate any raids, any more than they were going to tolerate any kind of indiscipline on the part of their vassals. And so Normandy really turns out to be a model, a successful model, of how to create a kingdom. The descendants of Rolf, while they were French speakers, while they were Christians, still very actively remembered and promoted the connection with Scandinavia for a very long time. We know, for instance, that they hosted a number of important Viking sea kings, including St. Olaf, the future king of Norway, who reputedly was baptized at Rouen, probably somewhere around, somewhere between 10 
1010 and 1014, uh, when he was in the service of Ethelred the Unready, who was in uh, the English king in exile in Rouen. And at that baptism, uh, Duke Richard, uh, Richard II, actually stood in as the godfather uh, for Olaf, the future king of Norway. So they're very conscious of that ancient Scandinavian tradition. Uh, several Norman chroniclers very proudly pointed to that descent. They manufactured marvelous a number of tales about Rolf and his descendants. Uh, and Rolf lives on not only in Norse legend as a great Viking warrior, but also in the Norman Chronicles. Uh, nonetheless, for all intents and purposes, these rulers were now part of that wider Carolingian world. They were part of that uh, feudal order. Well, just a couple of important points to make about the long-term success of these Normans to understand how important the founding of that duchy was. Uh, the descendants of the Normans, uh, the original Vikings who settled in Normandy, went on to carve out two of the four great kingdoms of Western Europe. The one most well known to us is, of course, England. In 1066, later in this course, we will discuss that William the Conqueror, then Duke of Normandy, will cross the Channel, uh, conquer England, and rule England as king, and his descendants will forge a very, very effective monarchy in England one of the great uh, four monarchies of Western Europe. Uh, a lesser known kingdom, but just as important, and for contemporaries in many ways more important, were those Normans who trekked south into southern Italy, took service as mercenaries in the Byzantine army, and eventually carved out a kingdom in southern Italy and Sicily. And this is a second Norman kingdom, and a Norman kingdom that came to be one of the dominant kingdoms during the period of the Crusades, and in many ways was regarded as more successful and important than either the original duchy or the Kingdom of England. And just to give you a sense of the power of that later Norman kingdom in southern Italy, William uh, Rufus of England, uh, say the, the son of William the Conqueror, in the year 1100, had 10,000 knights in fiefed to service in England. His contemporary, Roger II, the King of Norman Sicily and Italy, had 30,000. And the Normans in the southern areas of the Mediterranean had so much more resources and so much more potential power uh, than their northern king, kinsmen. Well, to sum up briefly the overall historical implications of the Viking attacks on the Carolingian Empire, it's important to keep several conclusions in mind. These attacks were definitely not the sole reason why the Frankish monarchy failed. Uh, going back to uh, several earlier lectures, I mentioned that the Frankish monarchy, the Carolingian monarchy, established by Charlemagne, had certain institutional weaknesses. It was attempting to play the role of the Roman Empire. It didn't have the money and the resources to do so. And it also was plagued by a perpetual problem of civil war because there was never an issue decided, does the monarchy in Western Europe mean single succession of a crown or is the kingdom meant to be divided? So the Vikings clearly attacked Carolingian Empire that was weakened, that was subject to civil war, and to some extent owed their great success to the political divisions and military clashes within the Carolingian Empire. Nonetheless, the Vikings revealed more dramatically than any other invader the institutional weaknesses of that monarchy. They essentially did in the family of Charles the Bald as, bald as the rulers of France. They carved out the premier uh, feudal state of the new order that was to emerge. And you must think about it. All of the great feudal dynasts who went on crusade 
and who were to play such a significant role in later medieval history. The Normans, the Dukes of Anjou, Maine, Brittany, Aquitaine, Flanders, all of these feudal lords had their origins in strongmen who were able to control Viking attacks in their area. And so those Viking attacks literally brought about the emergence of that new feudal political order in northwestern France. And in so doing, they also provided a model for Scandinavians in the homeland on how to organize their own states or, or kingdoms later on in the 10th and 11th centuries. Lecture 15, Viking Assault on England. In this lecture, I plan to look at the Viking Assault on England. And in some ways, the attacks on England in the 9th and 10th century uh, were comparable to those that were going on in the Carolingian Empire. And we will see a certain number of similarities. That is, the attacks start off as raids, uh, usually as a sort of pirate raid. They then escalate to far more serious attacks, uh, climaxing with essentially an army of conquest, the so-called Great Army, or the Michael Here, as it's called in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which from 865 to 878 uh, nearly overthrows all of the English kingdoms. It, it comes as close as any Viking army in conquering an area, at least in the ninth century. And then there is a period of also settlement. Uh, there's the settlement of the so-called Dane Law. That is about half of England. That would be the eastern and northern portions of England today, where Danes settled in large numbers. And that is comparable to the settlement in Normandy. We'll discuss that uh, in more detail in another lecture. So uh, these um, features are very similar to what we've just encountered in the Carolingian Empire. Yet there will be a very, very important, significant difference. The Viking attacks in England will not result in political fragmentation, but rather will galvanize the one English kingdom to survive the Viking assault, that is the kingdom of Wessex, under a truly remarkable ruler, Alfred the Great, uh, the only king to have the name Great in all of English history uh, from a race that is known for its understatement, so that he does deserve this title in many ways will forge a kingdom of Wessex that will not only defy the Vikings, but eventually become the basis for his successors to drive back the Vikings and to unite England into a kingdom. And it is extremely uh, important to stress that without the Viking assault, it is very unlikely that England as we understand it today as a unitary state uh, may have ever occurred and uh, we'll really develop that theme in a second lecture. So our task is to look at those 9th century attacks and to compare it against the attacks going on in the Carolingian Empire. Now at the opening of the Viking Age, uh, Scandinavians were pretty familiar with England uh, through trade connections for some time. And the Viking assaults on England essentially followed trade routes, which I discussed in earlier lectures. And they came from two directions. There was a northern trade route that was developed and in the early 9th century was extremely well known and that is a northern route pioneered by Norwegians. And these would be especially Norwegians living in uh, southwestern Norway in those deep fjords that are nestled up against the mountains 
areas such as uh, Hordalan, Rogaland, uh, the Songye Fjord area, uh, usually referred to in uh, 11th and 12th century Norwegian accounts as Vestlandet, that is the western regions. Uh, these had long been uh, the lairs and dens of Vikings, that is the population becomes overcrowded very quickly. It's from these areas, for instance, that some of the immigrants who crossed over to Britain in the 5th and 6th century uh, came, uh, that is uh, Norwegian people who arrived and settled uh, the northern portions of the Kingdom of Northumbria, that is Bernicia, uh, back in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries AD. So they were aware of northern Britain, and the Norwegians, in effect, followed the trade routes. Uh, they crossed to the Shetlands, came down um, the uh, Orkney uh, Islands, and along the northern coast of England to attack uh, the unwalled monasteries on the shores of the Northumbrian Kingdom. The other direction is coming from essentially Denmark and many of the Vikings who ended up attacking England and eventually settling in England were clearly Danes and that can be demonstrated not only by the names of the Viking leaders but also the uh, number of loan words that passed into uh, later standard English which are apparently coming much more from a Danish dialect rather than a Norwegian dialect. And those Danes were the same people who were operating uh, as Vikings uh, against the Frankish Empire. And so they're following the coastal routes along the North Sea, attacking into the English Channel. So they're hitting the southern shores of England, as well as southeastern England, especially uh, the shores of East Anglia. So the attacks come in these two directions, and it's useful to look, at least briefly, at some of those initial attacks in both areas. In the north, where the Norwegians primarily operated, at least in the early 9th century. Uh, this region was ruled by a kingdom called Northumbria, which was essentially uh, two kingdoms, uh, one of them Bernicia, which comprised land stretching from the Tees River today up to where modern Edinburgh is. And so it included essentially the eastern Scottish lowlands and northern England. Uh, and its uh, main center was at a town called Bamberg, where they had a major royal center. The other portion of the kingdom was Yorkshire, the area around York, uh, the kingdom of, um, of Dyra, and the name of this kingdom, Northumbria, simply meant all of the English north of the Humber. And the Humber River is the great river that essentially bisects England today and divides the Midlands off from northern England, that is the southern portions of England off from northern England. That kingdom had been consolidated in the 7th century AD and was the first of the successful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Uh, it was very precocious in some ways. It owed a great deal, not so much to influence from the Carolingian Empire, but from Irish monks. Many of the great monasteries founded along the northern shores of England, particularly Lindisfarne and Jarrow, were founded by Irish, uh, by Celtic monks in the tradition of St. Columba, uh, establishing uh, the uh, discipline of Irish monks. That includes the private confessional, which was uh, a feature of Irish Christianity that eventually gets adopted into Western Christianity. Uh, I always think this is one of the great genius of Irish monks. That is, you, you make your confessions privately because before that, confessions were public in the congregation and people are a little kind of nervous about publicly announcing what they did wrong. And uh, also, they brought the great manuscript tradition, um, which is very well celebrated uh, in all sorts of arts exhibitions, such as the Book of Kells. So in many ways, Northern England had very close cultural ties to uh, Ireland at the start of the Viking Age. 
The Northumbrian kings also ruled a diverse set of uh, subjects. Uh, many of them were English speakers, but they included many of the pre-English population, Britain speakers, uh, speakers of um, the old British Celtic dialects, particularly in the western areas. And from the start, there was always a tension uh, between the northern and southern half of the kingdom, that is Bernicia versus Dyra. There was always a rivalry. Uh, within the royal family, members of, this, of the royal family each wanted to carve out a kingdom for himself. And several times in the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries, there were major civil wars pitting the two halves of the kingdom against each other. And the great Viking conquest in 866-867 was a case of exploiting the last of those civil wars. Northumbria also rich, represented a very rich target to Viking raiders. And that is the monasteries, uh, just as in Ireland, were major economic and cultural centers. They had a reputation of being some of the finest cultural centers in Christendom at the time. Uh, this is where Bede, the venerable Bede, uh, who wrote the Ecclesiastical History of the English, uh, he was a scholar from Northumbria. Alcum of York, who ended up being the great mentor of Charlemagne and was imported to the Frankish court to preside over the Carolingian Renaissance, uh, was again another Northumbrian monk, so that Northumbria, as a cultural uh, center in the Christian world, really had a major role to play. And when the Vikings hit this area and really leveled the kingdom of Northumbria, they culturally, as well as politically, removed the access of power in England south into the Midlands and into southern England. Because prior to the Viking invasion, northern England was in many ways where the cultural and economic action was. And those Viking raids will significantly change the balance in England ever after. In 793, a group of three Norwegian ships unexpectedly sailed across the North Atlantic, came down the coast of Scotland and northern England, and landed at the monastery of Lindisfarne. Uh, one of the great Celtic-style uh, monasteries in England. Uh, it's dedicated to St. Cuthbert and is really regarded as perhaps the most venerable of all the shrines in the Northumbrian kingdom. When they arrived, the monks immediately thought that the newcomers were actually merchants, uh, which is significant. They had apparently been dealing with Scandinavian merchants before. They came out and greeted them, only to find out that these guys were interested in other matters, which was attacking the monastery. Some of the monks were slain. Uh, the monastery was sacked and the Norwegians withdrew. This attack is usually taken as the start of the Viking Age. Now, it's not the absolute earliest attack. There are some other raids, but it's, it's one of the earliest attacks that we have in Western Europe. The next year, a similar type of raid was conducted on the sister monastery of Jaro. Uh, again, another great cultural center. Uh, noted for the Venerable Bede, that's where he, he, he wrote his ecclesiastical history. This monastery, too, was sacked by Norwegian pirates. And in the course of the early 9th century, there were a number of reports of these types of attacks. Northumbria was totally unprepared for this. They had no navy, there were no fortified cities or ports, and as I mentioned, the Northumbrian kings were repeatedly engaged in civil wars. Uh, usually, the king of Bernicia was trying to impose his authority over York and keep the kingdom together, and uh, that led to all sorts of complications, uh, fighting between the two uh, branches of the royal family. Uh, there's also evidence of fiscal and economic problems that are reflected in the debasement of the coinage. And in the course of the early 9th century, it seems that mostly what went on in northern England were a series of raids by Norwegians, and this is confirmed largely by archaeological reports. 
uh, that is, large numbers of English goods begin to show up in Norwegian graves in the early 9th century. And these include some Christian objects as well as vessels and glasses and all sorts of items. Uh, and these are not trade goods. These are obviously coming in from raids, and they're not found in contemporary Danish and Swedish context. So northern England was subject to some rather severe raiding uh, well before uh, the great army showed up in 866. Uh, there's also a legendary account in the uh, saga tradition of the Norse that the greatest Viking of that first generation, Ragnar Lodbrok, the fellow responsible for capturing Paris, uh, somehow got caught off the shores of Northumbria um, maybe he was scouting out a transfer of, his, of, of action to go to England, and was captured by the Northumbrian king Aiella, who threw him in a snake pit. And actually, uh, Ragnar is presented in the saga as dying is the same way Gunnar does, uh, Gunnar does in the cycle of the Volsungs. Uh, he's bound, he's thrown in the snake pit, one of the snakes finally gets him, uh, and he makes some sort of comment, uh, when the porkers hear the grunt of the pig, they will come and avenge him. That is, his sons are going to come and avenge him, and the comparison is to a great boar, the animal of Freya and Frey, the, um, the symbol of royalty in Scandinavia, and one of the, uh, one of the, um, points made in the saga tradition is when the, the Vikings show up and crash into York in 866-867, uh, it's the sons of Ragnar who were after King Aiella to punish him, and he, they reportedly capture Aiella and do a blood eagle on him, which is a sacrificial rite to Odin, where in effect you rip out the, um, the lungs of the victim and turn him upside down so the back sort of looks like an eagle, the bird of Odin. It's a rather grisly way to die. Uh, in any event, these um, attacks on the Northumbrian shore up until 866 uh, didn't result in any kind of major political change, uh, but they did significantly aggravate the problem of running Northumbria for those kings. Uh, the other place of action was southern England. And at the time of the start of the Viking Age, it was really a question which of the, well, there were really three kingdoms in southern England. One is East Anglia, the other is in the Midlands, Mercia, and the third is Wessex. And at the time of the Viking Raid, it was essentially a duel between Wessex and Mercia as to who was going to control southern England, England south of the Humber. And the Viking Raids eventually shifted the balance in favor of Wessex. Again, the initially the raids were nothing more than Danes who were cruising across the channel to hit ports. Uh, this occurs quite fre frequently between 800 and the 850s. But in 865, there is an important decision made by Viking companies operating off the river systems of the uh, Carolingian Empire. And it's apparently two of the three sons of um, Ragnar, Halfdan and uh, Ivar, decide to relocate and attack England. We're not sure what convinced them to do this. Part of it was that they'd had more than enough fun ransacking the Carolingian Empire, time to look for new areas. But they also had apparently fairly good information on the divided political situation in England and probably concluded that they would not meet much serious re resistance. Some of these English rulers might have seen the Vikings as possible allies, that's not certain. But in 865, large numbers of fleets crossed over into East Anglia, and at one point these fleets may have been 250 to 300 ships, and this great army could have numbered anywhere from five to 10,000 warriors. They landed in East Anglia and set up a base near the modern city of Thetford, essentially by blackmailing the local king Edmund. They concentrated supplies and forces, and then in autumn of 866, they 
uh, swiftly moved into Northumbria, captured the city of York, and in the spring of 867, defeated a Northumbrian army commanded by two rival kings, Osbert and Aiella. Uh, both of them probably killed in the fighting, although the Norse claim that the sons of Ragnar got a hold of Aiella and did a blood eagle on him. The um, conquest of Northumbria was stunning. I think even, even the Vikings were probably a bit dismayed by their own success. Well, what do we do with it? They immediately established a client king, that is a um, puppet king, an English king, to rule in York. They also invested power into the Archbishop of York and immediately set off to attack Mercia in the Midlands. They seized the royal center at uh, Nottingham. They fortified it. King Bergred of Mercia showed up to fight the Vikings, and he was accompanied by his brother-in-law, uh, then uh, the reigning king of Wessex, Ethelred I, and... Ethelred's younger brother, Alfred, the future king. The Mercian army could really do very little against the Vikings, and Bergred decided to pay them Dangald. The great army withdrew back into East Anglia and overthrew the East Anglian kingdom when Edmund told the Vikings to leave, which was the wrong thing to do. He had invited them in in the first place. He was in no position to run them out, and the Vikings conquered East Anglia with as much ease as they did Northumbria and just eliminated English kingdom number two. Uh, Edmund was not blood eagle. He was tied to a tree, and they shot him full of arrows, apparently to Odin's favor. Later, uh, Edmund gets uh, turned into a martyr king, a saint. He's canonized. So in less than three years, the Danes have just overthrown two of the four English kingdoms, and the success spread across Scandinavia. I mean, there were, there were recruits everywhere coming in to join this outfit, including new forces arriving by 870 or 871, a new king by the name of Guthrum. Uh, and you have to think of this great army as an army that keeps changing in its composition and size. As it's successful in one area, some of the groups break off. We know some groups went over to Ireland to attack. Others went up to Scotland. Other groups uh, would come in from Scandinavia. So it isn't as if it's a single army. It's a constantly changing force. Uh, nonetheless, uh, by 870, 871, there is again a very, very large Scandinavian force in England uh, determined uh, to finish the job that was started uh, by Ivar and uh, by Halfdan. Uh, and one of the new rulers, is, uh, one of the new commanders at this point is apparently Guthrum, who arrives somewhere between 870 and 871. Well, what they do is they seize the city of Reading in the Thames Valley and use that as a base to ravage both Mercia and Wessex. Now, King Bergred of Mercia turned out to be a rather feckless figure. After a while, he just couldn't cope with Vikings. He decided to abdicate and go to Rome and become a monk. Uh, and this is, a, this is the best retirement policy one can have as a medieval king. And he essentially abandoned his kingdom. His wife, by the way, the, um, the princess from Wessex, uh, she was stronger, so she stayed on and tried to hold the kingdom together. But essentially, Mercia becomes disorganized, and the Vikings move into the Midlands. They occupy the northern section, the so-called five boroughs, that is the five leaving, leading towns of Mercia, and they turn that into an area of Danish settlement. And the southern sections of Mercia are essentially turned into a... Um, a client kingdom, a vassal kingdom. They're also attempting to do the same thing in Wessex, that is to overthrow that monarchy, and there they meet with a tougher opponent. Ethelred I brings his army and fights the Vikings. And Ethelred is descended of King Ecbert of Wessex, and they are determined to be what in Anglo-Saxon is known as Bretwalda, Bretwalda, that is uh, the rulers of Britain. They, they're determined to fight the invader. 
Um, the fighting between 871 and 878 is very, very inconclusive. In the course of the fighting, in the spring of 871, Ethelred I dies, he has no sons, and so his younger brother Alfred is declared king. And Alfred turns out to be the one serious royal opponent that the Vikings meet in the entire 9th century. He um, is probably remembered more for his defeats than his victories, but Alfred is always ready to raise another royal army and to oppose the invaders. And he is also quite willing, when necessary, to pay out Dangald. Uh, actually, in 871, after 12 inconclusive battles, he pays the um, Vikings Dangal in the summer of 871, and the Danes withdraw into their conquests in northern England with a large sum of money and proceed to organize their conquests and eventually divide up the land of Northumbria and East Anglia into Danish settlements. In 874, the um, Great Army reappears in the Thames Valley, this time commanded by Guthrum. Um, Halfdan and Ivar have both gone off in other directions. Ivar is killed apparently in Ireland somewhere. Halfdan goes up and plays around in Scotland and also uh, disappears from the scene after eight, um, in the mid-870s. So Guthrum, in effect, takes over uh, the main command of the army, and this is indicative of this changing composition of the Great Army in England. Uh, this is, again, a war of conquest. It's waged in a typical Viking fashion. It's a war of position. Guthrum occupies the Thames Valley, and the Thames Valley really is the artery of southern England. Uh, it terminates in London, which is already the commercial center of southern England. Uh, it gives you easy access to Canterbury, the great archbishops there who are the primates of England. And so control of the Thames Valley essentially would give the Vikings a strategic position to conquer Wessex. Uh, Guthrum's army moves south. It, it begins to ravage sections of Wessex. It builds fortified camps. It attacks the port at Exeter. And this army that ravages through Wessex is accompanied by a Viking fleet operating along the southern shores of England so that there's essentially a coordinated operation between land and sea. And the idea is to, to force the English king to his knees, to pay Dangal, and eventually to submit to the supremacy of the Viking sea kings. Well, Alfred hangs on. He learned in his initial fights back in 871 not to take the Vikings on head on. Most English armies had gotten defeated because the Vikings pursued a typical battle formation. They did this at York. They did this, did this against the Mercians. They also did it against Ethelred I. They draw up their formations into a tight shield wall. And that shield wall is a dense infantry formation, usually occupying either a fortified position or a high point, and they provoke the English into an attack. And these Viking veteran warriors who have fought in the Carolingian Empire usually can repel these attacks. And as the English fall back in disarray, they counterattack with devastating force and sweep them off the battlefield. Alfred doesn't make that mistake. He, he's seen what Viking tactics are like, and he knew that the only way to defeat them is eventually to wear them down strategically. And there is a war of, of, of strategic movement for several years. And in the fall of 877, Guthrum finally agrees to pull out of Wessex. He goes into winter quarters at Gloucester, signs a armistice and gets a payoff from Alfred, who also goes into winter quarters. And it looks like the war has ended inconclusively. And then Guthrum does what all Vikings do. He launches a winter campaign. 
And on Twelfth Night, January 8th, 878, the Viking army comes out of Gloucester, bounces down the Avon River, and almost captures Alfred, who's holding his Christmas court at Chippenham. And Alfred runs for his life. His army is scattered, and the Vikings seize this royal center. And it looks like uh, Guthrum is going to take out Wessex. Uh, this is the period of Alfred best known to most English school children uh, because it's in this period of exile where Alfred goes into the forests of western Wessex and the story about him uh, being received by the uh, the English peasant woman as a rather bedraggled and um, and uh, I'm not sure I would have accepted Alfred into my household at this point. He comes knocking on the door looking for, for shelter and food and she says, that's fine, whoever you are, but make sure you um, pay attention to the oven. I'm baking a group of cakes. And Alfred, who has a lot of more important things on his mind, like what do I do with the Danes in the spring, uh, falls asleep and the cakes burn and the lady comes along and chides her king, not realizing who he is. And and he says, yes, madam, you're correct, et cetera. And he very politely um, uh, takes the criticism. And it's, in a, it's, it's a great story that stresses the Christian humility of Alfred. And um, he never reveals to her who he really is. In any case, Alfred uh, comes out of exile in the spring, uh, raises an army, and takes on Guthrum in a uh, very, very hard-fought battle. And eventually, um, and this is the Battle of Eddington, forces Guthrum uh, to a treaty. That treaty is often known as the Treaty of Wedmore, uh, concluded in May of 878. What is agreed upon in this treaty are two important provisions. The Danish army withdraws back into its areas of conquest, that is, most of Mercia, Northumbria, East Anglia. They also at this point hold London. Alfred agrees to pay them a dangout to do this. He agrees to respect their conquests. On the other hand, the Danes have to accept baptism and accept the fact that Wessex is an independent kingdom. Alfred has won a significant victory. He's able to negotiate out of this war with his own legitimacy intact in Wessex and now as the only English king left in the island. The Danes withdraw, that is some nine years uh, later, uh, Alfred is able to retake London in the Lower Thames and renegotiates the treaty to bring London into his kingdom as well as parts of Mercia. But essentially, that treaty holds through Alfred's reign. And it buys Alfred invaluable time. It is at this point in 878 that Alfred really does get the name great. Not only did he check the Danish attacks, but he then proceeds to reorganize the English kingdom. And he drew upon classical models as well as his own, class, uh, his own pragmatic experience to organize a very effective royal army. He maintains a permanent royal army. He imposed taxation on his kingdom. The kingdom is divided up into shires. Uh, they are now called counties, but the county system that exists in England today, especially in its southern portions, go back to these reforms of Alfred. And military obligation is imposed on the shires where every five hides, a hide is a, a fiscal unit of 120 acres, every five hides of land have to provide a soldier to the third or the militia force to defend the area against Viking attacks. There is a concerted effort to fortify towns, bridges, and roads. Unlike the edicts of Charles the Bald, these work. Wessex, within the next 15 years, is bristling with fortifications, burgs as they're called in Anglo-Saxon, and these are strong points in which to concentrate supplies, in which to mobilize militia forces, and to restrict the movement of Viking raiding columns. 
And Alfred has figured out the winning combination to check that Viking war of attrition that nearly brought his kingdom down. That is, if you can deny the Vikings mobility and supplies, they're not going to be able to, in the, in the end, to overthrow your kingdom. He does make an effort to build a fleet, and there's a lot of discussion about this. It's really pretty hopeless. He brings in some Frisians who try to um, uh, build uh, well, big long ships. There's some 60 or ships. They're, they're hopelessly ungangly. And uh, I think it takes nine English ships to run down six Viking ships. Three of them escape. Uh, two of them are beached. One of them gets captured. It's, it, it really isn't worth the effort. This is an incident. And, and when a real Viking ship a fleet shows up, none of these English ships bother to go to sea. So uh, the Navy side of it, you know, really didn't work. But in reorganizing the kingdom, it did. And these reforms are also taken in tandem with a revival of monastic and cultural life uh, associated with Alfred, who is um, usually hailed as the Solomon of England, uh, as a great lawgiver, as a patron. And Alfred himself writes uh, English uh, translations of several important classical works, particularly the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. And this is part of a, an effort not only to give legitimacy, but to restore uh, ecclesiastical and cultural life, and is one of those important steps taken uh, in shifting the cultural access from northern England, which had been overthrown by the Vikings, to Wessex and to the south. So by the time that a new Viking army shows up, in the early 890s, and these are Vikings who'd been operating in, in the Carolingian Empire, they do attack um, Wessex again. They use very much the strategy used by Guthrum and the Great Army, but Alfred has made it just costly enough that this army withdraws, it can be paid off, there's no significant loss of territory. Some of them go and settle in East Anglia, others of them go back to continental Europe, so that Wessex gets through uh, the second big attack by Vikings uh, in very good order. In conclusion, Alfred, in effect, carries out the types of reforms in England that Charles the Bold would have loved to have done in Western Francia. Now, there's reasons why he can do that. Wessex is much more compact. Alfred was a much more able ruler than Charles the Bald, and uh, he was also building on a lot of important local institutions that can be traced back to um, the achievements of some of his predecessors. Nonetheless, if the Viking Great Army deserves the name Great for its military campaigns and the achievements in conquering these English kingdoms, their opponent, Alfred, likewise deserves the title Great because he alone of the kings of the ninth century, checked a major Viking conquest, turned it aside, reorganized his kingdom, and gave to his heirs not only a kingdom, but the means to drive back the Vikings, subdue them, and to create the kingdom of England within less than a century. Lecture 16, The Dan Law. In this lecture, I plan to look at the Viking settlement and impact on England in the late 9th and 10th centuries. And as mentioned in a previous lecture, the settlement and transformation of these Vikings eventually into Englishmen uh, has some similarities to the settlement of the Vikings in Normandy, but there are also very important distinctions, and those are probably more important than the similarities. 
there's really two themes we have to deal with in understanding this problem. One is the nature of the settlement itself. How many Danes, and they are primarily Danes, there may be some Norwegians, but how many Danes did settle in England? What were their numbers? What were their cultural and linguistic impact on the English um, regions they settled in? And these would be essentially the northern half of England, uh, later known as the Dan Law, uh, Dana Laugu as it's called in the reign of Canute. These are regions of England where Danish law and custom ran and were recognized. And actually those Danish laws and customs were recognized right down to the reign of King Henry II, who is credited with the creation of the English common law. He reigned from 1154 to 1189. And up until Henry II's reign, these regions still were using Danish customary law. These would be the regions of, of Northumbria or southern Northumbria around York, the northern Midlands, the northern half of Mercia, Mercia, the so-called five boroughs, and East Anglia, which is a, close to about half of England today. The second sub subject we wish to look at is why uh, did these Danes who settled in England fail to establish some type of kingdom or state the way the Normans did in France? Uh, because eventually all of these regions will come under the control of the successors of Alfred the Great, that is the kings of Wessex, and really uh, Alfred's son, Edward the Elder, uh, who dies in 924, uh, could realistically and legitimately style himself uh, on his inscriptions and coins as Rex Totius Britanniae, that is, King of all Britain, or as Rex Anglorum, King of the Angles, the English. And this is a really remarkable point. Uh, given the success of the Great Army in 865-878, uh, the extensive Danish settlement in England, one would assume that a more effective Scandinavian-type kingdom would have emerged in England, and yet it does not. And that is the second subject we'll look at today in this lecture. Well, let's first look at the nature of the Danish settlement in England. It is clear that uh, there were two periods of division of the land. In 874-875, uh, Halfdan, who was at that point commanding the northern uh, column of the Great Army, carried out a major division of the land in Yorkshire in the old southern regions of the Kingdom of Northumbria. He then went off to get himself killed either in Scotland or Ireland. But there was a partition of property to endow many of the older warriors and veterans with, with land where they could settle with their families. Uh, there was a second settlement carried out by Guthrum, uh, that is, the man who took over uh, the command of the Great Army and attempted to conquer Wessex in the early 870s. And that partition involved the northern portions of the Kingdom of Mercia, the so-called five boroughs, um, which are five major market towns. Today, those are the towns of Leicester, Lincoln, Derby, uh, Stanford, and Nottingham, which are important market towns in the northern Midlands. And those towns uh, later became mints as well as uh, market centers uh, in the Danish settlement. Uh, also, there was a division of the land in East Anglia. Guthrum was able to carry out that division uh, because after 878 he was baptized with Alfred standing in as his stepfather, as his um, godfather, and ruled under the English name Athelstane, that was his baptismal name, and actually uh, was apparently responsible for accommodating not only his army but other Vikings who arrived later in the 890s. So these settlements in the 870s and apparently in the 890s 
led to the appropriation of a lot of land by Danes. And the best study indicates that in certain sections of England where the Danes settled, particularly in the region of the five boroughs, that the Danes tended to occupy areas that were not really settled. Uh, that for various reasons, portions of northern England particularly, had a fair amount of vacant land. That is, you didn't have to dispossess large numbers of people. The second important point about this settlement is it seems that there were large numbers of Scandinavians who moved in, mostly Danes. There is still a debate on numbers. And given our literary sources and our really incredible lack of any kind of st st statistics that a modern scholar would expect, uh, these are really, really guesses. I would take a very, very bold uh, position of guessing that perhaps in the Danish areas that fell under, um, the English areas that fell under Danish rule, maybe there were 100 to 150,000 residents in, say, 878. Over the course of the 9th and 10th century, somewhere around 20,000 to 30,000 Danes may have shown up. That would include not only warriors, but their families, their attendants, their slaves, whatever, and moved into this region. And you could play around with the statistics as much as you want, but there had to be a significant settlement. That is, the Danes represented an infusion of maybe 20% or 25% of the existing population because they had an impact in this part of England that they did not have in either Normandy or Ireland. First is significant number of Danish words passed into what became standard English. There are at least 600 basic words in modern English today, uh, and, and I'm speaking of the standard literary English that gets fixed in the 16th century, that are of Danish origin. And these are not specialized words. These include such obvious and common words as husband, fellow, law, outlaw, knife, egg, race, thrift, window, sister. Every word, SK, skirt, ski, sky, all of these words are basic vocabulary words that came in from a Danish dialect uh, into the standard English language. There were also a large number of Anglo-Saxon words, for instance, that were modified in their meaning by analogy to Danish words. Um, uh, one such word would be the word dream, for instance, that acquires its modern meaning of dream as a result of analogy to a, a Danish cognate. Uh, the pronouns in, English, in the third uh, person plural are Danish forms. The, the forms they, them, and theirs are adopted from Danish into standard English as a way of distinguishing the third person plural from the third person singular, which is not extremely, which is not very well done in the Anglo-Saxon literary language at the time of Alfred the Great. Now these are significant additions to the vocabulary and even a certain amount of a, uh, a change in morphology and grammar in um, Anglo-Saxon. It's assisted by the fact that Old English and Old Norse are related dramatic um, languages. But that number of words to pass into the standard English, and standard English is essentially based on a Midlands dialect. It's, it's from a southern English dialect that wasn't under Danish influence. Uh, when you look at the English dialects north of the Humber, or Scottish English, or the English that's spoken in the Hebrides and the Shetlands, the islands of northern Britain, there the number of Scandinavian words is enormous. Uh, a lot of specialized words that survive in those dialects. This suggests a fairly substantial immigration. And it is, again, significantly different from the situation in French, where the Danish loan words are very specialized. And the same will be true in Ireland and also in Russia, where the Scandinavian words do not influence the basic vocabulary. 
Another important way of, uh, of measuring this, and as I say, we, we really can't give you any kind of numbers one would be satisfied with, is the fact that many place names in northern England where the Danes settle show Danish origin, especially names ending in Thorpe and By. There has been remarkably uh, detailed studies on geographic names in northern England, and when you plot them, they show very, very dense uh, concentrations in Yorkshire, uh, in the northern Midlands, and of course in East Anglia. Uh, and these are suggestive that the settlement was established by Danes, who essentially gave the name to the area. Uh, very often terms such as Thorpe and Byer combine with the name of the man who founded the settlement. So those two pieces of information alone are significant cases that we're not dealing with a Danish group that moved in and established themselves as a small military caste of landlords and eventually knights, but people who had settled uh, more as uh, farmers. Uh, the word that's used in Anglo-Saxon uh, text is drangs as opposed to thangs. Uh, that is, it's, uh, drang is a Norse name that means a man of substantial property, a freeholder who has the right to bear arms. And, and the uh, later English law actually uses the Norse designation of these farmers to, to indicate who they are. There is also another set of evidence that's extremely important uh, that indicates not only the size of the Danish settlement, but also its impact. And that is the influence it had in administrative and legal uh, institutions in the English kingdom in the 10th and 11th centuries. I mentioned that the Dan law, uh, the region settled by the Danes, retained customary Danish law. This included some very important aspects of running uh, local communities, and that includes the jury. Uh, the earliest reference to a jury of presentment, which would be Today you would think of that as essentially a grand jury where you'd bring an indictment against uh, someone for a criminal offense. The earliest reference to this in any English document is in the Wontog Code of Ethelred II, dated to 997, and it is clearly a legal system that is associated with the five boroughs, that is, the areas of the northern Midlands settled by the Danes. It is a jury of 12 men who are sworn to uh, render verdict on uh, issues that have been brought to before them. Um, these would be uh, what we would call today felony issues, uh, felony and treason cases. And it is argued by many English uh, legal historians and scholars that this notion of a jury of presentment goes back to uh, Scandinavian models, although it's probably developed and modified by the Danes in England for their own purposes, and it passes into the English legal system. It is particularly used by the Norman kings, that is, William the Conqueror and his successors, as a way of gaining administrative information on England uh, to compile Doomsday Book, which is the great document detailing the resources of England, which William commissioned after he conquered the Kingdom of England. And, and it's, by the way, the basis of any s statistics we have of medieval England, at least early medieval England, anywhere. Uh, there's other cases of this. For instance, the, the administrative units of the counties or shires in medieval England. Uh, in the areas of Mercia and Wessex, the areas that remained under English control, these are called hundreds. In the areas of Danish control, they're known as wapentakes, which is an English adaptation of a Norse word, uh, which uh, means essentially weapon taking or weapon brandishing, and probably refers to the type of elections that would occur in Scandinavian things or assemblies. That is, you beat on your shields with your weapons as a sign of approval. That is probably a very old way of electing kings for war, going back to early dramatic traditions. And that name in um, the English administrative unit uh, retains that memory. 
Uh, there's also uh, divisions of great uh, counties or shires such as Yorkshire into ridings, which is simply an Anglo-Saxon translation of the Norse word for third. That is, York is so large, it's divided into three, into three parts, the thirds. They use the Norse name for it. And you can multiply the examples of this influence. So that suggests that the Anglo-Danish settlers, and I let's call them Anglo-Danes, meaning the Danes who settled in England, within two or three generations, because of their numbers, because of their property uh, and wealth and their status in society, were able to change significantly the language and customs of, of their new homeland. And that is a very significant difference from both uh, what we will see in Ireland, where they only settle in the towns, as well as in Normandy, where they very much take on the Carolingian institutions in the French language. Therefore, these Danish land, landed class, these Anglo-Danes, these drangs, as they would be called in English documents, turn out to be a very tough and well uh, wealthy ruling class, a landed class, who in the end become the local elites of Northern England. And one of the facts of life for the successors of Alfred the Great, when they take these areas over and integrate them into an expanded kingdom of Wessex, which becomes the kingdom of England, the only way you can run East Anglia, the five boroughs, and York is if you co-opt these Anglo-Danish elites. You must come to terms with them. And the reason these legal institutions survive and these other, uh, these uh, administrative in institutions survive is that the English kings themselves, the kings of Wessex, or sometimes we call them the West Saxon kings, Wessex means West Saxons, came to terms with the fact that they're ruling part of England, which is many ways uh, a Scandinavian land, and the only way to rule it effectively is to co-opt those people and respect their institutions. The Danes also had a very, very profound effect on life in the Danlaw in the 9th and 10th centuries. Now, granted, the initial Viking attacks were destructive. I mean, there's, there's no way of getting around it. Uh, one did not want to be in York when the great army occupied it in 866, 867. Any large army moving into a city like that has a tendency to grab onto property and commit all sorts of uh, acts of violence. Nonetheless, once the Treaty of Wedmore was concluded in 878 and renegotiated in 886, the Danes settled down into these new areas and there were certain advantages. In the case of York, uh, the Danes are responsible for relocating the city of York from its original Anglo-Saxon settlement, which was outside the old Roman city, back into the old Roman core, and some very, very good English archaeology has demonstrated that the street patterns in the center, center of York are really Roman street patterns, which are then remodeled and adapted to accommodate the Scandinavian city that emerged in the 10th century, and that the Anglo-Saxon settlement had actually been outside of the Roman city, and the Vikings relocated into the old Roman core. And the uh, Viking name for York, Jorvik, is the name that York is derived from, not from its Anglo-Saxon or Roman name. Furthermore, York as a Scandinavian town uh, in the 10th century just booms, uh, at least economically. It never quite gets back that cultural position it would have had under the Northumbrian kings. But it becomes a major town, perhaps peaking at 10,000 uh, residents by the year 1000, or the year 1066 when William the Conqueror comes to England. And you have to remember, it's at the western terminus, uh, along with Dublin in Ireland, of that northern trade arc that the Scandinavians are 
uh, developing in the Viking Age. And therefore, York becomes a major center of exporting grain and other foodstuffs out of northern England to Scandinavian markets, to Irish markets, uh, metals and other objects. And it is right on the main drag for importing all sorts of great and neat goods from the distant eastern markets, notably silks, silver, various spices, aromatics, uh, glassware, finished products. Furthermore, York plugs in northern England with the trade network in the Carolingian Empire. In the 10th century, as stability returns to the Carolingian world under the feudal states, uh, with, such as Normandy, uh, trade actually resumes, and it's a very brisk trade in the 10th century, between the continent and York. And this can again be demonstrated by imported goods and the fact that the Vikings who settle in northern England introduce into that part of England the standard hammered silver coins that are current in southern England in the Carolingian Empire, the so-called pennies and deniers, which were not used in northern England before the Viking Age. And in some ways, the Vikings integrate their new uh, homelands into the monetary system of southern uh, England and Carolingian. They mint coins that are able to pass current with the standard currencies of Western Europe. Those coins are also indicative of some of the change going on. Uh, they carry a multiplicity of images that are uh, very, very telling about how the Danes themselves are transforming their own uh, customs and their own lives. Uh, the use of coin money means they're accustomed to dealing in markets, uh, in long-distance markets. They're not a subsistence economy. But the images on the coins, particularly the coins issued in the 10th century by what are known as the Herberno King, uh, Herberno Norse Kings, these are Vikings from Dublin who show up in the 10th century and take over York, show a mixed imagery of Christian and pagan symbols. Uh, usually on one side of the coin, um, often the obverse, is a symbol that is clearly Scandinavian, such as the Sword of Odin, the Raven, uh, a typical Norse banner, the Hammer of Thor. On the reverse may be a cross and often an inscription, uh, and an inscription honoring St. Peter, who is the patron saint of York. Uh, in East Anglia, there is a remarkable set of coins issued uh, at the end of the 9th, early 10th century, uh, celebrating the martyred King Edmund of East Anglia. That is, that is poor King Edmund who got tied to a tree and shot by the Vikings. These, Vi these descendants of the Vikings are issuing coins in the name of the deceased king, who is already being celebrated as a martyr in East Anglia. And again, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Vikings have become complete believing Christians, but it does indicate that the Danes settled in East Anglia recognize, well, he is a powerful spiritual figure. This is our new homeland. We will honor him along with others. And the process of conversion takes two or three generations. That is, initially, uh, Danes come to agree, well, there is this powerful Christian God. This is the God of our new homeland. He has these saints. We accept him as a God. We add him to our pantheon. And it takes two or three generations before they figure out, oh, this also is monotheism. And it's, it's really only in the late 10th century. And very much due to the uh, ecclesiastical reforms and efforts of Archbishop Dunstan of Canterbury, that significant progress is made in converting these Danes into really Christian English. Uh, and by the year 1000, uh, the Danes who have settled in the Danlore are all very, very much Christians and members of that wider uh, institution and would identify themselves as Christians. And by the end of the 10th century, many of them are beginning to understand really what this Christianity means. So um, that is a very important step in integrating these people into the wider English kingdom. 
Well, it's a remarkable success story in some ways. Um, few of the Scandinavian settlements had such a deep and uh, profound influence on their uh, new homeland. Yet there's an irony in this settlement in that the Danes, who are the descendants of some of the finest sailors of all time, certainly the Middle Ages, uh, great warriors, failed to forge a kingdom. In fact, many of the Danish settlers begin to lose the ability even to build ships. Uh, those who settle as uh, um, farmers and merchants in the towns and in the countryside of northern England uh, essentially lose contact with that shipbuilding. Uh, they are being turned into an Anglo-Danish identity. They're no longer really Scandinavians. And uh, another important point, over uh, most of the 10th century, there aren't, certainly after 925, there aren't any significant uh, reinforcements coming into Denmark. And there's several reasons, uh, yes, sorry, any uh, significant reinforcements coming into England from Denmark or Norway, and there's some reason for that. Uh, part of the immigration is heading off to Ireland and Iceland. Many Scandinavians starting in the early 10th century found land there. And we shall also see in later lectures that kings in Norway and Denmark are keeping some of those Vikings and their fleets home in order to build kingdoms back in Scandinavia. So the Danes in England have to come to terms with their new surroundings and they do by in some ways assimilating into the English countryside, establishing themselves as um, landed elites. Well, the question of their failure to forge the English kingdom is a topic that is closely related to the success of Alfred's creation of Wessex uh, as the eventual um, center of gravity of English political power. Uh, Alfred was uh, succeeded by a brilliant son and grandson, uh, that is Edmund the, uh, Edward the Elder and Ethelstane. And those two successors together essentially brought the Danish regions back under control. Uh, Edward the Elder essentially overran East Anglia with very little uh, opposition. The cities of the five uh, boroughs, or the, uh, the five boroughs, the regions of the five boroughs, those five towns in the northern Midlands, all agreed to come under English control, retain their local customs and law, became important market towns. And north of the Humber, uh, in 920, uh, Edward the Elder was acknowledged as the overlord of a Viking king ruling in York, so he could legitimately style himself as King of All Britain or King of the English. And that is a title that his son Athelstane takes as well. There is a point in the mid-10th century where it looks as if the Danes in Yorkshire, at least, in the northern portions of the settlement, might combine with their kinsmen who have settled in Dublin and create a Scandinavian or a Viking state uh, based on the cities of York and Dublin, which would act as an effective Scandinavian kingdom in the British Isles. And there's a complicated political history behind this, and most of it actually belongs more properly to the Norse settlement in Ireland. But nonetheless, it didn't look that far-fetched in the mid-10th century. York and Dublin were both Scandinavian settlements in many ways. They were connected on the trade arc, that northern trade arc. Second, the Norse kings ruling in Dublin, starting from really 900 on, 917 on, with uh, Sigtrig II, commanded a powerful fleet, dominated the Irish Sea, and uh, northern England is closely linked economically to the trading center of the Irish Sea and to uh, Eastern Ireland. In um, 917, the ruling king in Dublin, Sictric, 
was run out by his brother, Guthrith. Uh, he went to York with apparently a group of warriors, took control of York, and ruled York as a king, but he acknowledged the authority of the English king at the time, and that would have been Edward the Elder and then Edward's son, Athelstane, the grandson of Alfred the Great. In 927, this Sigtrig died, and Ethelstane took over York directly. But the brief rule of a Norse king from Dublin, who's Norwegian in descent, gave a claim of legitimacy over that group of Danes in Yorkshire, Yorkshire by the Hiberno-Norse kings of Dublin. And starting from 927 down to 954, there are several efforts by Norse kings in Dublin to move in and take over the northern sections of the Danlaw and fuse them into a much larger Norse uh, kingdom straddling the Irish Sea. The closest it ever came to success is when Olaf Guthrithson, who was the son of Guthrith, the king of Dublin, who crossed over in 939-940, took over York, got the uh, five boroughs back under control, and by the time of his death looked like he was going to pull it off. But it failed. By 944, you have this constant changing of uh, power, that is, the Herberno Norse kings come in, they're kicked out. On two occasions, a exiled prince from Norway, we'll talk about later on, uh, one of my favorite characters, one of the sons of uh, Harald Feinherr, who unites Norway, Eric the Blood Axe, he comes flying in with a Norwegian fleet, tries to grab the thr throne of York. But in this very complicated political situation, several things become clear. First, the Danes living in the Yorkshire come to regard these Norse adventurers, whether they're from Dublin or Norway, far more as foes and conquerors rather than as kinsmen. They have, by this point, begun to accept Christianity. They are a settled landed class, and many of them are beginning to look at a Christian English king as preferable to a restless Hiberno-Norse or Norwegian sea king. The English kings, the successors of Alfred the Great, also understand this, and they always assure their Danish subjects, we will respect your laws and your customs. Um, the Anglo-Danish elite landed classes are going to be put in charge of local institutions. And in the end, the reason why this kingdom fails is that most of the Danish settlers by the mid-10th century realize that their interests, their political interests, their legal interests, and their religious affiliations have a lot more in common with the successors of Alfred the Great than they do with their kinsmen in Dublin or the Norwegian princes coming in from Norway. So the system fails largely because there's just a lack of support for bringing in a Hiberno-Norse or Norwegian king. And the last guy who had a real shot at this, um, Olaf Carveron, essentially leaves England and goes back to Dublin. He rules very successfully as the um, Viking king of Dublin, and well, until he runs into the Irish army at the Battle of Tara in 980. Uh, but in, in Ireland, he rules over a Norse population that is still largely pagan, that is engaged in the slave trade, uh, that still has the traditions of seafaring and Viking attacks. And there he can be very, very successful while trying to rule Christian Danes who are uh, worried about their estates and that uh, proper laws be followed. Uh, he, he and his outfit, they're just not suited to do this. And so by 954, all of the Danes have come to recognize the English king as their lord, and 
there's a bit of still negotiation. But by 954, in the reign of King Idrid, the Kingdom of England has emerged. England that we have today, more or less conforming to the political boundaries, has been created uh, by the successors of Alfred the Great. That is an astonishing achievement in a period of the Middle Ages when the, the norm for most of the states in Western Europe is to see breakdown, fragmentation, divisions into smaller units. The son, the grandson, the great-grandsons of Alfred pull off in less than three generations, the unification of all the English into a great kingdom. The big surprise is why did this kingdom fail to check a Danish conquest in the 11th century? That is, a Danish king will come to rule over this England. That will be King Canute, and he's coming up in a, um, uh, a future lecture. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is um, the eventual heir to this legacy, Ethelred the Unready, is, is, is really one of the unimpressive kings of English history, and one of his big mistakes was to alienate that Anglo-Danish ruling class in northern England, which went over to Canute and invited a Danish king in. But nonetheless, the achievement, uh, the achievement of the 950s, the unification of England, and the integration of the Danes into the English kingdom is a stunning political achievement. And England, as we understand it today, is ultimately a combination of the institutions of Alfred and the Danish attacks that forced those institutions to be created. Chapter 17, Viking Assault on Ireland. In this lecture, I plan to start a discussion on the Viking impact on Ireland, and this is the first of two lectures that will cover the Viking raids on Ireland and the associated areas. That would include uh, what is today modern Scotland, parts of Wales, uh, the various islands of Northern Britain, the Isle of Man, and so um, it's essentially the Celtic West as the uh, medieval chroniclers would think of it. And it's a little difficult to know when the Viking Age ends in Ireland. Uh, the best way to look at it is that it really, it really goes on in one way or another as late as 1170, which is usually taken to mark a new departure in Irish history with the so-called arrival of the English. Uh, really, that's 200 Norman knights and a bunch of Welsh bowmen who show up and eventually carve out what is known as the Pale, that is the English section around Dublin, which corresponds to the old uh, Viking Kingdom of Dublin, and that starts a new division in Ireland eventually between English speakers, the Anglo-Irish, and the Celtic speakers. So really, the Viking Age, in one fashion or another, can be seen as extending from about 790 to 1170. As a political force in Ireland, uh, the Vikings, who are largely Norwegians, uh, were pretty much finished by the end of the 10th century. They were no longer the dominant military force after the so-called Battle of Tara in 980. So in these two lectures, what I plan to do is look at about the first century or so of Viking uh, attacks, the establishment of Viking settlements in Ireland, uh, especially around Dublin, but the other major port towns of Ireland, which all trace their origins back to Viking uh, merchant towns and uh, originally before that military bases. That would be Cork, Wexford, Waterford, Limerick, 
and Dublin. And then in the upcoming lecture, we'll look at that kingdom of Dublin in the 10th century and its importance and what happened to it and why uh, the Viking impact in Ireland did not produce results comparable either to England or to the Carolingian Empire, but we get a very, very different Viking legacy in Ireland than we get in other parts of Western Europe or in the East in Russia. So let's start first with a working knowledge of what Ireland um, looked like on the eve of the Viking Age, and then we shall switch over and look at that Viking impact in the ninth century and what the situation was uh, by around the year 900. And that's where we'll close with this lecture. Well, Ireland was essentially just a geographic expression, and Western Europeans in the two centuries before the Viking Age uh, had really two very mixed opinions of what Ireland was. One opinion was it was a remote island at the edge of the civilized world, uh, inhabited by a rather barbarous race, uh, noted for exporting uh, Irish wolfhounds, uh, slaves, and timber, and, uh, and cattle, and beef, and the like, because uh, stock raising was the primary uh, activity of, of most of the Irish tribes. On the other hand, there was another image, which was um, that uh, Ireland was uh, a remarkable island dotted with monasteries and home to many monks and particularly scholars who staffed the uh, schools of the Carolingian Empire, uh, scholars who knew both Latin and Greek, who are regarded as among some of the finest writers in the early Middle Ages on not only Christian themes, but adapting classical letters uh, to express the Christian faith and local traditions in Ireland. And so you get these two very, very mixed images. And both of them have a certain amount of basis in reality. Uh, because the um, uh, monastic impact on Ireland was so important. Well, let's first look at that first image a bit, and that is, what was the political and economic situation in Ireland on the eve of the Viking Age? It is difficult to speak of an Ireland. Uh, in fact, there, no Ireland actually emerges from the Viking Age. In many ways, Ireland remains a land divided into uh, kingships, chieftains, who differ very little from their ancestors in the Iron Age, from the time before the Romans when the first Celts arrived in there and set up uh, these rival tribes. And most Irish society was really based on family and clan ties, the so-called sept, which, that is, to what extended family did you belong. Uh, the Irish legends and traditions are extremely conscious in reciting the genealogy of individuals, knowing from where they were descended, uh, sometimes these were fictitious or at least embroidered. Nonetheless, they represent how important descent was uh, to these people uh, and where they fit into the political and social order. For convenience, there are five regions of Ireland, and we can use the anglicized names to describe them. In the north is now what is known as Ulster, the core of what is uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, the west is Konak. Uh, more or less the north-central area is Meath. That is an extremely important region. That's just uh, to the west and a bit north of Dublin. And the kings in Meath, the kings who emerge out of Meath, will be some of the prime opponents uh, to the north. Uh, Leinster is in the south and Munster is in the essentially southwest. And Munster is pretty much a peripheral area until the end of the Viking Age when all of a sudden King Brian Baruma emerges from this essentially what was a, just sort of a peripheral um, uh, marcher state. Within these regions, which were not really kingdoms, 
were various dynasts who struggled for supremacy, most of them very conscious of their descent and their clan associations, and those who could claiming some sort of de descent from the legendary High Neal family that originated in, in what is now Eastern Ulster and had claimed a right to being the kings of Tara in, uh, in Eastern Ireland, which is an ancient religious seat which is later Christianized by St. Patrick and his successors and was where a coronation took place that whatever king could claim that position of the kingdom of Tara, which is a legendary kingdom that might have existed in the fourth and fifth century, he would be acknowledged as high king of Ireland, that is the Andre of Ireland. That was largely an honorific position and kingship in Ireland usually took the form of imposing your overlordship on your lesser rivals who paid various types of token tribute. Uh, Baroma, uh, this could be in the form of hostages that were taken in from competing royal families who were sometimes reared as members of your family, matrimonial alliances, token tribute, promise of aid in battles against rivals, but it is largely a uh, ever-changing a political landscape of different competing dynasts with a select group who could claim that descent from that old legendary uh, Neil clan who were aspiring for high king of Ireland and this usually went to kings ruling in Ulster or Meath and then the, um, the lesser dynast who would align among these uh, uh, competing high kings. So there was nothing like a unitary state. Ireland had never been conquered by the Romans. And that is a significant point I wish to stress uh, at the start. There are no cities, there are no roads, there are no institutions as you have in England and the Carolingian Empire upon which you can build an urban-based civilization and collect taxes and maintain royal armies and do the sort of things that the Roman government would do. It never existed in Ireland. Ireland was a peripheral area to the Roman world. It's known as Hibernia in Latin, which essentially I always say means from the Roman viewpoint, winter wonderland. It's a remote area. It was tied to the Roman uh, Empire by trade. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done on that. The archaeology is in its infancy, but it was not part of the general Roman world. Instead, Ireland received its its uh, contact with Roman civilization through Christianity. And that only really began in the 5th century AD. And it is associated particularly with the activities of St. Patrick. Uh, St. Patrick himself was descended from a, he was the son of a Roman decurion, that would be a member of the urban elites that ran the towns of the Roman world. Uh, he was born in 389 AD and mis as a misfortune he got captured in an Irish raid on Britain and was taken back to Ireland where he, was, where he was a slave for a number of years and escaped, made his way back to Britain and eventually uh, ended, uh, ended up in a, an ecclesiastical career uh, and he was ordained by Bishop Germanus, that is uh, Saint-Germain, the great um, uh, missionary bishop of Roman Gaul, to act as the apostle to the Irish. And so somewhere around uh, the 430s, uh, he arrives in what is now Ulster, in uh, Uliada, as it's called, Eastern Ulster. The king there uh, is impressed, and he's allowed to preach and begin the conversion of the Irish. Uh, and it is a long process. Patrick really initiates a process rather than converts Ireland. Uh, nonetheless, in 444, he establishes an important church and eventual monastery at Armagh, which turns out eventually to be the primate of Ireland. And that is a decisive step, because within the next century, 
in the 500s, the 6th century AD, uh, St. Columba in particular, organizes Irish Christianity along monastic lines. Uh, the Irish not only embrace Christianity, they adapt it in many ways to their social structure. And monasteries are where uh, leading figures of clans, the sept, take over the organization of monasteries. And so the monasteries are really extended clan groups. Um, the monasteries and the monastic tradition also have a notion of extended travel. Uh, that was always a long tradition in, in Irish society. So the idea of going out on travel as a missionary came instinctively to these Irish monks. Uh, and monasteries are the sole way of really organizing Christianity in Ireland because there's no towns. There are bishops in Ireland. But they're essentially bishops without portfolio. They don't have towns. They don't have incomes and revenues. Many of them are rather poor. They depend on the court or the favor of a king. Whereas monasteries are established as family concerns, generally by the head of a clan who retires later in life after he's had his family and becomes the abbot and then staffs that monastery with various relatives and kinsmen who automatically owe a... Um, a loyalty to them based on these family ties and the result is monasteries take off in Ireland and become the main agents of not only Christianity but of cultural change and progress and it is extremely difficult to exaggerate the importance of Irish monasteries uh, they are the centers of learning the Irish take very quickly to the literary tradition writing in both Latin and eventually adapting the Latin alphabet to writing in the native Gaelic that is Irish Celtic language. Furthermore, as I mentioned, there's this tradition of travel that was associated at least with the elite classes in Ireland. Monks who are coming from prominent families in Ireland have a, translate this tradition of travel as missionary work. Many Irish uh, uh, who are organized along the monastic rule of St. Columba uh, go to Gaul. Uh, it's really Irish monks who turn those Frankish kings into responsible Christian kings in the 7th and 8th centuries. It is Irish missionaries who move into central Germany and preach to various German tribes scarcely converted. The Irish monks are responsible for conversions in Scotland and northern England, uh, establishing important monasteries at Iona, which is actually an island off the shore of, of Scotland, at Lindisfarne and Yarrow in Northumbria. And one has to think of the Irish cultural orbit is more than just Ireland today, but including a whole set of monasteries and a wide arc uh, along the shores of Scotland and stretching down the shores of northern England. All of these monasteries were in close connection and association. Um, they actually had to renegotiate their entrance in the Roman church because there were certain differences in discipline, uh, but by the 7th century that Irish church is now integrated back into the Roman uh, Western Church. They acknowledge the papacy, and it is from these monasteries that issue forth all of these scholars who were extremely important in the Carolingian age. Uh, there are a lot of popular books, one in particular that says How the Irish Saved Civilization, and it's, it's a silly book, uh, if I can be, uh, uh, give a professional opinion on it. Uh, nonetheless, it is rooted in a reality that the Irish played a disproportionately important role in the cultural revival in the early Middle Ages, uh, certainly of Christian letters and arts uh, on the eve of the Viking Age. And so when the Vikings attacked Ireland, the only um, institutions that broke political boundaries, the only 
island-wide institutions really were the monasteries. They were important economic centers because they were endowed with lands. Uh, they were important cultural centers. And so when the Vikings attack and destroy the monasteries, they are really undermining the, the cultural and economic basis uh, of the island far more than they are in, say, Western Europe or England, because there are no real kingships, political structures, and towns as you have in Western Europe. So in many ways, Ireland was one of the most remarkable success stories of the early Middle Ages. In effect, they acquired Roman civilization through Christianity and the monastic organization without the Roman towns, the benefits of a Roman rule or administration. Well, with that in mind, then what was uh, the attraction of going to Ireland and how did the Viking raids have a uh, major impact on Ireland and, uh, in the 9th century? Well, Norwegians had undoubtedly been trading with Ireland already in the 8th century. Uh, the trade routes that led them to attack northern England are the same, tr same trade routes that would lead them into the Irish Sea and uh, certainly to the northern and eastern shores of Ireland, where there are some important trade centers. One of them is going to end up being Dublin, but also critical islands such as the Isle of Man in the middle of the Irish Sea, where the Scandinavians settle in force and turn into a major base. So by, say, 750 AD, Norwegians had the ships and the incentive to cross the North Atlantic and learn those trade routes. They also, in the process, discovered important islands such as the Shetlands, the Orkney, the Hebrides. These are islands now associated with Scotland, uh, but at the time settled by Irish speakers, or, or at least Celtic speakers, um, at least since the 7th century, uh, and some of the memories of these voyages survives in the famous legendary voyage of St. Brendan, and the Norwegians eventually moved into these areas and colonized these areas in the late 8th and 9th century, so these northern islands were in effect bases from Norway into the Irish Sea. And eventually, uh, the Jarls of Orkney, the Earls of Orkney, established a very powerful kingdom uh, in northern Scotland. The attacks were overwhelmingly Norwegian as a result. Uh, they are coming in generally from um, Trondelag, that is the northern regions, or Trondheim as it's sometimes anglicized, and also from the various western sections of Norway, famed for their Viking raids. The first attacks occur in the 790s, and there are several references to them. Uh, there's an important attack in 799 on a monastery on the island of Lambie, which is just north of Dublin. Um, the Norwegians land just as they do at Lindisfarne. Uh, they take the monks by surprise, who are apparently expecting merchants. Um, the monastery is sacked. And when a monastery is sacked, that means usually the peasants are carried off into slavery, uh, various relics and books are taken away, abbots may be ransomed, anything of value is, is removed. And this starts a period of 50 years of raiding along largely the eastern, southern shores of Ireland and also on the far west up the Shannon River. The Vikings hit in Ireland with no political organization beyond these Iron Age kingships. Furthermore, the Irish, in terms of their military organization, are just absolutely outclassed. They do not have the kinds of heavy weapons the Scandinavians do, uh, nor do they have anything remotely resembling uh, ships. The Norwegians have complete strategic mobility, and their ships are able to penetrate uh, the crucial uh, river systems, such as the Boyne, the river leading into Meath, and especially the Shannon River, which essentially bisects Ireland, and the Scandinavians, the Norwegians, the Vikings, are able to establish a very important base at Limerick, deep in Ireland, from which they raid uh, throughout most of the early 9th century. 
And so with the uh, mobility of uh, moving up those rivers and moving along the coast, they have complete control over the uh, the seas. And this is not to say that the Irish don't know how to sail, but far from it. They build uh, very, very successful fishing boats and skin boats, but they just don't have any warships or cargo vessels to compete with the Norse. And this is a fact of life that will continue really down to the arrival, the so-called English conquest of 1170. The Vikings have therefore complete mobility to strike wherever they wish in Ireland and they repeatedly raid uh, the monasteries of Ireland. Um, between 790 and 840 almost every major monastery in Ireland is, is sacked at least several times. Uh, Armagh is, is sacked at least three times in the first generation perhaps as many as ten times in the course of the whole Viking Age. And the destruction is difficult to estimate uh, in any kind of statistical sense, but the Irish chroniclers, who are only real source because the monks are the, um, uh, the literate class, uh, the Irish monastic chroniclers give you some sort of flavor of what they saw about these raids. And it's almost apocalyptic literature, and it really displays the marvelous Irish genius with words, whether in Latin, as the chronicles are, or later in Celtic and English. And according to the Annals of Ulster, this is written about 820 A.D., uh, this is how one monk sees uh, the, uh, the nature of the uh, Norwegian attacks. If a hundred heads of hardened iron could grow on one neck, and if each head possessed a hundred sharp, indestructible tongues of tempered metal, and if each tongue cried out incessantly with a hundred ineradicable loud voices, they would not be able to enumerate the griefs which the people of Ireland, men and women, laymen and priests, young and old, have suffered at the hands of these warlike, ruthless pagans. And what was shocking to the Irish is not just the deprivations of the, um, of the Norwegian Vikings, uh, but the Irish uh, deplored even more uh, the number of apostate Irish, that is, Irish who had gone over to the Vikings, who are often known as the, um, uh, the Gael Gadil, that is, the foreign Gaels, uh, that is, the turncoats, as opposed to the, um, the Finn Gael, uh, that is, the, uh, the white foreigners, the Norwegians who came, because within a generation or so of the Irish attacks, uh, the Vikings were settling down into military encampments at the mouths of all the, the critical rivers. Uh, they were establishing bases that would grow into the cities of Limerick, uh, into the, uh, Waterford, uh, Wexford, uh, Cork, uh, Dublin. And in these towns, many of the Vikings took native wives and mixed offspring as well as Viking capture and fostering of slaves uh, from the Irish population uh, resulted in a large uh, mixed population. These are the sold so-called um, foreign Irish, the Gael Gadiel, who are even more ruthless and destructive than the Vikings themselves. These seem to be moving companies of armies of brigands who also infest the countryside and complicate the political situation. Uh, sometime around 838, 839, uh, there is a change in the nature of the Norse attacks. And this corresponds very much with what's going on in the Carolingian Empire at the same time. A man by the name of Turges, as it's usually rendered in the Irish uh, Latin accounts, probably representing the Norse name Thorgals, arrives from Norway. The Irish chronicles call him a king. He's probably a Jarl or a sea king, we suspect from one of the western districts, maybe Hordaland or Rogaland, traditional areas of Viking attacks. In any case, he's a regal f figure who shows up with a large fleet. 
and he begins to organize these Viking companies into an effective military force and imposes some sort of authority over all of the Norse in Ireland. He makes his principal base at Dublin, and he's active for not even quite a decade, but nonetheless, his impact is significant because he probably is best to be credited as the founder of what becomes the Hiberno-Norse or the Irish-Norse Kingdom of Dublin. Uh, he imposes order and discipline. The raids begin to change character. Uh, there are political uh, arrangements made with some of the Irish rulers, that is, marriage alliances are conducted. Uh, there's also deals cut with some of the lesser uh, Irish figures who are always uh, fighting not only Vikings but their neighbors. And what happens in these uh, wars among Irish chieftains is the uh, defeated are sold off as captives, and so in effect, uh, the Irish warlords are supplying a slave market to the Norse towns on the shore, and this slave market becomes a major economic feature of Irish life down to the English conquest. Many of the slaves are being exported into Spain. Um, Turgis is also apparently responsible for organizing attacks into the Carolingian Empire, and uh, apparently an attack uh, that ended up, he somehow participated in the attack uh, on Spain in 844 because we believe that a mission sent to a Norse chief or king in a green island in the middle of the sea, um, this is a mission from the Umayyad uh, Emir of Cordova, the Muslim ruler in Spain, who sent uh, one of his top envoys, a fellow by the name of uh, Al-Ghazal, who's a, a Polish courtier, who went to talk to this North King, he's the King of the Magus, that means heathens, and it seems to be this Norse court at Dublin. And at the time, um, Turgays was out, you know, attacking Irish kings or busy in slave trade, and his wife, who is also known in the sources, her Norse name is probably Un, she's usually called um, Ota in Irish accounts, uh, she's there, and so she receives the Arab ambassador. The Arab ambassador is a little taken aback by how forward she is. He, you know, she says, oh, don't worry, you know, my husband's out beating up the Irish, but he'll be back. In the meantime, tell me what you're here for. Uh, and um, it's one of our earliest uh, insights into the position of at least high-class women in Scandinavian society, which is, is really quite open compared to uh, certainly the, uh, the uh, Mediterranean world. Well, uh, Turkey is eventually captured and drowned by some uh, Irish opponents. Uh, nonetheless, he gave organization to the Norse. Several years after his death, a second large Scandinavian fleet shows up, and these are Danes, largely operating out of the English Channel. They've heard great reports about the slave trading in Ireland, which is being developed, and they come to Ireland, and what happens is a remarkable battle is fought between the Danes and Norwegians as to who should have the rights to plunder Ireland. Uh, the Irish are pretty much out of it in this, at this point. Uh, it climaxes in a major battle in eight, 851 at uh, Carlingford Lough, and that's, uh, that's a river system north of Dublin. And it's a two-day ba naval battle between Danish and Vi uh, Vikings who are called black foreigners, for a reason we don't know, and Norwegians who are known as white foreigners. And in the second day, the Danes, on the advice of some of their Irish allies, invoke St. Patrick and win the day. And at that point, the Danes are joyful and they're going to worship the god Patrick. Uh, the Irish chroniclers uh, make these sanguine conclusions. Oh, well, they've converted to Christianity. Uh, no, they haven't. The Danes are more than happy to sack Irish monasteries. Of course, dedicating 10% to the god Patrick uh, doesn't change their opinion at all about their ancestral gods. The Danish position in Ireland lasts only a very short time. In 852, 
the second great Norwegian fleet we know of in Irish Chronicles arrive. Uh, it's commanded by a man named Olaf, sometimes identified uh, with a figure known as Olaf the White in Icelandic saga. And Olaf brings the Danes and Norse to heel. Uh, he, he, uh, he seals matrimonial alliances with several leading Irish kings, especially the kings of Meath. And he begins to organize and systematize the system of uh, the exploitation of Ireland. The Norse uh, develop their military camps into fortified ports and markets, and an extremely brisk slave trade uh, springs up in which the Irish slave trade becomes one of the major ways of feeding the markets of Muslim Spain. Uh, Olaf is followed by his brother. Uh, Olaf has a very long reign. He dies in 871. His brother Ivar takes over, and with this family is the consolidation of an effective Scandinavian kingdom at Dublin. That kingdom uh, lasted down to 902 when the Norse were temporarily expelled from Dublin by uh, some Irish forces, but the kingdom is based on control of the sea, especially of the economic uh, routes uh, and trade routes in the Irish Sea and the North Atlantic. Furthermore, this Norse kingdom very, very quickly comes to look outward to the sea. The, the Norse are content to holding the ports. They really have very little interest in penetrating inland. And while the Irish do not have effective kingdoms, it is extremely dangerous for Norse armies to move too far inland and away from the river systems, because Ireland is still largely a land of forest and bogs. And while the Irish don't have the superior weapons of the Vikings, they are expert in stealth and in ambush, and there are seven, several Viking columns who get very badly cut up if they venture too far inland. And so what happens is, is this strange symbiosis emerges between the Norse towns that appear on the coast and Limerick, which is in a sense on the middle, uh, Shannon River is therefore uh, linked to uh, the coast, which become increasingly the conduits for the export of Irish goods, slaves, animals, hides, salted meat, and the conduit for the import of goods, including better weapons, uh, into Ireland. And the Norwegians, in effect, are controlling that trade uh, access. Furthermore, the Norse in Dublin extend the range of their control not into the interior of Ireland, but across the Irish Sea and through much of that wider Celtic world. It is the Norse who, uh, uh, the Norwegians, the Herberno Norse, who, for instance, settle the island of Man, which becomes essentially a Norse colony. They settle the islands of northern Scotland, the northern shores of Scotland, uh, particularly the region of Cathness today, is an overwhelmingly Norse settlement. And the Norse in Ireland, who have communication with the Danes in England, actually are responsible to some extent for dictating the future of Scotland. Because the Danes in York and the Norse in Dublin, which have frequent contact, sometimes hostile, sometimes trade routes, they don't sail around Scotland. They take their ships up to that very, very short neck of land between the Firth of Clyde and uh, the Firth of Forth. Uh, that 44-mile stretch, which is largely, uh, it's actually the area where the Antonine, the Roman wall, was built, the second wall, and they'd simply drag their ships across that isthmus of land. And in the process of doing this, they have a lot of fun sacking towns along the way, like Dumbarton. And Scotland at this point was about as politically and ethnically divided as Ireland, and in the course of this Norse 
uh, communication between York and Dublin, um, they managed to uh, trash the so-called Strathclyde uh, Britons, uh, the, the English in Northumbria, the Picts, and the only people left standing in Scotland were the Irish immigrants, the Scots, who spoke Gaelic, and the Scots essentially ended up getting Scotland as the door prize after the Vikings had got done uh, ransacking uh, the better organized states. And so the, um, the Norse Kingdom in Dublin then becomes the linchpin of a much wider trade orbit and an economic order centered on the Irish Sea with trade connections in what are now Scotland, Northern Wales, and England, rather than a kingdom that is looking inward uh, with any kind of aspirations to control the Irish. And that is an important fact that is going to dictate the relationships in the 10th century and the ultimate Viking legacy in Ireland. Lecture 18, Norse Kings of Dublin and Ireland. In this lecture, I plan to look at the uh, Norse Kingdom of Dublin, uh, particularly in the uh, late 9th and 10th centuries, uh, which is often seen as the height of Viking power. Ironically, from about 902 to 917, for about a 15-year period, the Norse actually didn't control Dublin. It had been temporarily occupied by Irish. Uh, nonetheless, in 915, the Norse returned, and there's a revival and expansion of Norse power in some ways in the 10th century. And so what we wish to do in this lecture is look at Ireland in the 10th century, which is an extremely important point because it's in this century where the Norse have a chance to construct some type of political and economic order that could either at least, if not unify the, um, all these Irish kingships, at least play a predominantly important role in the future development of Ireland, politically, militarily, and economically. This does not happen. Uh, traditionally, many Irish uh, schoolchildren are taught that in 1014 at the Battle of Clontorf, uh, Brian Baruma, who was then the High King of Ireland, defeated the Vikings and essentially ended the Viking Age, defeated the threat of a Viking conquest of Ireland, and this is really a national myth. Uh, the Battle of Clontorf has a lot more to do with uh, dynastic struggle for who should be High King of Ireland rather than any defeat of a Viking conquest. Uh, the really significant battle that broke uh, Norse power was actually earlier in 980 at the Battle of Tara, which has effectively ended Dublin as the leading political force in Ireland. In order to understand then how these developments took place in the 10th century, I think first it's important to look at the nature of the Viking settlement in Ireland and make some comparisons to it in England and in the Carolingian Empire, and then to trace events in the 10th century and take a new look at the Battle of Clontoff based on what we have now learned of the 10th century from archaeology and the study of the sources. As I mentioned in the previous lecture, uh, the Norse very quickly developed market towns. These were originally base camps. Uh, most of the major ports of Ireland today trace their ancestry and their names back to Norse settlements. Waterford, Wexford, Cork, Limerick, Dublin are the, most, uh, are the best known. In all of these towns from the start, it could be argued that the Norse were only part of the population. In some instances, may have quickly been a minority of the population. 
There was a rather limited number of Scandinavian women who came with these companies. Most of the Norse seemed to have taken local women as their wives or their concubines. And there are several pieces of information that points in this direction. Uh, those graves that have been excavated, particularly in Dublin, uh, have shown a mixed material culture. That is, you have both Norse and Irish uh, items as grave goods. It is also a, a, a fact that the number of Scandinavian words that passed into Gaelic are very similar to the types of words that passed into French. Uh, in the case of the Normans in Normandy, that is specialized language, uh, language words, uh, commerce, navigation, fishing. That there was not the kind of swap of words and impact on the Gaelic language the way you had in England, where substantial number of Danish words entered into standard, standard English. Uh, second, the Norwegians very quickly learned to respect the Irish as warriors. They could defeat them in a pitched battle, they had naval superiority, but they were not about to venture into the hinterland of Ireland, which was broken up into a complicated set of different petty kingdoms uh, with different clan ties, and a land that was broken up by um, uh, forest and bogs that was extremely inhospitable and it was extremely easy to get ambushed. And there were several instances of that in the ninth century, which taught the Norwegians very quickly to respect their Irish opponents. Uh, when it came to stealth and ambush, uh, skirmishing tactics, the Irish absolutely excelled in these, this type of warfare. They'd been doing it for centuries. Furthermore, besides the fact that they, uh, the Norwegians got large number of Irish slaves, uh, some of them who were classed as thralls, that is, they did manual labor, some of them taken into Norse households and treat, treated very well, they also um, conducted matrimonial alliances uh, with leading warrior families or royal families in Ireland. In some ways, Norwegian and Irish societies were similar. You had warrior elites, to be sure, differently armed. Nonetheless, they came to respect each other in sense of honor, uh, in a sense of martial ethos. So there was a fair amount of exchange that went on, uh, certainly from the late 9th century and throughout the entire 10th century. So very often, uh, it's a little arbitrary when you speak of herberno Norse or Irish because the upper classes would have intermarriage on both sides. Uh, the last really great king, of Dublin, Norse king of Dublin, I name is marvelous, his, his name is Sigtrig uh, Silkbeard, um, uh, Sigtrig III. Uh, his mom was a very famous Irish priest, uh, uh, princess, uh, actually the, the driving force of the coalition against Brian Baruma, the high king of Ireland, and um, he had at least one other Irish grandparent, and so in terms of his Celtic ancestry, he's probably more Celtic than he was Norse, even though he apparently preferred to speak Norse, saw himself as a Norse king, liked to compare himself in later years to King Canute of Denmark and England, and used to have the ancient poems recited so that it was more of a matter of language and culture. So it has to be kept in mind, there is a great deal of intermarriage and cultural exchange going on throughout this entire period. Also, the Norwegians had to come to terms with the Irish, uh, not only in terms of, uh, for political and economic reasons, but just pure demographics, starting in the later 9th century, and this is why the Irish could temporarily reoccupy Dublin, they were not getting the same number of reinforcements from Scandinavia. Uh, the last great fleet that showed up was in 852, that was brought in by Olaf, sometimes known as Olaf the White, and thereafter, the Norse in Ireland were largely on their own. That is because in 870, uh, Iceland was discovered. Uh, there was lots of land for the taking. Many Norwegians went to Iceland 
Some of them actually in Ireland relocated to Iceland because they discovered Iceland didn't have any nasty natives who would bushwhack you. Iceland was unoccupied. Um, there were no natural predators, human or otherwise, and anyone who wanted land trekked out to Iceland for the next 50 years. Furthermore, in Norway, uh, another important development was King Harald Finehair was using the Viking fleets to unite Norway into a kingdom of sorts. And so the Irish, uh, the uh, Norwegians in Ireland throughout the late 9th and early 10th century were largely on their own. And this allowed for the Irish kings, particularly in Meath and Leinster, to reorganize themselves, to counterattack, to restrict Norse movements. And in 902, uh, the Norse were actually driven out of Dublin for a while. Well, Ireland was still too attractive, and the land in Iceland filled up very quickly, and King Harald Finehair had more sons than he knew what to do with, so that um, he reputedly I don't, lived for 50 years and had, I don't know, 200 wives, according to one account. Uh, and virtually every other Jarl in Norway, three generations later, could claim to be a descendant of Harald Finehair. There's no way to disprove it otherwise, given uh, the king's prodigious activities. Um, in any case, in... A third great uh, Norwegian fleet set sails in 914-915. It's actually several major contingents. There are several leaders, several Jarls or sea kings. Uh, the most important of them is a man named uh, Sigthric, who is a, a very common name uh, used by Norwegians. And they arrive off the shores of Ireland about 15 years after uh, the Norse had been uh, defeated back in 902 and proceed to reoccupy the old ports and settlements. There is a um, major battle in which uh, Sigtrig uh, defeats uh, Njal, the High King of Ireland, who's the King of Meath, uh, outside of Dublin uh, in 917, and takes over Dublin and reestablishes the Norse Kingdom in Dublin as a power. In fact, he conquers not only Dublin, uh, but its hinterland. And if you look at the area of where we think Norse settlement was, that region that is consolidated in the 10th century by those uh, Herberno-Norse kings, uh, Sigtrig and then his brother uh, Guthrith, essentially corresponds to the later uh, section uh, or area of English settlement, the so-called Pale, the area where the Anglo-Irish would establish themselves. And then outside that region, uh, the English for many, many, many centuries had really very little control over the country. Uh, so what they've, they've occupied are the important valleys that uh, are the immediate hinterland to Dublin, Dublin, its port facilities, and of course those other critical towns. Uh, which operate, especially Limerick, more or less semi-independently. A fellow by the name of Ivar, another very common name among Norse sea kings, uh, reoccupied uh, Limerick and made that a base for raiding in the west. So in the 10th century, a powerful succession of kings reigned from Dublin, and their aspirations are really pretty wide-ranging. Uh, they often claimed uh, in, uh, to be kings of all the Northmen or the Norsemen in, in Hibernia. There are several um, Irish chronicles as well as other documents in which those titles are applied to them. And as I mentioned in an earlier lecture dealing with the, um, uh, the Viking impact on England, the Norse uh, kings in Dublin did see a connection to their kinsmen in York, in northern England, and there was a concerted effort in the first half of the 10th century not to conquer the Irish, uh, Irish hinterland, especially Meath and Ulster, where there were powerful descendants of the High Neil clan, uh, kings who would aspire to be High King, who would be eventually a potential threat, but rather to look to the sea, 
uh, to bring the various islands of Scotland, the northern shores of Scotland under control, to control the strategic crossings between um, the Firth of Clyde and the Firth of uh, Forth. That is that very narrow strip that essentially cut Scotland into the highlands and the lowlands so that they could move ships, warships and cargo ships over to northern England and get in contact with York. Uh, there was also extensive settlement in northern Wales and in regions now uh, which would be uh, Cumberland and Lancashire in England, uh, Galloway in, in Scotland, where uh, Norwegians established themselves on the shores of uh, England, uh, western England, southwestern Scotland, northern Wales, and set up trading communities but also farmsteads. And there's a significant number of Norse place names. And you might wonder, well, why didn't they just establish bases and walk across to York? And there's this uh, nasty thing known as the Pennines Mountains that essentially bisects northern England. And for the Norse, who always think in terms of ships, it's much easier to sail from Dublin, drag the ships across that narrow isthmus and go by sea, than attempt to land forces uh, in Wales or western England and march on York. The movement is always by sea, and that always has to be remembered when dealing with Viking history. So uh, the kings uh, in Dublin established a very, very powerful uh, connection of economic routes uh, across these diverse areas, and they were tied together by trade connections, especially by the profits of the slave trade, by the fact that all of these people had the um, uh, premier Viking ships, they had the warships and the cargo ships to do it, and that the kings in Dublin had a real sense of themselves as great sea kings. They uh, were pagans well probably into the 11th century. It's only with Sictric uh, Silkbeard that the Norse in Dublin really begin to convert to Christianity. And they are also feel themselves as descendants of the great heroes of old. Uh, we are told that at the court of Dublin, uh, Icelandic um, poets were always welcome. Uh, we know this of Sigtrick uh, Silkbeard, that he always liked to hear the ancient Norse legends. Uh, the uh, kings in uh, Dublin, the uh, Norse kings in Dublin, are extremely well known in Icelanders. There's references to them in Icelandic sagas. We actually have an Icelandic version of the Battle of Klontoff in Njal's saga. So the connections with Dublin were very, very powerful to the Norse colonies in the Atlantic Islands and ultimately with Norway. Now, that had some important consequences for the future of not only uh, the Hiberno-Norse in Dublin, but also uh, for Ireland in general. The first half of the 10th century were a series of abortive efforts, uh, first by the exiled King Sigtrig, then by Guthrith, then by Guthrith's son, known as Olaf, then by Sigtrig's son, who is also known as Olaf. Um, it gets very complicated, these two first cousins with the same name, uh, who through the course of the 930s and 940s attempt to conquer northern England, the northern Danlaw, the regions around York. Uh, a great deal of effort is expended on this, and in the end, it fails. It fails in part because the Anglo-Danish landed classes in northern England see these Hiberno-Norse as essentially outsiders, restless adventurers and pagans, and come to realize that their interests really rest with a Christian English king who will uh, respect their rights rather than calling in these distant relatives from Dublin. It also fails in part because the Hiberno-Norse just don't have the resources and the sophistication to run 
the, the kingdom of York. The Danes who settled in England very quickly come to appreciate the ecclesiastical institutions, the towns, the institutions in England, which essentially go back to a Roman origin, where you have the basis of organizing a state, and no such institutions ever existed in Ireland, and so why would the Hiberno-Norse have any sort of appreciation or understanding of them? They are still operating in a society very much based on kinship, matrimonial alliances. In fact, in many ways, uh, the Hiberno-Norse, in their social attitudes and their political structures, are very close to their Irish neighbors. Uh, and that probably was something of a shock for some of these uh, Hiberno-Norse when they got to York and came to see these Danes. They probably looked at these Danes with a certain amount of disdain as, you know, they're, they're Christian, they're weak, they're, they look more like English. Uh, maybe we should be treating them more like foes or potential victims, whereas the Irish with whom they've been battling for over 125 years, uh, in some ways they could respect them more and they could understand them better. And so that 40-year excursion into northern England, in a way, was was a sobering ex experience, and when it failed, Olaf Kavaran, uh, who was actually the son of of Sictric, um, uh, the Norwegian sea king who reconquered Dublin and first occupied York, he returns to Dublin and rules in Dublin very successfully and loses all interest in ever trying to regain York, and um, and rules down to 980 A.D. Olaf was a very successful king through most of his uh, reign, and he already begins to show some of the changes that are going on in Ireland. Olaf becomes aware that once you've turned your back onto, uh, on, on this project of building a greater Dublin kingdom on both York and Dublin, uh, that the Norwegians increasingly are coming to depend on political alliances in Ireland itself. That is, starting in the 940s. Uh, in 950s, Olaf must seek matrimonial alliances and, uh, and allies among the increasingly better armed and better organized Irish kings. Uh, these include especially the kings of Meath and Ulster, and one figure in particular uh, who comes to the throne right after uh, Olaf's dead, uh, uh, shortly before Olaf's death, is Mael Mael Shalane the second, actually the namesake and, uh, and descendant of an earlier king who was responsible for drowning Thurgus back in you know 847 or whatever it was when he captured that first Norwegian sea king, uh, essentially the first king of Dublin. In 980, this new king of Meath delivers a really decisive defeat on Olaf in his final years. One of Olaf's sons is killed in the fighting. It's the so-called Battle of Tara. It took place very close at the ancient legendary capital. And that Battle of Tara essentially marked the end of the Hiberno-Norse as a power, as the dominant power in Ireland. It did not end it. Far from it. After 980, the Norse themselves, and then the Irish pick up the word, start referring to themselves as the Ostmen, the Easterners. And they continue to reside in Dublin and the other towns. They are the only people in Ireland with any kind of significant ships, warships, or cargo ships. But they really come increasingly depend, uh, depend upon alliances with the leading Irish kings. And in some instances, they pay tribute to the Irish kings. Or they will nominate the heir apparent of an Irish king as the titular king of Dublin. Or that or that Irish prince might have some sort of role on the island of Man, another important Norse colony. 
And so starting from 980, what happens is the Norse settlements in Ireland begin to become integrated into a wider political and economic order in Ireland. The Irish probably come to see these Ostmen as um, distinct. You know, they're, they're still outsiders. Uh, but they're sort of like their own sept, their own clan, and they can be accommodated in the political order. Uh, there's enough now matrimonial alliances that the, um, the leading families in all the Norse towns are connected to important Irish families. And above all, all Irish kings realize those Norse towns are important. They are a source of allies, mercenaries, money. You can always blackmail them, uh, get them to pay tribute. And above all, they are the ports with the outside world. And they, are the, uh, they control the ports that export the slaves and the other goods that bring in all the neat weapons and, and luxuries that Ireland would otherwise not have. And so starting in 980, uh, the Hiberno-Norse really do begin to take a secondary position. Well, this gets us to uh, the final part of this lecture, and that is to discuss this famous uh, Battle of, of Clontarf, which is usually taken as marking the end of the Viking Age in Ireland. And that is a bit misleading. It's more than a bit misleading. If one is looking for a uh, end of the Viking Age in Ireland, it's actually probably 980. That is at least the political military domination of the, uh, of the Vikings, and that's at the Battle of Tara. Well, the Viking raids in Ireland had the impact that they had in England and in the Carolingian Empire in that they, it did dictate political developments within Ireland. That is, certainly, certain families were going to lose and other families were going to win in fighting the Vikings. Uh, the High Neils who ruled in Ulster were among the losers. Northern Ireland was repeatedly sacked. Uh, Armagh, the primate was, uh, of Ireland, was sacked by one reckoning maybe ten times in the course of the Viking Age. Uh, the kings of Meath, who ruled directly to the west of Dublin and who claimed a descent from the legendary clan, so they had a legitimate claim to the high kingship, they begin to emerge as some of the leading kings in Ireland. And Mael uh, Shalane II, who won the Battle of Tara, is from this family, and he makes Meath the dominant uh, kingdom in Ireland and takes the title of high king, Andre, as a result of defeating the Norse of Dublin. And he holds that title most of the time, he loses it for a short time, down to his death in 1022. He also is, uh, is one of those adroit Irish kings who understands how to uh, use the Norse as convenient allies to provide naval support or mercenaries uh, to conduct trade relationships. But it's clear his relationship with the, uh, the Norse in Dublin and the other towns, uh, he's in the superior position now, unlike his ancestors. However, another region also did quite well, in a sense, in the Viking Age, and that was in the remote uh, southwest. Uh, and that was an area um, that really was essentially, um, this is the region of Munster, um, a region that was really pretty unimportant in earlier Irish history. And this is the homeland of Brian Baruma. This is it's his family. Dalcaeus family that uh, emerge as a, um, a power in the, you know, towards the middle of the 10th century, largely by fighting the Vikings in Limerick. And you should think of them as sort of second-rate marcher lords. They were, they were petty rulers. They didn't have the genealogical connections, the, the great descent as the kings of Meath and Ulster. They were clearly seen as an inferior royal family and newcomers into the Irish political scene. Nonetheless, 
they were responsible for defeating the Vikings in Limerick and for clearing out Viking raids in Western Ireland at about the same time that the kings of Meath were pushing back uh, the Norse in Dublin. And that meant that this rather minor area all of a sudden emerged as an extremely well-armed and important Irish state. And in 976, the, um, he was actually the younger son of the previous king, uh, of, of, of the king, uh, Brian Baruma is declared king in Munster. Um, most of his career, he dies at the Battle of Clontarf in, uh, Clontarf in 1014. Most of his early career was mopping up what was left of Viking resistance, but really imposing his authority over southern and eastern Ireland. And this was done by traditional methods. Uh, and in these methods, he often recruited Viking allies. It took the form of levying tribute. And this was often uh, more token tribute than anything else. It took the form of matrimonial alliances. There were um, usually battles that were almost stylized as to their combat. That is, two armies would agree to fight a battle, and at the end of the battle, there would be a recognition sort of given to the victor. The Irish poets would record the deeds. Uh, and so Brian Baruma is not so much a, a great national king. He's a very traditional king uh, who follows traditional Irish methods of of gaining control. What's significant was that his background was not particularly distinguished and he was very, very remarkably uh, successful. Because in 997, Brian had emerged as such a powerful figure in Southern Ireland that none other than the reigning king, a uh, high king of Ireland, uh, Mael Shalane, agrees to divide authority in Ireland. That, that he recognized Brian as almost an equal. This was a remarkable achievement for Brian Baruma, who came from a, a, this, this, this backwater, this political backwater in Ireland. And uh, there were several um, uh, later clashes, and uh, ultimately, three years later in 1000, Brian was able to assert himself not only as the equal to the King of Meath, but the superior. And in 1000, Brian takes the title of High King away from Mael Shalane. Uh, which causes him no end of anger that he must now rec recognize this interloper as his superior. Well, that political fact in 1000 is far more important in setting in motion a series of intrigues and rebellions to bring down Brian Baruma and his upstart dynasty. And the alliance is one of the most contorted and strange in Irish history, and it's a, it's a delightful combination. It was largely hatched in Dublin uh, by the then ruling Norse king, uh, Sigtrig Silkbeard III, I mentioned him earlier, um, who was um, the son of King Olaf, the man who was defeated at the Battle of Tara, and especially his Irish mom, uh, Gorm uh, Flaith, who came from a very prominent family, had actually been married to Mael Shalane earlier. He divorced her. She's an extremely imper Im imperious woman. She's remembered as the driving force both in the Irish and Norse accounts. She then gets married to a king, uh, uh, the king of Dublin, the Norse king of Dublin. Uh, he dies. Her son gets on the throne. And eventually, Brian actually marries her because she's too dangerous to be allowed to be left alone. Uh, but before that marriage, she's done everything in her power to egg on her ex-husband, her brothers, and her son in Dublin, the Norse king of Dublin, to forge an alliance to take out Brian. This alliance climaxes in 1014 with an effort to overthrow the power of Brian Baruma. The alliance, however, never really 
never really gets off the ground. Uh, Brian uh, has a remarkable reputation as a charismatic king. He's remembered in the later Irish Chronicles as not only a great warrior, but a pious Christian king. Many activities are attributed to him, for instance, the restoration of monastic life, the endowing of churches, and uh, undoubtedly these took place. And Brian is able to summon up many allies from the West and the South. This causes a Sictric Silkbeard of Dublin to have second thoughts, and he bolts out of the alliance before the battle is fought. Uh, Ma'il Shalane, who is the ex-high king of Ireland and really would like to see Brian defeated, uh, he sits on the sidelines, he detaches himself from his allies, and actually his army is on the side of Brian at, at the Battle of Clarntuff, but it is remarkably inactive until the battle is decided. Um, Meanwhile, the various Irish warlords in the east who resented Brian's rule summoned in large numbers of Viking allies, notably from the island of Man. Uh, uh, one, of his uh, one of them is Broder, the Viking king of Man. Uh, the Earl of Orkney, uh, his name is Sigurd the Stout. Uh, several prominent Icelanders show up. And on Good Friday, 1014, the great battle takes place at a very narrow, narrow bridge and plain just west of Dublin. And it's remarkable, really, more for the people who are not fighting there than for the people who are there. Uh, there um, Brian's forces carry the day. However, in the course of the fighting, according to the Norse sources, the um, Brodair, the Norse uh, king of Man, cuts his way through uh, the battle lines and, and mortally wounds Brian. Brian dies shortly after the battle. The Viking mercenaries and allies who had been summoned in are brutally destroyed. They're defeated some of them brutally executed. Dublin is spared because uh, Sictric Silpig had the good sense to pull out before the decisive battle. And in the end, the real victor is Mael Shalane, who reasserts his control as High King of Ireland against Brian's surviving sons. And so what the Battle of Clontuff decides is not whether Ireland will be ruled by the Vikings or not, it's that the High Kingship goes back to the Kings of Meath and that the potential political union that could have emerged out of this uh, will not happen. Uh, Meath continues to fight rivals in Western and Southern Ireland down to 1170. There is a series of clashes, very traditional, uh, in that the Irish are, are fighting for that high kingship, and in the end, it will be an exiled Irish prince who will invite the Normans and Welsh in uh, to give him an advantage so that he can get the High Kingship of Ireland. The Norse continue in Ireland, controlling the ports, acting as the conduits to the wider world, and above all, profiting from the slave trade. What is remarkable about Ireland is, in contrast to the Carolingian Empire and England, no political order emerges. And that comes from the simple fact that there had been no Roman conquest and that the Norse who settled in Ireland did not bring with them the types of institutions that could build a wider unity. So when Norse power collapsed at the end of the 10th century, Irish politics continued in a traditional way. In some ways, the Irish were now better armed, complements of the Norse. They had more incentive to wage these wars for the slave trade, but essentially politics went on the way they had before the Norse attacks. What had been lost are the great cultural monastic centers, and that Irish slave trade, which continued so right up to 1170 uh, and deplored by the Irish churchmen, uh, was, was seen as a pest on the island. And the Irish churchmen themselves uh, said that the reason God sent us the English 
was to end the slave trade. And you know that's a pretty damning uh, comment by Irish churchmen to make that conclusion. And that's the best point uh, to halt with the Viking legacy in Ireland. Lecture 19, The Settlement of Iceland. In this lecture, we're going to deal with the discovery and settlement of Iceland. And this lecture is, in, is the first of a series of four that will deal with the uh, Norse experience in the North Atlantic, centering very much on Iceland, but also some of the um, North Atlantic islands, notably the Faroes, uh, which are, are still settled by Scandinavian speakers to this day. The Shetlands, that are now part of the United Kingdom, which were a Norse colony. The Norse settlements out in Greenland, their efforts to get to um, uh, Vinland, that is North America. And uh, the reason why we spend essentially four lectures uh, on these related topics is that it is first one of the most remarkable and exciting adventures in the whole Viking experience. The great sailing distances of, uh, of Norse ships to go across the North Atlantic to establish colonies uh, in these far-flung uh, places. And in the case of Iceland, to create what is often uh, discussed as the um, a first European frontier society, including some facile analogies to the American Wild West. And above all, uh, the importance of settling Iceland is in its, um, its great literary legacy. Uh, repeatedly throughout this course, I have made reference to Icelanders, uh, to Icelandic saga, to the fact that most of the poetry that survives about the Norse gods and heroes comes from Iceland. Iceland will become the great repository of Norse literature, and Iceland's importance in European literature of the Middle Ages is out of all proportion to its size and its remoteness. It really is uh, one of the great middle, uh, literatures of the Middle Ages and arguably one of the great literatures of the world. And this is um, uh, one of the great achievements that comes out of the Viking Age. So it really is worth spending time to look at uh, the settlement, the discovery of Iceland, the development of this uh, unique frontier society, and the literary legacy that is so important in informing us about the Viking Age. Well, as to our first topic, which is essentially discovering Iceland and settling it, um, the Norwegians in the ninth century, who were always intrepid uh, sailors by, by anyone's account, uh, by going to Iceland really, really were at the remote end of the world uh, for most Europeans. Uh, and furthermore, they were moving into a land which is habitable. Uh, you, one, one can put up settlements there, but it's really just at the fringe of human habitation. Iceland is just below the Arctic Circle. Uh, it is moderated by the mid-Atlantic drift, and if one takes a look at the settlement patterns of Iceland, where the pastures are, uh, the sheltered uh, valleys and fjords, they are overwhelmingly on the western side of the island, the so-called Breita, uh, Breida Fjord, the Wide Fjord, um, the, the regions around Reykjavik today, uh, in the southwest, and actually in parts of the northwest, because that's the area that receives uh, the Gulf Stream or the Mid-Atlantic Drift, which moderates the climate because Iceland is essentially just below the Arctic Circle. Uh, 
Icebergs block the uh, sailing of uh, ships for much of the year. Uh, this is discovered by the first voyagers out there. Uh, Gardar, who is credited with the uh, discovery of Iceland, a Swedish merchant, noted these large icebergs. And icebergs don't have to be particularly large to sink a Viking ship. Uh, they don't, they, all they have to be is about 25, uh, 20 feet across. And with a, if, if they're um, large submersion in the, a uh, large part of it is submerged in the mortar, uh, water, it hits a Viking vessel in which there's only an inch of planking separating you from the North Atlantic. You can go down pretty fast. And for a number of months of the year, um, the, uh, the ice flows come down past Iceland and essentially block all shipping uh, for anywhere from, you know, four to five months of the year. And many of the earlier, earlier settlers uh, who didn't take this into account actually got themselves in difficulty. If they ran out of provisions, uh, they could easily starve to death because there could be no uh, supplies brought in. Iceland is essentially a vast plateau that's built up by glaciers and volcanoes. Travel across the interior is, in, in some sections, just absolutely impossible. Communication is going to be around the sea. And you're dealing with an island which is larger than than Wales and England and part of Scotland combined. Uh, it's close to 40,000 uh, square miles. Uh, it's about 300 miles across, and yet only about 15% of it can really be inhabited, and it's all on the shores, particularly on those western shores that are moderated by the Gulf Stream. The interior is broken up by glaciers and snow fields and volcanoes. And when one reads, for instance, the great Norse poem of creation and destruction, the Voluspa, uh, which speaks of a primeval frozen waste and a final uh, destruction in Ragnarok with the, uh, the fires of Musipelheim from the south coming in, uh, the stars and sun falling down and, and the great ice being released. It sounds like a combination of volcanic eruptions melting glaciers that have proved so destructive throughout Icelandic history. Um, in fact, I think the first Icelander, uh, the first Norwegians to see Iceland, uh, if they saw any of those volcanoes at all active in the snowfields, thought indeed they had a preview of what Ragnarok was all about. The greatest glacier is Vatnajökull, which covers nearly 3,000 miles across uh, in terms of um, 3,000 square miles uh, in terms of snowfield and glacier. These glaciers run hundreds of feet deep. They're permanent features in the landscape. Um, there are a number of active volcanoes. These volcanoes have erupted repeatedly, and volcanic eruptions uh, will lead to large lava flows that might melt glaciers and cause destruction. But the real destruction of a volcanic eruption in Iceland is the ash that it deposits over the um, a landscape. And for the uh, Icelanders who settled there and are largely engaged in stock raising, what happens is the animals eat the grass. The grass has got all sorts of uh, uh, sulfide and other nasty things in it. Um, this causes the, uh, the teeth and gums to get infected. Most of the animals die. Uh, the Icelanders, of course, uh, slaughter the animals and eat well for a year. And then the next year, there's nothing left to eat. And what happens? The human population starts to starve. And that's um, demonstrated in 1783 when Mount uh, Laki exploded, the most destructive eruption on the island. It destroyed 55% uh, of all cattle. Um, about 80% of all sheep, and uh, about 75% of all horses. And by the end of three years, when the, you know, the animals died off and were consumed, perhaps uh, something on the order of 25 to 
percent to a third, depending on the figures you use, of the humans starved in the next two or three years. It was catastrophic. Um, population fell from something like 50,000 down to 40,000 or less. And so Iceland from the start was a very, very demanding landscape, even for Scandinavians, even for Norwegians who came from Trondelag and were used to dealing with Arctic conditions and trading with the Laps. Uh, people who knew how to exploit the fjords and the, and the fishing in uh, the North Atlantic. From the start, Iceland was a daunting prospect. There were very few trees. They were all dwarf trees. Uh, there's plenty of pasture. And the Icelanders get to um, raise cattle, sheep, and horses. And these would be the sturdy Scandinavian ponies very easily. There's no natural predators. There's virtually no insects on the island. It's just so far north. Uh, there's lots of uh, neat sea creatures like um, seals that you can uh, hunt and um, seagulls. There's uh, all a variety of eggs you can get from the sea creatures, the, uh, the birds. Uh, there's a fair number of uh, other uh, sea mammals that show up. But your uh, chance of growing anything like fruits and vegetables and certainly grains is very, very limited. So from the start, Iceland was going to have to depend on imported foodstuffs, particularly grain and other products, back from the home country of Norway. The sailing distances are also daunting. And it is probably something on the order of 600 statute miles to go from Bergen, uh, today the main port of Norway, in nor southwestern Norway, uh, to the eastern shores of Iceland. Um, under the best of circumstances in the Viking Age, given the fact that a cargo ship could do maybe four knots, ordinary sailing, uh, you might be able to make the voyage in anywhere from seven to ten days. Most Vikings, once the routes were known, most Scandinavians went from Norway to the Shetland Islands. It's about a two-day sail, maybe a three-day sail. Then from the Shetlands, they would head to the Faroes, uh, which is a set of islands midway between the Shetlands and Iceland, and from there they could make the leap to Iceland. They were assisted by the fact that there were changing colors in the water, driftwood, the flight of birds. That is, they knew that that land was in sight, and in effect what they do is a form of island hopping. Even so, even when these, land, these sea routes have been worked out, it was dangerous by anyone's standard. Um, fogs were frequent. It was easy to get lost in a fog and completely turned around. There is no evidence that the Scandinavians ever used a compass or what is sometimes called a sun compass or a sundial. They reckoned latitude by taking the readings of the midday sun. If the sun was blocked, they couldn't do any readings. They could very easily end up sailing in the wrong direction. Uh, they also navigated by the stars. They navigated by instinct. They knew it was so many sailing days from here to there. There were no written technical manuals. You're still dealing largely with an illiterate society. And to give you some sort of sense of how dangerous it is, uh, there's a favorite anecdote of mine that comes out of Laxdala saga, uh, one of the great family sagas of, um, of Iceland. And the, uh, one of the characters in there, Olaf the Peacock, a uh, delightful figure, really, uh, around 960, was sailing from Norway back to Iceland on a very well-known route. I mean, he had sailed it a number of times, and they ran into foul weather, and sure enough, they had mist for a number of days, and they got all turned around. Finally, the mist lifts, the sun comes out, they get some sort of read on the latitude, but they don't know what direction they're going, 
and the crew gets confused and gets into an argument and debates and decides to take a vote on which direction to sail. Now, you have to realize you're out in the middle of the North Atlantic. You left the Shetlands days ago. You could end up sailing in a very, very wrong direction here. And uh, Olaf refuses to abide by the idea of a majority vote and instead goes to the skilled uh, navigator and, and tells him to decide, noting, as he says, I want only the shrewdest one to decide because, in my opinion, the Council of Fools is all the more dangerous the more of them there are, which also gives you a pretty good savvy, pragmatic sense of Norse skippers. Uh, there is no accident that Thor is the most favorite god of the Icelanders because he's the god of skies, of mists, of storms, of rains. I mentioned, I believe, in an earlier lecture that Helgi the Lean, who is a brother of Un, the deep-minded, this wonderful family that leaves in the early 10th century and establishes so many important families in Iceland and whose descendants are the subject of so many family sagas, that Helgi the Lean always said that on, on land I will, I will worship Christ, but at sea I always invoke Thor. And uh, again, another part of the very practical uh, aspect of Icelanders that comes up time and time again in their sagas and in their laws. Um, in any case, the discovery of Iceland was assisted by the fact that the Norse had uh, already established bases to get there. They had settled the Shetland Islands at the end of the 8th, the beginning of the 9th century, and established actually in the Shetland sort of a mini society you would see in Iceland. It's, it's based on stock raising with similar farmsteads. And a farmstead has been excavated in the Shetland since the 19th century. It's known as uh, Jarlshof, uh, which um, actually can be now accessed very easily on a website uh, maintained by Professor Christopher Fee of the University of Gettysburg, which gives you a pretty good sense of what a farmstead would have looked like in uh, Iceland or in Norway. Uh, it's, it's, a Nor it's a Norwegian colony. They're using the same type of architecture used both in, in Norway and Iceland. And then uh, shortly afterwards, sometime toward the middle of the ninth century, they discovered a group of islands known as the Faroes. These are 17 treeless islands midway between the Shetlands and Iceland. And again, Norwegians moved in. They're ideal for stock raising. They're largely treeless, but they're ideal for uh, developing wool, uh, salted meat. And both the Faroes and Shetlands were important uh, way stations for any sailing out to the North Atlantic, as well as sailing to Ireland and to the British Isles. And so those islands were always visited and were in constant uh, touch with Norway, and that would make the trip to Iceland easier. Well, it's sailing to the Shetlands and to the Faroes that lead to the discovery of Iceland, which was accidental. The first figure that we know who made it to Iceland among the Norse, there were some Irish monks there, apparently, who had gotten up to Iceland around the 7th or 8th century. They're called popper in Norse sources. They're hermits. And they probably got there on those kurogs, those skin boats without keels, bouncing along the waves. Uh, the idea of sailing in one of those things is really daunting to me. I could manage a longship. I don't think I could ever do an Irish kurog. Uh, but in any case, there were just a, a number of hermits who were there. And the Norse sources tell us that they left when the Scandinavians arrived because these Irish holy men did not want to be among pagans. Well, the first fellow who uh, found it from the Scandinavian viewpoint was a Swedish merchant called Garter. And Garter was a, um, a merchant from Sweden who had property both in Denmark and the Faroe Islands, and he really was aiming for the Faroes and missed it and ended up finding Iceland. He landed on the east coast of Iceland. 
He sailed around and proved that it was an island. And he also noted the amount of sea creatures that were there and the fact there seemed to be no humans, no predators, and got back to the Scandinavian world and reported his findings. This may have occurred, occurred somewhere around 870. There are two other figures who are credited with discovering Iceland. They seem to come after him. Uh, one of them was a Viking name, uh, named uh, uh, Nadod, who was a famous Viking who raided in Ireland. And once again, he hit Iceland by mistake sometime in the early 870s. He made landfall on the eastern shores of Iceland. Uh, he was immediately appalled. Uh, as a Viking, he was wondering, like, uh, where are the monasteries, where are the girls? There's nothing there. He climbs up on a huge mountain and apparently sees the interior of Iceland and realizes, oh my gosh, there's nothing here. We are in the wrong place. Names the island Snowland, and this is what it is in Norse, gets back in his ship and immediately goes back to the pharaohs to look for Ireland, where he wants to carry out some raids. Uh, but he does report the existence of this island. The third discoverer is, uh, well, he's kind of a discoverer and settler in the same vein, is a Norwegian. And he's known very often in the sources as Raven uh, Flocky, uh, or sometimes Flocky the Lucky. And he uh, headed up an expedition with cattle and, and, and settlers to establish a colony out in this new area. And he, he sailed to uh, Fjord, landed there, and set up a farmstead. Unfortunately, he didn't put in enough hay. His animals all died over the winter. He was locked in by the glaciers and the iceberg, and not the glaciers, the icebergs. And he, he, he abandoned the project and went home to Norway and simply said this was a hopeless venture. But the members of the crew uh, were not as pessimistic as Floki or Raven Floki. The reason it's called Raven Floki, he used to release ravens at regular intervals to see if they would come back or not. If they didn't come back, that meant Iceland was nearby, a common way of uh, uh, determining where the land was in sight. And um, the other uh, members of the crew, however, said, look, there's lots of land, uh, ample opportunity uh, for pasture, not much timber. It's only dwarf birch and other trees, uh, but no Irish, no English to fight. And very, very quickly in the 870s and 880s in the crowded districts of western Norway and Trondelag, many Norwegians decide to make the trip. And somewhere between 870 and 930, uh, Iceland fills up with settlers from Norway. The Icelanders are very conscious of their genealogy and their descent of the original settlers. And we have some remarkable works that were that were put down based on oral tradition that record the settlers who went there. And this was a work put together by Ari uh, Thorgelson, known very often as Ari the Learned. He lived from 1067 to 1148. He composed two books. The most important of his books is the Landnama book, which means in Norse, the land-taking book, or the Book of Settlements is how it's usually translated. It is a coherent narrative. It's a narrative he put together from family sources and traditions, earlier uh, reports. And he names over 430 settlers by name uh, who brought their dependents and families, mostly from Western Norway and Northern Norway, to Iceland in this 40 or 50 year period. And it is from this book that we're able to deduce, and scholars debate on this, whether it's 5,000, 10,000, or 15,000, 
people crossed the North Atlantic in these cargo vessels, the Canar, the, the ships that have been reconstructed from the Danish finds, to, with their families, with their animals, to settle in Iceland and set up farmsteads and take over this free land. And very quickly, less than a, just over a generation, the island fills up. They included some very prominent people uh, from Western Norway. I mentioned one of them, Un the Deep-Minded, or sometimes known as Oud the Deep-Minded, uh, two versions of the same name. Uh, she's typical. Uh, she and her, she's uh, the sister of Helgi the Lean I mentioned earlier. Uh, that's one of her brothers. Um, she uh, was married to a very famous Viking. She claimed descent uh, from a guy called Olaf the White, who may or may not have been uh, the uh, Norse king of Dublin. Uh, she left uh, Norway, according to what we're told in the various sagas, uh, particularly Lakstala saga and Jarl saga, two great family sagas that are, are some of the finest family sagas that have come down to us, that she left because she really was um, uh, dismayed uh, by the unification of Norway under Harald uh, Finehair. And her departure is somewhere between 900 and 915. And there's sort of a minor scholarly debate about this, but the Icelanders were convinced that it, wasn't not only, it was not only the attraction of free land and no opposition of taking that free land, but that many Norwegians had made the trip across the Atlantic to escape the tyranny of Harald Finehair, who somewhere between 880 and 930 imposed his authority over Norway by using the professional Viking uh, companies, the, the great fleets of the Viking Age. Now, many immigrants may not have been so motivated. Un the deep-minded is a remarkable lady. She sailed from Norway to uh, the Orkneys, uh, married a daughter off, uh, went to the Shetlands, went to the Pharaohs, marrying, marrying daughters off to leading figures all the way, and eventually landed on eastern Iceland and, and settled on Breidafjord on the west. Uh, her voyage is very significant. The voyage to Iceland was probably made about 915, and one of the most um, uh, impressive uh, side comments made in that voyage in the sagas is that it was a good voyage. Uh, that even though the ship was wrecked uh, when they arrived at Iceland, uh, none of the uh, passengers or, uh, and none of the cargo was lost, which gives you some sort of sense of the dangers of sailing even when sea routes were well known. This act of colonization, you know, from 870, 930, even though, the, even though they knew the direction, it was a chance at all times uh, going out into the North Atlantic with these Viking ships. I think of Eric the Red's effort to um, colonize Greenland. He set sail with 25 ships to Greenland, and only 18 of them made it. In any case, um, she is typical of the leading Norwegians who go to Iceland, and there is a sense uh, among Icelanders, and this affects their laws, their saga histories, their self-image, that they were tough and rugged people, their ancestors, who were not going to buckle under kings, to kings. And it is one reason why the Icelanders are so conscious about governing themselves by the ancient Germanic assembly, the thing, and eventually Iceland will be divided into four quarters. Each quarter will have its own things, that it's its assemblies, and that all of these assemblies will eventually send representatives after 930 to a national all thing, a all thing is literally, it's, it's obviously the Norse is almost the same as the English, that is the national assembly to adjudicate cases among 
Icelanders, uh, disputes, uh, law cases, and also to handle what little foreign policy and national policy was necessary. That is, uh, the ratification of a treaty, maybe with a Norwegian king, uh, the conversion of Iceland uh, to Christianity in 1000 is ratified in the All Thing. And so what Iceland, um, Icelanders saw themselves were as a group of, of rugged settlers and uh, came out to this distant island and carved out a new society based on ancient dramatic practices of governing themselves and very, very intensely proud of that independence. There are no cities or towns in Iceland. They, Iceland, they are isolated farmsteads. That is, a leading figure such as Un the Deep-Minded or Helgi the Lean built a large farm, usually overlooking a fjord, and, and set up against a, um, a range of hills that gave them easy access to pasture and to, well, what forests they had at the time, dwarf trees, so that they could move their animals up to the pastures, and they also had easy access to a protected fjord where ships could come in and beach themselves. Um, so that you had farmsteads which might involve uh, family units of at most several hundred people, many of them are 50 people, some of them are very small. Uh, there is constant movement, you know, riding from farmstead to farmstead, they're sailing along the shores that keep these people together. There are the social meetings of the quarter sessions of the things. That is, each quarter of Iceland after 9.30 has, has regional things. There's the great national thing that meets in southwestern Iceland today um, at, at Thingvalar where they're, they're all able to come together and decide. Uh, but it is a land without cities, without the need for government. Uh, there's, there's taxes, any of that, and it is governed by a society of independent farmsteads uh, dominated by, uh, the really inadequate word for this is a chieftain, a, a, a goatee or gothi in Old Norse, gothar in the plural, who acts as the adjudicator and mediator of these extended families grouped around uh, the farmsteads, which we'll discuss in more detail in upcoming lectures. And so what you have in Iceland is a society in some ways that brought uh, political institutions uh, from Scandinavia, which simplified or even devolved into a much simpler pattern of government. And it is a remarkable experiment in self-government. Uh, and the Icelanders themselves to this day refer to their Viking age from the time of settlement in the 870s and 880s, down to, uh, really down to uh, 1264, uh, when the last thing accepted the Norwegian king as their lord, that, uh, which is often known as the Free Republic or the Independent Republic of Iceland. Uh, that is a, a society governed uh, by its landed classes, uh, meeting in assemblies without the need of kings, without the need of governments, armies, taxes, and all of that. Um, the uh, All Thing also turned out to be the major social institution that kept the Icelanders together. In reading the sagas, Icelanders would go to these uh, legislative meetings, and that's where they would conduct marriages, uh, business contracts. And to give you some idea of how simple the society was that emerged in Iceland, there wasn't any kind of formal structure. Uh, when you go to the All Thing, uh, and, and, and it's now a national park in Iceland, there's these beautiful falls. It's in a marvelous setting. Uh, there's a place known as the Law Rock, where the law speaker 
who's elected for a three-year term, stands and recites the law from memory, one-third each year, and he's got other fellows around there, Go, um, um, Godar, that is, uh, chieftains who make sure he doesn't make any mistakes. Uh, if you have any kind of major settlement you wish to announce, you will announce it at the Law Rock. If you wish to bring a uh, prosecution against your neighbor, it would be, uh, it would be announced there. The mediation would assume, uh, ensue according to customary law. And so the social, political, even a great deal of the economic life revolved around uh, these assemblies for self-governance. And otherwise, the society was remarkably self-regulating. And this is the society reflected in the sagas and uh, in the poetry that has come down to us. Well, um, the um, Icelanders therefore saw no real need to ever set up something like an army or a fleet. And the irony is the type of society that was created in Iceland uh, by 930 increasingly comes to depend on trade with Norway and with Norwegians doing the trade. As in the case, and this is where an interesting analogy can be made to England, as in the case of the Danes who settled in England, the Norwegians who went out to Iceland were primarily interested in pasture, stock raising, setting up their own farms and property. And in so doing, they turned themselves from Vikings and um, a seamen into farmers. They still have a remarkable Viking spirit in them in the way they wage blood feud, which will be the topic of a good deal of an upcoming lecture. But nonetheless, they lose their skills in navigation. Furthermore, they have landed on an island in which they cut down the dwarf trees and proceed to change the island ecologically and by the early uh, 12th century have essentially wiped out the trees and are ruining the island so that they are essentially marooned. Without the import of uh, timber and foodstuffs from Norway, Iceland can't survive. And that Norwegian connection becomes all important in determining the direction of later Icelandic society in the Viking Age. Lecture 20, Iceland, a Frontier Republic. In this lecture, I plan to cover Norse Iceland or Viking Age Iceland as a frontier society. And this frontier society should be understood in two ways. One is the social and economic conditions that led to the type of settlement patterns I briefly described in the last lecture. And then to look at the society, see how it governed itself, and why this term is applied to it. Because the Icelandic society that emerged in the 10th and 11th century, while Scandinavian in origin, is a distinct, in fact, a unique society that responded to the unusual conditions, not only of the landscape and the terrain, but also of the people themselves who moved into this new homeland. And uh, Iceland has been illuminated to us from two remarkable set of sources. And again, as I lecture in this series, I, I refer to the Icelandic literature. Uh, these are the family sagas, the Norse sagas, uh, written in Icelandic, most of them written between the mid-13th and mid-14th century, 
Uh, but referring to figures who were involved in the original act of settlement in the period of the 10th century and into the early 11th century. Uh, these family sagas are a very controversial uh, uh, source. Uh, they have been used in various ways. The initial uh, attitude towards the family sagas is that they were really accurate narrative chronicles of family events, the people who went out there. In the last lecture, I referred to um, the family of Un the Deep-Minded and Helgi the Lean, known in, in two of the great family sagas, Njal Saga and the uh, Lakstala Saga. Um, then there has been an attitude that's set in in more recent years that these are more like historical novels, that they are written sometime after the event, anywhere from 100 to 200 years later. Uh, there's been a great skepticism. And now there's a new opinion, a new, much more balanced opinion, which is taking the sagas in tandem with uh, that other important evidence we refer to, and that's archaeology. And that is being pioneered, above all, by Professor Jesse Byock, um, who has written an absolutely groundbreaking book on Viking Age Iceland, and uh, upon whose book I draw for this lecture and other lectures about Iceland. And Bayok, who, who maintains a website of his archaeological excavations, has gone a very long way in showing how the sagas can be used to illuminate social and economic conditions. Uh, his excavations are state-of-the-art and have revealed an enormous amount of information on diet, on the types of weapons that were used. Um, there's a minor debate running in the literature whether Viking Edge weapons were really as sharp as the sagas say. You read these uh, marvelous sagas. The, uh, the, the, the fight in Yao Saga between um, Gunnar and his brother uh, against eight other men who were, have insulted them um, is uh, described in detail. And, and Gunnar uh, fells four men immediately, you know, cutting off legs and lopping off arms. And uh, Bayak has been able to excavate skeletal remains in Iceland, in uh, the Mosfell Valley area, which are some of our few accurate skeletal remains we have of the Ice Icelandic age. And he and like and as he likes to point out, uh, one of those was someone who was done in by an axe. And at least one person in Iceland in the in the 11th century had a very sharp axe. It was a single blow that knocked that skull open in half. Um, so it's in this new uh, effort to bring the sagas in sync with the archaeological evidence that is producing really exciting results in illuminating Iceland and then the wider Viking Age. And what my opinion is, and the opinion of the, um, uh, the newer scholars uh, following in the wake of Bayok, is that uh, these Icelandic sagas, they cannot be pressed as completely historical documents. They were never intended that way. But you're dealing with a society that had a very powerful oral tradition, that was very conscious of its descent from the original settlers, and also had in, in its mind key events in their history that everyone knew. That is, the creation of the All Thing in 930. Uh, the, the discovery of Iceland around 870, which can be verified by actually geological uh, evidence. Uh, the um, reform of the All Thing in 965, the conversion in 1000 and that these uh, family events are fit into this framework fairly accurately. Above all, they give us remarkable descriptions of daily life, of legal actions, a divorce, uh, settlements over blood feud that had to be consistent 
with existing customs if the story was to mean anything to an audience who were the direct descendants of these people as well as still behaving along the same lines of these people a hundred years later. And so with this proviso, the Icelandic sagas, um, the family sagas in tandem with the archaeology uh, can be used as a legitimate source to tell us what Viking Age Iceland was all about. Well, one of the first things I'm, I should uh, discuss in the, the, the first part of this lecture is exactly what these excavations and sagas tell us about the conditions in Iceland that led to the development of a frontier society. And that was just the, um, the nature of the settlement itself. I stressed that what happened is Icelanders moved in, or Norwegians moved in, and established independent farmsteads. Usually these were prominent people who built the main farm, and what they did is they acted like lords or jarls the way they could not perhaps do back in Norway. Uh, usually these settlements were founded as a religious action. We're told in a number of the sagas that the initial family that settles in the area would throw two pillars over the side of the ship and wait for those pillars to be washed ashore. And wherever they landed, uh, they would take the pillars and set up a farmstead in that vicinity. And given the currents and the flow of these pillars, they usually were carried into an ideal fjord uh, where you had a sheltered harbor and, uh, and pasture available. Those pillars became the central focus of a hall and were seen as sacred to Thor. And in the great hall of a Gothi, of a chieftain, um, or um, the chieftain's wife, in the case of Un the Deep-Minded, she had the powers of a go Gothi, even though she herself was not one. Uh, essentially, uh, the Icelandic farmers created for themselves a position of, of security and land that put them in a very, very high class if you went back and looked at homeland Scandinavia, such as in Norway. Uh, Norwegian kings are really quite astonished at the prosperity of Icelandic farmers. Uh, there are no peasants. Um, uh, many Icelanders maintain slaves or thralls, as they're called, uh, and they have dependents. But the size and wealth of the, um, uh, the farmers, the landed class in Iceland, is really quite exceptional and probably not the norm in, in various parts of Scandinavia. They, however, exploited a landscape that they came to ruin rather quickly. Um, by the year 1100, there's clearly serious ecological problems, and this is because Icelanders moved in, taking all this free land and carrying that great dramatic tradition that wealth was cattle, that the most noble occupation was raising cattle. If you can't raise cattle, you raise sheep. Uh, they all had horses, and the result was the extension of the pasture. Uh, the dwarf trees, uh, largely birch, which take you know, decades to grow because of the, uh, the harsh conditions were methodically cut down for building material, for charcoal, for forging iron, and uh, for fuel. Uh, very quickly in the 10th century, it becomes clear that timber has to be imported from Norway. The destruction of those forest zones led to a deterioration of the uplands, which then reduced the grazing, which pushed people down to the coast. Uh, by 1200, there is a serious economic and demographic problem resulting from the destruction of those uplands, which are leading to massive erosion. And that's one of the reasons why Icelandic society gets itself into trouble in the 13th century and eventually settles that by putting itself under the crown of Norway. It's also a society that from the start uh, required uh, the cooperation of all members of the family and probably explains a great deal the social patterns that we see in the sagas. 
Men were engaged in two major occupations. That was in stock raising and in some type of hunting or fishing. Uh, these were the main way in which uh, food was provided. This took men away long periods uh, from their farmsteads. Uh, the leader of the farmstead would go up to the high pastures. They also, um, there's also a middle area, the so-called uh, shealing, where they'd build a little residence midway between the farmstead and the high pastures, where they would spend uh, a couple of months uh, counting animals, uh, shearing them, slaughtering them, uh, before they sent them up uh, to high pastures of summer and then brought them down to the lower pastures in the winter. There's this constant movement of animals, which took the men away from the farmsteads for much of the time. Uh, there's also fishing, uh, especially for uh, sea mammals and birds. That's an extremely important occupation throughout the entire of the Viking Age. Major supplement to the food. And that meant, incidentally, the best way to bushwhack your rival is when he's at one of these shealings counting the sheep. He's probably alone and not very well armed. So in a blood feud, that's where a lot of the battles end up being fought. Um, but this took the men away from the farmsteads for a long time, and as a result, the leading lady in the Icelandic household uh, really ran, this, uh, ran the operation. Now, this was probably true in Scandinavian society all along. When you're living in those harsh northern climates, and where food is in short supply, and women's major task is preparing the food and weaving, especially preparing uh, linen, woolen garments, um, this means that you do not have the luxury to seclude your women. You do not have the luxury of, say, the Mediterranean world or uh, the more wealthy Near East uh, of large numbers of ornamental females. Uh, those women have to be able to produce, and they are expected to do certain types of jobs, and they are going to be left alone running the household and managing the children for a good part of the year. And there are frequent incidents in Icelandic sagas where the member of one family, a, a prominent member of the family or a Gothi, is riding to meet a relative or a friend of his to get some sort of advice on a legal issue, usually. Uh, should I pursue, to, pers uh, pursue a blood feud? Um, should I make this marriage? Whatever. This is very common. Uh, uh, Gunnar and Yal are doing this all the time in Yal Saga. And they come trotting into the household, and the, uh, the, house of the, ho uh, the lady of the household in Njal Saga, this is always um, uh, Bergthor, uh, Thora is there, and, and she says, well, my husband's not here, but I can handle it. Don't worry about it. Uh, and she handles the hiring of people. She handles the um, uh, negotiations, uh, initial negotiations, for instance, on, well, I'm here to handle this settlement on such and such on the law dispute. Uh, she, as a woman, does not actually have legal right to make a decision, but she certainly can report everything to the husband. And in the sagas, uh, most of the powerful leading ladies are also more than willing to give their opinion on what the husband should do. And the conditions that put an enormous stress on women managing those households leads to the legal position of women that we see in the first set of Icelandic laws, the so-called Grey Goose Laws, uh, the Gragas, uh, probably written around 1115 or thereabout, uh, which uh, record customary law and very much conform to what we get incidentally in the sagas. Uh, women end up having enormous number of powers, for instance, in administering property. Um, she can actually hold a chieftainship through uh, delegates, through male members. That is, the power of being a chief, a gothi uh, or a goti, you can, 
you can transliterate either as a D or a TH from that runic letter. Um, that power could be exercised by a woman through male relatives with no problem in Icelandic law. She could administer it and, and actually take the profits from it, which involved uh, judicial settlements of different types. Uh, they had powers of divorce that are really quite remarkable. In Laxdala Saga, one of my favorite sagas, um, uh, the leading lady, uh, Gudrun, <laughs> a formidable woman, uh, carrying the same name of the one of the heroines of the Volsun Saga, uh, she marries four times. She gets rid of one of her husbands, uh, who is really quite a, you know, really a rather feckless figure, uh, by manufacturing for him a, uh, um, a shirt that's in the form of a woman's blouse, so it's rather low cut. Uh, he puts it on inadvertently, not knowing that he's been duped, and she immediately announces to her witnesses, you see my, son, my husband is cross-dressing, I'm divorced immediately, rides off to a male relative and makes off with most of the property. Well, this, this husband wasn't particularly bright anyway, but it gives you some idea of how powerful uh, leading ladies could be. Uh, they are also in the Icelandic sagas usually depicted as the leading characters egging on blood feuds. Uh, the blood feud in Yao saga is between two ladies, Halgard and um, Bergathora, uh, and they're pursuing the blood feud while the two husbands, who are best friends, are doing everything in their power to settle it and try to get out of it. And, um, and Halgard is really a piece of work on that. Um, and on the other hand, um, you can go overboard. Some of the scholars have said, well, this shows a misogynist attitude in the sagas. No, there were, there were such powerful women, because if you go through the sagas, you can find just as many instances and these aren't as prominent because they're not as vivid. You don't remember them as well when you read the sagas. But you find just as many instances or almost as many instances when wives and sisters and mothers counsel caution to their husbands. And uh, the best one that comes to mind in Lockstala saga is a, a dispute between two half-brothers, Hoskold and Hrut, and they're ready to go at it. And it's really Joran, uh, uh, the, the wife of Huskol, who finally brings him to his senses at, at a dinner table and said, you really want to pursue this against your brother, your half-brother. And she acts as the voice of reason and moderation. And I think this, this um, depiction of women that comes through in Icelandic sagas and is confirmed in the legal rights they have, and it's, you know, legal documents are always highly stylized, so it's difficult to, to know what it means, is it do reflect a social reality. And that is in households, women had a lot of important tasks to do. And one could think for a moment what those tasks were. In the preparation of food, you are living below the Arctic Circle. Um, they uh, exploit terp uh, later on certain types of uh, seaweed as well as wild grasses to act as substitute for wheat. They're involved in spinning and weaving all the time. And you're in a society that does not have monetized markets. It doesn't have cities. Um, uh, wealth is usually accounted for in cloth homespun cloth measured by the local unit, the L, uh, and that is the measuring unit used in Icelandic law. This is a, so it's a society without coin money. It uses either silver bullion in, in very expensive operations or cattle, but fundamentally it's cloth, and cloth is manufactured by the women of the household. It, that, is the, that is the money of the realm, in, in, in a sense, in Iceland. They have to prepare food, and in Iceland you waste nothing. This includes uh, taking all sorts of parts of animals, which most people would consider inedible, boiling them down, stuffing them into salt, sausages, uh, turning them into some sort of edible food that can be used for that long stretch of the winter, 
where you're going to slaughter animals and you're somehow going to try to calculate to make it to the spring. Uh, that is part of the task of the lady of the household. And there is uh, a number of difficulties in doing this in Iceland. For one, there's no rock salt and you can't evaporate seawater very readily. It's too far north. And so there's very little salting. You have to dry things in the wind. You have to boil it. Uh, the preparation involved in running these households is enormous. Um, there's, there's a limited amount of butter and cheese. And what they do is they take a, they have, there's a coagulated or fermented type of, of sour milk, which is really taking a membrane from a pig and introducing it there to ferment it. It, it tastes awful, but it allows you to eat this dairy product uh, through the winter. It's the uh, uh, same thing as consumed when you're on long sea voyages. It is because of the success in managing this uh, landscape and exploiting the resources that the population rises and probably peaks at about 70,000 people in the year 1000. And to give you a sense of what that means for Iceland, that is probably about as populous as the island is. Um, there are declines and recoveries thereafter. You're hit by certain uh, volcanic operations, uh, eruptions that are very destructive in the 12th century. Um, there's a major um, impact of the Black Death. There's that great volcanic eruption in the 18th century. Uh, the population does not get up to the level of the Viking Age again until the end of the 19th century. And so by 1000, uh, some would see uh, the time of the conversion to Christianity. In many ways, that represents the pinnacle of the success of the early settlement of Iceland. As I mentioned, they've always been economically dependent on Norway, um, that uh, increasingly ships are Norwegian ships. Uh, sagas are filled with references of Icelanders who take passage uh, on Norwegian ships go to Scandinavia. And there develops a tradition in the 10th, 11th, 13th century, 12th, 13th centuries of Icelanders going overseas. Some of them go overseas to become poets and saga writers at the great courts or attach themselves to kings. Uh, King Olaf of um, Norway, Saint Olaf, uh, who really is the national uh, royal saint of Norway. One of his great advantages is that he had first-rate Icelandic poets with him recording his deeds, uh, whereas his rival King Canute didn't, so King Canute never got the same PR as St. Olaf. Uh, some of them take service as Vikings or as mercenaries. We know of Icelanders who make it all the way over to Constantinople. They're serving in the distant east. And as the Danish author uh, Saxo Grammaticus uh, says on one occasion, the Icelanders turn their poverty into a genius, into an advantage. That is, they're great storytellers, and we'll get into that in, a, in the next lecture. And because of that, uh, they use that ability in an otherwise rather poor and remote island uh, to gain wealth and fame and reputation by, uh, by going overseas and serving as poets and saga writers. The Icelanders, therefore, were a tough Scandinavian race who were able to adjust to a harsh landscape and certainly for 250 years to really succeed brilliantly in, the, in conditions that would tax almost anyone. The society that comes out of this uh, Icelandic landscape is really remarkable. And uh, this is where the analogy to the American West is both deceptive and useful. Given the patterns of Icelandic settlement, there is no national government in any sense. There is no government that either can uh, make laws or enforce laws. Everything is essentially private. 
There are figures I've mentioned who are known as chieftains. These are a goti or gothi. Um, Gothar or Godar is the way it would be rendered in the plural. And these are not hereditary figures. They are not chieftains in any kind of anthropological model. The, the term chieftain is really an unfortunate translation. Agothi was a leading man in a district who by his reputation, his knowledge of the law, his generosity to his family and his neighbors was recognized as a figure to whom you could go and who would settle disputes, would mediate issues, particularly blood feuds. This is still very much a Viking society. Men and especially women take offense very easily when, there's a, when their honor has been insulted. This could lead to fighting, that is one member of a family killing another and then you have these blood feuds running through the generations. This is often the main theme of an Icelandic family saga. How did these families uh, and all of their extended relations come into a uh, disastrous blood feud? Agothi is someone who is able to resolve these issues, someone who can keep a certain balance in society and whose rulings will be respected. Um, furthermore, the Gothi has a knowledge of customary law. He has a very good memory. Uh, he attends the uh, th uh, quarter things, that is the things held in your district, your quarter, and would go to the all thing. And a, um, the position of Gothi could actually be shared by several men at the same time, that is uh, several uh, members would have it. And if you don't do the job, you can lose your dependents and your so-called thing men, that is, your neighbors who come and seek your assistance. A poor Gothi, a man who's not able to perform the job, will lose the position. It is not hereditary. You can transfer allegiances, and yes, there's a tendency to go with hereditary connection, but that's an important point to make. And so a leading figure in Iceland, a Gothi or a chieftain, is constantly on the alert to make sure that custom and law is followed appropriately and that order is imposed in the society. And the whole nexus of the drama of Icelandic sagas is usually a man in a position who is torn by family ties and kinship to pursue a blood feud or a prosecution and his wider obligations to his dependents and to the society as a whole to mediate and prevent a blood feud. In the Laxdala saga, um, perhaps one of the most romantic and intriguing of all sagas, uh, this is the position of Olaf the Peacock, a figure that I've mentioned in several contexts. His son, Kjartan, is involved in a very dangerous love triangle and is killed by his first cousin and foster brother. That is, these two cousins had been reared together as virtual brothers. They'd gone together. Uh, that cousin is egged on by the wife to kill Kjartan. Uh, the news comes to Olaf the Peacock about it, and Olaf's you know, obligation would be to order a hit on Boli to avenge the death of that son who is clearly his favorite son and his, re, his long stories about his nobility. And yet he doesn't do it. And he, his wife is urging him, eventually his wife does urge on the, um, uh, the killing of that, uh, of that cousin bully. But Olaf's attitude would be, uh, is expressed with, uh, look, to wage a blood feud on Boli would not bring Kjartan back and it would be the equivalent of almost killing another son. I'm tied to him by Foster. It would start a blood feud and he goes for a settlement. That is a compensation. That is the paying out of money, the recognition uh, that a wrong has been done. And he tries to strike the balance uh, the middle way. 
And this is the essence of family sagas, of putting people in this dilemma, and it tells us a great deal of how this privatized justice worked. That is, it was a self-regulating society in which uh, you were, it's, it's a face-to-face -face society, you're under constant scrutiny, honor is important, and one of the qualities prized above all others in Icelandic society was the ability to maintain honor and yet work out compromises and mediation under the most difficult of circumstances. In some instances, it's even argued that the threat of blood feud was often used more as a negotiating device rather than an actual threat to the force of arms and that it was really a rather ritualistic appeal. Uh, and there are instances of it. Now, analogies are made to the American West of this, where you, uh, in this regard, that you had a sort of privatized justice in the American West. Uh, you know, people make analogies to Tombstone and all of this. And yes, there is that sense. You're dealing with societies, face-to-face -face societies, uh, sort of privatized justice. But in the United States, there was always the assumption behind this that there was a government, there were taxes, and this was just a temporary phase. Eventually, more normal legal procedures would come in. In Iceland, this type of society existed through the entire of the Viking Age and remarkably existed to a large degree unchanged after the Icelanders passed under uh, Norwegian rule. And that occurred in a series of votes taken in the individual things uh, between um, 1262 and 1264 in which the Icelanders accepted as their lord the king of Norway. It started with King Hakon IV and ended with his son King Magnus. Now often it's, it's thought that this was essentially the Icelanders voting themselves out of existence uh, because the Norwegian king had an economic lock. That is, the Icelanders literally couldn't exist if, if the Norwegian king interrupted trade. But the situation is far more subtle and really is far more consistent with this Icelandic ability to mediate and compromise out of difficult situations. And they did that exactly again in the 1260s. And that is the deteriorating ecological conditions uh, starting in the 12th and beginning in the 13th century to become very, very marked led to the emergence of some very, some very powerful men in Iceland who had never existed before. Men who could consolidate hereditary power in a way that a traditional Gothi or Godi could not. Um, these included men such as Snorri Sturluson, uh, the famous author of whom I've spoken on a number of occasions, um, the Sturling family. Uh, they, in effect, carved out what Icelanders would call a ricky, a mini-kingdom. And by tw the 1260s, there were about five leading families who had become so prominent in Iceland as fewer got richer, in effect, in the changed economic conditions, and more got poorer. People were losing their land as ecological conditions were deteriorating and they were being pushed out of the pastures, uh, that there was a real danger of a civil war among these powerful strongmen who were beginning to maintain uh, retainers, uh, were uh, acting as if they were dynasts who were fighting for control over the, um, uh, the Christian institutions since 1000 Iceland's been Christian so they're trying to use uh, the, bishop, the two bishoprics as well as the, the other uh, positions as essentially organs of state uh, they're trying to manipulate the, uh, the, um, uh, the all thing and this essentially posed the threat of a major civil war or series of civil war and most Icelanders just 
This was unacceptable. Um, they had a tradition of regulating blood feud, a tradition of mediating, a tradition of compromise, and in effect, they invited the Norwegian king to come in as their overlord and shut these families down. And what happened was, again, a second compromise, and this is to the credit of the two Norwegian kings, King Hakon and King Magnus, who are among some of the great kings of Norway in the 13th century. They understood what was going on, and although Norwegian royal uh, control was imposed, you have the arrival of figures who would be the equivalent of an English sheriff, royal officials, and there was a new codification of laws, uh, King Magnus made sure that most of those laws were customary Icelandic law, and that most of the royal officials operating in Norway were essentially Icelanders co-opted uh, into the royal service so that the traditional rules, the traditional mediation, the traditional society long continued under the Norwegian kings. And the changes of that society would come much later when Norway had passed under Danish control in the Union of Kalmar in 1397. And when the Danish kings in effect get Norway, well, uh, and therefore Iceland, their interest in Iceland declines, and that's when uh, the traditional legal systems uh, really fall out of the way. So even in voting themselves out of existence in a way, uh, this, this republic, the Icelanders again showed their pragmatism, uh, their sense of self-government, and really were the descendants of those settlers who had carved out this remarkable frontier society at, just below the Arctic Circle.